This book contains up to four sides per cassette. Side 1, RC45599, Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes, illustrated by Alan Curlis. Text copyright 1996 by Brian Jakes. Read by David Palmer. This book contains 408 pages on nine sides. If you would like to skip over any remaining announcements or introductory material, place your cassette player and fast forward until a beep is heard. Stop at that point to hear the table of contents, or at the second beep to locate the beginning of the book. Library of Congress Annotation Redwall Abbey has a hidden treasure of six large pink pearls. Tansy, the hedgehog maid, is determined to find them, but so is Emperor Ublaz, who had stolen them years before from the otters of Holt Lutra. Meanwhile, Martin the warrior attempts to rescue the kidnapped abbot Durrell. Companion to Redwall, RC 29729, for grades 5 through 8, 1996. From the Book Jacket The tears of all oceans are missing. Six magnificent rose-colored pearls that inspire passion and greed in all who see them. They have left a cryptic trail of death and deception in their wake. And now Ublaz, Mad-Eyes, the evil emperor of a tropical isle beyond where the sun sets, is determined to let no one stand in the way of his desperate attempt to claim the pearls as his own. At Redwall Abbey, a young hedgehog maid, Tansy, is determined to find the pearls first, with the help of her friends. Each of the pearls is hidden separately, along with a riddle as to the whereabouts of the next. Tansy must succeed, as the life of one she holds dear is in great danger. Meanwhile, the crew of fearsome monitor lizards and corsairs, gathered by Ublaz, grows restless. Empowered by great mystery and swashbuckling adventure, Brian Jakes's newest saga from Redwall is at once his most intriguing and his most entertaining yet. Enjoy the journey. About the author. Brian Jakes has been telling stories for as long as people have been willing to listen. He has performed as a dramatist, comedian, folk singer, and radio show host. But it is as the creator of the Redwall Tales that he has gained international acclaim. Entertaining and enchanting readers in Europe, the United States, and the Far East. The response of American readers to the Redwall series has been unprecedented. Since the publication of his first novel, Redwall, in 1987, Bryan's popularity has increased with each new story. And despite the fact that he maintains his home in England, he is a frequent visitor to classrooms, bookstores, and libraries across the United States. Pearls of Lutra is the ninth novel in the Redwall series, which has also given rise to Brian Jakes's first storybook, The Great Redwall Feast, illustrated by Christopher Denise. Other books by Brian Jakes Mossflower, Matameo, Mariel of Redwall, Salamandestron, Martin the Warrior, The Bellmaker, Outcast of Redwall, Seven Strange and Ghostly Tales, Book 1, Six Tears for an Abbot, Side 1. Book 2, Westward the Warriors, Side 3. Book 3, When Tears Are Shed, Side 6. Reader's Note The map found in the print edition is not included in this recording. 
End of note. O curse the name Mad-Eyes, say woe to the day when he tried to steal tears of all oceans away. All corsairs and sea-rats, whose messmates lie dead, saw blood and hot flame turn the seas flowing red. Though north coast lies far and the ocean is wide, run from the green arrows of vengeance and hide. For the price of six tears, through the dreams of us all, walks the fear of a warrior from the place called Redwall. Now the life of our brethren who followed the sea will ne'er be the same for such rovers as we. T'was the greed of a tyrant that brought us to shame. Six tears for a crown. Curse the emperor's name. Verses taken from an old Corsair ballad. Book One Six Tears for an Abbot One Though Tansy was still only a young hedgehog, she was known to be a veritable rock of good sense by the elders of Redwall Abbey. Because of this she was one of the few youngsters allowed outside the abbey walls, mainly to gather materials for Sister Cicely's remedies. Fine spring sunshine, tinged light green from the semi-transparent new leaves, filtered down through the high canopy of moss-flower wood, and somewhere off deeper in the woodlands a cuckoo sang its repetitive aria to the growing season. Tansy put her basket down upon a mossy knoll and began setting out food, a little chunk of yellow cheese, small fowls of soft nut bread, a few candied chestnuts, and a flagon of elderberry cordial. Fussily she dusted out the insides of two wooden beakers with her apron, then she peered about at the surrounding tree trunks. "'I know you're there, Arvin. Now come out this instant, or I'll eat all this lunch, and you won't get a crumb,' she called. The tiny squirrel leapt from a nearby elm, landing neatly in a sitting position right next to her. Tansy stifled her surprise at his sudden appearance, and busied herself unfolding two clean serviettes, as she lectured her charge severely. "'What have you been told about wandering off? Do you know I'm responsible for you? Just look at those mucky paws. Wipe them off on the moss before you touch a single thing, you maggot!' Arvin scrubbed his little paws on the clean linen smock he wore, leaving two muddy patches across it. He smiled winningly and grabbed a candied chestnut. "'Am never wandled off. No need to be responsible for Arvin. Not getting lost. Oh, no, too starvin' to be losted.' Tansy tried to hide a smile, but found herself unable to. Chuckling, she poured out a beaker of cordial for her friend. "'You're a little maggot. What are you?' "'Me a little starvin' maggot. Hee-hee-hee.' But Arvin eat all lunch, then me be big maggot, and go ho, ho, ho. The little squirrel was never still. As he ate and drank, he hopped around the knoll, chanting, Miggity, maggity, ho, 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 tansy, pansy, toogle do. I'll tansy, pansy you if you make yourself sick jumping around while you're eating, tansy muttered more to herself than Arvin, as she checked over the plants she had collected. Hmm. Old hogweed stalks, young angelica shoots. Let's see, what else did Sister Cicely want? Wintergreen. There may be some by the rocks. She glanced up at the sky. It had been gradually clouding over as they ate, and now a few telltale drops on her face caused the young hedgehog to tut with annoyance. Titch, titch, rain. 
There was no sign of it earlier. Sky was clear as a bell. Come on, Arvin. Help me to pack this lot back into the basket. You can finish your lunch while I search among the rocks. There's good shelter there. Swiftly the two friends repacked their basket and set off east, deeper into the woodlands. A chill wind sprang up, buffeting the treetops, whipping the increasing downpour until rain found its way through and began thrumming against the loamy earth. Tansy shielded Arvin with her cape as he railed against the unpredictable midspring weather. First a sunny, then a rainy wet. It's a maggot. The rocks were dark red sandstone ledges, tilted at a crazy angle in a small scrubby clearing. They pushed up out of the ground, piled against each other like a row of books gone askew on a bookshelf. Gaps caused by erosion formed many small, shallow caves, and Tansy and Arvin huddled under the nearest one as the wind chased the rain. Arvin went into a little dance, shaking himself vigorously. Tansy shielded her face by holding up the basket. "'Be still, you rogue! I'm quite wet enough without you splashing rain all over me. Oh, look, wintergreen!' Reaching out into the rain, she plucked a tiny plant with pale green spear-shaped leaves. Arvin was more interested in warmth. "'Light a fire, Tansy. Make Arvin dry and warm,' he whimpered. Tansy studied the strong-smelling seedling, which had been crushed under paw by them as they entered the cave, explaining to the little squirrel as she did, "'I don't have flints or tinder with me. Besides, old Rollo the recorder says that only grown and experienced beasts are allowed to light fires in the woodlands. Fire is a very dangerous thing if it gets out of control.' Arvin was not impressed by old Rollo's words. Huh, fire very dangerful, cuff war, he said as he hopped out into the rain. Anyhow, Arvin wet now, can't get more wetted, me gonna play. He bounded off out of view, with Tansy calling after him. Stay close to the rocks, do you hear me? Don't go wandering off, and keep that new smock in one piece, or Mother Alma will tan your tail good and proper. When Arvin was out of sight, Tansy sat miserably, watching the rain pattering off the rocks, and staring at the ground in search of other wintergreen shoots. The day out that she had planned for herself and Arvin and Mossflower Woodlands had been ruined by the rain. It wasn't fair, especially after she had begged and pleaded with Alma to be allowed to take Arvin with her. The morning had started off bright and sunny. She had made up the lunch and packed it herself, listened carefully to Sister Cicely's instructions, then set off holding Arvin with one paw and the basket with the other, feeling very grown up and responsible. Wulger, the otter, was on gate duty, and he had winked and tipped his tail to Tansy as he let her out of the main wall gate. She smiled to herself, remembering how Viola Bankbowl had been watching from the rampart steps. That snippy Viola! mincing about and giving herself all kinds of airs and graces, always making smart remarks. But Viola was too flibbery gibbet to be allowed out alone. The young hedgehog had made a special point of waving at her and calling aloud, "'Just popping out to Mossflower. See you later, Viola dear.' The prissy bank bowl had turned nearly purple with envy. Ha! That had shown her. "'Tansy!' Arvin's scream brought Tansy back to the present like lightning, Tossing aside the basket, she hitched up her smock and went dashing out into the rain, scrambling up the rocks as she charged forward to the sounds of the screeching babe. Tansy! Uri! Hurtling along the uneven top of the sloping sandstone mass, Tansy yelled into the wind and rain. 
Arvin, where are you? Keep shouting, keep shouting. Fell down her all. Help, Tansy. Speeding to the spot where the sound came from, Tansy threw herself on all fours, reaching her paws down into a broad crack in the rocks. She felt Arvin's tiny damp paws latch onto hers and breathed a swift sigh of relief. Hold tight. I'll have you out of there in a tick. Before she could start lifting him, the nimble little fellow had scrambled up over her paws, stepped on her nose, and onto the back of her neck, leaping clear and shouting, Looka, looka, down there, ee! Lying face down, Tansy gazed into the rift. With a gasp of horror, she found herself staring into the eyeless sockets of a skull, gap-toothed and grinning, with rain pattering on it to produce the most dreadful hollow sound, it stared back at her. Bleached bones and the ragged remnants of clothing clinging to them comprised the remainder of the skeleton, trapped in the jaws of the narrow rift. Thunder rumbled as a vivid flash of lightning lit up the stark scene. A scream of terror tore itself from the hedgehog maid's throat. Forgetting plants, basket, and picnic lunch, heedless of pelting rain and wind, Tansy grabbed Arvin's tiny paw. Together they leapt from the sandstone rocks, rolling, stumbling, and bounding down onto the wet grass. Both creatures sped off, as if the skeleton had risen from the rift to pursue them. Blindly they rushed through the storm-lashed woodland, footpaws slapping the ground, hearts racing madly, as they sought the path back to the warmth, peace, and safety of their home, Redwall Abbey. 2. Far across the heaving deeps of restless ocean, some say even beyond the place where the sun sinks in the west, there lies the Isle of Sampetra. At first sight, it's a lush tropical jewel set in turquoise waters where seasons never change from eternal summer. But a closer look reveals that Sampetra is rotten as a fly-bone fish carcass. It is a crossroads of evil, haven to the flotsam of the high seas. Corsairs, sea rats, and all manner of vermin sea scum make their birth at Sampetra, the domain of a pine marten, the mighty emperor, Ublaz. He is also known as Mad-Eyes, though none ever called him that to his face, and lived. He dwells in a palace built on a flat-topped escarpment at the island's southwesterly tip. Any ship entering the harbor must pay tribute to Ublaz, and captains who do not choose to anchor at Sampetra are considered to be foes of the emperor. It is his decree that their ships and even their lives are forfeit. They are fair game to his followers. Mad-Eyes is cunning, all-powerful. Like a spider at the center of a great web, he rules Sampatra. No trees grow upon the island, but Ublas has a vast timber stock in his courtyard. Wood for ship repairs is given only to those who pay him heavy tribute. The island is a good place for vermin from the seas to rest and royster. There are taverns dotted about the harbor area. Ublaz is served by a regiment of rats who carry long tridents as a mark of their rank. His trident rats patrol the harbor night and day. However, the most fearsome of his creatures are great flesh-eating lizards known as the Monitors, who have inhabited San Petra for as long as any beast can remember. Only the mad-eyed emperor can control the dreadful reptiles with the power of his hypnotic stare. Conva, the Corsair captain, was not a happy stoat as he watched his steers-rat bring their craft, the vessel Waveworm, into the bay of San Petra after many long seasons at sea. On the jetty, Conva could see lizards and trident rats waiting 
and he knew what they were there for, to take him before the emperor. Had the corsair known any pleas or prayers to the fates, he would have said them right then, hoping that mad-eyes might have forgotten the treasure called Tears of All Oceans. But then he recalled his meeting with Ublas before the voyage, and the eyes, the strange mad eyes that had compelled him to return. Sounds of singing, fighting, and feasting drifted up from the taverns by the jetty as Waveworm hove alongside. Conva was relieved of his curved scimitar and marched off between two monitors and two trident rats. The remainder of the guards boarded the ship to make sure the crew stayed in their quarters until they received permission to come ashore. As he was ushered into the throne room of the emperor, Conva glanced around. It was the peak of barbaric splendor. There were silks, marble, rich velvet cushions, and satin hangings, and the air was heavy with the scent of strange aromatic herbs smoldering in wall braziers. The emperor was seated on a great carved cedar throne. Though Conva feared Ublas, he could not help but admire him. A big creature, this pine marten, strong, handsome, and sleek, with fine brown fur from head to bushy tail, complemented by a creamy yellow throat and ears. He was clad in a green silk robe with a gold border. Blue sapphires twinkled from the handle of a slim silver-bladed dagger thrust into a belt of shark skin. The face of Ublas was immobile. Savage white teeth showed slightly through a thin, almost lipless mouth, and above the curled, perfumed whiskers and light brown nose-tip, two jet-black almond-shaped eyes stared at the corsair captain. All was quiet. Conva stood riveted by the eyes. They pierced him to the core. Silent and mysterious, Ublas sat, transfixing the corsair with his gaze, until words began flowing from the hypnotized captain. Mighty one who knows all, your commands were carried out. We raided the den of Lutra the Otter on the far north shores. They were taken by ambush and slain, every one of them, and all that they possessed was loaded aboard my ship. For the first time Ublas spoke, his voice scarce above a whisper. Tell me what you took, everything. The corsair recited a list of spoils. Beakers set with colored stones, platters also, carved bone, tail, and paw rings, one gold neckband, a box of small purple pearls, and another box made from a hinged scallop shell. This shell contained six large, Rose-colored pearls. The emperor drew in his breath sharply. The tears of all oceans, you have them. Conva began to shiver visibly. He collapsed to the marble floor, his voice trembling with fear. Mighty one, they were stolen. Ublas sighed deeply, slumping back on his throne as if the bad news came as no surprise to him. Tell me how this thing happened. Two monitors entered the throne room, bearing a litter containing the booty from Conva's ship, Waveworm. At a nod from Ublas, they set it down in front of him. The corsair continued his narrative in broken tones. Two moons after we slew the tribe of Lutra, I charted a course following the coast south. I knew a stream of fresh water runs out across the beach near an area named Mossflower. We dropped anchor there and took on fresh water. When Waveworm was ready to get under sail again, two of my crew, both weasels, Flare-Nose and Greylunk, were discovered missing. So were the rose-pearls and the scallop-shell. 
They'd stolen them and jumped ship. I gave chase, tracked them, leaving behind only three to guard the ship. We found Flairnose wounded some three days later. They had quarreled over the pearls, and Greylunk had stabbed him. We searched Flairnose. He had no pearls, though before he died he told us that he'd given Greylunk a bad skull wound when they fought. Two days on, following Greylunk's trail, we came upon a big building called Redwall Abbey. I had my crew scout around it in a wide circle, but the only track of Greylunk we could find went straight to the main door. This Redwall is a large, well-fortified place with many creatures living there. We did not let them see us. Their numbers were ten score more than ours. Greylunk is inside Redwall with the pearls, or if he has died from his wound, then the pearls are still within the walls of that abbey. I could do no more, mighty one, not with the numbers I had. I made it back to my ship with all speed, and hastened here to bring you the news. Ublas moved smoothly around the booty on the litter, shifting through it with his silver-bladed dagger. Dented beakers, bone tail rings, gold neckband, huh? More like brass, he said to himself. Small purple pearls, worthless muscle seeds. Except for the rose pearls, the tribe of Lutra had nothing of value. They were poor as beggars. He ceased his examination and stood over the quaking corsair. And you, bold Conva, what shall I do with you? The emperor's fearsome eyes bored into Conva's mind. His spirit completely broken with terror, the corsair groveled shamelessly at the emperor's footpaws. Mighty one, great emperor, spare me. I will gather more crew and the help of other captains. Give me a chance, and I will go to Redwall and bring back the tears of all oceans. Ublas stepped hard on the back of Conva's neck, trapping his head against the floor. Scum of the sea! Fool who cannot control his own crew, the Pine Martin said, his voice dripping with contempt. Do you think I would let an idiot like you travel halfway round the world to fight a war against Redwall Abbey? I have heard of that place. The bones of warlords molder at its gates. More than one has tried to breach those red walls and died miserably. If I am to retrieve the tears of all oceans, it needs cunning strategy. Ublas pointed his dagger at a trident rat guard. You, go and fetch my monitor general. Leaning down, the pine martin nicked Conva's ear with his dagger. You I will let live until I know the truth of your story. Take him away and billet him in the monitor barracks. Conva knew it was pointless to beg for mercy. He had escaped instant death, but how long would he survive unarmed in the barracks of the strange flesh-eating lizards? He was led off, stunned, almost speechless with terror. Lask Frildur, the Monitor General, stood before the Emperor, flat reptilian eyes unblinking, scales making a dry rustle as his heavy spiked tail swished lazily against the marble floor. Ublas nodded approvingly. The Monitor General had never let him down. Every beast on Sampetra knew and feared the reputation of Lask Frildur. Does all go well with you, my strong right claw? Ublas said, as he poured wine for them both. The Emperor turned his head from Lask's foul breath as the lizard answered, Yar, mighty Nez, Lask Frildur awaits your orders. 
The mad-eyed Martin took a sip of wine and wiped his mouth fastidiously on a silk kerchief. Good. I want you to take the ship of Conva and carry out an important mission for me. The Monitor General's eyes flickered momentarily. I will go the ends of oceans if Ublaz commands. He accepted the goblet of wine that was pushed towards him, holding it at throat height. Lask never let his eyes stray from those of Ublaz. His head did not dip to the goblet. Instead, a long tongue snaked out and lapped at the wine as the emperor gave his instructions. It is a long voyage to where the sun rises in the east, a place called the Land of Mossflower. Take the waveworm and her crew, with Romska the ferret as captain, and a score of your monitors. Here is what you must do. Outside the surf boomed on the sun-warmed rocks of the escarpment, and ships bobbed at anchor in the harbor. Sampetra shimmered under the midday sun, a once beautiful jewel of the oceans, now tainted by the evil of its ruler. 3. Sagatar Sawfang was bigger than most sea-rats, lean and sinewy, with a mean disposition. She was second only to Las Krildur, the monitor-general. Sagittar had fought her way up through the ranks of the Emperor's Trident Rats until she held the undisputed title of Chief Trident Rat. Whilst the rats under her command patrolled San Petra's harbor and taverns, keeping order among the sea vermin, Sagittar leaned on a jetty stanchion, watching Waveworm grow small on the eastern horizon, bound for Mossflower. Grasping her trident haft resolutely, she allowed herself a grim smile of satisfaction. Now she alone was the strong right paw of Ublas, solely responsible for discipline among the wave-scum who anchored at San Petra. Fate, however, is a cruel trickster. Turning her face west, Sagittar saw her happiness would be short-lived. The chief trident rat knew the identity of the bark sailing in from the western ocean. No other vessel flew streaming red pennants from three mastheads. It had to be the freebooter. She wrapped the three-pronged metal head of her trident against the jetty timbers until a trident rat came running to her summons. Tell the full squad to muster on this jetty immediately. Lifting his trident smartly in salute, the rat hurried off. Few ships that sailed into San Petra had a master with a reputation for danger like Baronka, captain of the freebooter. Scorning pawholes, he balanced perfectly, high on the heaving prow, reckless and daring, Baranka was every inch a real swashbuckler, clad in flame-red silks with a long saber thrust into his broad black garnet-studded belt. Loose ends of the corsair's stoat's headband fluttered in the breeze as he pointed shoreward, calling out to his steer's rat, "'Ahar, see, Guja? Tis old Sarpus Sagittar, and a welcoming committee awaiting us. Let's not disappoint him. Swinging nimbly to the deck, Baranka whipped out his saber, and began roaring orders to Freebooter's crew. All paws on deck, and arm yourselves to the teeth, mates! The vessel's crew were a villainous and motley collection, mainly sea-rats, but with a scattering of ferrets, stoats, and weasels. They fairly bristled with an array of cutlasses, daggers, and axes. Baranka drew his weasel-mate blowfly to one side. Don't stand any old nonsense off in mad-eyes creatures, you hear? Blowfly produced a broad curved knife, Showing his blackened teeth, he licked the blade meaningfully, and said, Aye, aye, Captain, 
We'll show them they can't push freebooters' buckos round. Just you give the word. Dangerous, matey. We're dangerous. The corsair tossed his saber high in the air, catching it skillfully as the blade flashed downward. Aha! You watch me tweak Sagatar's tail. I've never liked the cut of that pompous rat's jib, and she don't like me. So there ain't no love lost atwixt us. Two score trident rats stood to rigid attention on the jetty. Grim-faced, Sagatar watched Freebooter heave starboard side on to the pier and make fast to it. Laronka's loud, insulting challenge hailed her. Ahoy, misery guts! Where's Frildor and his lizards today? Sagatar pointed her trident menacingly at the grinning corsair. Lask Frildor is the least of your worries. I'm the one who'll be dealing with you and your rabble, if there's any trouble. Baranka leapt up, straddling the jetty and ship's rail. You don't say. Where's our old mate, the Monitor General, then? Done us all a favor and died, I hope. Har, har, har. Sagatar allowed herself a thin, malicious smile. Not at all. Lask is still very much alive, sailing for the Mossflower Coast on Waveworm at this very moment. Baranka turned and winked at Blowfly. Ho, ho, is he? I'll wager me brother Conva ain't too pleased about that, eh, mate? Having that scaly old reptile aboard as a passenger? Sagatar did not attempt to conceal the pleasure in her voice. Your brother Conva is no longer captain of the waveworm. He is now a prisoner of Emperor Ublas and is kept in the monitor barracks. I'll give him your best regards when I see him. Right. Let's see what you've got on board in the way of tribute. Baraka blocked the chief trident rat's path aboard, his eyes fierce with challenge. Put one paw aboard of my ship, rat, and I'll gut you. Crew, stand by to repel boarders. Freebooter's crew crowded the starboard rail, weapons ready for use against the trident rats. Baraka's gleaming saber tip hovered close to Sagatar's throat. She gulped visibly. I warn you, this is the command of Emperor Ublas you are defying. The Corsair did not back down a fraction. No, it ain't. This is one of your fancy ideas. The tribute for Ublas will be unloaded onto this jetty by my crew. You can come back tomorrow and collect it. Now shift yourself, rat. Sagatar knew she had lost the argument. Drawing back, she marshaled her command, calling aloud to Baranka as they marched off. I'll report this to the Emperor. He will hear of your defiance. The derisive reply stung her as she left the jetty. Report what you're like, Rat knows. Ublas knows my ship always brings the best booty to him, and he trusts me to unload it. Word of Baranka's arrival ran like wildfire around the harbor. He was popular and well-liked by all the pirates on San Petra. Grog was broken out for all sea rat and corsair captains who met with Baranka aboard his ship. Having heard from them of his brother's arrest and imprisonment, he addressed them fiercely. Who does Mad-Eyes think he is, to lord it over us, mates? That Pine Martin was only a corsair like ourselves, who chanced to find this island first. Now he takes the best of our plunder, makes us live by some fancy set of rules he invented, and kills or imprisons who he likes. It ain't right, I tell you. A grizzled sea-rat captain called Slashback answered, Aye, messmate, but Ublas has trident rats and monitors to do his bidden. They enforce the laws round here. Baraka whacked the flat of his saber blade down on the table. 
I remember when sea beasts were free, and the only rules we had were our own. Now look at us. What have we come to, mates? A tall, somber weasel captain called Bilgetail shrugged. No one can stand against Mad-Eyes and his army. Veronka looked around the assembly. You, Slashback, and you, Rockpaw, Bloodsnout, Ripdog, Flaney. You're all captains. You command crews. By my reckoning, we must outnumber lizards and trident rats two to one. Think of that. And here's another thing. Lask Frildor ain't here no more. Who knows if an eel ever make it back? Aye, and a score of monitors gone with him, too. If ever there was a right time for us to take over this island, it's now. There was a moment's silence. Then Ripdog, the weasel, stood alongside Baraka and voiced her opinion. I'm with you, mate. Our lives ain't our own since we've been docking at San Petra. That Pine Martin even has us attacking each other. If and we don't drop anchor here and pay half a cargo to him. Bloodstout, another female corsair, joined her companion. Ripdog and Veronica are right. Ublaz is too greedy. He's got all the shipbuilding and repairing wood piled up back of his place. There ain't any good trees growing on the island no more. Last trip, my vessel run afoul of rocks, ripped part of the stern away. Sagittar and Lask took all my cargo and payment for timber to fix her up again. We should get wood free whenever we needs it. Bilgetail nodded, moving decisively to Baronka's side. I'll join you. Mad-Eyes is growing too powerful. He executed two of my crew for arguing with those monitors over booty. Just had him dragged off and slain. You all remember it. Heads nodded around the table. Baronka stove in the top of a cask with his saber handle. Dip your beakers into this ere seaweed grog, and drink if you're with me, mates. Any beast that don't dip a beaker is against us. The pact for rebellion was sealed as every beaker dipped into the cask. Ublaz stood watching the ship freebooter from the high window slit of an antechamber. Sagittar waited apprehensively at the Pine Martin's side. After a while, the Emperor turned to his chief trident rat. Slashback, Flaney, Rockpaw. All the captains are aboard Baronka's ship. What would you say they are doing, Sagittar? The trident rat chose her words carefully. Mightiness. Who knows what is in the minds of wave vermin? The silver dagger blade tapped gently against Sagittar's tunic. I do. Ublaz knows all. That is why I am emperor. They are plotting against me. They think I am weak without Lask Frildur. But we will show them, won't we, my strong right paw? The trident rat bobbed her head respectfully. As you say, Excellency, I am yours to command. The Pine Martin tapped the dagger blade against his sharp white teeth a moment before giving further orders. Take all your trident rats fully armed, quickly now, and block off the end of the jetty. Do not attack, but don't let any of the captains pass. Keep them aboard the ship, and await my command. Sagittar went swiftly off to carry out orders. Ublaz motioned to a monitor guard. Assemble all my monitors in the courtyard, and bring the prisoner Conva here to me. Grath Longfletch, a daughter of Holt Lutra, should have been dead two seasons ago. She had been found three nights after Conva's attack on her family home, crawling through the mud of a half-dried stream with horrific injuries. Glink, the water vole, and his wife Sitch 
dragged Graf between them to an overhang in a mossy bank close to their den. As best they could, the voles tended the otter, but there was little the pair could do save give her some hot soup and cover her with dry bracken. Graf lay all season long at the very entrance to death's door, some hidden inner flame keeping her alive, reliving in nightmares with loud cries the horrors she had survived. Gradually she recovered and spent her days eating and sleeping, growing slowly in strength and agility. At her request, Blink brought a long, sturdy yew branch to Graf. With a flint shard, the otter scraped and fashioned it, wetting and steaming the wood over a fire. She strung it with flaxen threads, twined and greased by beeswax. Then one by one she made her arrows of ashwood, each as straight as a die, feathered with the green plumage of a lapwing Sitch had found dead upon the shore. Then early one spring morn, Grath rose wordlessly and strode off along the stream shallows. Blink and Sitch followed the silent otter, watching her intently. Except for Grath's request for the yew branch, she had never spoken to them, nor them to her. Blink and his wife seldom spoke to one another. Some bank voles are like that. Near the northern shore both voles sat on a stream bank, where it broadened to meet the estuary. On the opposite bank, Grath was a long time out of sight, inside the holt of her father, Lutra. Emerging stone-faced and still silent, Grath set aside her weapons and went to work. Gathering twigs, root branches, and stones, she piled them up over the holt entrance. She carried mud from the river bank and plastered it over the doorway, mixing it with grass and leaves. It took her a full day and most of the night to seal up the humble cavern, making it a tomb for her massacred family. Afterward, Grath washed herself in the stream. Silvery sky traces showed through her wet fur. Then, standing motionless in the water, she watched the gentle spring dawn spread its light across the skies, blinking as she shed tears for her kin. Gathering her great bow and the quiverful of green-feathered shafts, Grath Longfletch waded to the far bank and took hold of the two bank bowls' paws. Friends, I know not your names, but I thank ye both for taking care of me and saving my life. I won't be back this way, so fortune care for you both. Farewell. Grath shouldered her quiver and bow, then turning west she set off at an easy lope towards the dunes along the shore. Both water bowls stared at the back of the long figure until it was lost to view. Then Glink spoke to his wife. I would not like to be one of the beasts that slew her kin. That creature carries death in her paws. 4. Extract from the Journal of Rollo Bankville, Recorder of Redwall Abbey in Mossflower Country Spring weather can change suddenly as the mind of an old mousewife choosing mushrooms. Deary me, how it can make the most carefully laid plans go astray. This very morning the weather was so soft and fair that Abbot Dorrell decided to hold our first spring season feast out of doors. Poor Dorrell! He spent most of the night in the kitchens, cooking and baking with his friend Higgle Stump. Strange, is it not? Higgle was one of the wine-cellar keepers of the family Stump, yet he wound up as Redwall's kitchen friar. And Durrell was once a lowly kitchen mouse, but now he is Father Abbot of all Redwall. He is such a humble old fellow. His love of the kitchens never left him. Ah, me! Seasons roll upon seasons, and yet our abbey remains the same, a loving old place, filled with happiness and peace, even though our old friends are but memories to us now. 
We who were once young are now grayed with age. Orlando the axe, our great badger lord, roamed off long ago, as male badgers will, to end his seasons at Salamandastron, mountain stronghold of great badger warriors. I do not know if he still lives. Orma, his daughter, is now the abbey mother. Badgers are indeed noble creatures, with a lifespan which no beast can equal. So that only leaves two, Alma and myself, Rollo Backbull, who have lived and prospered in bygone seasons. The others have gone to their well-deserved rest, including Matameo and Tess Churchmouse, whose son Martin is now our abbey warrior. Peacefully they went in the certainty that the wisdom and knowledge they gave to this great abbey is still held strong in the stone of Redwall and in the minds of its creatures who carry on the wonderful tradition. Great seasons, how I do wander off. I should have been called Rollo of the Roving Quillpen. Where was I? Oh, yes, I was telling you of the outdoor feast our abbot had planned. Well, needless to say, as soon as a few tables were carried out to the orchard and some benches to sit upon, swoosh, down came the rain. However, I must own up to the fact that I was not totally unhappy. The great hall inside our abbey is a comfortable place for feasting. Far better for my creaky bones than a drafty orchard in early spring. Poor Mole, the leader of our abbey moles, has convinced the abbot to commence festivities late this afternoon. This will give Formol and his crew time to create a huge turnip and tater and beetroot pie, a most homely delicacy. Actually, I think my poor rheumatism is playing me up a bit, so here I'll end my daily recording and pop off over to the kitchens, where I can savor the sights and smells of the good food. Not that I'm a greedy creature, you understand, merely appreciative, and slightly peckish, too. My warm old cloak will give me sound protection in this awful rainstorm. The walk from gatehouse to abbey seems to get longer as I get older. Rollo the recorder donned his cloak and stirred the fat otter curled in slumber on the hearth mat by the gatehouse fire. Wolger, come on, matey, wakey, wakey. Let's pay the kitchens a visit and see how the feast preparations are progressing. Wolger yawned, stretched and blinked in one movement. Then, scratching his rudder-like tail, he stood up. Wakey, wakey yourself, Rollo. I wasn't asleep, just closing me eyes, cause your scratchy pen was annoying me. Ah, look at yourself. You got more skins on than an onion. The bankroll sniffed airily. Young snip. You'll learn as you get older that comfort outweighs fashion. I need to wrap up warm until tis early summer. The two friends bent their heads against the wind and rain as they left the gatehouse, still keeping up a friendly banter. Listen, you need all that rapping, matey. Stops your blowing off like an old autumn leaf. Know your trouble, fatty tail. No respect for your elders. It makes me shiver just looking at you, trolling round wearing little else but belt and tunic. Gah! Fresh air and a spot of rain never hurted any beast. Come on, wrinkled chops, step out smart-like. The kitchens were a bustle of steam, noise, and merriment. Teasel, the hogwife of Higgle's stump, was crimping the edges of an apple and damson pie prior to putting it in the oven. She was about to open the oven door when a little mole-maid called Diggum 
bumped into the back of her with a flower trolley. Teasel fell backward with a whoop, holding the pie, and landed on top of the trolley. Diggum shot off regardless, head down, pushing the trolley at full speed. Poor Mole saw them coming, swiftly threw down a barrel wedge, and flung wide the oven door where his deeper-never pie was cooking. The trolley stopped with a jerk. Poor Mole grabbed the back of Teasel's apron as she let go of the pie, and it shot from her paws to land neatly in the oven alongside Poor Mole's creation. He grinned and nodded at her, rumbling in the curious mole speech. There you go, Marm. Bain't no sense in wastin' oven spice, har har. Diggum dusted flour from her smock and blinked. Thank ye, Zur. Can I use e other oven for moy chessberry flan? Hormol raised a cloud of flour as he patted her dusty head. Why serpently e can, e little missy. But what be chessberries? Diggum twitched her button nose in despair at Formol's ignorance. Why, chestnutters and blackberries, sir. What else? Teasel the hogwife hid a smile as she took Diggum's paw, saying, Chestnuts and blackberries indeed. Come on, we'll make it together. I'll roll the pastry. Diggum curtsied prettily. Thank ye, Marm, and I'll eat any blackberries what be a wrong size. Friar Higgle's stump was topping off a multicolored woodland trifle with yellow meadow cream, roaring orders all about as he did. Boy, Picknum, see that mushroom soup don't boil. Keep stirring it. Stirring hard as I can, Friar. Shall I throw chopped carrot in? Oi, do that, Missy. Gerbil, be a good mole. Nip down to the cellars and see if my brother Furlow has broached a new barrel of October ale. Tell him I could do with a beaker to liven up my dark fruitcake mixture. Right hose, or though you am sure it ain't to liven up yourself. Get going, you cheeky wretch. Cracklin, see if you can get some of that dried mint down off the rafter hooks. I need to make tea. The squirrel Cracklin shot off like a rocket. She bounced from a stove top to a high cupboard and leapt up to the rafter hooks, skillfully plucking a bundle of dried mint. Cutting a somersault, she landed next to Friar Higgle, dropped the mint in his paws, scooped a blob of meadow cream from the mixing bowl, and vaulted off, licking her paw. Abbot Durrell watched her admiringly as he carried a deep dish to place in front of Higgle. What an acrobat our cracklin' is, eh, Friar? Taste that and tell me what you think, my old friend. With a knife tip, Higgle sampled a morsel from the dish edge. Mmm. Now that is what I call a real honey rhubarb crumble. Durrell shuffled his footpaws in embarrassment at the praise given to his simple offering. Oh, it's just something I made up from an old recipe. Shall we have the tables laid for around twilight? I've lit a good log fire in Great Hall. That'll warm it through nicely. Higgle, topping his trifle, nodded agreement. Good idea, Father Abbot. Have you seen Martin about? Abbot Durrell scratched his chin thoughtfully. Can't say I have. Perhaps he's up in the infirmary with Sister Sicily. I'll go and take a look. Wind and rain shook the treetops of Mossflower until they swayed and undulated madly. Howling gales sang a wild dirge between the weighty tree trunks. Paw and paw, fighting for breath, Tansy and Arvin staggered doggedly on towards the forest fringe. Both of them were weary and paw-sore, and, driven by fright, they had partially lost their way. 
Then Tansy spotted the tall spire of Redwall through a gap in the woodlands. Staggering, the pair ran, slopping through a narrow ditch, fighting against whippy spring brush, and squelching through rain-drenched ferns. Heedless of young nettles lashing at their footpaws, they rounded a massive tree-topped oak, straight into the paws of a dark-cloaked form. Yeek! The baby squirrel and the young hedgehog maid squealed aloud in fright as they felt themselves held by strong paws. Whoa now, my little ones. Here you are. The strong, kindly face of Martin the warrior of Redwall smiled reassuringly down at them. With a shriek of relief, Tansy and Arvin buried their faces in Martin's cloak. Perching Arvin on his shoulder and taking Tansy by the paw, Martin strode back toward the abbey. "'Sister Cicely was getting quite worried about you two, Martin said gently. "'You should have been back at the abbey hours ago when the storm broke. "'Where in the name of seasons have you been, all muddy and scratched, with your clothes torn like that?' Arvin was not afraid of anything now that Martin had found them. He had perked up considerably. "'Me found a scowling tongue and a rocks,' he cried. Martin chuckled. "'A scowling tongue?' In the sandstone rock, sir, Tansy explained. Down a deep crack, there was a skeleton of some beast. Ugh, all white and bony and raggy. Martin saw the young hogmaid was bone-weary. He let her lean against him and shielded her with his cloak. Well, you're safe now, he said. You can tell the elders about it when we get back to the abbey. Oh, I forgot to tell you, there's to be a surprise spring feast in Great Hall this evening. How do you like that, eh, young'uns? But they were both dozing, almost asleep with fatigue. Sister Cicely put both Arvin and Tansy straight to bed when Martin delivered them back to her at the sick pay. They had been sound asleep before Martin arrived at the abbey gate. Spreading his cloak by the hearth to dry, Martin accompanied Cicely downstairs, explaining as he went. Something frightened them in the woodland today. I'll tell you about it when we're with the elders. No beast could be quite sure what made the spring feast such a success, the food or the fun. Martin and Cicely sat at the table with the abbot, Formol, Higgle, Alma, and some other elders. They watched in amusement as the younger ones sat with their food on a thick rush mat, eating and providing their own entertainment. The smallest abbey babes, the Dibbons, ate all in sight with growing appetites. Oi, Dor! Garfy! Pass oi yon fruity cake! Your! Yum can have some of this plum puddin'. Tis torrible tasty. Well, thank ye, my old moly mate. I didn't know it were you buying those cream whiskers. Father Habit, sir, would you like some of my strawberry roly-poly? Smiling, the abbot shook his head. No, thank you, Durgle. I baked that specially for you and Garfy. Besides, I'm enjoying my salad. Nothing like fresh spring salad after the winter. What do you say, Alma? The badger mother held up a piece of cheese in her huge paw. Aye, Durrell, and when there's soft white cheese and hot-baked oat bread to go with it, well, I'm happy. Martin looked up from a steaming mushroom and leaked pasty. I've never seen you sad when there's food about, Alma. Amid roars of laughter at her huge appetite, the badger winked at Martin. Well, sir, I'm only making up for all the food that you used to scoff from in front of me when you sat on my knee as a dibbon. Furlow Stump, the cellar-keeper, poured himself a beaker of October ale. Be you not careful, marm, 
and Martin'll sit on your knee again and scoff all that bread and cheese, I'll wager, he chortled. Rollo put aside a platter which had contained chestnut and blackberry flan and banged the tabletop with a soup ladle. Come on, you young'uns, how's about a bit of song and dance for your poor elders before we fall asleep from boredom? In a flash, Picknum, the mousemaid, and Cracklin, the squirrel maid, were up and bowing to each other as they warbled an old ballad. Oh, look out, it's the terrible too, Sister Cicely murmured in Martin's ear. Picknum and Cracklin sang alternate verses at each other. As I strode out gaily one morning in spring, I spied a fair mousemaid who happily did sing. She sang just as sweet as a lark's rising call, for she wore a green habit, and she came from Redwall. I walked alongside her and bade her good morn, and her smile was as pretty as rosebuds at dawn. She captured my heart, and she held it in thrall, for she wore a green habit, and she came from Redwall. I said, Lovely mousemaid, where do you go to? To Mossflower Wood, sir, for flowers of blue, to decorate my bonnet at the feast in Great Hall, for she wore a green habit, and she came from Redwall. To the woodlands we went, and was there in a glade, I gathered wild bluebells for my young mousemaid. Then I walked her back home, lest she stumble or fall, for she wore a green habit, and she came from Redwall. Pray, sir, said the mousemaid, be my gallant guest. Oh, how happy was I to take up her request, for I never will leave that old abbey at all. Now we both wear green habits, and we live at Redwall. Picknum and Cracklin flounced about, grinning broadly and curtsying deeply at the cheers and applause they received. Alma chuckled, watching Mouse and Squirrel Maid, milking the ovation for all it was worth. Those two, what a pair! Hi there, Gerbil! What about a reel? The little mole took up his drum and thrummed at it with his heavy digging claws, calling to Friar Higgle, "'Come on, Zer Eagle, out with the hog-twanger!' The friar produced his hog-twanger, a curious three-stringed instrument which had belonged to his father, Jubilation Stump. Holding its strings down over his head, he began humming a tune and nodding oddly. As he did, his head-spike struck the strings in time to the nodding and humming, Hogtwangers can only be played by hedgehogs, and Friar Higgle's stump was an expert. Recognizing the lively reel, Abby Babes and Dibbons sprang up and jigged about furiously, calling aloud, Frogs and a gully! Frogs and a gully! Alma sat watching, great footpads tapping, until she could restrain herself no longer. Then the big badger mother of Redwall lumbered out to join the dance, clapping her paws and whooping, Frogs in the gully! Frogs in the gully! Martin and the elders remained seated, helpless with laughter at the sight. Gerbil stepped up the drumbeat, and Higgle kept pace on his hog-twanger. Faster and faster they played. Hopping, skipping, and leaping, the dancers whirled, hallooing loudly. While Alma made her own hefty pace, exhausted Dibbons perched on both her footpaws and were bumped up and down. Then, dropping to all fours, Alma let the tiny creatures climb onto her broad back. When she was fully loaded, the crafty badger danced off in the direction of the dormitories, followed by Higgle and Gerbil, still playing as they shepherded the other young ones up to bed. Later, when she had rejoined the elders at table, Alma sat back and sighed wearily. Phew! I'm getting too old to do that much longer. Martin patted her striped muzzle affectionately. You're a sly old fraud, Alma. You enjoy it more than the Dibbons. 
He poured her a beaker of cold mint tea, his voice growing serious. Little Arvin and Tansy were in a dreadful state when I found them in Mossflower Wood today. Dirty, ragged, weary, and very frightened. Indeed they were, agreed Sister Cicely. Both so exhausted they couldn't speak. I popped up to see them in the sick bay not an hour back, fast asleep the pair of them. Strange, though. Tansy is a proper little rock of good sense. Did she say what had frightened them, Martin? Martin looked around the expectant faces of the elders and said, They found a dead creature in the woodlands. A dead creature in the woodlands? Abbot Durrell repeated in hushed tones. Questions followed from around the table. What sort of creature was it? Where did they find this creature? I wonder how it got there. The warrior mouse held up a paw for silence. Please, let me explain. This was not a recently dead beast. Tansy said it was a skeleton, clad in rotten rags. So evidently it had been there for some time. They came upon it down a crack in the sandstone rocks of the woodlands. I know the place well. Actually, they weren't far from the rocks when I found them. So they must have been running in circles since they were caught in the thunderstorm. Poor Tansy. She was terrified. But doing her level best to protect little Arvin and get him back to Redwall. Poor Mole nodded from behind a large beaker of October ale. Oh, I, she'm a little good beast, all right. Mayap you'm goin' there on the morrow to see for eself, Zer Martin. Martin pushed back his chair and stood up decisively. Why leave it until tomorrow, friends? The night is fine now. I'll go and be back before dawn. No need to upset our abbey creatures by starting an expedition in full daylight. Besides, I can't sleep at all if there's anything bothering my mind, so it's best that I investigate it this very night. Aye, with me by your side, mate, soon as I finds me ash stave. No sooner had Walger, the other gatekeeper, spoken than the others were all including themselves. Her oi, too. He may have need a, a good digger, sir. I'll bring a long stout rope from the wine cellar. Right, and I'll fetch lanterns. We'll be in need of light. Martin hesitated a moment, then nodded. So be it. I'll get the sword. Meet back here as quickly as you can. Alma, will you stay behind and watch the main gate? Gladly, friend. I don't feel much like charging around woodlands after our spring feast this evening. 5. The Red Waller set off north up the path, Martin in the lead, with the sword buckled about his middle. This was the fabulous blade that belonged long ago to Martin the First Warrior, he who had helped build Redwall Abbey and establish the order of Redwallers. The spirit of this brave mouse was said to help the Abbey creatures, appearing in dreams and offering wise counsel in troubled times. For countless generations the sword had been lost. It was Matthias, father of Matameo and grandsire of the present Martin, who had found the sword and restored it to Redwald Abbey. Silent as shadows, the little party slipped into the night-darkened trees. They were skilled in the ways of woodlanders, and knew that stealth and care, combined with speed, was the rule of safety, even in their own beloved moss-flower. There was no moon to light the way east, but Martin was an expert leader. Skirting thickets, bypassing brambles, and staying close to the deep shadows, he led his companions to the clearing where the sandstone rift could be seen, poking up at an angle out of the ground. Martin signaled quietly for Wulger and Formol to accompany him. 
indicating that the rest should stay in the tree shelter at the clearing's edge, ready to come running should they be needed. Drawing his sword, the warrior edged forward. The mole and otter followed, carrying rope and lantern. The rain had stopped, though a sighing wind was still blowing up from the south. Mounting the rocks, Martin waited whilst Formole put flint to tinder and lit his lantern. Shielding the light and the cowl of his cloak, Martin led his friends across the ridged surface. As they came upon each cleft, the lantern was lowered down on the rope to explore its darkness. They had nearly covered half the area when Formole, shuffling backward away from a small fissure, disappeared with a gruff bass yelp. Rum. The lantern was swiftly lowered as Wolger called down to him. You all right, matey? Not hurted, are you? Wiping his paw disgustedly upon his smock, the good mole wrinkled his snout. Yer he is, sir. I find it e skeleton. Yerk. Martin dropped swiftly into the crevice, landing lightly beside Formol. He held the lantern close, illuminating the gleaming white bones that poked through rain-sodden rags. Wolger peered down at the skull, fixed in its death grin. Poor wretch! Fancy dying down here all alone! There was compassion in the otter's tone. Martin knelt and retrieved something from the fleshless claw of what had once been the creature's right front paw. Aye, poor beast! What was it that brought him here? A low whistle from the tree fringe caused Wolger to throw himself flat upon the rocks. Harken, and hide that lamp glim. We've got visitors. Swiftly Martin pulled off his cloak and gave it to Formol. Stay down here. Keep that light covered. Hang on to the rope, Wolger. I'm coming up. Sheathing his sword, the warrior mouse clambered paw over paw up the rope, with Wolger taking the strain. Remain here with Formol. Stay low, Martin whispered. Wraith-like, Martin appeared beside Rollo, among the trees. The recorder squeaked with fright. Ooh, don't sneak up on me like that. The abbot pointed a paw north into the dark tree masses. Over yonder, Martin, I thought I heard voices and saw two white shapes. See, there they go. They caught a fleeting glimpse of whitish forms moving among the trees. Martin nudged Higgle's stump, saying, Bring the ash stave and follow me, friar. Crouching low, they threaded off, carefully avoiding dry twigs beneath the tree cover. Judging the path the intruders were taking, Martin halted between a beech and an elm, signaling his intentions to Hegel. Martin crouched behind the beech and grasped one end of the stave. The friar stooped behind the elm and took the other end. The warrior mouse whispered across to his companion, "'They're coming this way. Hold the stave low until I give the signal.' As the shapes drew closer, voices could be heard. There's nothing dark as the dark, me old mother used to say. Really? Well, that was jolly observant of her, what? I'll wager she used to go on about how flippin' light the day was. Oh, whoop! Martin and Higgle had raised the stave a fraction so that the speaker tripped, sprawling flat in front of them. Immediately Martin saw that the other shape was some type of great bird. Snatching Higgle's cloak, he flung it over the creature, bringing it to the ground. The others dashed across and flung themselves upon the beast who had tripped, trying to pin it down as it yelled and kicked wildly. Ambush, chaps! Bring up the regiment! Tell mother I died fighting! Martin bounced along the ground, towed by the cloaked bird. Then he banged into a tree and was forced to let go. Recognizing the other creature's voice, he dashed back to his companions, yelling, It's all right, release him! It's a hare! 
The hare, whose long legs had kicked most of them flying, leapt up indignantly, dusting himself down and muttering, "'Flamin' cheek! Of course I'm a hare! What do you think I was, a long-legged tadpole out for a bloomin' walk?' Brushing irately past Martin, he uncovered his traveling companion, a great barn owl, all ruffled and blinking furiously. The hare was half-white, a mountain hare patching into his brown spring coat. Striking a heroic fighting pose, he challenged them. "'Blaggards! Ruffians! Attacking poor wayfarers, eh? Well, let me tell you, blatherpawed bandits, you've picked on the wrong pair this time. Right. Defend yourselves sharpish now. I'd teach you a thing or three about the jolly old noble art, what? Come on!' Prancing about in the most ridiculous manner, he blew fiercely through his whiskers, wobbling, ducking, and flicking his paw against the side of his nose in a businesslike manner. "'Come on, come on, shape up, you cowardly custards! Oh, mattress bottom, you take those six and I'll deal with the other ten!' The hair twirled and weaved comically, throwing punches in midair, until by accident his nose collided with an overhanging branch. Immediately he went into a mock state of collapse, staggering, throwing his paws wide as if appealing to a referee. "'Did you see that? Beastly foul play, sir. Low underpawed trickery. Sneaking up on a chap like that. Highly unprincipled. Deduct ten points. Ten points, I say, sir.' He stopped and turned to the owl, who was unruffling his feathers and still blinking furiously. "'Well, you're a great help, I must say. Foozlin' great flock-filled feather-bag.' Don't stand there blinking like a toad with a toothache. Assist me against these vile villains. Trying his level best not to burst out laughing, Martin held forth the paw of friendship. I'm sorry. Please accept our apologies, sir, and your friend, too. We thought you were the villains, but as it turns out, neither of us is. However, I'm sure that you'll agree with me. No beast can be too careful abroad in woodlands on a moonless night. Immediately the hare's attitude changed. He shook Martin's paw, chuckling as he bowed to the other redwallers. Friends, eh? Well, I knew that all along, just testing, what? Allow me to introduce myself. Ahem. I'm Clickstar Lippus Montissel, of the far northern Montissels, that is, known to all and sundry as Clecky. My erstwhile companion of the road you may call Garrel. Simple to remember, you see, Clecky and Garrel. As you may have probably observed, Garrel is an owl, though not of the wise old variety, more the silly young type, I'd say. Bit of a duffer, what? Garrel blinked his great eyes at the assembly, saying, Ah, well, tis nice to see you, sirs, so tis. A rare old pleasure. Clecky shook his head despairingly. Would some beast put the cloak back over his puddin' head? We were getting more sense out of the bird when he was silent. Oh, I say, look, there's a small fat mouse on fire. Formol and Walger had joined them, Formol holding the lantern. He tugged his nose in greeting to the hare, saying, Her, her, you and be a girt joker, sir. I bain't no mouse of fire. I am naught but a mole with a lantern. General good humor prevailed, and amid introductions all round, the two wayfarers were invited back to Redwall. The little party proceeded to the abbey with Formol in the lead, carrying his lantern. Martin and the abbot brought up the rear. Abbot Durrell had retrieved Tansy's basket. He checked the contents, saying, "'Old hogweed stalks? Young Angelica? See, she even managed to find some new-grown wintergreen. 
What a dutiful creature little Tansy is! A pity she was frightened by the sight of a dead beast. Did you recognize anything about its remains, Martin? The warrior mouse drew his cloak close against the night wind. Very little. Apart from the fact that he was a weasel once. Some kind of corsair, too, if the rags he had on were anything to go by. Strange, though. He was clasping this in his paw. Fermal spoon. That weasel must have been inside our abbey. The spoon was old, beautifully carved from the wood of a buckthorn bush. Martin passed it to the abbot, who also recognized it. You're right. This was the spoon Fermald the Ancient used to carry about with her. Aha! Now I know. The creature you found was Greylunk the Weasel. He came to us two autumns ago. Martin rubbed his chin, obviously puzzled. Two autumns back? Why didn't I see this Greylunk? The Father Abbot paused, then held up his paw. Of course, you wouldn't know. That was the season you spent away from Redwall, helping the Gwasim shrews against robber foxes. Upon reaching the abbey, most of the elders sought their beds. Martin, Rollo, and the abbot busied themselves adding logs to the fire in Great Hall and putting together a sizable repast from the remains of the spring feast for the owl and hare. Clucky poured himself a beaker of strawberry cordial, heaped a platter high with deeper-than-ever turnip and tater and beetroot pie, topped it off with two wedges of cheese and a massive portion of fresh spring salad, and wiped away a tear of joy with the corner of his white tunic. Oh, corks! I say, you chaps, what a spiff and spread! Tell me I'm not dreaming, what? Gerald, the young barn owl, speared a carrot and mushroom flan with his powerful talons. Ara, away with ye, floppy ears! No beast could imagine you a-dreamin' with vittles in front of ye, ye great long-legged gutbag. Why, I've seen turnips uproot themselves and run from ye. With my own two eyes, so I have. Seated by the fire with Rollo and the abbot, Martin smiled as he watched the two ravenous newcomers. Friar Higgle won't need any leftover recipes with those gluttons about. Right. Tell me all you know about the weasel who visited here in my absence, Rollo. Using his journal as a reminder, Rollo the recorder related the incident. A weasel called Greylunk came to our abbey gates in mid-autumn. He was a villainous-looking vermin, but quite harmless due to a dreadful skull wound he had received, probably from one of his own kind. Greylunk was weak and ill, and not in his right mind. We took him in out of pity, gave him food, warmth, and shelter, doing what we could for his injury. I recall that he seemed to be terrified of many things, from the merest shadow to the sight of a bird flying overhead. He would often be found crouched in a corner, moaning things like, Mad eyes will find me, his claws stretch beyond sea and land. Fools that we were to take the tears of all oceans, death follows wherever they go. Witless beast that I am, woe to me, tis useless to try to escape the vengeance of mad eyes. Here Martin interrupted. Hmm, very strange. It may be nonsense. But on the other hand, it may not. Tears of all oceans. Mad eyes. Claws stretching beyond sea and land. Sounds like a riddle to me. As if this mad eyes is after those tears, whatever they are. And why was Greylunk out there with Fermal's spoon? I remember that dirge, too. 
said the abbot. The weasel carried on moaning and whining in such a manner, until even the most patient abbey beast grew tired of his ceaseless dirge. There was only one who had any sympathy for Greylunk, and that was Fermald the Ancient. Martin polished the buckthorn spoon fondly with his sleeve. Ah, yes, poor old Fermald. May fates rest kindly upon her. What an odd little squirrel, always saying verse and talking in riddles. I've heard it said that overlong seasons may sometimes do that to a creature. Fermald retreated into the curious world her mind had created. Maybe it was a nice place for her to be. She was always smiling and contented. She lived alone in the attics, above the dormitories. Perhaps the answer to this mystery lies somewhere there. Oh, I'm sorry, Rollo, please carry on. The recorder put aside his journal, shrugging. There's not much more to tell. Fermal took Greylunk up to her attic. They ate, talked, and slept there. Hardly any beast in Redwall recalled seeing the weasel for six or seven days. Then one morning Fermald came to the kitchens for food, and took only sufficient for one. Again the abbot recalled the incident. Ah, yes, excuse me, Rollo. I was there that day helping Higgle to make an upside-down cake. So I asked Fermald why she was not taking food for her guest, and she replied just one word. Gone. Remembering the deep skull wound Greylunk had, I asked her if he were dead and gone. Her answer was very cryptic. Martin leaned forward in his chair, saying, Do you recall what she said, Father Abbot? Durrell sat back, folding both paws into his wide sleeve and closing his eyes. Indeed I do, he said. Fermald spoke in rhyme. The line stuck in my mind for no good reason. Dead and gone? No, gone to be dead. Following the crack that runs through his head. From beyond the sunset they will appear. Tell them the weasel was never here. Remember my words and use them some day to keep the wrath of mad eyes away. In the silence that followed, there was a noise from the far corner by the stairs. Swiftly Martin held a paw to his lips and moved quietly across Great Hall, followed by Rollo. They were almost halfway to the source of the noise when Clecky went dashing past them, paws slapping noisily on the stone-paved floor. Reaching the stair bottom, he held up two pieces of a pottery platter. Plate fell down the stairs, what? That's all the noise was, he chortled. Us hares don't miss a belly thing, even when we're scoffing. I say, you chaps were a bit tardy there, tip-pawing about like shrimps in a swamp, what-what? Martin went straight up the stairs at a run, while Rollo stood glaring frostily at the hare, explaining between gritted teeth, Thank you very much, sir, for frightening away whoever was on those stairs listening to our conversation. Your great lolloping footpaws sent them off upstairs before we had a chance to see who it was. The mountain hare wiggled his long ears huffily. Tut, tut, sir. If you'd been a touch quicker, like I was, then you'd have the culprit by the jolly old heels. Rollo clenched his paws tightly in frustration. But you didn't get the culprit by the jolly old heels, did you? No, you ruined our chance to catch the eavesdropper quietly. Clucky smiled disarmingly at the irate recorder. No cause to get upset, old feller. We all make mistakes. Perhaps next time you'll take my advice and nip along smart-like, eh? Then the outrageous hare went speedily back to his table, berating his dining partner. I say there, Shovelbeak, go easy on that woodland trifle. 
I've only had two portions yet. Think of others beside yourself, you great feathered famine fetcher. Martin came back down the stairs, shaking his head at Rollo and the abbot. Couldn't see any beast about up there. The young uns are fast asleep and snoring. One of them may have left the plate on the stairs at bedtime. Maybe it was balancing on a stair edge, and it only took a slight draft to topple it. Gerald the barn owl wiped meadow cream from his beak with a wingtip. Ah, that's what myself thinks has happened, Your Honor. Sure a good puff of wind can blow even an owl tip over tail if the creature's not stood up properly. And that's a fact, so tis. Abbot Durrell put his paws about the shoulders of Martin and Rollo. Perhaps friend Garrel is right. Now what we need is a nice gentle breeze to waft us upstairs. Time for sleep, I think. Martin fought back a yawn. Good idea, Father Abbot, he agreed. We'll talk more tomorrow over breakfast. He looked at the two visitors. When you two have finished eating, perhaps you wouldn't mind sleeping on that rush mat by the fire for tonight. I'll have Brother Dormal fix proper accommodation for you tomorrow. The owl waved a soup ladle at the retreating trio. I thank you kindly, sirs. The mat'll be fine for the likes of us. Clecky put aside the trifle bowl he had been licking clean. The likes of us, indeed. Speak for yourself, Cushionbottom. I'm putting me paws up in that big abbot's chair yonder. Likes of us. Blinking drafty barn is all you're used to. Aye, and that's the truth, so tis. Me old mother used to say, better to be an owl in a barn than a prince in a palace. So she did. And what, pray, did your old mother mean by that? Sure, how would I be knowing? Sounds grand, though, doesn't it? Oh, go and boil your fat head. Good night. The abbey was quiet and still as the fires burned low. Outside, chill winds sighed and whined against Redwall's immovable stone. Though it was less than four hours to dawn, Martin lay awake, his mind picking over that evening's events. Greylunk's skeleton and the rocky fissure. Farmall's spoon, the ancient's rhyme, an unknown creature called Mad-Eyes, and the mysterious eavesdropper who had listened to the conversation in Great Hall. What did it all mean? 6. Conva, the corsair, had spent a perilous night in the monitor barracks, huddled in a corner, shivering and hungry. The long-tongued lizards constantly watched him, their flat reptilian eyes appraising his trembling form. He did not know whether to feel fear or relief when two of them entered the barracks and hauled him off for an audience with the Emperor. He was ushered into an upper room. The pine martin lounged on the sill of a broad window, open to the warm tropical noontide. Behind Ublas, four great black-backed gulls perched on the window ledge. They were fearsome-looking birds, each with the characteristic red spot of their species adorning the tip of its heavy amber bill. Mad-Eye's cruelty was legendary. Conva went rigid with terror, and his footpaws scrabbled against the floor as he resisted the monitors dragging him into the room. Ublas was in no mood to be delayed. Fixing the corsair with a stare of icy contempt, he rapped harshly. Say struggling, idiot. If I wanted you dead, you'd have been crab meat yesterday. Sit at that table and do as I command. Quickly Conva seated himself. Ublas leaned over, his silver dagger blade tapping a bark parchment and charcoal sticks, which lay on the table in front of the corsair. You saw the six pearls, did you not? Felt them, 
noted their shape, held the shell in which they were kept? He snapped. Conva nodded. Hi, mightiness. The dagger blade tapped the corsair's paw lightly. Good. Then you can draw them for me, the pearls and the shell. Conva picked up a charcoal stick hesitantly. But I don't know if I'm any good at drawing, sire. Lifting Conva's chin with the blade, Ublas said gently, warningly, Perhaps you didn't hear me right, sea scum. I said draw. If you wish to continue living... Hastily, Conva began sketching, answering the Emperor's questions, as his paw guided the slim charcoal stick. None of the pearls was flawed or marked in any way? No, sire. All six were perfect, smooth and round. Were they of different sizes, some smaller than others? Each was exactly the same size, sire, bigger than any pearls I have ever seen. Something like this. As Conva outlined the six orbs, Ublas watched approvingly, saying, See, you can sketch. Now the color of these beauties. Mightiness, they were a pale pink, not bright. In daylight they appeared soft and creamy, but by lantern light the pink showed warmer, like a budding rose. Very poetic, my friend. You are doing well. Tell me about the scallop shell they were kept in. It was a big deep-sea thing, sire. Both sides well-ridged and whitish-yellow. Some skilled beast had given it hinges, and a clasp carved from hardwood. Inside the shell was lined with soft red cloth. There were six cup-like dents to hold the pearls. As I recall, it looked like this. When the corsair had finished sketching, Ublas took the parchment. After inspecting the drawing, he placed it in front of the four gulls on the window ledge. They gazed unblinkingly at the work. Ublas stared into the eyes of Grawl, the leader of the black-backed gulls, concentrating all his mesmeric powers upon the huge bird. In a short time, Grawl was completely under the influence of the mad eyes and sinister voice. Fly east to the shores of Mossflower Land, and find the place called Redwall. Stay there and watch. Should you see the pearls or the case, seize them and bring them here to me. If you cannot do this, then stop in the area, and wait until you sight Lask Frildur and those under his command. If they find the pearls, give this token to him. Ublas took a paw ring surmounted by a polished jutstone and looped it on a thong around Grawl's neck. My monitor general will know this comes from me. Get the pearls from him and fly back here to San Petra. Go now. Ride the winds. Make your wings fly faster than the waves of the sea. When you return, I will reward you and your kin. Fly. Kree-ha-ka! With a long wailing cry, the gulls took to the air, swooping off over the main eastward. The pine martin smoothed his creamy throat fur, gazing at his reflection in a burnished bronze wall mirror. He turned to Conva, who sat trembling at the table, and you, my friend, he said, what shall I do with you? The charcoal stick crumbled in the corsair's shaking paw as he tried to tear his gaze from the pine martin's frightening eyes. Mighty one, let me live, he whimpered. Ublas gripped Conva tightly by his ears and stared down at him. A simple request, but one I am unwilling to grant. You have seen and heard too much, Conva, far too much. Look into my eyes. 
Slashback, the sea-rat captain, heard the clatter of paws and trident butts upon the jetty. He inched open the cabin door and peered out. Rats! Trident rats! he yelled. The jetty's crowded with them! We're trapped aboard this boat, mates! Baraka grabbed his sword and made for the door, snarling. We'll see how they likes the taste of cold steel, eh, mates? Slashback slammed the door shut. Stay your paw, or you'll get us all carved up. There's too many of them. We'd be fish bait before we got halfway along the jetty. The stoat captain Rockpaw slumped down and refilled his beaker. Ha! This is a great start to an uprising. Us trapped aboard ship, and our crews all ashore, separated from the captains. Now's the time for bright ideas. Any beast got one? Slashback had cracked open the door again to watch what was going on outside. Well, they ain't made a move yet. Just standing there. And Sagittar looking well pleased with herself, he said. Ahoy! Here comes old Mad-Eyes himself with a gang of his monitors. Baranka still had his saber at the ready. Let's sit tight here and hear what Ublas has to say. I ain't going out there for a staring match with that one. There was a pause in the proceedings. Then the sound of the Emperor's voice reached the rebels in the cabin. Friends, brethren of the seas, have you got grievances? Come out here and tell them to me. Baraka half-opened the cabin door and shouted back, Oh, we got grievances, all right, but we ain't stupid. We can state them comfortable from here. We ain't taking no more orders from you, Blas. Our crews outnumber you and your gang. Be reasonable, friends. Fighting will get us nowhere, Ublas replied, signaling Sagittar to start the trident rats moving further up the jetty towards the ship. Come up to my place. I will lay on a feast while we talk things out. Suddenly Baranka burst out onto the deck, waving his saber and yelling, Ahoy the taverns! Corsairs ahoy! The bold move was successful. In an instant, sea rats and corsairs began piling out of the waterfront dens adjacent to the jetty. Ublas turned, pointing his silver dagger at them. Stay back. Keep out of this. It concerns only me, Ublas, and those aboard the freebooter. Bilstale, the weasel captain, came out on deck, followed by the other captains. In a booming voice, the tall, somber weasel called to the crews, Stand by to rush em, buckos. If they puts a single paw to this deck, then charge. Baranka and Rockpaw had positioned themselves fore and aft. They stood by the head and stern mooring ropes, swords drawn. Baranka knew that Ublas had lost the element of surprise, but he had also figured that if the vermin crews charged, they could be easily fended off by trident rats, defending the narrow jetty. Moreover, if an attack were mounted, Ublas and the front ranks of monitors and trident rats would swarm aboard and slaughter the captains before the crews could get to them. Baranka's brain was as nimble as his paws. Keeping his face averted from Ublas, he called out his demands. Order your soldiers not to make any sudden moves, and we'll tell our crews to do likewise. But we're finished paying tribute to you, Ublas. As for the timber stocks you're holding, share them out atwixt the captains. Oh, and you can release my brother Conva now. Your days of imprisoning us is over. A cold fury gripped the Emperor. He pointed his dagger at Baranka, snarling, This is my island. I alone rule here. I am Emperor Ublas, and none dare look at my eyes. Sea scum do not dictate terms to me, Baranka. Ask your brother. 
He is an even bigger fool than you. Ubla signaled to his monitors. Four of the lizards strode forward with a sailcloth-wrapped bundle and slammed it down on the jenny. The bundle burst open, revealing the mangled carcass of Conva. End of Side One To continue, turn the cassette over. Side Two Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 51 The mad-eyed emperor laughed coldly and said, This one thought he was a bird. I merely looked at him, and he tried to fly out of a high window. Baranka was still with horror for an instant. Then he roared his hatred at the Pine Martin. I'll live to close those evil eyes of yours for good, Ublas. This is war. Cut her loose, Rockpaw. Tis war! Rockpaw slashed down twice on the stern rope as Baranka slashed through the head rope with a single blow of his saber. The ship freebooter drifted out from the jetty on the ebbing tide, sailing free as the captains loosed her sails. Bilgetail bellowed to the vermin crews milling about on the waterfront. Retreat to the hills, arm yourselves, and wait till we give the word, Cullies. We'll take San Petra for ourselves, mates. Tis war. Whooping and screeching, the wave vermin dashed off behind the harbor into the high ground. Ublas placed a restraining paw on the shoulder of Sagatar. Let them go. They are naught but a rabble without leaders. Take a crew of trident rats and commandeer slashback ship, the blood keel. Hunt Baranka down. Slay the other captains, but bring Baranka to me. I want him alive. 7. Grath Longfletch notched another shaft to her bowstring and waited for the next sea rat to emerge from behind the longboat hauled high above the tide line. From where she sat in the rocks, the deadly otter commanded an uninterrupted view of the shore for miles around. She had slain five sea rats. Their bodies lay on the sands by the boat, each transfixed by a green-feathered arrow. Now only two more rats crouched behind the beached vessel. Grath held the great bow firmly. Allowing its string to touch her cheek, she gazed down the arrow shaft, singing softly to herself as she waited for the quarry to materialize. Run from me, hide from me. Still my shafts will find you. All you vermin of the sea I must bring swift death to. Lutra's holt has not yet gone. By my bow I swear it so. I alone will carry on, wreaking vengeance where I go. Run from me, hide from me, hear my longbow singing. Grath of Lutra's family, sleep to you is bringing. Skullrag, the sea rat captain, and his steers rat, Carville, lay flat on the sand behind the stern of the single-sailed longboat that had once served as ship's dinghy for Skullrag's vessel Spray Raider. Carville whined continually. Look it, the tide's coming in, and we ain't got a crab's chance of getting off this shore. Why do you tell him to pull the boat up beyond the tide line? Why? Skullrag hurled a pawful of sand at the steer's rat, but the breeze whipped it away before it found his face. Because the tide would have drifted it away while we was looking for shellfish on those rocks, Blockhead. That's why. Oh, and while we're talking about rocks, who was the witless buffoon that ran me ship onto the rocks and wrecked her? You. Skullrag kicked out viciously, catching Carvel painfully in his side and raged on at the hapless steers-rat. A good ship, and two seasons plunder lost, huh, steers-rat? 
I wouldn't let you steer a beaker round a bowl of grog. Twenty days in an open longboat, twenty days without vittles, living on barnacles and rainwater. If I ever gets out of this mess, I'm going to ang you upside down over the sea and let the fishes nibble your head off, though they'll be out of luck if they expects to find any brains in there. Quite unexpectedly, Carville kicked back, catching Skullrag square in his flabby stomach. The sea-rat captain glared at his attacker as he fought for breath and croaked, "'You mutinous toad! Tis the death penalty for striking a ship's master!' Sneering, Carville avoided Skullrag's flailing paw and drew a dagger. The fact that he had hurt the sea-rat made him bolder. "'You're no ship's master, slime-guts. You ain't got a ship no more.' I'm sick of taking orders from you, see? Just try striking me once more, and you'll feel this here blade. Skullrag kicked swiftly, sending the dagger spinning out onto the sand. Carvel kicked back, but Skullrag grabbed his footpaw and bit it hard. The steers rat screeched in agony as he pulled away, grabbing for the dagger. Breaking free, he scrambled out onto the sand and retrieved his blade. Shh! Carvel fell backward the green-flighted shaft between his eyes. Desperately, Skullrag looked over his shoulder at the incoming tide. The longboat was fully twice its length away from the tide line. Reaching over the aft end, he groped madly about until his footpaw encountered the stern rope. It was made fast to the back seat. Sobbing with relief and panting, the sea-rat captain began dragging the longboat backward toward the sea and freedom. It was tough going. He dug his footpaws into the sand, and still lying flat, he tugged the longboat inch by painful inch, its flat bottom scraping the shore. For interminable minutes he sweated, puffing, tugging, and heaving, spitting sand from his mouth and wiping sweat from his eyes. Skullrag was fat, but he was strong. Rewinding the rope around his shoulders, he dragged hard, digging his footpaws deep to gain purchase, until he felt the waves lap at them. Skullrag smiled then the wreck of his ship and the crew that was lost on the reef all forgotten. Whoever it was up in those rocks, they would not be adding him to the list of the slain. He, Skullrag, would escape, and once the longboat was in the sea and he could hoist the single sail to catch fair wind, he was certain no beast alive would catch him. One more tug, just one more. His footpaws hit something solid, and he glanced over his shoulder. Skullrag's blood ran cold as he stared into the vengeful eyes of Graf Longflesh. Moonlight glimmered and danced across the restless waves as the longboat skimmed lightly south on the open seas. Graf was now captain of her own little vessel. Every scrap of waveworm's canvas was stretched tight. She dipped her bows deep to the troughs of great waves. Spray hissed as she forged over the surface of endless deeps, leaving behind a silvery wake like the track of a giant snail. Bladetail, the steer's rat, wiped seawater from his eyes. He leaned hard on the long wooden tiller to keep the vessel on course, east, always east, to where the sun rose each dawn. Romska, the ferret, stood at the helm, eyes on the horizon. She had been Conva's first mate. The Emperor Ublaz had promoted her to captain for this voyage. Romska was as tough and fierce as any sea vermin, but she was under no illusions. She knew that she was dispensable. If Lask Frildor brought back the tears of all oceans, Ublaz would not bother what price had been paid to obtain them. Romska joined Bladetail at the tiller, glancing through the scupper slits. She watched the rate at which the waves passed by. Well underway and making good time, mate, 
Like as if we're in a hurry to rush to our deaths, eh? The steers rat glanced nervously around. Stow that cab. There might be monitors cocking a lug to you. Bromska smiled thinly as she shook her head, saying, Not today, messmate. I may be feared of those lizards and that Lask Frildor. Every time he looks at me, my blood runs cold. But I ain't daft. We can gab away up here, and they won't be bothered to listen in on us. Know why? Blaytail put a harness on the tiller to stop it wandering. No, why? he said. Romska tapped the side of her muzzle and winked. Well, there's two reasons, see. I figured it out for myself when we first took those lizards aboard. One, they're lubbers. They've been ashore all their lives, and this is their first voyage. Two, lizards like them are born in tropical parts, so it stands to reason they can't abide the cold. Now me and you and all the crew, why, we love the feel of a rolling deck neath our paws. And as for weather, we've been through it all, foul and fair, as well as hot and cold. Bladetail looked at her blankly. I don't see how that helps us. The ferret explained. Good job you got me to look after you. I put the monitors in the best cabins, up forward, ah, ha, ha, where they gets the real buck and pitch of the ship, up and down, up and down, night and day. If you wants to see a sick green lizard, take a look in the forward accommodation. Lask Frildur and his gang are all laid out there moaning and groaning like they want to die. Now, as we sail further east, the weather gets colder. It ain't tropical no more. Old Mad Eyes never thought of that, but I did. So, mate, we won't have no lizards bossing us about on this trip. No, sir. Lizards like them can't stand the cold. Take my word for it. Bladetail thought for a moment, then the logic of Romska's words hit him, and the steers rat started to guffaw aloud. A haw haw haw. You're a canny one, Captain Haw Haw. Romska kicked his footpaw suddenly, muttering low, Stow that cackle. Here comes old Laska's self. The Monitor General's skin, which was normally gray-blue, had a definite tinge of unhealthy green to it. Hauling himself painfully over the Ford cabin combings, he staggered, shivering, and holding tight to the deck rails. The big Monitor's dull, muddy eyes stared accusingly at Romska. It's not good on waters, he said. Me and my monitors much ill. How far to Ma's flower, tell me. Romska paced the heaving deck nonchalantly, gazing up at the sky and testing the wind with a dampened paw. Oh, I'd say quite a stretch of time yet. Though if and we lose this fair wind, or run into proper rough seas, then who could say? Proper rough seas. Lask Frildor's eyes glazed over, and his jaw sagged visibly. You mean it can get rougher than this? Bladetail was enjoying himself. Bless your scales, General. You ain't seen rough water yet, he said jovially. Why, the sea's as still as a mill pond today. Ain't that right, mate? Romska agreed wholeheartedly. Ah, it is so. But don't you worry, sir. The Emperor said to deliver you and your monitors to Mossflower Shores, and I give him his solemn oath that I would. The seas'll get big as mountains, and there'll be blizzards with ice thick on the riggins. But don't you fret your scaly head. We'll get you there one way or t'other. You take a sea beast's advice now, sir. Go and lay down in your cabin. 
Let these gentle waves rock you to sleep. I'll send Rubby the cook along later with your dinner. Some nice fish guts boiled in old tallow fat. Blah! Lask Frildor clapped both paws to his mouth and staggered off miserably to his cabin, bowed and shivering. Romska and Bladetail leaned against the tiller, cackling helplessly. Woh-haw-haw-haw! Fish guts boiled in tallow fat, that's a good un. Ha-har-har-har! Followed by a cold pan, a greasy skilly. That should bring the roses back to his scaly old cheeks. Ha-har! Eight. Bright spring dawn, with no traces of the night's gale, was scarce an hour old over Redwall, when little Arvin flung himself on Tansy's bed in the sick bay and began buffeting her with a pillow. Wakey up, Tansy, sleepy spike, dozy paws. With a bound, the young hedgehog maid was out of bed and attacking back with her pillow. Dozy paws, eh, you little maggot, take that and that. The pillowcase caught on a bedpost and ripped. Downy feathers flew about like snowflakes in a breeze. They both fell back on the bed, giggling helplessly amid the whirling cascade. "'So this is how villains behave in my sick bay,' said Sister Cicely, standing in the open doorway, paws akimbo. "'I was going to bring you both breakfast in bed. Silly me, to think that you were still sick and exhausted and needed rest.' Tansy was about to speak when a feather tickled her nose and she sneezed. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, chew! Arvin smiled innocently at the indignant mouse sister. I think Tansy got a cold. The good sister's paw was wagging furiously at the miscreants. That's enough of your impudence, Dibbon. No breakfast for either of you until this mess is cleared up. Arvin, get a broom and sweep up those feathers. Tansy, get needle and thread, repair that pillow, and stuff those feathers back into it, this instant. Cicely stood over them as they went to work, still scolding. When you've done that, I want to see those beds made properly. Oh, yes, and while you're up here, you can shake out the rush mats at the window and dust the shelves and cupboard tops. She stormed out, slamming the door. Immediately, Arvin placed his paws on his sides and began imitating Sister Cicely. Tansy Pansy brush up a floor. Were a mess I never seed in my life. Deary gracious, little villains. Tansy shook with laughter and sneezed until tears were running down her cheeks. Then a knock sounded upon the door. Can't come in, lest you a villain or a maggot, Arvin called cheerfully. Teasel the hogwife popped her head around the door jam. Great seasons, my dears. What's been going on up here? Tansy stopped sneezing and regained control of herself. Oh, nothing really, Mrs. Stump. It was an accident, but Sister Cicely said we've got to clean the whole sick bay before we're allowed any breakfast. Come on, Arvin, get sweeping. Teasel chuckled as she watched the youngsters floundering about amidst the feathers. You'll be here this time tomorrow at that rate, young'uns. Get you down to breakfast. I'll clean up here. Twon't take long. Arvin and Tansy hugged the kindly hogwife gingerly, careful of her spikes. Teasel patted their heads, saying, "'Go on with you, be off, before I changes my mind.' The pair fled downstairs, yelling their thanks. Tansy and Arvin joined the serving line at the kitchen doorway. Clucky, who was before them, turned to Garrel and remarked, "'You see what I mean? Strange creatures in this place, what? 
Look here behind me. A little hedgehog bird. Jolly odd, eh? Tansy, picking feathers out of her head spikes, said, I'm a hedgehog, sir. My name's Tansy, and he's Arvin, my friend. The brown and white mottled hair made an elegant leg and bowed. Pleased to meet you, I'm sure. My name's Clecky, and this chap is known as Garrel. Tansy nodded. I know. Clecky wrinkled his nose inquisitively at her. Oh? And how, pray, do you know, Missy? Tansy was taken by surprise. Er, er, I think some beast told me. Thinking quickly, she took Clecky's mind off the inquiry by saying, You're next, sir. You'd better jump to it if you want breakfast. The mention of food distracted the hare, who began jostling Garrel. Not so fast, you feathered frump. It's my turn to get bally well served. Don't fret your beak. There'll be plenty left for you. The owl lost out. He was forced to step aside as his companion loaded up an oversized platter. Plenty left for me, do you say? Uh, I'm not so sure with you helping yourself to all and sundry, sir. He turned and winked at Arvin. Sure he's a terrible creature at eating, that one is. Tis a fact. Tansy steered Arvin to a back bench, well out of the way of Sister Sicily. They sat between the mole-made diggum and Viola Bankful. Tansy kept her head down, applying herself hungrily to hot oatcakes, honey, and a beaker of green sap milk. Viola sipped mint tea, not looking at Tansy, but pointedly remarking aloud to others within hearing range, I've heard that certain creatures won't be allowed to take dibbons out into mossflower wood again, cause they get into trouble and come back home very, very late, and filthy too. Smocks torn, dirty paws and faces. Anyhow, that's what I've heard. Diggum looked up from a bowl of barley meal. Who were? Who am totally that, Missy Bowler? Viola pursed her lips prissily. That's for me to know and you to find out, so there. Arvin gave a wink to Diggum. The mole twitched her nose knowingly in return and pointed across to another table further up. Were it that beast, Utoli? That and there? Viola turned to look, craning her neck. Where? As she turned away, Arvin slid Diggum's bowl of warm barley meal porridge to one side, pointing and saying, There, that little mouse. Can't you see him? Viola slid off the bench and stood on tip-paw. Where? Which creature do you mean, silly? Arvin quietly placed the porridge bowl in the spot where Viola had been sitting, and said, Too late. He finished and gone now. Viola heaved a sigh of exasperation and sat down with a flounce. Splodge! Martin, who was sitting at the top table with the elders and Redwall's two latest guests, heard the wail set up by Viola Bankville. What's going on over there? he said, starting to rise from his seat. Alma pressed him back down with a firm paw. Only dibbons and young'uns fooling about. I'll attend to it. Rollo peered over the top of his glasses. It's Viola! I might have known. If she sits next to Tansy, there's bound to be trouble. The hedgehog maid's name stirred Clucky's memory, and he leaned across to Martin. A word in your shell-like ear, old chap, he said. I was just thinking. I introduced myself and Carol to that pretty hog maid this morning in the breakfast line. Funny thing, when I told her our names, she said she already knew them. Well, I jolly well asked her how, and she muttered somewhat about already being told by some beast or other. Point is, all your young'uns were abed by the time we reached the abbey. 
How could she have known my name if she was fast asleep? Martin stroked his chin pensively as the answer became clear. Hmm. Our little eavesdropper on the stairs last night. Garrow gazed owlishly at a half-demolished cheese flan on his plate. Ah, you're right, sir, indeed you are. Like me old mother used to say, a hog on the stairs is worth two hairs and a hamper, and that's a fact, so tis. Martin smiled at the irrepressible owl. Your mother must have been a very wise bird, Garrow. Hush now, here's Alma bringing the culprits for sentence. The badger mother led Viola and Tansy up to the main table, halting them both in front of Abbot Durrell. Stand up straight now, both of you. Don't slouch, she said sternly. Tell the Father Abbot what you've been up to. The truth, mind. Viola's voice was a tearful whimper. She made me sit in a bowl of porridge, Father Abbot. Tansy's voice was indignant. No, I never. Even though you were teasing me. Hiding a smile, Abbot Durrell stroked his whiskers slowly. Fighting among yourselves, little maids, this is very serious. What do you say, Martin? The warrior mouse kept his face straight. Make them promise never to do it again. Kiss and make up, I say. Tansy was just about to protest again when she happened to glance at the table where Arvin was shifting from paw to paw, looking decidedly uncomfortable. Well, all right, she said stiffly, giving Viola a swift peck. I'm sorry I made you sit in the porridge. I'll never do it again, sorry. Alma shook a huge paw at Viola. Wipe that smile off your face, miss. Viola, apologize to Tansy. The bank bowl kept her lips pursed tight as they brushed her enemy's face. Sorry for teasing you. Never do it again. There, said Martin, sitting back, satisfied that justice had been done. Alma gave him a look that would have curdled milk. Is that all? she demanded. Glancing meaningfully at Martin, Rollo, the recorder, interrupted. We can't have young maids arguing and teasing and sitting in good porridge. I think they should be taught a lesson. Then Arvin and Diggum wandered up sheepishly, paw and paw. They had decided to own up to their part in the trouble. Sir Habit, it were my porridge as she said it in. And I'm a maggot. I make her look away so she didn't see. Abbot Durrell made a swift decision. Right. I sentence you both to play in the orchard all day, and for arguing, Viola can clean the gatehouse from top to bottom, and Tansy can sweep the dormitory stairs. After breakfast, Martin took a stroll in the abbey grounds with Rollo, Clecky, and Garrel. A high sun was warm on their backs as they enjoyed the fine spring morn. Martin threw a paw across the old recorder's shoulders. I've been thinking. Tansy is alone near the dormitories. If she was the listener on the stairs, I'll wager she goes up to Farmall's attic. The mountain hare winked at Martin. Well, what do you think, warrior? Time we sneaked upstairs to see what young Miss Tansy's about, eh? He strode off jauntily in the direction of the abbey. As they followed, Rollo commented to Martin, It's good to have a hare in our abbey again. There's not been one since old Basil in the time of your father, remember him? Martin smiled at some half-forgotten recollection. Aye, just about. I recall my father telling me that despite how they look, hares are dangerous and perilous beasts. Let's hope Clecky lives up to the reputation if trouble ever visits us. 
9. The spiral stone staircases, from Cavern Hole and Great Hall up to the Abbey dormitories, needed only the lightest skim with a broom. They were passably clean before Tansy began her chore. It was the stairs above, from dormitory to attics, which intrigued the young hedgehog maid. She swept her broom along the bedroom corridor, glancing nervously to where the upper stairs were situated at the end of the passage. Curving up into the darkness, they looked very forbidding and gloomy. Tansy brushed the first three steps, conscious of the echoing swish her straw broom had made in the eerie silence. Finally, curiosity overcame her fear, and abandoning her work, she gripped the broom handle like a quarter-stave and trod silently, keeping to the broad edge of the spiraling wedges of stone upward into the dim, dusty attics. Peering down a passage, Tansy saw a pale shaft of light and crept forward to investigate. She came to a long, low-ceilinged room with light filtering through a high, cobwebbed window of chunked crystal. Picking her way through the jumble of musty furniture, Tansy knew she had found the dwelling of Fermald the Ancient. Locating lamp, flint, and tinder, the hogmaid soon had better illumination for her exploration. It was a sad and lonely place. Furnished by the old squirrel with forgotten odds and ends she had found in this and other attic chambers, Dust rose in a small cloud as Tansy plumped down into a battered armchair. "'Found anything interesting, Missy?' Unable to stifle a shriek, the hedgehog maid leapt up. Martin and Rollo strode into the attic, followed by Clecky and Garrel. Tansy began stammering and sweeping, avoiding the eyes of the warrior and the recorder, as she tried to make up excuses. "'I was—er, I just—adding the brushic—I mean—' "'Brushing the attic?' Rollo held a sleeve across his nose and mouth, saying, "'Will you stop stirring the dust, Missy? Put that broom down.' Martin sat in the armchair, bringing his eyes level with Tansy's. "'Why were you sneaking about on the stairs last night, listening in on our conversation?' The hogmaid fumbled with the corner of her apron. "'I wasn't sneaking, sir. I woke up in the sick bay. It was dark, and I was hungry. Then I remembered—' As you were taking me and Arvin back home through the woodlands, you said something about a feast. So I came downstairs. It was very quiet, and I heard voices. I peeped around the stairs and saw the feast was over. I couldn't help hearing what you were talking about, and I didn't want to disturb you. But then I trod on a plate that some dibbon had left on the stairs, and it broke and clattered down. So I dashed straight back up to bed. Rollo perched on the chair arm. But you obviously heard all that we said about Greylunk and Fermald, and the time they spent together up here. Tansy stared miserably at the dusty floor. Yes, sir. I couldn't help but hear. It sounded so interesting and exciting, that poem the abbot recited and all. I wanted to come up here and look for clues. I was only trying to help. Martin felt sympathetic to the little maid. He patted her paw and said, Yes, I am sure you did, Tansy. But there's not much up here to see, is there? A few old sticks of furniture and lots of dust. And you shouldn't be up here, really, should you? It was your job to sweep the dormitory stairs. Obedience is one of the first things young'uns learn at Redwall. A light of indignation arose in Tansy's eyes. But I did sweep the dormitory stairs, both flights. You must have noticed that when you came sneaking up here after me, sir. Clecky burst out laughing at the hogmaid's pert reply. Ha, ha, har! She's got you there, Martin. Those stairs looked clean enough to me, what? 
By the left, Marm. You're a snippy little un, and no mistake. Rollo was smiling, too. She's right, Martin. We did come sneaking up here after her. And give Tansy her due. The stairs are well brushed. Right, oh, Missy. Your chores are done for the day. Away with you now, and play out in the sunlight. Dirty old attics are no place for a pretty one like you on a bright spring day. Martin took Tansy by the paw, as she seemed reluctant to leave the attic. Come on, Tansy Pansy. I've got another job for you. If I recall rightly, this is Abbot Durrell's seventh season as Father Abbot of Redwall. Here's a good idea. Supposing you and our two guests here went to the kitchens and baked him a surprise cake. Clucky rubbed his paws with delight. I say, what a spiff and wheeze. I bet old Abbot Thingamid be highly jollificated to get a surprise cake. What do you think, Garrel? The owl blinked furiously. Aye, that he would, sir. My old mother always said, there's nothing like a surprise when you're not expecting it. Tis surprising how it can surprise you. Clucky led the way downstairs enthusiastically. Oh, tickety-boo, I've never made a cake before. You'll have to show me and Garrel how it's done, young hog Miguel. Tansy found herself as excited by the prospect as her companions. Well, the first thing you need is spotless clean paws, then we'll ask Friar Higgle to give us an oven to ourselves and a big table. We'll need fruit and nuts, cream too, lots of it. Oh, honey as well, and a beaker of October ale to go in the mix. Father Abbott likes good dark cake, nice and moist. Martin winked at Rollo as the happy voices receded downstairs. Sounds like fun. Shall we go down and watch? The recorder slid from the chair arm into the seat vacated by his friend. No, you go, Martin. I want to stay up here a bit and have a think and a glance around. When the attic was quiet, Rollo sat alone in the armchair. He sighed and leaned back then, closing his eyes. He let his paws stray down the sides of the seat cushion. Tansy stood on a stool, checking the ingredients spread around the tabletop next to the oven. Hum, I think that's everything. Gerald, would you tip the flour into the bowl, please? Mr. Clecky, sir, stop that. Youch! I say, that jolly will hurt. Tansy brandished the wooden mixing spoon under the hare's nose. Then stop pinching the hazelnuts. They're supposed to go in the cake mix, not into your fat tummy. That's enough flour, Gerald. Now, you add the green sap milk, slowly, and Clecky can stir. I'll dribble the honey in bit by bit like this. Oh, and just let me catch you trying to lick that spoon, Clucky Flop Ears. The hare stirred vigorously, muttering rebelliously to himself. Humph! Lick the spoon, indeed, bossy little spike bonce. What's the point of making a cake if a chap can't lick the bally old spoon once in a while, prickly little slave driver? Hazelnuts, chestnuts, almonds, and beechnuts were added to the mix under Tansy's watchful eye. Though she missed Gerald taking a quick swig of October ale because she was busy checking on the hair pouring in a small noggin of dark elderberry wine. Friar Higgle chuckled as he watched Tansy's efforts to supervise the gluttonous pair whilst concentrating on her mixture. Titch, titch, Gerald, take those dried apple rings off that talon. Mm, I say, these little purply things are just the job. You villain, stay away from my dried plums. Find out, let me get this crystallized fruit in the bowl before you two get your thieving paws into it. The cake mix was finally emptied into a circular oven dish that had been lined with thin maple bark soaked in vegetable oil, 
to prevent the cake from sticking. Tansy allowed the hare and owl to place it in the oven while she got the covering ready. Clucky's ears stood up and his nose twitched. What ho, Miguel? Is that cream and march paint I see what? Narrowing her eyes fiercely, Tansy shook the ladle at them both. Yes, it is. Keep your distance. Go and get more charcoal for the oven fires. Do something useful. Clucky sniffed indignantly. Cha! Have a care, Mom. We're chiefs, not stokers. Here you, small mole chap. More fuel for the oven fires. Smartly, now. The young mole whom Clucky addressed was quite taken aback. He saluted the hare and dashed off to get charcoal. Garrow clacked his beak admiringly, remarking to Friar Higgle, "'Isn't he the good one at the given of orders, sir? Why, if I wasn't so disobedient to him, I'd obey him myself, so I would.' Higgle stepped in and came to Tansy's rescue. "'You carry on mixing the cream, Missy. I'll set these two to rolling out marchpane.' The good friar instructed them both in the use of the golden doughy mixture. "'This ear's marchpane, see? "'Tis made from ground almonds, stiff comb honey,' and sweet chestnut flour. Mr. Clucky, you take this roller and roll it out flat, so's it'll go over the cake before Tansy tops it off with meadow cream. Now, Gerald, sir, I want you to make seven lovely round balls with this lump of marchpane. They'll go atop of the cake for Father Abbott's seven seasons. Look busy now, sirs, and mind, no nibbling. Martin, will you stand by with your great sword and keep an eye on him? The warrior mouse chuckled. Oh, I won't need my sword, Higgle. This copper ladle should do. 10. Rollo knew from experience how many times he had lost things, only to find them again down the sides of his armchair in the gatehouse. He smiled, producing a parchment scroll from a gap between cushion and chair. Firmald the Ancient had not been very different from him when she lived. Balancing his lantern on the chair arm and donning his spectacles, the old recorder carefully unfastened the ribbon from the parchment and unrolled it. The writing was thin and spidery, but quite legible. Unusual it is to call a vermin friend, but this weasel Greylunk, a poor lonely creature whose mind was sore troubled by his past, I call him friend. But why? Have not the vermin, more so those who come from the seas, Always been the foe beast? I call Greylunk friend because he called me friend. Creatures below stairs did not understand him. They grew weary of his constant weeping, but I knew by the deep wound in his head that he could not help behaving in the way that he did. Ah, cruel wound, to cut short the seasons of one still young. Death is no stranger to me. I could see its mark upon Greylunk and I did all in my power to make his last days comfortable. He told me of many things. Together we sat in this dusty attic. I listened to his words, and in my mind I was transported far over the seas to where there is no winter. In my imagination I saw the surf booming against the warm coast of San Petra, and learned of the Emperor Mad-Eyes. My friend had led a wicked life, but in his final days he repented of all evil. Though I tried to set his mind at ease, he was troubled, frightened of the vengeance that would stretch across the ocean to claim him. Greylunk told me a secret, and begged me to speak of it to no living creature. One morning I awoke, 
and he was gone, fled from this abbey to die alone some place where he would not bring evil upon me, his friend. One day, if I still live, I will stand before those who follow him from afar, and I will do as my friend told me. I will deny that ever I knew of him. I will say Greylunk was never within the walls of this abbey. In this way I will try to keep Redwall safe, for it is my home. As for the secret my friend imparted to me, I will keep my promise and never speak of it to any living creature. I will not speak, but I will write, lest the tears of all oceans remain forever lost. Some day they may be needed for a great purpose. Greylunk left the tears with me, a final gift to his only friend. When I am gone, the only one to possess them will be the creature with the wit and wisdom to find them. The tears would only bring grief and death to a beast with little sense. I have spoken in my dreams to the spirit who long ago founded Redwall, Martin the warrior of old, and I know what I do now is right. To the good beast whose name I do not know, nor ever shall, I say this. Seek and find the tears of all oceans. Be not blinded by their beauty. Use them wisely. Look not up nor to the four main points, but where our paws do tread, the dead oak joints. There, wrought by Mother Nature neath the main, lies that which holds the beauty, or the bane. Rollo folded the parchment carefully, concealing it within his wide-habit sleeve. Then he took the lantern and made his way downstairs. The old recorder's mind boiled with Fermall's testament, unanswered questions, and the baffling rhyme. He joined Martin in the kitchens, where in low tones a brief conversation was held. Martin, I found a strange parchment, written by the ancient. I knew you'd find something, Rollo. That's why I left you up there on your own. Where was this parchment hidden? Down the side cushions of Fermal's armchair, though I don't think the rest of this mystery is going to be so easily solved. Hmm. Only what we'd expect, I suppose. Fermald was a quaint and devious creature. We must investigate it fully. But later, not now. Take a look at the antics of our cake-making crew. They've had these kitchens in uproar since they started. All Redwall kitchen work had ceased. Friar Higgle and Teasel, with the rest of their workers, watched with much merriment as Tansy supervised her unruly helpers. The cake had baked perfectly, and now stood cooling on a stone ledge. Tansy had beaten the meadow cream until it was right for spreading. Garrel helped her to lift the cake down onto the table, saying, Great seasons, Missy. Sure, and I never smelt anything as wonderful as this cake in all my life. Tis a tribute to you. Smiling, the hedgehog maid thanked the owl for his compliment, rounding on Clecky in the same breath. Why, thank you, Carol. Mr. Clecky, put a paw near that bowl of cream, and I'll chop it off. The rascally hare bowed low, the picture of nobility and injured innocence. For shame, marm! How could you accuse me of such foul deeds? Why, I'd chop me own paw off before I'd use it to steal cream. Swiftly, Tansy turned on Garrel, judging by the laughter behind her back that something was going on. Garrel, take those talons out of that march pane this instant. Who, me, Mom? I was only making pretty little patterns on it. Taking advantage of Tansy's back, Clecky scooped a glob of meadow cream with the tip of his ear, bending it skillfully into his mouth. The assembled redwallers fell about laughing but Tansy was not amused. 
I told you I'd chop those paws off if you put them near my cream, she snapped. Clucky appealed to the onlookers. I say, what a vile accusation. Did any beast see me put a paw near that valley cream bowl? No. So, Miss Fussy Apron, what proof have you that I've been anywhere near your blinkin' cream, eh? Tansy pursued him round the table with a ladle. What proof? It's all over your whiskers, you fuzzy-faced fraud. Prior Higgle stepped in and restored order. Then he helped them to drape the marchpane over their cake and trim it neatly. Teasel took a flat palette knife and spread the meadow cream expertly over the marchpane. Then she wrapped the seven balls of marchpane and pink rose petals, preserved in honey. There were gasps of admiration from the kitchen helpers at the finished confection. The cake was an absolute beauty, standing on a large tray surrounded by pale flaked almonds, candied angelica leaves, and preserved damsons. Teasel had whirled the meadow cream artfully in waving patterns around the cake, leaving it flat and smooth on top. Every beast watched breathlessly, whilst Tansy gingerly placed the seven pink petal-wrapped marchpane balls around the top of Abbot Durrell's cake. There, one for each of Father Abbot's seven seasons, she said. Now let's hide it over in the gatehouse until this evening. Carrying the tray between them, Tansy and Higgle walked carefully out of the kitchens toward the abbey door. Clecky and Garrel hovered about them, shouting needless orders. Steady there, chaps. Hold your side level, missy. Hey, you there, keep out of the way. Some beast opened the door. When they were outside on the abbey lawns, Tansy finally lost her temper with Clucky and Carol's harassments. Look, go away, be gone, the pair of you. We'll be bound to drop this cake if you keep hovering round and getting in the way. As they turned to go, Friar Higgle noticed the hare was eating something. His suspicions were confirmed as he took a swift count of the rose-petal-covered marchpane balls. I knew it. There's only six here. That rogue has stolen one and scoffed it, the friar announced. Tansy nearly dropped her under the tray as she wailed aloud. Oh, the beastly glutton! My surprise cake is ruined! Well, at least we've got rid of those two now, the good friar comforted her. Don't worry, missy. There's enough marchpane and petals left to make another. I'll do it as soon as we get back to the kitchens. Don't fret. Martin and Teasel remonstrated with the hare as he loped chuckling into the abbey followed by Garrel. We saw you from the doorway, Clecky. That was a pretty swift trick. The hare swallowed the remains of his plunder guiltily. Who, me? There's nothing in my mouth. Take a look, old chap. You're a villain and a glutton, Mr. Clecky, and I don't know which is the worst of the two. So saying, Teasel shook a pudding spoon angrily under the hare's nose. But before she could say more, there was a shrill screaming, squawking, and shouting from down by the gatehouse. Martin leapt into action. What in the name of furs going on out there? He shouted and dashed out, followed by Clucky and Garrel. Tansy and Friar Higgle were only a short distance from the gatehouse when the attack took place. Four big black-backed gulls dropped out of the sky onto them, knocking the cake to the grass. Two gulls flew at Higgle and Tansy, beating with wings, webbed talons, and huge beaks while the other two pounced on the cake and began scratching the rose-colored orbs from it, their harsh cries of triumph ringing out, Kariya! Kriya! Suddenly Gerald was amongst them like a thunderbolt. At the sight of the hulking young barn owl, the two gulls immediately left off despoiling the abbot's cake and took wing. Gerald hurled himself upon the gull that had tansy upon the ground, and locked talon and beak with the invader as it tried to fly off. 
Martin came speeding to the rescue of Higgle, closely followed by Clecky. Grabbing the elm-board cake tray, the warrior mouse broke it in half over the gull's back. Clecky swiftly gathered Tansy and Higgle to him and threw them down, shielding them with his body. Martin managed to get one more crack at his gull with half the cake tray before it hopped off and flopped awkwardly into the air. The bird Garrel had taken on was not so lucky. The owl's powerful talons and savage-hooked beak did their work with blurring speed, and the gull lay slain by the gatehouse door. Redwallers poured out of the abbey and across the lawns, headed by Alma, the badger mother, and Abbot Durrell. The crowd arrived at the scene in front of the gatehouse. Every beast was shouting at once. Oh, whoa, what's happened here? Was it eagles or hawks? Did any beast see? Go away, silly. Can't you see that's a dead seagull? Her seagully bird. E am a gurt biggin, boy ecky e is. Between them, Alma, the abbot, and Formal restored order. Stand back there, please. Keep those dibbons away from that bird. Your come out o' e way, Fry Eagle, Missy, be you umerted? Alma inspected Friar and Hogmaid. Yes, they're both a bit battered and scratched one way or another. Dormal, Wolger, you others, carry them both up to Sister Sicily in the sick bay. Martin, what is that creature? The warrior mouse was inspecting the bird's body. He shook his head and scanned the sky. It's a gull, but I've never seen any this big come as far inland as Redwall. There were four of them altogether. No sign of the other three now. They got out of here fast. Friend Gerald put paid to this one. He's a fearsome fighter, all right. The owl blinked several times. Ah, well, do you see, sir? As me old mother used to say, there's not a bit of use shaking claws with the other fella. If you're going to fight, then best get it done with proper so's your foe don't come back for more. Clecky was eyeing the cake on the grass, inching towards it. Well said, old pillow features. Your ma must have been quite a bird in her time, what? Teasel nudged Clucky hard in his midriff. Aye, and you'll find me a bit of a pawful, if you don't keep away from yon cake, sir. There ain't too much damage done. I can dust it down and fix it up good as new. Though we'll need a new tray, Martin. Echoing around the woodlands into an unusually warm spring evening, the abbey bells told supper. Redwallers gathered in Cavern Hall, which was smaller and less stately than Great Hall. The meal was a serve-yourself affair. Cress and water shrimp soup, celery and leek turnovers, strong old chestnut cheese, barley bread, green-gauge flan, latticed red-currant tart, and October ale or maple cordial to drink. The abbey creatures sat in wall niches, sprawled on rush mats, or just sat down wherever they pleased to chat and eat. Abbot Durrell sat with Martin and the elders on a dry, fern-strewn rock ledge which ran along one wall. When the father abbot stood up to speak, there was complete silence. Every beast was curious as to what he was going to say. Friends, there is little use my reporting to you what happened today, as you already know. Why four gulls should attack two perfectly harmless creatures is a mystery, both to me and to your elders. However, our good friend from Mossflower, the skipper of otters, has volunteered to set up a patrol around the top of the outer wall. His otters will be armed with slings and stones in the event of another unwarranted attack. But for the next few days, I would ask you to stay indoors as much as possible. Make sure that if you do go out of doors— 
It is for a necessary chore and not just a stroll or play. Oh, and keep a keen eye on our dibbons. Little ones do not know the danger, and it is our duty to protect them. One last thing. Thanks to our friends Clecky and Gerald for their quick and brave action today, helping Martin out. A round of applause was called for. Gerald modestly buried his beak in a wedge of old chestnut cheese, but Clecky bowed and strutted in an outrageous manner, acknowledging the plaudits. Forward the whites, what, what? Only doing my duty, saving hog maids, slaying seagulls and what not. All in the day's work, chaps. Rollo, who was sitting next to Martin, turned his eyes upward at the hare's shameless display. By the fur and cringe, Martin. I can't take much more of that doodle-eared windbag. Let's get out of here. I know. We'll take a tray of supper up to Tansy and Friar Higgle, and see how they are. Right, the warrior mouse agreed. But don't mention trays to me. The one I smashed over that seagull was Hogwife Teasel's best tray. She's not going to let me forget that for a while. Friar Higgle and Tansy were pretending to be asleep, but Sister Cicely still prattled on as she set a bowl apiece beside their beds. Warm nettle broth, best thing in the world for shock and minor injuries. I'm going down to supper now. Make sure you finish it up every drop. I'll be checking those bowls later. Rollo and Martin entered, bearing the tray of food. Cicely pursed her lips severely at them. Hush now, you two, she said, dropping her voice to a whisper. My patients are asleep. Er, uh, I hope that food isn't for them. They're restricted to a diet of my nettle broth. Martin smiled winningly at her and whispered, This food? Great seasons, no, sister. This is our supper. Rollo and I thought we'd just nip up here and sit a while with Tansy and Higgle. If they wake, we'll see that they take all their broth. Sister Cicely smiled back and curtsied. Thank you, Martin. I know they'll be safe in your sensible paws. She slid silently out, closing the door softly after herself. Higgle sat bolt upright, paws clenched and teeth grinding. Grr, that old sis Cicely. I'd as like chuck myself in the abbey pond with a boulder tied to me footpaw as lay up here another day. Open that window, Rollo. Here, sling this filthy nettle broth out, before it makes me any sicker. Tansy sat up and clapped her paws with joy. Look, Friar, real food, turnover and cheese, red currant tart and maple cordial. Thanks, pals, you've saved our lives. Martin could not help smiling at the irrepressible little hogmaid as she tucked into the supper. So, how are you feeling now, Tansy? he asked. The answer came from around a mouthful of celery and leek turnover. Ha, ah, fit as a firefly and brisk as a bumblebee, sir. He, he, he. I heard that Viola Bankvold saw what happened as she was cleaning the inside of the gatehouse windows. Wolger said she went down in a swoon and had to be revived by sniffing burning feathers. Ha, ha, ha. I hope the smell made her dreadful sick. Friar Higgle munched thoughtfully on a wedge of cheese. Silly, really, isn't it? Why should four great birds attack us? Rollo shrugged, saying, From what I heard, only two attacked you. The other two were after Abbot Durrell's cake. Going for you and Tansy like that was merely a diversion, so they could steal the cake. Martin waited until the hogmaid had taken a drink of cordial, then asked, Hmm, what do you think, Tansy? The young hedgehog looked serious. It sounds strange, I know, but they didn't really seem interested in the cake, or even us. The only other thing was the marchpane balls, but why? 
Another mystery, said Martin, turning to Rollo, who was deep in thought. Rollo shook his head worriedly. Mysteries and riddles. He sighed. Then he jumped, startled. Riddles? Goodness me, in all the excitement I'd quite forgotten. From his sleeve he drew forth Fermall's parchment, saying, Listen to this. The recorder of Redwall sat reading Fermall's note aloud in the sick bay, whilst Friar Higgle's stomp carried on eating his supper. Tansy had forgotten all about food. She and Martin hung on every word that was read out to them. 11. Corsairs and sea-rats roaming the hills of San Petra did not bother Ublas unduly. They would be taken care of when he had dealt with their ringleaders, the captains. Slouching on his throne, sipping wine and nibbling on a roasted bird's wing, the emperor turned over events in his mind. Baranka was the one who had started all this. Accordingly, he was the one Ublas intended to make an example of. The other captains were not so important. If Sagatar did not slay them, then he, the emperor, would sooner or later. However, next time he would promote trident rats to be captains, good, loyal, emperor-fearing trident rats. As for the vermin horde who had taken to the hills, well, they would soon jump back into line when they witnessed the punishment he intended meeting out to Baranka. It was an old cure for rebellion. Cut off the snake's head and the rest ceased wriggling. The snake. Ublas tossed aside the meat and strode briskly from his throne room towards the cellars carved in the rocks beneath the escarpment. Two monitors stood at attention in front of a heavily barred door in the cellars. Ublas pointed with his silver dagger blade, ordering, Open it! The lizards obeyed with alacrity, throwing the door wide. Pulling a torch from a wall bracket, Ublas swept inside, leaving the door ajar so the guards could watch him. The pine martin sighed aloud with pleasure as he went to a stone plinth and lovingly picked up the crown from it. Made to the emperor's own design, the thick gold band fitted his head perfectly. Studded almost halfway round with purpley-red garnets, it was a crown fit for an emperor, but with something missing. Six empty claw settings of the circlet's front lacked the six rose-colored pearls to fill them. When he possessed the tears of all oceans, his crown would be complete. A damp rustling and a loud hiss caused the monitor guards to shuffle fearfully away from the door. Fixing them with a glare of his strange eyes, Ublas rasped, Stand still. Watch and witness the power of your emperor. Mutely they obeyed, reptilian eyes unblinking as they viewed the eerie scene beyond the doorway. The entire chamber flickered with gold light, reflecting from the pine martin's torch and highlighted by his shining crown. A long, shallow trough built into the floor was filled with water, casting shifting patterns of golden lights around the walls. Gliding sinuously out of the trough and across the floor, the snake came hissing toward Ublas. It was a dull ivory color, but the water rippling on its scales caught the light, turning the serpent into a long, moving stream of liquid gold. Rearing up, the creature quivered and hissed menacingly as it faced the intruder. Few snakes in the world are more highly venomous and unpredictable than the coral water snake. As Ublas concentrated all his powers upon the angry, beaded eyes confronting him, the reptile arched, preparing to strike, mouth open wide, a crimson cavern with dark flickering tongue and poisonous fangs. Ublas began chanting in a high, steady cadence, Golden guardian of my wealth, hear me now, be still, deathly fang and coiling stealth. Bend unto my will. O door in the cellars, 
Ublas pointed with his silver and silver dagger blade, ordering, and over the empty. Opera repeated in it his dirge-like chant, swaying from side to side in time with his adversary. Wide and unblinking, the mad eyes of Ublas radiated all their power. He moved slowly forward as he chanted and swayed, until the snake's damp breath wreathed his nostrils. With his head a hair's breadth from the serpent's, he strove to pierce it with his strange hypnotic stare. Side to side the two heads moved, challenging and seeking with the cadence. The snake began to subside, its mouth closed. The stiffened head relaxed and sank slowly into the snake's bunched coils, both eyes filming over with a clouded membrane. Ublas moved with it down to floor level, still staring and chanting, until the venomous reptile lay still and subdued, conquered by his power. He stroked its head lightly, then ceased chanting. Ublas stood upright, turned his back on the snake, and faced the awed monitor sentries. Now you have seen the power of your emperor, he hissed. Then he swept past them and strode upstairs, knowing that tales of the sight they had witnessed would spread and grow in the telling. Ublas knew that mightiness brought dread, and total fear and respect were based upon a frightening reputation. Soon even the sea vermin ranging the hills would realize that resistance was futile against his power. Ice hung from the rigging of Waveworm as she nosed into a thick fog bank. The crew had long oars to manipulate port and starboard. They rowed wearily. Ravska strode up and down the well deck, swinging a knotted rope's end at any beast she saw slacking. Bend your backs, you barnacle pawed swabs. Come on now, pull. It's row or die in this weather, and this ferret ain't going to die. Put some backbone into it, you spineless sea slugs. Row! Rubby, the cook, was up in the bowsprit, on the lookout for rocks or the great lumps of ice that sometimes cruised the seas in the cold latitudes. Cupping his paw, he called back to Bladetail, Clear ahead, mate. Steady as she goes. The steer's rat wiped frosty rime from his lips as he answered, Aye, aye, steady she is, dead ahead. Blask Frildor was wrapped in any available stitch of material he could lay claws on. The monitor general sat dull-eyed and almost rigid in front of a miserable charcoal glow from a brazier in the forward cabin. As Romska entered the foul-smelling accommodation, he winced, saying, Close that door. I'm freezing to death. It's cold, cold. Romska slammed the door and stood grinning at the lizard. What are you belly-aching about now, scale-face? There ain't a wave out there today. It's smooth as a babe's fur. The monitor's head shook spasmodically. He had to wait for his teeth to stop chattering so that he could talk. L -l look half of my monitor's dead, frozen. Is no warmth. Is only d -d death for us, unless sun shines again. Romska waved a paw on high. Oh, well, why didn't you say, matey? I would have told the sun to come out and shine all day if you'd mentioned it. The dark, muddy eyes of Lask Frildur glazed hatred at the corsair. Emperor Ublas will hear of this insult, ferret, he spat. The corsair ferret captain laughed harshly. Listen, deadhead, you're out at sea in blue water. There ain't a thing you, me, or the emperor can do about the weather. Get that into your thick skull, lizard. We're all in the paws of fate, see, and luck and judgment is all I got. Right now I don't know if and we be sailing south, east, or north. 
No stars, sun, or wind, just fog everywhere, and it ain't my fault. Lask buried his huge head in frost-numbed claws. You lose the way. The ship is lost. Romska's voice dripped sarcasm. Clever old reptile. The acorns finally dropped, eh? Right, matey. Tis about time you're realized none of us might get out of this little fix alive. And I doubts if I can make it over to this moss-flower shore and then back to San Petra, cause I ain't aft the captain that Conva was. Aye, Conva. Now there was a stoat what knew his way about the seas. But where is Conva now, eh? Probably rotten in some dungeon, cause your precious emperor didn't like his face. Land ho to starboard, and clear in weather. Robbie's shout from his position as lookout in the bows set Romska hurtling out on deck as Waveworm's vermin crew yelled in joy and relief. Land ho! We made it, mates! Land ho! The shoreline could be seen through the thinning mists and pale watery sunlight. Romska vaulted nimbly up to the bowsprit beside the jubilant Rubby. Ha har har! We did it, Captain! Ain't it a pretty sight? Rubby cried. The ferret narrowed her eyes, peering hard at the rocky coast. Aye, any land's a pretty sight, mate, even if it ain't moss flower. Raftland, sea rat bosun of the waveworm, scrambled up beside them. If this ain't moss flower, then where in the name of blood and fangs are we? As she stared at the approaching land, realization dawned on Romska. This is far north, where we slew the otters, all for those accursed tears, on our last voyage. Ha! I know where moss flower is from here. Bladetail, bring her off round to port. Ship those oars, mates. Raftline, break out sails. Step lively now, buckos. We'll beat down the coast southward to Mossflower and the sun. By midday a stiff breeze had sprung up. Waveworm had left the foggy regions far in her wake. The sun was out, though the weather remained brisk and nippy. Romska helped Bladetail at the tiller as the vessel chopped and crabbed against the white-crested coastal rollers. The Corsair Ferret watched the rocky coastline. Another few days and we'll be keeping our eyes peeled for that freshwater stream running out o'er the shores. That's how I'll know Mossflower. I remembers that stream well, mate. The forward cabin door slammed open and Lask Frildor stumped heavily out, still swabbed in wrappings, but with a glint of the old imperiousness back in his eye. You Romske, make arrangements for my ten dead monitors. In a flash, the Corsair had drawn her curved sword. She let go of the tiller and approached the Monitor General, a tick in her left eye quivering with rage. It's Captain Romska to you, and I've got a ship to run on your Emperor's orders. My crew's got other things to do, so go and give your commands to your own kind. You've got enough living lizards to shove ten of their dead mates overboard. Don't try pushing me round, Lask, I warn you. I'm in command on this ship. Lask Frilder bared his lethal yellow teeth at the Corsair. I hear you, Romska. You are in command. Until we reach the land of Mosflower. The Corsair roared at the monitor as he strode away to his cabin. Until we reach Mosflower, eh? The day ain't dawned yet when Romska the Corsair is afeard of a lizard. Just you give the word when you're ready, and I'll show you the color of your insides. Ever since the lizards had begun to show their weakness at sea, the ferret had grown in confidence. Bladetail nodded in admiration of his captain. Aha! That's the stuff, Captain. 
Let's hear your brag. Go on, like you do in the tavern at San Petra. Romska felt her good humor return. Waving her curved blade, she danced around the well-deck, throwing out the traditional corsair challenge, while the crew cheered her on. I'm the babe of a blood-ripper, born in the teeth of a gale. I'm the one who wields the sword and makes the foe-beast wail. I'm as sharp as the reef-rock. I carry death in me paw. Go where I like, slay who I will. That's the corsair's law. Blood's me favorite color. I'm swifter than lightning, I. Stand out me way, stand out, I say. Step aside now, or die. Cause I'm the spawn of night storm, and death sails in me wake. I sheathe me blade and innards, and what I want, I take. Come one, come all, I'm waitin', I'll flay your carcass bare. So every place I go they'll say, Ahoy, you bold corsair! Lask Freldor crouched over the charcoal embers in his cabin, listening to the roistering sea vermin applauding Romska. The Monitor General also heard the dull, booming splashes as his lizards jettisoned their companions' dead bodies astern into the restless sea. Lask gritted his teeth until they hurt, muttering, Enjoy yourself, Corsair. One day I will dance on your grave. Evening came, with long, rolling purple clouds, tinged beneath with gold from the setting sun. Waveworm beat a course slowly south, following the darkened coastline which led to Mossflower country. Twelve. Night brought with it the rain, drizzling at first, then a distant rumble of thunder and a faraway lightning flash that illuminated the dark horizon. Brath Longfletch shook water from her eyes as the rain increased. Her little longboat rode the rollers bravely, tacking south down the coast. The otter sat astern, guiding the small tiller lightly, watching the prow plunge up and down as it met each wave's onslaught. Easterly wind buffeted the boat's single square sail, pasting its middle to the slender rowan mast, then pulling it away, allowing the canvas to flap wetly, driving the frail vessel towards the rocky shores. Knowing it was dangerous to be caught out in a storm on a coastline peppered with reefs, Grath steered for the shore, silently hoping that her boat would not encounter any hidden rocks. She leaned on the tiller and let the sail blow full out. Side-skipping the eastering wind, her longboat skimmed the foam-flecked wave-tops, running for shore like a swift to its nest. Thunder boomed, and in the lightning flash that followed, Grath saw the cove, small, shingled, and dead ahead. Rain-battered but exhilarated, the soaked otter clung tight to the tiller, sending her craft straight as one of her arrows, prow on into the cove and safety from the storm. Leaping into the shallows, Grath grabbed the head-rope and began pulling her boat up the tide-line, when a cheery voice rang out above the gale. "'Lend a paw there, you slab-sided shellackers. Give the sea-beast some elp to beach that craft.' A lantern glimmered high in the cliffs surrounding the cove, and ten or more small raggedy-furred creatures with brightly colored headbands came dashing down and seized the head-rope. With their aid, Grath soon had the boat high and dry above the tide-line. The small fat creature carrying the lantern approached her. He was obviously the leader. He carried a small rapier tucked into his waistband. He held out a paw to the otter. "'I'm Logalog, chieftain of the Gwasim Shrews,' he announced. The paw was taken willingly. "'Grath Longfletch!' Last of the Holt of Lutra. Logalog set about gathering Grath's few possessions from the boat. Ah, 
You would have been naught but a drowned otter if you stayed out at sea in that little lot, matey. Dabby, Curlo, take this big bow atwixt you afore it knocks me flat. Come on, Grath. Tis no fit night for beast nor bird to be out in the open. Follow me. Halfway up the cliffs, sheltered from the sea by a protruding rock rift, Grath sat snug in a cave with her newfound friends. She drank shrew beer, which had had a red-hot rapier thrust in to mull it, and the one called Dabby served her a bowl of seafood soup from a cauldron bubbling at the edge of a sea-coal and brackenwood fire. Grath ate with an appetite that amazed the shrews, tearing off hunks of flat barley bread to dip in her broth. As she satisfied her hunger, the otter related her tale. When she had finished, Logalog patted her broad, scarred back, smiling. Well, at least you lived through it, Grath, and you eat like you survived a seven-season famine, mate. Lucky we found you. We're the Gwasim Shrews. Stands for Gorilla Union of Shrews and Mossflower, though we're a long way from that place up here. Gwasim like to wander, you see. Every spring we come up to the coast and feed off its bounty. We fish a bit, gather seaweed, and collect shellfish. Gwasim are river shrews. Our boats are back inland a piece, moored in a creek. No beast knows the rivers and streams like we do, eh, mates? An old shrew began tootling on a flute. Logalog nudged the young female called Curlo. Come on, sleepy chops. Stop nodding off in front of that fire and sing a ditty for our new pal Grath. Curlo had a lively, gruff voice, and she sang out with a will. Gwasim, Gwasim, Salem, Dipem, Dowsem, if and you see a shrew in river or stream, who can jump like a trout and swim like a bream, fight like a pike and sing like a lark, and paddle a boat from dawn till dark, you're looking at a Gwasim. Oh, Gwasim, Gwasim, Salem, Dipem, Dowsem, if and you see a shrew who can cook up a stew, Brew dark beer and bake bread, too, and bend his back and pull an oar, row all the day and shout for more. You're looking at a Gwasim, oh, Gwasim, Gwasim, Salem, Dipem, Dowsem, not an otter or a water-dog, no, nor a spiky old edgehog, even a warty toad or frog. So it's three cheers for our log-a-log. We're Gwasim, Gwasim, Gwasim. The merry song was so catchy that Grath laughed aloud and asked Curlo to sing it again, which she did, whilst two old shrews leapt up and gave the lie to their long seasons by dancing a merry jig to the tune. Logalog refilled Grath's beaker, saying, "'You've got a great laugh, friend. You should use it more often.' The big otter stared into the fire. "'There's not been much to laugh about the last few seasons, matey.' Curlo tugged at Grath's big calloused paw. "'Will you sing a song for us, Marm?' she asked. The otter shook her head at the disappointed shrew-maid. "'I'm not a very good singer, but I'll do some magic for you.' "'Magic? What sort of magic?' "'With my bow I'll shoot a star for you.' All eyes turned on Grath, who winked secretly at Logalog. The shrew-chieftain nodded sagely. "'Aye, she looks like a magic otter to me. "'Trimp!' Dimple, fetch our friend her big bow and quiver. The shrews watched intently as Grath strung the great longbow and chose an arrow. Then she passed her paws over the bow, murmuring, Magic arrow, travel far, I will shoot a bright night star. 
Grath stepped outside onto the ledge in front of the cave, surrounded by curious shrews. Which star do you want me to shoot? she asked Curlo. Point it out. With a hearty, gruff giggle, Curlo pointed. Nothing up there. Which one, that bright, twinkly one? Aye, that's the one, Marm. But even a big beast like you with a great bow like that and couldn't shoot so far. With a mock serious face, Logalog shook a paw at her. I see you don't believe, friend Grath. Right. Go on, mate, sure. Grath sighted on the star and bent her bow full back, the arrow tight on the tautened string. Whipping the bow aloft, she loosed the green-feathered shaft, and in seconds it was speeding upward, lost in the vastness of the night sky. Quickly, every beast inside, Grath shouted. The shrews dashed into the cave, with Grath behind them yelling, Stand well back from the fire, then look at it hard for a few seconds. After a short interval, the otter called to them, Close your eyes tightly, keep them closed, and come outside. Doing as they were bidden, the shrews filed outside, clasping each other's paws with their eyes screwed shut. Now turn your faces to the place where the star was and the sky, Grath announced in a loud, mysterious voice. Open your eyes quickly and blink once. Roars of wonderment went up from the Gwasim shrews. She did it! She did it! The star burst in a great flash of light. I can still see it bursting. There's lights everywhere. One tiny shrew ran round shrieking, I saw the arrow hit the star, miss. Graph is magic. Later the wind abated, and the thunder and lightning ceased. Outside the rain continued, but not so hard as before. Grath and Logalog sat with their backs against the cave wall, watching the flickering firelight cast patterns over sleeping Gwasim shrews and listening to the steady patter of raindrops on the rocks outside. The shrew chieftain yawned. That was a good trick, Grath. Have you got any more magic to stop this lot snoring? The otter chuckled. You want to try living in an otter holt sometime? It makes shrew snores sound like gentle music. They don't bother me, friend. Logalog closed his eyes, paws folded on his fat stomach. Good. Then you won't mind me adding my snores to em, mate. Peace be upon your rest, Grath Longfletch. Thanks for your hospitality, Logalog. Peace be upon you also, and all of your guasim this night. Grath closed her eyes and slept then. But peace would have been the last thing on her mind, had she known that not half a league out to sea, beyond the reefs, Waveworm, the Corsair ship, was sailing parallel to the shrew's cave, bound south. It passed in the night, leaving only a broad wake, which was soon swallowed up, lost in sweeping rain and the eternally flowing seas. 13. Up in the sick bay, Rollo finished reading Fermal's cryptic message, Tansy narrowed her eyes thoughtfully, then slowly repeated the strange little rhyme, having heard it only once. The hogmaid spoke out firm and clear. Look not up, nor to the four main points, but where our paws do tread, the dead oak joints. There, wrought by Mother Nature, neath the main, lies that which holds the beauty, or the bane. Martin raised his eyebrows in surprise. Well done, miss. What a curious tale Fermald the Ancient had to tell. Sampetra, where is it? Emperor Mad-Eyes, what sort of creature is he? 
Greylunk's secret gift, the tears of all oceans. Why are they so dangerous? What are they? I tell you, it's a riddle within a riddle. Rollo breathed hard on his spectacles and polished them with his sleeve, saying, Aye, Martin, it has me baffled, too. Tansy tapped her paw on the unrolled parchment. Oh, let's get on and follow the clues, she cried. Rollo gave the hogmaid a severe glance over the top of his glasses. But do you feel well enough yet, Tansy? he asked. Friar Higgle glanced up from a slice of pie and chuckled. Ho, 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 well enough, did you say? Just look at her. If an I felt that well, I'd be up and cutting a jig. That one's as spry as a whippy willow in a breeze. Tansy leapt from the bed to prove her point. See? Oh, come on, please, please or I'll make myself ill lying in bed thinking about it all. What do you say, Martin, sir? The warrior mouse tapped a paw against his chin. Hmm, maybe. But what if Sister Cicely comes back and finds one of her patients gone? What then? Hegel licked red current from his paws. Then I'll sling her into bed and feed her warm nettle broth and see as how she likes it. Ho, 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 ho. Amid the general laughter at Higgle's outrageous suggestion, Rollo and Tansy clasped paws with Martin, their eyes shining as he spoke the words they were waiting to hear. Right. Let's go and solve this thing, friends. Three lanterns illuminated Fermall's chamber as the trio set about their search. Rollo sat in the armchair and read out the first two lines of the rhyme. Look not up, nor to the four main points, but where our paws do tread, the dead oak joints. A faint smile hovered on Martin's lips as he questioned Tansy. Now, Missy, tell me, which are the four main points? Easy. North, south, east, and west. Good. So if we can't look north, south, east, or west, and we can't look up, where else can we look? I'd say down, Martin. Well done. And where do our paws usually tread? On the floor? Indeed they do. So when an oak is dead, our carpenters cut it lengthwise into long planks and joint them together into floorboards. You think we should look into the walls? Tansy giggled. You're being silly now, Martin. We should look under the floorboards, of course. Rollo spread wide his paws. All very clever, but this is a big attic. So where under the floorboards do we start looking? It was decided that they start at the far wall, and together, working slowly, cover every bit of the attic floor. On all fours they went, pushing their lanterns ahead as they searched. About a third of the way down the attic, Rollo got up with a sigh and went to sit in the armchair, saying, I've had enough for one night, friends. My old back is killing me, and these eyes of mine aren't what they used to be. Both Tansy and Martin remonstrated with the recorder. Oh, come on, Rollo. You're no fun at all, you old grouch. Yes, please, Mr. Rollo. Don't fall asleep in that armchair. Up on your paws now, or we'll take you to the sick bay and let Sister Cicely feed you warm nettle soup. I'd help us if I were you, Rollo. That warm nettle soup tastes awful. It's like trying to drink dirty ditch water. But Rollo refused to be moved. No, my mind's made up. You're strong, Martin, and Tansy's young. You carry on, I'm too old. Martin had been creeping up behind the armchair as Rollo spoke, and suddenly he gave it a mighty shove. Rollo squeaked out in surprise, 
So did the little caster wheels as they rumbled along the floor, stopping just short of the far wall. Martin wagged a warning paw. Now will you get up and help us, you old fraud? Look, see here. Tansy was on all fours, inspecting the floor where the armchair had formerly stood. Rollo leapt from the chair to join Martin and Tansy at the spot. Where? What is it? Hold the lantern closer. It was a crude black ink drawing, sketched at a joint lengthwise where one floorboard ended and another began. A simple picture of a spoon. Martin forestalled their inquiries. Before you ask me, yes, I have Fermol spoon right here in my belt. He produced the polished buckthorn spoon and inserted it into the crack between both floorboards, muttering, What am I supposed to do with it now? Lever the board up? No, sir. The spoon is too fragile. It'd break. Hmm. You're right, Tansy. Any ideas? Perhaps if you wiggled it from side to side, Rollo suggested. Martin tried, but nothing happened. He sat pondering the problem until Tansy said, Try pushing it down, sir. The warrior mouse pushed the spoon firmly into the crack. Good try, Tansy. But there's still nothing happening. Rollo peered at the problem from all angles. Maybe if we all moved off the floorboard. Come this side of it, you two. Try pushing the spoon in now, Martin. Martin did. There was a click, and the floorboard lifted slightly, just enough for the warrior mouse to get a grip with his paws. He lifted, and the board came out easily. Tansy scooped a small linen flower bag out of the space beneath. Ha-ha! Got it. Good old Rollo. The recorder beamed with pleasure as he inspected the empty space. Yes, twas rather clever of me, wasn't it? The floorboard would never have risen while we were all kneeling on it. See, it was just a simple lever. The spoon pushes one end, and the other end, further along, rises up and moves the floorboard. Shall we adjourn downstairs, where we can sit comfortably by the fire and cavern hole? Every beast should be abed by now. We can look at what we've found in peace and comfort. It's a bit chilly up here. They were halfway along the dormitory corridor when Viola Bankbowl came bursting out of the main bedrooms. She was quaking and sobbing. Martin and Rollo caught hold of her. Viola, what's wrong, miss? Why are you so upset? The bank bowl snuffled tears onto her nightgown sleeve. The big bird. It was horrible. It came right against the gatehouse window and nearly got me. It had a sharp beak and great eyes, and it was screeching. wah -ha! Tansy led her to the sick bay, comforting her. Hush now, Viola. There, there. It was only a dream. You can sleep in my bed. It's nice and quiet in the sick bay. There's only Friar Higgle, and he's fast asleep. Lie down now. They left a lantern by the bed to reassure Viola. Walking back out into the corridor, Rollo gave a start and leaned fearfully against Martin. A small white-clad figure had materialized out of the gloom. Toogle-doo, Tansy-Pansy, I'm a little maggot. It was Arvin in a long white nightshirt, giggling. He tripped into Tansy's outstretched paws. The hedgehog maid chided him. You should be fast asleep. What have you been up to, eh? Arvin drew two big gull feathers from his nightshirt. A been ticklin' bola banky on a nose. Hee-hee-hee-hee. <laughs> Martin took the two feathers from the tiny squirrel. 
You dreadful creature, so it was you frightening poor Viola into having nightmares. What are we going to do with you? Arvin shrugged nonchalantly. Foi, can't do anything with dibbons. Not chop a tail off with a big sword, ho oh, no. Arvin only lickle. Rollo shook his head despairingly. He's right, you know. There's not a lot we can do to a naughty dibbon. There's only the fun things, like letting Mother Alma give him a good bath. It's nice when the soap suds go up your nose and down your mouth, and your eyes smart, and you have to be still while she scrubs your tail with that hard brush, and... The rest of Rollo's words were lost on Arvin as he wriggled out of Tansy's grasp and fled back into the dormitory, muttering, No, no, I be good, I be good now. Not Lara Mama get me in a bath. As they went through the kitchens, they found that Teasel, the hogwife, had left a big parsnip and mushroom pasty to cool for morning before she went to her bed. Safe inside Cavern Hole, Martin grinned as they divided a slice between them. I haven't stolen a slice of pasty since I was a dibbon, huh? Us three are worse than little Arvin. Tansy blew on a slice of pasty to cool it, licking the dark rich gravy from her paws. Wrong, Martin. If there were ten of us, we couldn't make more trouble than that maggot. He's the terror of all dibbons. Take it from one who knows. Rollo burned his tongue on the hot pastry. Whew! Excuse me, but are we going to sit here discussing Abby Babes, or is some beast going to open that bag tonight? Martin twirled his paw towards Tansy. The honor is all yours, my friend. Inside the flower bag was the shell of a scallop a huge one. Deep ridges on both sides met where the shell closed in a perfect watertight seal. At some time, a clever and artful creature had created dark wood hinges to the shell's back flanges and a cunning clasp lock on the front. As Tansy opened the shell, she recited the second half of the rhyme. There wrought by Mother Nature neath the main lies that which holds the beauty or the bane. Both halves of the scallop shell fell open before their eager eyes. The interior of the shell was lined with soft red cloth. One perfectly round ball of thin pine parchment nestled in a holder. Five more holding spaces were empty. Rollo sighed with disappointment. I told you, Martin, this is only the beginning of a wild goose chase. What a tricky and aggravating squirrel Fermald the Ancient was, though fates preserve her memory. Martin heard Rollo, but he was staring at Tansy. "'What's on your mind, Missy? You seem very pensive.' The hogmaid let her paw stray across the five vacant holders. "'Seashell. Seabirds.' "'Oh, I don't know. What is sure is that there are five empty spaces, which must mean that there are five missing balls of paper.' "'Well, let's not waste any time,' said Rollo. "'Let's open the one we've got and see where fortune leads us.' Rollo's paws shook as he worked, carefully peeling the delicate tissue of the flimsy orb open. Gently does it. I don't want to rip the paper. Ah, there. The three friends scanned Fermall's spidery writing. For you, my old friend Higgle, I shed a single tear. The kindnesses oft showed me your food and smiling cheer. Go, 
Find my gift, good friar. This tear is given free, not hid away in secret, but there for all to see. Rollo stared into the fire, watching the intricate flame dances around log and charcoal. Tears, tears, always tears, he said. End of Side 2 To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side 3 Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 100 Tansy could not resist a little joke. If tears are the answer you need, go no further than Viola Bankville. She's always weeping and whining about something or other. Let's try her. Martin gave the hedgehog maid a sideways glance. Probably because she's easy to pick on. I'm surprised at you, Tansy, making fun of the misfortune of others. The regret Tansy showed at her ill-chosen remark was sincere. I'm sorry, sir. I'll try to be kinder to Viola in the future. Rollo patted her paw cheerily. Well spoken, young'un. That's the true red wall spirit. Here, finish this pasty off before it grows cold. Tansy needed no second bidding. Teasel's pasty was delicious. For a long while the three friends sat in silence, staring at the thin scrap of parchment and pondering its meaning. Cavern Hole was peaceful and warm, and soon Rollo's glasses started to slip further down his nose as his head began to slump forward. Martin winked at Tansy and nodded towards the drowsing old recorder, then he blew gently on Rollo's eyelids. The bank bowl blinked several times and sat up straight, as if he had never dozed off, saying, Ahem! Right, uh, where are we? Still studying this rhyme, eh? Martin kept a straight face as he replied, I still studying. Have you come up with any good ideas? Rollo's paw shot up decisively. I've got it. Here's what we must do next. Martin and Tansy exclaimed together. What? A twinkle shone in Rollo's tired old eyes. Go straight to bed, before we all fall asleep here and wake up with stiff necks and rickety backs. Now don't start pouting, miss. We've got to sleep sometime. Tell her, Martin. The warrior mouse rose and stretched. He's right, Tansy. You'll see, a clear morning after a sound night's sleep and a good breakfast always improves a creature's brain power. You'd best sleep in the dormitory. Viola is in your infirmary bed. Come on now, up you go. Despite her protestations that she was not the least bit tired, Tansy found the dormitory bed soft and comfortable. Sleep stole up, gently closing her eyelids and leading her into the realm of odd dreams. Martin appeared, but he was not quite like the Martin she knew so well, and he was wearing a magnificent suit of armor. Tansy realized that this was the other Martin, the warrior founder of Redwall, the same mouse whose likeness was woven into the tapestry which hung in Great Hall. He wore the same sword she had often seen the present Martin wearing. Tansy felt happy in the presence of the warrior. He radiated strength, safety, and confidence, and his voice was soothing when he spoke. 
Made of red wool? Search and never give up hope. You will find joy, frustration, and sorrow in your quest. Never forget that friendship and loyalty are more precious than riches. Remember these words on the day you must return the tears to their true owner. Happiness can be brief, but it knows no time in the land of dreams. Sleep on, and I will show you. The warrior's image faded, and Tansy went deep into the most pleasant dream. Like a leaf she was borne upward, and she wandered with the breeze through quiet summer woodlands, resting in sunlit coppices, drifting on margins of still-water meadows, and dancing lightly over faraway flower-clad hills. 14. Friar Higgle's stump was up and about early the next morning. He trundled down to his beloved kitchens, grumbling to himself, I wager breakfast ain't but half started yet. Best be about my business, hungry mouths to feed. That sister Sicily, she'd have a body lying abed all season for no good reason. Us stumps are made of stern spike. Tis plain no seagull can bother me. He strode boldly into the kitchens, only to be met by his wife Teasel's accusing eye. I knowed there weren't nothing wrong with you, Eagle. I spect it was you sneaked down last night late and took a slice of that parsnip and mushroom pasty I left out to cool afore I went to bed. The good friar brushed past her stiffly, saying, Shame on you for even thinking such a thing about me, Mom. When did I ever filch food from me own kitchens, eh? He set about measuring oatmeal and barley into a mixing bowl before livening up the oven fires with fresh charcoal. Teasel took a tray of nut-bread rolls down from her cooling shelf, her muttering blending with that of Higgle. Both hedgehogs chunnered to themselves as they went about their cooking chores. A pasty that eats itself ain't naught but mysteries of late in this ere abbey. Mysteries and mischief. Huh. This honey stiff as glue. I'd best leave it atop the oven to warm through. Parsnips don't agree with me. Why should I want to eat a pasty? We're going to need more white cheese afore the morning's done, aye. And this oven fire needs a good raking out. Abbot Durrell had also risen early. He strode into the kitchens, rubbing his paws in a lively fashion. Good morrow to you both. Can I lend a paw? Here, that fire needs raking out, Teasel. Let me do it. The three friends went about their work as the atmosphere lightened and mouth-watering aromas began pervading the air. Durrell helped Higgle to carry a small churn of green sap milk from the cooling slab to the mixing bowl, explaining his day's plans as they measured it into the oatmeal and barley. I thought I'd take a stroll into Mossflower Woodlands today, collect some coltsfoot and brooklime, maybe find a clearing where some red clover is showing. It's going to be a nice warm day. I feel we'll soon have a hint of summer. Friar Higgle winked knowingly at his friend and said, Who knows? Mayhaps I'll be able to make you some pastilles, if you collect enough of those plants, Father Abbot. Durrell hid a smile, putting on a mock defensive tone. Coltsfoot pastilles are good for the young ones. Keep them fit. 
good for coughs and any number of small ailments. Teasel had been eavesdropping on the conversation, and now she tapped the abbot's paw lightly with her ladle. I don't suppose it'd have anything to do with a certain abbot of Redwall, who likes to carry a little bag of colt's foot pastilles to suck. Some elders are worse than dibbons, I say. Duro lifted the warmed honey from the oven top, protecting his paws with a cloth. You would say right, Teasel. I've been dreaming lately of having a good pocketful of nice, sweet coltsfoot pastilles. During breakfast, the abbot called Tansy to his side and whispered in the hogmaid's ear, I'm off into Mossflower today, collecting plants. How'd you like to come with me? It will be mild and sunny. We could take lunch with us. What do you say? Much to his surprise, Tansy refused the offer. Thank you very much, Father Abbot, but maybe you'd like to give someone else a chance. Take poor Viola Bankbowl with you. The kindly old mouse was pleased, but perplexed. Certainly, Missy. But why Viola? Because I feel sorry for her, and I think we should be friends. Last night Viola had bad dreams, so I put her in my bed at the sick bay. I thought I was helping her. But Sister Cicely came in during the night and made her drink a big bowl of warm nettle broth. Poor Viola. She's sitting over there, unable to touch any breakfast. See, she looks a funny color to me. Abbot Duro looked up from his mint tea. You're quite right, Tansy. A walk in the woodlands and a picnic lunch will do your friend a power of good, I think. But what will you do with yourself all day? Tansy's voice dropped to a secretive whisper. I've got business with Martin and Rollo. We've a riddle to solve. Very important. The glorious spring morning rolled on into early noontide, with Redwall Abbey abuzz as creatures went about their chores and young ones played across the lawns. Skipper of Otters and his stalwarts patrolled the ramparts, striding along the high battlemented outer wall, ever alert for the slightest sign of invading gulls. At the woodland's edge on the north path, a mass of cow parsley with white flowering buds stirred, which was odd because there was not the slightest breeze to move it. The corsair ferret Romska popped her head up momentarily before dropping back out of sight. Last time I saw that place I was with Captain Conva, and we was on the trail of old Greylunk. That's Redwall Abbey right enough. Despite the warmth of spring sunshine, Lask Frildor was still shivering from a cold night spent wandering through the damp woodlands. He was not in the best of tempers. Why not raise your voice a bit louder, so they can hear you properly, Addlebrain? he snarled, drawing a heavy cloak tight about his quaking body. Romska leaned towards him, her voice contemptuous. Button your lips, slop tongue. I'll talk when and ow I like, see? Ha! Huh. It don't matter if they ears us. The moment those abbey creatures catch a sight of you, they'll be dumbstruck for sure. Lask loosened the cloak and puffed out his throat airily. You speak nonsense, fool. Romska snorted as if in despairing amusement. Listen to him, messmates. Every time he opens that gob, he treads on his tongue. Let me tell you something, Monitor, 
a fact you and the emperor overlooked. Them abbey beasts can't abide sea rats, corsairs, and such like. So imagine how they'll take to the sight of you and ten other reptiles, great flesh-eaten lizards from the tropics beyond the sunset. Ha-ha! Never thought of that, did you? They ain't never seen the likes of you before. What do you think they're going to do, invite your inside for cakes and wine? Cha! They'll slam the gates tight in your face, give those monitors a volley of spears, and send a lot of you packing up the road, just like any right-minded creature would. I'll take me oath on that, matey. Deflated, the monitor general drew away with his ten remaining monitors and went deeper into the woodland, where they could hold a conference. Romska had left a guard of six vermin aboard Waveworm, but her corsairs were still three times the number of Lask's force. They, too, drew back into the wood, but only to light a small fire on which they could cook their supplies, supplemented by whatever roots and fruits they had foraged from the countryside. Rubby the cook held out a young turnip he had spitted and roasted on his cutlass blade. Romska accepted it and lounged nonchalantly in the sunlight. Ragplan the bosun joined her, munching a stalk of wild celery. So, what are you going to do now, Captain? he said. Romska spat out a tough piece of turnip. Do? I ain't doing nothing, matey. Old Scale Guts is in charge of the land party. Let Lask do all the doing. Rathglan cast a glance through the bushes. Ahoy! Here comes old Lask himself. Looks like he wants to talk. The Monitor General dismissed Rathglan with a nod and seated himself next to Romska, saying, Perhaps what you say is right, my friend. Romska flung the half-eaten turnip away and wiped her mouth. Oh-ho, friend, is it? You've changed your tune, lizard. So tell me, what's the plan? Abbot Durrell sat on the bank of a small stream with Viola Bankville. They ate nut-bread rolls and cheese, washed down with sips of old cider, for lunch. The father abbot kicked off his sandals and lowered his footpaws gingerly into the cold, clear water with a long sigh. Ah, that is truly delightful. Nothing like stream water for refreshing the footpaws. You should try it, Viola. The bankpole maid stared doubtfully at the gurgling stream. But I don't like getting my footpaws wet, father, and besides there's no towels to dry them. Durrell smiled benevolently at the prissy little creature. Grass, soft moss, or dead ferns are as good as any towel, Viola. Come on, you'll never know what it's like until you try it. Slipping off her sandals, the bowl maid lowered her footpaws into the water. She shuddered, then giggled. Hee-hee-hee! <laughs> it tickles and it's cold. But you're right, father, it does feel good. I think I'll stand up and have a paddle. Lussac and Fraddle, two of Lask Frildor's monitors, had been unsuccessfully trying to catch birds with a net. Finding the stream, the two lizards had followed its course, searching for a likely spot where fish might be found. Fraddle suddenly held up a heavily scaled claw, saying, Hearken, Lizen! I hear voices! Crouching low, they wriggled silently forward, 
From behind a screen of hemlock and dropwood, they watched two creatures clad in green habits, an old mouse and a young bank bull, prancing in the stream shallows, laughing and splashing. Lussac's dark tongue snaked out hungrily. Food at last, he breathed. Fraddle's claw shot out as Lussac started to creep forward. Seizing him tight by the loose jaw flesh, he dragged until it threatened to tear. No, these will be prisoners for General Lazg. Viola and the abbot sat on the stream bank, rubbing their footpaws in the sun-warmed grass. Oh, Father Abbot, what fun! You were right when you said that. Eek! The tough twine meshes of a ship's net trapped them both. They were pulled backward and hauled up the bank. Terrified, wordless, and stiff with fright, the old mouse and the young bank bull found themselves staring into the foul-breathed faces of two reptiles they could not have imagined in their worst nightmares. Bees dill, or bees lane. Fifteen. Apart from a few helpers, the kitchens were quiet after lunch had been served. Martin and Rollo sat on grain sacks with Tansy, questioning her closely. Are you sure you can remember no more of your dream, Tansy? I wish I could, Rollo. Really, I do. I can remember seeing Martin the warrior of ancient times, and he said many things to me, though it all seemed so fuzzy this morning. It was something about searching and never giving up hope. Then more words about friendship and loyalty. Oh, and he mentioned about one day giving the tears back to their true owner. I'm sorry, but today my mind doesn't seem to be working properly. Oh, dear, it makes me so irritable when I can't remember exactly what he said. Martin said understandingly, No matter, Tansy. All will become crystal clear when our warrior's spirit... Wishes it so. The main thing at this moment is to solve the riddle. Would you read it again, please, miss? Tansy unfolded the flimsy parchment scrap. I think the relevant part is in these last four lines. Listen. Go find my gift, good friar. This tear is given free, not hid away in secret, but there for all to see. Rollo donned his glasses and stared at the rhyme, saying, Fermold meant this for Friar Higgle, really. Don't you think we should go to him and ask for his help? At that instant, Formol and Higgle emerged from the wine cellar ramp, rolling a small cask of elderberry wine between them. Formol unbent and grunted, Yours or Higgle, us'll take it or to eat corner thar. Rollo called over from his perch on the grain sacks. Friar Higgle, can you spare us a moment, please? Leaving poor Mole to trundle the cask, Higgle came over, his homely face wreathed in a big smile. Phew! We none of us are as spry as we used to be, friends. Good job I got poor Mole to help me. Now, what can I do to help you? Skipper of Otters was a big, tough-looking beast. He turned on the wall top as one of his otter crew called across from the south ramparts. Nary a sign of gulls again today, Skip. Skipper's deep, gruff voice rang back in reply. Keep your eyes peeled, though, Glenner. We'll give it another day or two yet. Mayhaps they're watching us from afar. 
As he took his eyes away from the cloudless blue noon sky, Skipper saw a ferret emerge from the woodland fringe. Everything about her, from the brass ear-hoops to the tattooed paw and ragged silks she wore, branded her as sea vermin. She waved in a cheery fashion at the big otter. Ahoy there, rudder tail! Is this the place they call Redwall? Skipper became immediately alert. What if it is, Snipe Nose? What's your business here? Oh, just some information. No need to get offended. Skipper chuckled, amazed at the ferret's impudence. Bless your eye, matey. I'm not offended at a corsair calling me rudder tail. Though if I was down there now, I'd give you such a clout you'd land up in the middle of next season. Romska laughed back, giving as good as she got. You're a big saucy beast. Talk it all brave from up there. Why not come down here and try your luck, river dog? Skipper wagged a hefty gnarled paw at her. My old mother never raised no fools, Corsair. Where's your sword and daggers? Lying in the undergrowth with the rest of your slimy crew? Now say your say and be gone, quick and sharpish. The hogwife Teasel arrived up on the wall top, carrying a basket. Good afternoon, Mr. Skipper. I brought up a snack for you and your crew. Who's that creature down there? Skipper peered into the basket, his face lighting up in appreciation. Nothing to worry your good head about, Marm. Thank you for the vittles, though. Beg your pardon whilst I deal with this villain. Immediately the skipper of otters became serious, whirling his sling until the thongs hummed. Say your peace, scum, or stand by to eat stone. Romska spoke out smartly. Where's Greylunk? I wants to speak with him. You're wasting your time. There ain't no Greylunk here. Ah, come on. You can do better than that. Either bring the weasel out, or return what he stole. Skipper and his crew were infrequent abbey-dwellers, living mainly in Mossflower's woodlands and waters, and he had no idea what Romska was talking about, and he was not a beast to stand arguing. Whock! The slingstone bounced off a sycamore trunk a hair's breadth from the corsair's skull. Next one goes down your throat, vermin. Now clear off! Romska leapt behind the sycamore trunk, shouting, We know you've got Greylunk in there. And the pearls. It'd be a lot easier on you if you brought them out. Hogwife Teasel popped her head over the battlements and cried, Greylunk left here seasons ago. They found his remains not two nights back in the woodland rocks. The red ones east of here. Greylunk's dead long ago, so be off with you. So you say. I'll be back again at this time tomorrow, Romska yelled. When it was obvious Romska had gone, Skipper chided Teasel gently. You should have told that and nothing, Marm. I'd advise you to find Martin and tell him all that happened. Back in the kitchens, Friar Higgle had been shown the rhyme and told all about the situation. He shrugged. Alas, I know nothing about any gift. Old Fermald never gave me nothing but smiles. I wish I could help you. But I can't. A tear for all to see? That's a real poser, friends. I must start baking for supper now. You'll have to excuse me. 
but good luck to you. Feeling defeated, the three wandered about the kitchens on a futile search. Then Clecky ambled in, followed by Garrow. The mountain hare looked about hungrily. I say, chaps, is it nearly tea time? I'm famished. Sorry, are you looking for eatables too, what? Rollo walked around Clecky, investigating the shelves behind him. No, we're not, you great famine fetcher. We're looking for a tear that is in plain view. Garrow blinked several times, shifting from one talon to another. Ah, well now, if me good friend Clecky here doesn't get something to devour soon, no doubt you'll see plenty of tears in plain view, sirs, and you too, miss. Old Clecky here can blubber up a storm if the food isn't forthcoming. Indeed he can. Tansy fidgeted with her apron restlessly. Oh, bother! How can you hide something, and yet leave it in plain view? It doesn't make sense. Friar Higgle looked up from the rhubarb crumble he was making. Aye, especially when you don't know what it is you look for. Clecky knew what he was looking for. The hungry hare had spotted a box of candied chestnuts on a far corner shelf. He sidled slowly over and tried to snatch some of the delicious sweets. Unfortunately, there was a huge, ornate wooden candlestick standing between Clecky and the shelf. The immense candle it held was lit only once every four seasons at the first summer feast. Wax had melted upon wax over the seasons, crusting the top of the carved holder. Clecky stood with his back against the candle, trying to appear as though he were doing nothing. However, behind him his paws were working furiously. With one paw around each side of the candlestick, he grappled and grabbed furiously, trying to reach the box standing on the shelf behind the giant candle. As Tansy and her friends wandered about searching, Friar Higgle became alerted by the scrabbling noises. He looked directly at Clecky. What are you doing over there, sir? The hare stood with both paws searching madly behind his back for the box as he tried to stand still, smiling casually. What? Er, uh, who? Me? Er, ah, ha, ha, old feller, nothing at all. Nice and snug in this corner, don't you think? What, what? The friar advanced on him, shaking a ladle threateningly. You're up to some prank, I know it. Now get out of my kitchen. Tea'll be ready when I've made it. He grabbed hold of Clucky's tunic and pulled sharply. Come on, out, I said. But the hare had hold of the box in both paws and was unwilling to let go. He tottered forward and overbalanced, shouting indignantly, I say, let go, you great foozlin' friar! Yaha! Higgle dodged to one side as the hare fell bringing the candlestick crashing down to the floor with him. Candied chestnuts from the fractured box rolled around the kitchen floor stones. Martin and Higgle helped Clecky up. The friar was furious. Now look at what you'd done, and all through sheer greed for a few chestnuts. The great summer candle is broke, snapped clean in two pieces. You'll pay for this, sir, ten bellies. Rollo, Tansy, and Garrel were gathering up the spilled nuts. Tansy could not help grinning as she nudged the old recorder. Rollo, shame on you. Don't eat them. Put them back in the box. Really, a bowl of your seasons, pinching candied chestnuts like a dibbon. You're worse than Clecky. 
Hello, what's this? By accident she had trodden on a lump of the congealed candle wax, which had broken from the holder in its fall. As the candle wax broke under Tansy's paw, a large pink globe rolled out across the floor. Martin stared at it in wonder. A pearl, he whispered. A perfect pink pearl. So that was it, said Rollo, hidden in plain view. Fermald pushed the pearl into the molten wax, and it set around it. Clever. Rollo sat flat upon the floor, watching Tansy breaking up the rest of the hardened wax globules. Tears! The tears of all oceans! We're hunting for pearls! Why didn't I think of it before? The most precious thing to come out of the great waters, though I've never heard them referred to as tears of oceans before. What a charming description! Tansy! You're making a dreadful mess breaking up all that wax over the floor. What are you doing? The young hedgehog maid produced a greasy ball of rolled-up paper, the same size as the pearl, from among the wax pieces. Ha! I found it! The clue to the second pearl! she cried. Clecky tried to look as if he was not chewing three chestnuts as he swaggered about, dusting himself down. Humph! Snch! Knew I'd be able to help you chaps! Glub takes an eagle eye and a sharp brain to hunt the jolly old pearls, you know. Grumph, snch. No need to thank me. All in a day's work, what? Youch! Friar Higgle's ladle caught him smartly on the tail, and he fled from the kitchens, yelling amid the laughter that followed him. Base ingratitude! Gulp! Desist, sir, I say! Ouch! Sixteen. Of all the sea-going vermin frequenting San Petra, Rasconza was the only fox. He was bosun to Slashback, sea-rat captain of the ship Bloodkeel. Rasconza was tough, ambitious, and smart. After the captain's revolt, he had appointed himself leader of the rebel crews, roaming the island's high hills. The fox was a renowned blade-thrower, having about him no fewer than ten daggers, which he would use at the drop of a paw. None of the other vermin challenged his position. Rasconza crouched on a hilltop at the isle's northwest tip. Behind him in a hollow, the vermin crews lay about, eating fruit, roasting fish, and dozing in the warm tropical noon. But the fox was alert, watching the sea before him. Baronka and the captains were sailing the freebooter towards the inlet below, unaware that Sagittar, with a full crew of trident rats, was following in the blood keel. Baronka had taken the open sea route, but Sagittar had followed at a distance, hugging the coast. Blood keel was now lying in wait around the high curving hills of the headland. Once Baronka sailed his ship into the inlet, Sagittar could slip around and block the exit with her vessel trapping freebooter and the captains. It would be the perfect ambush. Rasconza's sharp brain and keen eyes took in the situation at a glance, and he laid his plans swiftly. Slipping away from the drowsing rebels was but the work of a moment. Once out of their sight, the fox dashed headlong down the cliff towards the inlet, and arrived in time to hail Baronka as freebooter nosed into the shallows. "'Captain, tis I, Rasconza. 
There's a shipload of trident rats lying in wait for you. They'll round the point soon and trap you. Baranka glanced around the narrow inlet, realizing it was too late to backwater, and turned for an open run out to sea. We'll have to stand and fight them. Are the crews close by, mate? We're going to need help. Rascanza put on his steadfast and honest face and saluted Baranka. Leave it to me, Captain, he said, voice grim and determined. I'll muster em and get back here in a flash. You hold those trident rats off. I won't be long. Baranka returned the salute as Rasconza trotted off. That's the spirit, messmate. Together we'll give them a drubbin' they won't forget. Rasconza ran puffing and panting uphill until the ships below looked like toys. Slowing down, he crept into the hollow where the crews lay asleep around the ashes of their fires. The fox cocked up both ears and listened, satisfied that he could hear no noise from far below. Then, retrieving half a roasted fish from the paws of a sleeping sea-rat, he began eating slowly, mentally calculating the weight before putting the next stage of his plan into action. After what he deemed an appropriate interval, Rasconza stood up, kicking those about him into wakefulness. "'Our captains are being massacred down there. Look!' he yelled. He dashed to the hilltop and pointed down to the inlet. Wave vermin rubbing sleep from their eyes joined him yelling outrage at the scene below. Trident rats! They've got the cove blocked off! Scum, they've overrun the freebooter! Let's get down there and rip into them! Aye, we'll make the waters run red to save our captains! Rasconza strode to the fore, bellowing. Too late to save those captains now, mates. I got a plan. Listen. We split into three groups. Baltor, you take one lot down there to the left bypass the trident rats, and board the blood keel from her stern. Goncho, you take another lot to the right, and board her from the forward end. That way we've got ourselves a ship. I'll take the rest straight down the center and attack the trident rats. I'll make them pay for slaughtering our captains. A roar of approval went up from the crew beasts. Sagittar had not thought it would be so hard to slay six captains and take one prisoner, but it had been a long and bitter fight. Once she had blocked the inlet by anchoring Bloodkeel across it, she ordered her trident rats to attack. They went overboard and had to swim until the water was shallow enough for them to wade. The captains were waiting for them. Having armed themselves with pikes and boat hooks, they dashed around freebooters' rails, hacking and stabbing at every head that appeared over the side. But numbers began to tell. Urged on by Sagittar, the trident rats fought their way aboard. Immediately Baranka and his companions abandoned ship, and, wading ashore, they speared viciously at the foe-beasts in the shallows. Then Flaney fell to a trident thrust, followed by Ripdog and Rockpaw. Back to back, Slashback, Bloodsnout, and Bilgetail kept off the advancing trident rats. Baranka joined them, blood streaming from him as he slashed about with his saber, shouting, where is that fox got to with our crews? There was nothing left but to turn and run. Bill's tail and blood snout went down, pierced by tridents. Slashback staggered on uphill, mortally wounded, Baranka supporting him. Finally Slashback fell sideways, knocking Baranka over as he did. Surrounded by trident rats, Slashback breathed his last words into the corsair stoat's face. 
What happened? Where's Fox? Baronka was dragged upright roughly. So, Corsair, Sagittar sneered at him, I told you that you'd have me to deal with, but you were too clever to heed my words. How do you feel now, scum? Baronka laughed harshly at his captor. You're lily-livered, cur. You should have been within reach of my blade, instead of leading your army from behind. Sagittar ignored the jibe. She turned to her trident rats and ordered, Scuttle the freebooter in the shallows. Her sailing days are over. The rest of you get aboard Blood Keel and prepare to get underway. Scarcely had the trident rats opened freebooter's seacocks when a mighty yell arose from the rebel crews who had succeeded in boarding the Blood Keel. Sagittar wheeled in dismay to see Baltour and Goncho and hordes of wave vermin at the rails, yelling and roaring, Come on, buckos, make crab meat of them. Ha-ha! Give them steel and take no prisoners. Stranded on the shore with a mere ten rats to guard herself and control the captured Baronka, Sagittar's last shred of courage deserted her at the sound of more blood-curdling yells from behind. She turned and saw Rasconza leading a pack of vermin downhill, straight at her. The Emperor's chief trident rat fled the scene, dashing off southward at a tangent into the hills. Baronka whooped triumphantly, and, breaking free of his guards, he ran with open paws towards Rasconza. Ho, ho, you're a sight for sore eyes, matey, he cried. As the corsairs threw themselves upon the ten trident rats, the fox grabbed Baronka in a tight embrace. Aye, Captain, your worries are over now, Rasconza said, as, smiling slyly, he slew Baronka with a single knife thrust. Then, sheathing his blade quickly, he cried out, They slew Captain Baronka, the scum! Finish him off, buckos! I'll get Sagittar, if it takes me last breath! He sped off after the chief trident rat. Sagittar threw a fleeting glance over her shoulder. The fox was hot on her trail. Stumbling and panting, the trident rat gained the hill summit and staggered southward, hoping to reach safety at the palace of Ublas. Rasconza pursued her relentlessly, grinning as he closed in on his quarry. Sagittar's paws felt leaden. She blew for breath as she started downhill. Chancing another quick look behind, she tripped and went rolling head over tail down the grassy slope. Rasconza bounded lightly alongside the trident rat, until she came to rest, half in and half out of a gurgling stream. Helpless and unarmed, Sagittar lay with the fox's knife at her throat, expecting no pity from him. Rasconza flicked his blade-point teasingly under her chin. "'Well now, me beauty, what's to be done with you?' Sagittar broke into a sobbing whine. "'Mercy, spare me!' Standing upright, the fox kicked the trident rat contemptuously. Quit your snivelling, rat. I'd like nothing better than to gut you. But I've got plans for you, so listen good. Wide-eyed with surprise, Sagittar lay staring upward at Rusconza as the devious fox relayed his information to her. It was high noon of the following day. Ublas sat atop the timber piled at the rear of his palace, and below him on the sun-baked ground Sagittar crouched, not daring to raise her eyes as she related the fox's message. Mightiness, the fox is called Rasconza. He said to tell you 
that it was he who slew Baranka, and now he alone rules the rebel crews. Even now he is on his way here and the blood keel. He wants to meet you tomorrow morning on the heights above the north inlet. You may bring armed guards with you. He says he wants to talk peace. The emperor whittled pensively at a sliver of wood with his silver dagger. Rasconza, eh? he said. This fox sounds like one I could do business with. I think we'll take him up on his offer. Pick fifty of your best trident rats, and a score of monitors to accompany me. Oh, and Sagittar, you know what will happen should you ever fail me again. Avoiding the mad eyes, Sagittar stood trembling, head bowed. Mightiness, I will never fail you again. Ublas smiled thinly, his voice like oil flowing over ice. I would hate to be in your skin if you did. 17. Logalog inspected Grath's longboat. You've got a couple of boards cracked there, matey, he announced. I'll get some of my shrews to turn her over, and we'll patch her up again. The longboat had shipped water, and now she was over a quarter full. Six gossam shrews heaved and huffed as they tried to turn the vessel over in the shingled cove. Grath waved them aside. Save your strength, mates. I can do that. She dismantled the mast and sail, placing them safe. Then, digging her powerful paws under the shingle, she found a hold and lifted. In one move she turned the longboat upside down in a rush of water. The shrew named Dabby wrinkled his nose in admiration. Now that's what I calls a strong beast. Pine resin was melted over an open fire. Skillfully the guasim applied it, alternating glares with tough vegetable fibers, until a proper repair was effected on the cracked boat ribs. Other shrews had sewn and patched the torn sail, double-strengthening it on all four corners. Finally, Graf set the longboat upright and said, Logalog, I thank you and your guasim for the help and kindness you've shown me. True friendship can't be properly expressed by just words, but, matey, I'll never forget you. The shrew chieftain kicked awkwardly at the pebbled shingle. Oh, twas nothing, mate. What use are friends if and they can't help one another? You be on your way now, afore this tide ebbs. Trimp, Dimple, load those victuals aboard for our mate. Two bags of provisions and a couple of canteens filled with drink were stowed under the stern seat. Aided by a gang of shrews, Grath pushed the longboat into the shallows and jumped aboard. Looking back at her newfound friends on the shore, she sniffed and rubbed a paw across her eyes as she began setting the sail to catch the fine spring breeze. Logalog waded out and shook the lone otter's paw firmly. "'Ahoy, what's all this? No time for weeping now, missy. The tide'll ebb away. Go on, off you go, Grath, and may good luck and fair winds follow you, matey.' Heading out to catch the south current, Grath leaned over the stern, waving to the guasim as they sang her on her way from the shore. Deep, gruff, shrew voices rang out across the waves into the bright sunny morn. Hela ho, hela ho, our hearts go with you where you go. Hela hey, hela hey, maybe we'll meet again some day. Like a feather on the breeze, blown to wander restlessly out upon the open seas, 
travel speedily and free. But as the earth turns and our fire burns, and the moss grows on the lea, when long day ends, think of old friends in whatever place you be. Hey la ho, hey la ho, fortune follow you where'er you go. Hey la hey, hey la hey, may sunlight warm your back upon the way. Late afternoon sun cast lengthening shadows over moss flower. A fire burned in a sheltered glade, and Lask Frildur sat warming his claws, watching his ten monitors prowling restlessly around the two pitiful figures bound to the trunk of an elm, long tongues snaking out, cold predatory eyes fixed on both mouse and backvole, the lizard circled close. Abbot Durrell felt a scaly claw caress his footpaw. Closing his eyes tight, he shuddered. Viola, rigid with terror, huddled as close to Father Abbot as her bonds would allow. Durrell spoke reassuringly to her. Don't be frightened, little one. Had they been going to harm us, they would have done so long before now. We'll face them together and show them that Red Wallers are brave creatures. One of the monitors brought his face close to Viola. She smelled the lizard's rancid breath as he bared sharp teeth and hissed, and she shrieked in fear. The monitor general far outstripped his lizards in size and strength. He bounded over and dealt the offending monitor a savage blow with his tail that sent the reptile crashing into a nearby bush. Then, turning to the others, Lask Frildur stood to his full height and snarled menacingly, "'Eat birds! Eat fishes! I slay any who go near these two. Abbot Durrell addressed Lask in a reasonable and friendly tone. "'Who are you, sir? Why have you bound us up like villains?' We are creatures of peace. The monitor general rounded on him contemptuously. Keep your stupid mouth closed, Mouse. Viola plucked up her courage. Don't you dare talk to him like that, she shouted shrilly at Lask. He is Abbot Durrell, the father abbot of all Redwall Abbey. A slow smile lit up the monitor general's cold features. Good, good. This is very useful to me. Durrell leaned back against the tree, sighing. I wish you had not told him that, Viola. It has put both us and Redwall in a very dangerous position. The bullmaid wept bitterly at the realization of what she had done. Durrell was immediately sorry he had chided her. Hush now, little one, here. Turn your head and wipe your eyes on my sleeve. It wasn't your fault, really. You are young and know nothing of situations like this. Hush now, don't cry. A short time later, Romska strode into the glade at the head of her crew. She pointed to the prisoners. Aye, aye, what have we got here? Lask ignored the question. He spoke without turning from his fire. You have been gone long, Corsair. Why is this? Squatting by the flames, Romska speared an apple on her sword and began roasting it. I've got news for you, matey. Greylunk's long dead. I found his bones, me and my crew, over in a pile of rocks east of here. What else did you find, Romsga? Nothing. Not a single thing. No sign of any pearls. Just old Greylunk's bones and the rags he wore. Did you talk with the creatures at Redwall Abbey? Of course I did. That's how I knew where to find what was left of Greylunk. 
But mark my words, Lask, those beasts at Redwall ain't soft. They can fight, I know. If the pearls are anywheres, you can lay a belaying pin to a bobbin. They're inside of that red-walled abbey somewheres. So, matey, you're in charge of shore operations. What are you going to do about it? The Monitor General did not attempt to hide a triumphant smirk. I have two captives. The old mouse's father abbot of Redwall. Gromska nibbled at the steaming apple. Well, ain't you the lucky lizard? But watch your step, Lask. If those Redwallers find out you've got their abbot, they'll come searching for him in force and tear these woodlands apart. I tell you true, they've got tough, full-growed otters and beasts who ain't scared of battle. Conver reckoned he saw a great badger roam in the wall tops last time we was here. You might find you've bitten off more than you can chew, taking an abbot as hostage. Lask Frildor stood up decisively. I serve my Emperor Ublaz. I will do what I must. We must divide our forces, half to take the prisoners back to Waveworm, the other half to remain here under my command. Aye, right, that's good thinking, matey, Romska agreed, only too glad to be away from the hated Monitor General. I'll take the hostages and my crew back to the ship. Last gripped Romska's paw so tight that she winced. You take half your crew and five of my monitors. That way there will be no trigs played. I keep half your crew here with my other five monitors. The Corsair managed to pull herself from the lizard's grip and stood fuming, paw on sword. All right, so be it. You don't trust me and I don't trust you. Permission to go, your eye mightiness. Or will there be anything else? whilst I'm here to do your bidding? Smiling thinly, Lask produced a slim bone whistle and blew it. Oh, yes. I had visitors while you were gone. They will accompany you back to your vessel, just to keep an eye on things. Grawl, the great black-backed gull, and his remaining two companions, looking much the worse for wear, came padding through the trees. As soon as Hogwife Teasel had told Martin about the Corsair Ferret and her questions about Greylunk and the Pearls, he joined Skipper and his otters on the wall-top, a look of concern clouding his face. Skipper seemed unconcerned, however. Oh, it was a Corsair, no doubt of that, and I wager there's others waiting orders in the woodlands. But what's a crew of sea-scum and vermin to us, Martin? We'll teach them a lesson they'll never forget. If and they comes too close to Redwall. Leaning over the parapet, Martin peered into the silent woodlands. I wish it were that easy, Skip. But Tansy told me that the abbot is out there with young Viola. They should have been back by now. Dismay showed on Skipper's tough face. What do you suggest we do, Martin? We'd best get the elders together and hold a quick council of war. Tansy and Rollo caught up with Martin as he crossed the lawn with Alma, the badger mother, and Formol. Martin, what can we do to help? The warrior mouse paused a moment before he entered the gatehouse where the other elders were waiting. Keep on with the search for the other five pearls, you two. I've a feeling we may need them. 
Tansy pulled Rollo toward the wall steps. Let's sit out here. It's a nice afternoon. Maybe we'll think better out on the fresh air. Rollo read out the rhyme from the waxy paper for the fourth time. Like the first of Fermall's poems, it seemed to make little sense. I shed my second tear into the cup of cheer. But look not into any cup, the answer's written here. My first is in blood, and also in battle. My second in acorn, oak, and apple. My third and fourth are both the same, in the center of sorrow, and twice in refrain. My fifth starts eternity, ending here. My last is the first of last. Oh, dear. If I told you the answer, then you would know. "'Twas made in the winter of deepest snow. "'Tansy drummed her paws in frustration on the steps. "'Oh, that Fermold! "'If she were still alive, I'd give her a piece of my mind. "'This rhyme's twice as tricky as the last one.' "'They sat in silence, racking their brains, "'until the abbey bells tolled four times. "'Rollo had started to doze, but the bells woke him, and he said, "'Come on, Tansy, let's go for tea.' It was such a nice afternoon that Brother Dormal and Teasel had arranged tea in the orchard. Rollo and Tansy took scones, crystallized fruits, cream, and steaming rosehip tea, and sat with Picknum the mousemaid and Cracklin the squirrelmaid beneath the spreading boughs of an old gnarled apple tree. No sooner had Tansy sat down than Arvin's face appeared upside down in front of her. He wrinkled his nose and stuck out his tongue, Pansy, tansy, toodle-doo, boo! The little squirrel was hanging by his tail from a bough. Tansy unhooked him and lifted him down. You little maggot! You'll fall on your head one day! Arvin helped himself to a pawful of cream and ran off, giggling at the clever trick he had played. Picknum looked over Rollo's shoulder at the waxy paper. What's that, Mr. Rollo? The words of a song? The recorder threw up his paws in despair. "'I wish it were, miss. It's a riddle.' "'Ooh, a riddle! Lovely!' Picknam and Cracklin chorused in a single voice. Rollo looked at them over his spectacle-tops. "'You mean that you like riddles? Are you any good solving them?' The two friends immediately broke out into, "'If string cannot sing, then answer this riddle. What sings as sweet as the strings of a fiddle?' The fiddle string sings, but it never can throw an arrow so far as the string of a bow. But a bow plays a fiddle, and I'll marry thee if you give a bright bow of ribbon to me. They curtsied prettily, as Rollo applauded, saying, Well sung, missus. You can help us solve our riddle. Picknam and Cracklin read Fermall's poem twice, then began tittering and winking at each other. Tansy looked from one to the other. "'You've solved it, haven't you?' she demanded. They began teasing. "'Well, yes, but then again, no. We've solved it, but not all the rhyme. But we know what the main part means.' "'Oh, yes, it's a six-letter word.' Rollo could restrain himself no longer. "'Well, in the name of seasons and summers, tell us!' Picknam and Cracklin were real teasers, they went off into gales of tittering and giggling until they were unable to talk. Tansy placed a restraining paw on the irate recorder. Leave this to me, Rollo. 
Scooping up two large globs of cream, she faced the laughing duo. If you don't tell me by the time I count three, stand by for a creamy face wash. One, two. They both yelled out, It's a barrel, it's a barrel. Still holding the pawfuls of cream, Tansy commanded them, Right, show us how you arrived at the answer. Picknam and Cracklin talked like a double act, one after the other. Well, we don't know what the first two lines mean. All that stuff about cup of cheer and shed a tear. But that line, my first is in blood and also in battle. Only two letters appear twice in both words, the B and the L. Yes, and the next line's easy. Acorn, oak, and apple have only one letter in common, the A. Now, look at these lines. My third and fourth are both the same. In the center of sorrow and twice in refrain. The middle of the word sorrow contains the letter R twice, and R crops up twice in the word refrain, so it's R and R. Correct. Now the next line. My fifth starts eternity, ending here. Simple. What starts the word eternity and ends the word here? The same letter, an E. The final one isn't too difficult either. My last is the first of last. Huh. The first letter of the word last is an L. So we've got a B or an L, then an A, two R's, an E and an L. And it's certainly not Laurel, so it's got to be Barrel. Picknam jumped up and down, clapping her paws, squeaking. Oh, this is fun. Can we help you some more? Tansy was musing over the word and gazing at the waxy paper. What? Yes, of course you can help. Hmm, barrel. Where in Redwall would we find a barrel? Rollo put his food to one side. In the wine cellar? Picknam and Cracklin were off, running ahead of Tansy and Rollo. Last one to the wine cellar is a jumpy toad. Rollo trailed on behind Tansy. Carry on, young missus, with your fleet young paws. I'll just take my time like any old jumpy toad. 18. The Stump family had been in charge of Redwall's wine cellars for many seasons. Prior Higgle Stump's brother, Furlough, was a strong, fat hedgehog, conscientious and tidy in all things pertaining to his beloved cellars. He sat the three maids and Rollo down on a bench and fetched them a drink. This'll cool you down, fresh-brewed dandelion and burdock cordial, Furlow said as he poured out four beakers from a big jug. It was cool, sweet, and dark, with a creamy foam head, and they drank gratefully. Then the cellar-keeper dug his paws into his wide apron pocket, saying, Now, young'uns, and you, Rollo, sir, what can I do for you? The recorder wiped a foamy mustache from his mouth. I know this sounds silly, Furlow, but we're looking for a barrel. Well, sir, I've got lots of barrels down here. Which one would you like? Tansy spread the waxy paper flat on the bench. Trouble is, sir, we don't know. Maybe if you read this, it may help. Furlow Stump was a slow reader. He borrowed Rollo's spectacles and scanned the rhyme for what seemed an age. Then he scratched his huge spiky head in bewilderment. Deary me, I can't understand none of that, Missy. Here, 
You have a look round my cellars whilst I think about it. Rollo took them on a tour. He had worked in the wine cellars on many an occasion when he was younger and had a fair knowledge of things. What a lot of barrels, Mr. Rollo. They're not all barrels, Miss Crackland. Those great giant ones standing in the corner, they're called tons. Beetroot wine is kept in them. Barrels are these smaller ones, mainly for ale. Then there's the Kilderkin, a bit smaller for cordials and such, and smaller again, half the size, is the Firkin, usually for wines. Any small quantities of strong wine are kept in these little casks. Tansy waved her paw around, indicating the cellar stocks. So we can rule out most of these, and just pay attention to the barrels? Is that right, Rollo? The old recorder shrugged. Who knows, maybe Fermald knew little of cellars, and they all looked like barrels to her. Where are we then? Furlow approached them, still scratching his head and looking very unsure of himself. Beg pardon, Rollo, sir, but I've been thinking about the poem as was written down on that paper. There's something a-bothering my Ed. Those words at the end of the rhyme, The winter of the deepest snow... I remember when I was but a dibbon, my father told me something about a cellar-keeper named Ambrose Spike, long afore my time, though what it was he told me I can't recall. Rollo halted him with an upheld paw. Ambrose Spike, I remember him from when I was a dibbon. Picnum, you're the fastest runner. Nip across to the gatehouse and ask Wolgert to dig out the volumes of a recorder named Tim Churchmouse. Cracklin, go with her. There may be more than one volume to carry. Bring them straight back here to me, quick as you like now. The two young ones sped off out of the cellars, shouting, Last one to the gatehouse is a frumpy frog. As it turned out, neither of the young maids was a frumpy frog. They matched each other for speed all the way to the gatehouse and back to the wine cellar, arriving breathless and burdened down with two volumes apiece. Furlow poured out more dandelion and burdock cordial for everyone. With tiny spectacles balanced on his nose-end, Rollo poured through page after yellowed page, muttering to himself, Spring of the lesser periwinkle. Hmm, later than that. Autumn of the late marjoram. Hmm. Later, I think. Summer of the Rose Bay Willow-Herb. Ha! I've gone too far. It was the winter before that. Yes, here it is. Winter of the deepest snow. Got it. The three young maids leaned over Rollo's shoulder eagerly. What does it say, sir? Tell us. Rollo took a deep draft of cordial before reading. Ambrose Spike was lucky. He harvested all the rhubarb he had been growing alongside the west wall before the snows started. The snow is now so deep they have named this season the winter of the deepest snow. The weather outside is harsh and gloomy, but redwallers are merry and snug within our abbey. I helped Ambrose in the cellars today. He is squeezing the rhubarb with great stone slabs and ale barrels as weights. The juice we mixed with clear honey and poured into a firkin. It is a beautiful pink color. Ambrose Spike would not allow me to touch it. He says it will not be properly ready for at least two seasons. But when it is ready, Ambrose is of the opinion it will be unequaled for taste. 
I left him to go back to my recording today. Ambrose was fitting the lid tight onto the firkin with soft willow withes. He had a brush and vegetable dye to paint the name on the firkin. I like the name he has chosen for this wine. The Cup of Cheer. Tansy repeated the first line of the rhyme aloud. I shed my second tear into the cup of cheer. Rollo slammed the volume shut, sending up a small dust cloud. Of course, a pink pearl and pink wine. There were a lot of firkins, each one identical to the next. They stood on end too high. Furlow bade Tansy and her friends stand aside as he lifted each one down for inspection. They could not help smiling at the fashion in which hedgehog cellar-keepers wrote the names on different firkins, though they did not laugh aloud for fear of offending Furlow's stump. The powerful hedgehog lifted down one firkin after another for their inspection, and Rollo translated the simple spelling. Persnip cordial. Ahem. <clears throat> that'll be parsnip cordial. Pennyclud wine. Er, that'll be pennycloud wine. What's this one? Rabzeri Viggen. Furlow chuckled. That's raspberry vinegar, sir. Us cellarogs ain't the best of scholars, but we know our own marks when we sees them. Tansy and Cracklin dusted off the bottom of a firkin, which Furlow had laid on its side. Pignum read out the faint green lettering. Ambrose Fix, famous Copacheer. Tansy said the last word several times before it dawned on her. Copacheer? Copacheer? Cup of cheer? Cup of cheer? Cup of cheer? Rollo stroked the aged wood reverently. This is the one, made long ages ago in the winter of the deepest snow, Ambrose Spike's famous cup of cheer. It took quite a while for the cellar-keeper to tap the bung. With his coopering hammer, he knocked a sharp spigot through the center of the firkin bung without losing a drop of its contents. Then, with a mighty heave, Furlow lifted the firkin onto a table and began running the liquid off into an empty barrel. They watched the pink rhubarb wine splashing out on the shining stream. Rollo caught some in a beaker and tasted it. Delicious, but very strong. Perhaps Sister Sicily could make use of it and the sick pay for cold and chills. Tansy could not resist adding, Instead of warm nettle broth, when the firkin was empty, Furlow removed both tap and bung and began shaking it. Something clattered around inside. Pictum had the smallest paw. She reached inside and felt around. Move it a touch this way, please, Mr. Furlow. A bit more. Ah, got it. It was a tiny stone beaker, of the type used for medicine doses. Its top had been sealed over with beeswax. Furlow cut the wax away with a small quill dagger, and out fell an exquisite pink pearl. My, my, that un's a fair beauty of a treasure, the cellar-keeper remarked admiringly. Ain't never seen anything as handsome in all my born days. Tansy, however, was far more interested in the thin fold of paper lining the bottom of the beaker. She picked it out and unfolded it. Alma looked around the worried faces inside the gatehouse and spread her paws placatingly. Please, friends, let's not do anything hasty. 
There's still time for the abbot to return yet. I've often known him to stay out far later than this. But not when there are corsairs and vermin abroad in Mossflower, said Martin. The badger mother turned her gaze on him. What do you suggest we do? she asked. The warrior mouse stared out of the window at the evening sky. I think the best thing is to wait until dark. If Viola and the abbot are not back by then, something is surely amiss. I can lead a party out into the woodlands by night. We know the woods better than strangers do, and they will not be expecting us. Skipper seconded Martin's proposal. You're right, matey. I'll go along with you. Hark, what's that? Vulgar the gatekeeper knew immediately. Some beast pounded on the main gate outside. It ain't the abbot, though. He knocks proper like a gentle beast. Always three taps. I'd advise you go atop of the wall to see what beast is making that sort of din. Martin, Alma, and Skipper raced out of the gatehouse and up the wall stairs. They stood on the main threshold over the gate, staring down at a band of creatures, the leader of whom seemed to make the rural twilight sinister and unclean with its presence. Even tough Skipper was taken aback. "'Seasons of slaughter,' he whispered to Martin. "'Am I having a bad dream, or is that thing real?' Surrounded by half a crew of corsairs and sea-rats, the monitor-general stood head and shoulders over his remaining five lizards. Last Frildor made a horrific and impressive sight. His flat reptilian eyes watched the Redwallers as he pointed a monstrous scaled claw and rasped officially, Open your gates. I have words to say to you. The warrior mouth showed no fear. His voice rang out like steel striking an anvil. I command these gates, not you. Say who you are and what you want, but don't try giving orders to me. The huge monitor puffed out his throat balefully. I am Lazg Vrildur, Monitor General to the mighty Emperor Ublaz. I come here to collect Zig's burls, called the Deers of All Oceans. They were stolen from my master. You will return them. Alma leaned towards Martin, her voice low. I don't like this. That reptile wouldn't turn up here demanding anything if he didn't have something up his sleeve. Skipper's lips barely moved as he muttered, She's right, matey. You'll have to see if you can bluff him. Martin kept his face grim and resolute as he murmured to his friend, I certainly will have to bluff my way along. We don't have six pearls, and it could be a long while until we do. Let's see if I can find out what's making this lizard so confident. Lask's tongue was beginning to flicker impatiently. I am waiting, Mouse. Martin leaned carelessly against the battlements. Supposing we did have these six pearls to give you, what would we receive in return for them? The lives of your abbot Mouse and a bank bowl. Martin felt his heart sink, but he kept up a nonchalant attitude. You lie, Lizard. How do I know you're holding them? At a signal from the monitor-general, one of the lizards hurled up a small bundle weighted with a stone. It clattered on the threshold. Alma seized it and tore away the vine-wrapped rags. 
Martin felt his worst fears confirmed as he saw Skipper pick up two pairs of red wall sandals, one pair slightly larger than the other. It was hard for the warrior mouse to keep his voice calm as he said, These are just two pairs of sandals. They could belong to any beast. For the first time, Las Krilder smiled, showing yellowed rows of evil-looking teeth. The abbot mouse is called Dural. Viola is the maid's name. You want more proof? Here. Flask's claw shot out as he hurled something up. Alma swallowed hard. She picked up the delicate object. Both finely polished crystal lenses smashed. Father Abbott's glasses. Look, Martin. Blood rose in the warrior mouse's eyes. Raging and roaring, he tried to tug free of Skipper and Alma, straining to climb over the battlements at his foe. "'Touch one hair of their heads, and I will slay you, scale-scum! You and all your rabble! I will send you to Hellgates!' Lask had never seen such ferocity from any creature. He realized that Romska's warning had not been an idle one. These Red Wallers did indeed have warrior blood in their veins. Steadying himself, he called back to the raging beast on the wall-top. "'Your friends are unharmed.' But they are far from here on a vessel, anchored out on the great waters. You cannot rescue them. Bring me the pearls, and I will release the captives to you. Having delivered his ultimatum, Lask marched off quickly with his followers, and dodged smartly into the cover of Mossflower Wood. Alma held Martin tight. He was still struggling, tears of helpless rage flowing openly down his cheeks and she had to exert all her strength to hold him. "'Skipper, let's get him back down into the gatehouse,' she said. "'We need to think this out calmly. Grab his footpaws. He has the power and wildness of a badger lord. I've never seen Martin like this.' Unaware of what had taken place on the wall-top, Tansy sat with Rollo, Picknam, and Cracklin in the cellars, puzzling over Fermald the Ancient's third and what seemed to them most baffling rhyme. Tansy read it aloud for the umpteenth time. My sad third tear is shed for one who now lies dead. A friendly foe it was to me, a cunning old adversary. Now heed the clues and read my rhyme. Patience pays but once this time. Inside the outer walls I lie. Without me you would surely die. I am not earth, nor am I stone, no shape at all to call my own, not bird or beast or flower or tree, yet captives live within me free. Rollo removed his glass and rubbed his eyes, sighing wearily. Is there any of that dandelion and burdock cordial left? Pour me some, please, Cracklin. This is a real poser, and no mistake— the squirrel maid offered a suggestion as she poured the drink. I wonder if Fermald was writing about the dead creature Greylunk. See, the first line says, My sad third tear is shed for one who now lies dead. What do you think, Tansy? The hogmaid studied the slim paper scrap in front of her. No, it couldn't be. Greylunk's remains are outside in Mossflower, and this line states clearly, Inside the outer walls I lie. The mousemaid agreed. Correct. 
What we're looking for lies within the walls of our abbey. It's not much of a clue, but I think it means something not actually inside this main building. Cracklin thought about it, then seconded her friend's view. Aye. When we talk of things in the grounds, we always say inside the abbey walls, not within the abbey, but between the building and the outer wall. Rolla was tired, but the logic suddenly dawned upon him. Oh, I see. You mean outside. The orchard, the lawns, and so on. Right. Who do we know who lies buried out there? Furlow Stump was restacking the firkins back in place, listening to the conversation. Leaving his work, he ambled over, wiping slowly at his strong paws with a damp cloth. Beg pardon, but don't mind me saying, I think you're wrong looking for a he or a she. The poem says it were an it, not he nor she. A friendly foe it was to me, the line says. I'm probably wrong, though, but I just thought I'd mention it. Tansy shook Furlow's paw heartily. Well done, Mr. Furlow. That was cleverly thought out. Sometimes we can get too smart for our own good and miss the clue, and that's when we need good common sense like yours, sir. Come on, let's take a look around outside. There's still time before dark. The friends had barely ventured outdoors into the gathering dusk when Alma came hurrying towards them, calling, Have you seen Martin or Skipper recently? Are they inside? Tansy sensed something was wrong by the worried look on the badger's homely face. No, we haven't seen them, Alma. What's happened? Ushering them back inside, the badger mother glanced about. Come, help me search for Martin and Skipper. I'll tell you as we go. Book Two Westward the Warriors Nineteen Pale white as watery milk, a spring moon cast its light over the still trees of moss-flower, patching light and deep shadows throughout the silent woodlands. Without the need of lanterns, Martin the warrior mouse strode abreast with the skipper of otters, Clucky the mountain hare, and his companion girl, the barn owl. Martin had sheathed the sword of his legendary namesake across his back. Skipper carried slings, stones, and a light javelin, whilst Clucky had found a hare longbow and quiver of arrows and Redwall's armory. Garrel had his formidable talons and fierce curved beak, weapons enough for any owl. Telling only Alma of their plans, the four friends had slipped away from the abbey, making a pact that they would only return in the company of Abbot Durrell and Viola Bankbowl. Skipper and Martin were both experienced trackers. A broken twig, a crushed leaf, or the slightest paw dent in the moss-flower loam was sufficient to tell them that they were right on the trail of Las Krildur and the vermin crew. It was long after midnight when they spotted the glimmer of campfire twixt the tree trunks. Martin waited with Clucky and Skipper while Garrel flew to investigate, gliding like an elusive moonbeam through the high foliage. They had not long to bide before Garrel returned. Fluttering down to the low boughs of an alder, the owl blinked and ruffled his breast feathers briskly. Ah, tis them, all right, sir, bold as brass and cheeky as chaffinches, squatting on their hunkers and gnawing at poor dead birds. But the big lizard spoke truth, so he did. There's not a sign of the good old abbot, nor the little vole maid. 
He's hid them away on that ship he spoke of, the scurvy rascal. Martin unsheathed his sword. Skip, you go in from the left. Clucky, you and Carol circle in from the right. I'll take the center. Wait for my call. Then it's straight in and give no quarter. But remember, we want to take the leader alive, so don't slay the big one called Glask. We need him to bargain for the abbot and Viola. Go now, and good luck be with you. A single vermin sentry had been posted on the left side. It was closest to the woodland edge, and Lask considered that the most likely place an attack would come from. Normally he would not have bothered with the sentry, but something in the maddened eyes of the warrior mouse had told him that this was no creature who would sit still and bargain whilst those under his protection were held hostage. The sentry was a burly stoat called Scarbod, veteran corsair of many fights and battles. Hiding behind an elm trunk, Scarbod watched Skipper creeping noiselessly forward. The stoat stood well hidden by the broad elm, as drawing a scimitar, he waited for the otter to pass him. Skipper heard the corsair's blade start whistling through the air. Only speed saved the otter chieftain's life. Throwing himself flat to the earth, he left the blade slashing night air. Then, rolling over, he thrust upward like lightning with his javelin. Yeeog! Scarbod's last scream was cut short as he fell dead on top of his slayer. As Skipper threw him off, pandemonium broke out. Martin charged through the center like a thunderbolt. Red Wall! A sea rat, who was not fast enough, fell to Martin's blade. Last Krildor immediately signaled his monitors to follow him. Leaping back out of the firelight, he hissed at the corsairs. He is only one. Kill the mouse! Suddenly Martin was hemmed in by vermin swinging a variety of weapons. He cleaved a ferret immediately in front of him. A weasel behind him raised an axe, but before the vermin could strike, a feathered shaft took it through the nape of his neck, and the time-honored battle cry of hares and badgers rang through the glade. Eulalia! Klecky and Geralt stormed in, at the same time Skipper hit hard on the opposite flank of the melee. Four more fell before the corsairs broke and scattered in all directions. The fire had been scattered in the ambush. Klecky coughed and rubbed his eyes as he staggered about, shouting, On with the buffs! Death before dinner! Stand and fight! Skipper halted the hare, who had picked up a broad-bladed cutlass and was in danger of felling any beast who came near with it. Woe there, mate! Can't you see they've fled? the otter said. As the smoke cleared, it became apparent that the four red wallers were alone. Martin stepped out of the cloud of choking smoke, saying, What happened to the lizards? Gerald beat the air with his wings to clear it. The blackguards never even stopped a fight, sir. They were away through the dark like a half-dozen old swallows flying south. Skipper had picked up the trail on the far side of the camp. They went this way, Martin. Come on. Lask and his monitors had a good head start. They emerged from the woodlands onto the path, where most of the panic-sped remnants of the crew joined them. The monitor general found himself facing an angry sea-rat brandishing a spear. You rotten coward! Sliding away and leaving your shipmates in the lurch! You're a spineless, scale-faced... Um. Lask wasted no time. 
One great smash of his heavy tail left the sea-rat lying with a broken neck. Scuttling across the path, Lask leapt into the ditch running along its west side. We must get back to the vessel. Follow me, or stay and die like he did. Wordlessly they piled into the ditch and splashed along behind the Monitor General, their flight made more desperate by the knowledge that the Red Wallers would soon be on their heels. Skipper was lagging behind. Martin waited for him to catch up, and saw that he was hobbling slightly. "'Skip, what's the matter, you old stream dog?' he asked. The otter grimaced and lifted his right footpaw. "'Oh, I'll be all right, mate. Stepped on some vermin's fallen sword back there. Tis only a scratch.' Clecky inspected the wound. "'If you call that a scratch, bucko, then I'd hate to see what you call a real wound. Gerald, Martin, scout about. See if you can come up with any herbs. Sit still, old chap. This shouldn't take long.' Martin returned with dock leaves, but Gerald had found some young sanicle, of which he was very proud. "'The old mother always said sanicle's just the plant for keeping wounds from getting infected. She said—' "'Twas also a grand remedy for the owl wumps and spotty egg pimples, so she did. Martin tore a strip from his tunic sleeve, and Clecky used it to bandage the dock and sanicle tightly to Skipper's footpaw. "'There you go. You'll never see an otter totter with a bandage like that on his jolly old paw. What, what? And you won't have to worry about spotty egg wumps or owl pimples.' or whatever it was that Burblebeak's old mum was always going on about. So, that's you fixed up. The old scout, good as new. Quacky was right. Skipper could get along on the bandaged footpaw, as if it had never been injured. Dawn was starting to streak the sky as the friends scoured the path for signs. It did not take Skipper long to discover Lask's plan. Ha! Old Scaletail thinks he's throwing us off the scent by jumping in the ditch and sloshing through the water. Just look here, Martin. Bruised nettles, broken reeds, mud sloshed everywhere. It's plainer than the nose on your face. They walked along the edge of the ditch, following the signs, as the sun rose on a bright spring day. 20. Breakfast at Redwall that morning was a subdued affair. Tansy hardly noticed little Arvin and the mole-maid, Diggum, helping themselves slyly to the black-currant muffins on her platter. She looked up from a beaker of mint tea growing cold in front of her. Alma the badger mother was rising from her seat. A gradual hush fell on the diners as Alma's paw went up. "'Friends, there is a lot of gossip and rumor abroad in our abbey since last night, so let me set matters straight.' Our abbot and young Viola Bankville have gone missing. They are probably lost in Mossflower Wood somewhere. Martin has taken some companions and gone to search for them. I am sure that eventually they will all come home safely. Meanwhile, our life at Redwall must carry on as usual. Abbot Durrell would wish it so. Therefore I ask you to carry on with your work as you always do, Look after the Dibbons. Do not wander outside the Abbey gates. See to your chores, and above all, please do not indulge in gossip and scaremongering. That is all. 
Diggum absently took a gulp of Arvin's penny cloud cordial. We're on bounty girt blizzard. Will he come back and eat us oop? Arvin considered this as he stole Diggum's nut bread. No, nah, blizzards only eat habits and voleses. Tansy wiped cordial from Diggum's chin. The word is lizard, not blizzard, and don't say such horrible things. What has Mother Alma just said about gossiping? Arvin wrinkled his nose at the hogmaid as he climbed down from the dining bench. She didn't say Dibbins not gossip. We be little and don't know no better. Come on, Diggum. With their paws about each other's shoulders, the unstoppable pair ambled off, chanting at each other, Gossip, 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 gossip. Rollo joined Tansy, nodding in the Dibbins' direction. What are those two up to? Tansy shook her head, smiling fondly at the retreating Dibbons. Oh, they're just gossiping. They're too little to know any better. Rollo adjusted his glasses higher on his nose. Let us gossip a bit about these pearls. Alma tells me we need all six of them to ransom Viola and the abbot from their captors. Tansy got up and accompanied Rollo outside. That's a lot easier said than done. This third rhyme has me well and truly stumped, Rollo. Did you dream up any solutions during the night? I know I didn't. Picknam and Cracklin were already outside, sitting on the ramparts over the gatehouse. Teasel, the hogwife, was with them, sipping at a large mug of dandelion tea. Morning, Rollo. Morning, Tansy. My, what a nice day tis. I'm just cooling my old paws out here and taking tea. Them kitchens get so steamy hot after breakfast. Rollo and Tansy went up to the wall top and continued studying the rhyme with Picknam and Cracklin, whilst Teasel sipped tea and hummed to herself. Tansy passed the thin paper to Picknam. Oh, here you have it. I'm getting dizzy just looking at that rhyme and getting nowhere with it. My sad third tear is shed for one who now lies dead. A friendly foe it was to me, a cunning old adversary. Hmm. I can repeat it by heart now. Teasel, you knew Fermald the Ancient as well as any. What friends did she have to your knowledge? The good hogwife scratched her head spikes. Friends, you say? I don't know as Fermald ever spoke of other beasts as friends, except in that wounded vermin Greylunk, and maybe old Grimjaw, and that and she spoke of as friend and foe in the same breath. I, Fermald, were a right old stranger. Rollo looked up sharply from the rhyme. Grimjaw? Who in the name of Autumn Apples was Grimjaw? Teasel sipped at her tea, rocking back and forth. Fermald often told me about Grimjaw, though goodness knows what she'd have done with the thing if ever she'd have caught it. Rollo blinked impatiently over his glasses at the hogwife. Really, Marm, will you please stop talking in riddles and tell us what you know about this... this Grimjaw? Teasel blew huffily on her tea to cool it. Now don't you get all shocked with me, Mr. Recorder, or I shan't say another word. Politeness don't cost pear puddin', they say. Tansy smiled winningly, stroking the ruffled hogwife's paw. There, I'm sure Rollo didn't mean to be sharp, Mrs. Stump. Please tell us about Grimjaw. It's very important that we know. 
Teasel cast a fond glance at the young hog-maid. "'Well, all right, Missy. Never mind that old grump. I'll tell you.' Every time there was about to be a feast or celebration, Fermalt brought out her rod and line to fish the abbey pond. She was forever trying to catch a big old grayling that had lived there for more seasons than most could remember. Fermald wanted that fish to grace the abbot's table, but she never did manage to catch it. She'd stop out there from dawn till dusk, empty-pawed and hungry. Later I'd serve her supper leftovers. Teasel, she'd say, that grayling is my best friend and my worst foe. The long hours I spent trying to catch that fish, she'd say. But he won't be caught, the old villain. He always escapes my line. That's what she'd say. Suddenly everything became clear to Cracklin. She waved the paper, chanting, Inside the outer walls I lie. Without me you would surely die. I am not earth, nor am I stone, no shape at all to call my own, not bird or beast or flower or tree, yet captives live within me free. The answer is water. Without it any beast would surely die. Water is not earth, stone, beast, bird, flower, or tree. It has no shape of its own. Fish swim freely in it, though they are really captives of whatever stretch of water they live in. Our water lies within the abbey walls. I can see it from here, the abbey pond. Teasel watched the young ones scampering down the steps and speeding over the lawns with Rollo in their wake. She sipped her tea. Deary me and lack-a-day! Dashin' and rushin' about, where'll it all end? Ah, well, leastways now a body can supper dandelion tea in peace and quiet, before it's time to get lunch prepared. The four searchers stood at the edge of Redwall's pond. It was a pretty spot. Rushes and sedge sprouted thick in the shallows of its far edge, and an old flat-bottomed punt lay moored at the east bank. At its southern end the ground was light and sandy, running from a soft mossy hillock into the sun-warmed shallows. Deeper out the water took on an emerald green hue, and myriad small flying insects dipped to cause ripples in the stillness. Gazing at the peaceful scene, Tansy raised a question which had been bothering her since she had first heard about the grayling. How do we know old Grimjaw is dead? Fermol never caught the fish and we've only her word that he died. Maybe Grimjaw was just too old to rise to the bait. Perhaps he's still alive down there. It was a sobering thought. None of them fancied searching a dim pond where a big grayling might be lurking in the depths, or hiding among the reeds to defend its territory against intruders. Then Tansy came up with a quick solution. Hi, Glenner. Got a moment to spare down here? she called to the wall-top. Glenner was a young female otter, one of Skipper's crew. She was still on wall-top patrol, keeping an eye out for gulls or vermin. Glad to be relieved of the monotonous task, she bounded readily down, calling, "'Good morrow, mates. Anything I can do for you?' Flicking a pebble into the pond, Tansy watched the ripples spread. "'Glenner, do you think there's a big old grayling in there?' she asked. The otter thumped her tail thoughtfully on the bank. I don't know, could be. Skipper always told us when we were young never to disturb big old fishes. 
They can be very dangerous and bad-tempered. There's an old otter poem we had to learn as young'uns. Frisk in the water if you wish, but stay clear of the big old fish, especially those with the fin like a sail. They're the rogues who'll take your tail. So stay in the shallows in bright sunlight, and you'll live to sleep round the fire at night. End of Side 3 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 4, Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 152 Rollo drew patterns in the sand with his footfall. Er, ha-ha, is that what they say, really? Er, I don't suppose that you'd like to, er, maybe check the pond to see if there is actually a gremlin, or gray jaw, or big fish living in there? Leonard's reply was cheery and prompt. Cost you a good pan of hot root and water shrimp soup, mates. I ain't risking me pretty young rudder and that pond for nothing. Oh, no. Tansy grabbed Glenner's paw and shook it vigorously. Done. One pan of soup for one pink pearl. The otter cocked her head on one side quizzically. What pink pearl? You never said aught about a pink pearl, matey. The big pink pearl that's lying at the bottom of that pond, Puddin'head, said Picknam. You don't think we wanted you just to amuse yourself in the water looking for a fish, did you? If a big fish was all we wanted to know about, why, we could have tossed in a dibbon to see if he got eaten. Then we'd know there was a big fish in there. Chortling, Glenner shoved the mousemaid playfully. Go on with your missy. You wouldn't sling no little dibbon in there. Right. Stand back, pals. If in the fish eats me, then give my soup to Skipper when he gets back from searching for your abbot. Glenner took a running dive, slipping into the pond without a single splash. They glimpsed a thin stream of bubbles rising from her chin, then she was gone, lost in the greeny depths. Tansy paced up and down the bank, wondering how any beast could hold its breath for what seemed an eternity. Glenner should have been up by now, she said. I wonder what she's doing down there. Hope she hasn't bumped into old Grimjaw. Like an arrow from a bow, Glenner shot from the pond in a rush of water, springing up onto the bank beside them. Whew! There's two graylings down there, mates. I seen them. Rollo's glasses slipped from his nose. Two big fish? Leonard shook herself, spraying them with a cascade of droplets. Aye, too, though one's long dead. I swam down to the bottom and didn't see no grayling, just some minnows, roach, and a gudgeon. Then I spotted her, up alongside some boulders, a big, tidy-looking female grayling. She was guarding the bones of her mate. He must have been a big un too, by the size of his frame. Looked like he died of old age, and the minnows nibbled his carcass clean. Tansy clapped her paws with excitement. The pearl. Did you see the big pink pearl, Glenner? No, miss. Afraid I didn't see no pearl. Does that mean I don't get me pot of soup? Rollo polished his glasses carefully. Sorry, not until we get the pink pearl. Glenner winked at them banging the last droplets from her sturdy, rudder-like tail. So be it. We'll have to figure a way to keep the female grayling off my back so I can search proper for your pink pearl. Get me a good long staff. Ha! That punt pole will do. Now, let's get the punt over to this bank where the shallows are clear and stand it up on its side. No big fish is going to do glinner out of a pot of hot root and water shrimp soup 
made in Redwall's kitchen. Cracklin turned to Pickham, bewildered. What in the name of crab apples is that crazy otter up to? Tansy took them by the paws and headed for the punt. Don't ask silly questions. Whatever it is, I'm willing to give it a try. Come on, you two. Twenty-one. There were two hilltops close to the northern inlet of San Petra. Hardly a blade of grass stirred in the warm human morning, as Rescanza, the fox, and the rebel crews stood on top of one hill, facing Ublas and his guard of trident rats and monitors waiting on the other. The emperor moved first, descending alone into the valley between both hills. Rascanza watched him a moment, then followed suit. Ublas sat down upon the grass, placing his only weapon, the silver dagger, on the ground in front of him. Rascanza unbuckled his belt with the ten daggers it held, and slung the lot down. Then he sat. The mad-eyed emperor smiled broadly. "'You carry a lot of blades, Rascanza.' The corsair fox matched his smile, but avoided his eyes. "'Aye, and I can use them, too, Ublas.' The emperor placed his silver dagger on top of Rascanza's weaponry. "'Then take mine as a token of our friendship, for we did not come here today to talk of using knives, my friend.' Rascanza flipped the dagger into the air and caught it deftly. "'Ah, a pretty toy, thank ye. Oh, I'm forgetting me manners. Exchange of gifts. Here's something for you.' A gauzy silken scarf landed wisp-like in the pine martin's lap. He picked it up and admired it. "'Fine silk. Hmm, green suits me, too. Does this gift signify anything? Is there a meaning behind it?' Rascanza continued flipping the silver blade, watching it glitter in the sunlight. "'Oh, it signifies right enough, Ublas. What you do is you puts it over your face. That way you can see me, cost is only thin silk. But I won't be looking into your eyes. Aye, I've heard all about those glims o' yourn, and I don't intend staring into em, and losing control of my mind.' Ublas bound the scarf lightly across his eyes chuckling. A wise move, Fox, very wise indeed. I can see I'm going to enjoy business dealings with you. Now, what is it you want? This time Rascanza did not catch the dagger. It landed point down in the ground. The captains are all dead, he said. I myself slew Baranka, but you know that. So I'm in charge of all the crews now, and I want peace. There's no profit in both sides killing each other off. Here's my proposition. You appoint me grand captain of all the ships in Arbor, and I'll serve you. Forgive my asking, Ublas interrupted, but how can you captain six ships at once? Rascanza shook his head. I don't want to captain all six. Bloodkeel's a good craft. She's my old ship. I'll take her. The other captains I'll appoint from the crew beasts. But I'll be the boss captain and they'll take their orders from me when we're at sea. You'll control all on land. This is the way it'll work. I'll increase the tribute each ship has to pay, and we'll split it two ways, me and you, and none the wiser. Of course, you'll have to get off in those timber stocks you're sitting on. There ain't no more good wood on San Petra, and the ships'll need wood for repairs. Agreed? Ublas spat on his paw and held it forth. Agreed. Rascanza also spat on his paw and clasped with the fine martin. Aha! You won't regret this day's work, matey. 
Behind the gauzy silk scarf, the mad eyes glinted dangerously. I'm sure I won't, matey. Then, removing the scarf, Ublaz stood and hailed his guard. No beast will harm the crews. They can return to the harbor and use the taverns, or board their ships as they please. You are not to fight with them. There is a truce. If you have any complaints against them, report to Rasconza. He is their leader. Disobey, and you will answer to me. I am your emperor, Ublaz. I have spoken. Late that evening the vermin crews roistered and sang in the harbor area of San Petra. Only the fox Rasconza sat alone, brooding in the captain's cabin aboard Bloodkeel. Once he had been a mere boatswain on this same vessel. Now he was captain-in-chief of six ships. But a nagging thought had entered his mind as he went back over the day's events. It had all been too simple. Ublaz had agreed to his terms too readily. Why? Ublaz sat upon his throne sipping wine, satisfied that he had defeated seven enemies in short time. Now he had only the fox to contend with. Easy game. The emperor liked easy games, though he often cheated to win. Martin and his friends had taken to the ditch, following Skipper as he tracked Las Krildur and his company through Mossflower. The otter chieftain halted and cast about, looking for a sign, saying, Well, mates, old Lask's learning a bit of sense. See here, they've tried to cover their tracks. Look, paw marks. I reckon this is where they've climbed out of the ditch and probably edded west or yon field into the woods. Martin inspected the scratch marks carefully. I think you're right, Skip. Once in the woods, they'd find the river and follow it to the sea. With a leap and a bound, Clecky was out of the ditch into the field. Come on, chaps. After the scurvy bounders, what? A slingstone whizzed out of nowhere, bouncing close to the hare's footpaw. He jumped back into the ditch with great alacrity. Ambush, chaps! Blinking nerve of the bottle-nosed blighters! The warrior mouse peered over the ditch top, across the sunlit field, still sparkling with dew, to the shaded woodland fringe. There was no visible movement anywhere. As you said, Skip, the lizard is learning sense. He's left a rear guard behind to slow us up. They're in the woods somewhere. Too well hidden for us to see. Geralt provided a swift solution to the problem. With your permission, sir, I'll fly myself up high and see if I can't spot the old vermin. Before Martin could agree, the barn owl winged out over the field. As Geralt swooped low towards the trees, he was struck by a heavy slingstone. He fell in a jumble of feathers. Immediately three gulls came screeching out of the tree cover and attacked Geralt as he lay dazed upon the ground. Regardless of their own safety, Martin, Skipper, and Clecky charged from the ditch, roaring, Redwall! A monitor and four sea-rats loosed slingstones at them as they ran. The three friends separated, ducking and dodging, but still going forward. A well-hurled javelin from Skipper took one of the gulls out. Then, with only his loaded sling, the otter chieftain made a mad dash and flung himself upon the monitor. Before the sea-rats could come to the lizard's aid, Martin was among them with his sword. Clecky dropped his bow and arrows, and, diving at the remaining two seagulls, he lashed out fiercely with his lethal long legs, protecting the fallen owl with his body. The encounter was short and savage, with Martin and his friends emerging victorious. 
though one of the sea-rats and a seagull escaped and fled off into the woodlands. But winning had its price. Garrel had been severely injured by the slingstone and the ravaging beaks of the gulls. Clecky made him comfortable whilst Martin attended to Skipper. The otter had slain the carnivorous reptile with only a loaded sling and his natural strength. Skipper sat gasping, his back against a sycamore. Martin was horrified at the awful wounds inflicted by the monitor's teeth and raking claws. The otter winced as he grinned broadly, making a joke of the whole thing. Ugh! I don't think I could manage to fight another one of those rascals today, mate. Martin tore his cloak into strips, calling to Clucky. How is Garrel? Is he all right? The barn owl flapped a wing limply. Ah, I'll live, sir. Though me old wing is as much use as feathers on a fish, so tis. Clucky was using the last of Garrel's sanicle on his friend's wounds. Be still, you boulder-beaked curmudgeon. Here, put your talon on this while I bandage it, you great feather-faced frump. Got yourself in a nice old mess, Milado, haven't you, what? When the two casualties were cleaned up and bandaged, Martin looked at them despairingly. You two aren't fit to carry on. We'll have to get you back to Redwall and some proper nursing. Skipper struggled upright, glaring fiercely at his friend. Oh, no, you won't, matey. Your job is to get the abbot and that little bank bowl free. As for me and this bird, we can make our own way back to the abbey, can't we, matey? Gerald wobbled his way over to Skipper, and they stood supporting each other. Sure, will you look at the pair of us now? Between us we make an owl-otter, whatever that is. But don't you worry, sir. As me old mother used to say, the road may be long, but it doesn't get any shorter by standing gossiping. So we're off to Redwall now. Look after me friend Clecky, and treat him kindly. But don't turn your back on him if there's food about. Oh, no, sir. The hare sniffed. Thank you for those few kind words, you feather-bottomed old fraud. See you back at the jolly old abbey in a few days, what? Martin could not suppress a smile as the two casualties staggered off across the field, wing and paw, chattering animatedly as they hobbled along together. Ouch! I think I'm going to need great pots of soup and lots of elderberry wine before I'm right again, Garrel. Isn't that a fact, sir? And as for myself... I think pasties and puddings with a barrel or two of the good October ale will put the sheen back upon me feathers, indeed, so they will. Clecky twitched his ears fondly, waving goodbye to his companion. Huh. Do you know I'd swear that chap's fakin'? Got himself wounded just so's he can fill his face at Redwall and not share any of it with me. Typical of the blighter. Martin gave the hare's tunic a sharp tug. Remember what Gerald's old mother used to say? The road may be long, but it doesn't get any shorter by standing gossiping. Come on, let's get after Lask Frildor. 22. Twilight was falling over the sea, and red sunrays cast a fierce path across the ebbing tide off the coast of Mossflower Country. Aboard Waveworm, the ferret Romska leaned over the stern, scanning the darkening shore in company with her steers-rat blade-tail. Where in the name of gut-rubbins have those seagulls got to? she grumbled. I only told him to fly back and see if Lask was on his way. Bladetail spat reflectively into the water. Mayap, old Lask kept him with him for some purpose. He turned and cast a glance towards the two prisoners, huddled together on a heap of sail-sheet amidships. Those monitors are pestering your little bowl again, Captain. 
Viola hid her face against the abbot's robe, shaking with fear, as a monitor poked his evil head close to her, grinning and grinding his teeth, enjoying the vole-maid's distress. Taze, de vole, you will taze denies. Against her instincts, Romska had found herself feeling protective towards Viola and the abbot. She had spent the whole day keeping the lizards from tormenting the captives, and suddenly her temper rose. Whipping out her sword, she strode up to the unsuspecting monitor and kicked him sprawling. Belaboring the reptile with the flat of her blade, Romska snarled, "'Keep your foul-smelling snout away from the maid, scale-scum!' The monitor scrambled upright, teeth bared, claws raised defiantly. "'I do as I please, ferret. Laz Kfrildur gives me my orders.' He made as if to push Romska out of the way, but the corsair moved with lightning speed, bullying the monitor backward to the rail. "'Well, here's an order from me, scale-brain,' she snarled. "'Die!' With a swift thrust she ran him through and tipped him overboard. Then she whirled on the other monitors, pointing her sword. "'That goes for the rest of you, thick-headed lizards. Stay away from the maid, or you'll join your mate there.' Abbot Durrell whispered softly to Viola. "'Romska is not totally against us. We may have a friend.' For a moment it looked as if the remaining monitors were about to rush Romska, but a sharp whistle from Bladetail brought the rest of the vermin crew on deck, fully armed. The Corsair captain grinned invitingly at the lizards. "'Come on, your beauties. Want to try your luck with us, do you?' she baited them. "'I'll have your guts for garters and your tripes for supper.' "'Ahoy, waveworm! Throw us a line! We're coming aboard!' Bladetail saw the group standing in the shallows. It's Lask Frildor and the others at last. Shivering from the water, Lask pulled himself on board Waveworm. He glared at Romska, demanding, What's going on? Why is a monitor dead in the waters? The ferret turned her blade point towards the monitor general. I slew him for interfering with the prisoners. I'm captain aboard this ship. You took your time getting here. What kept you? Lask pointed back to the shore. Creatures from Redwall are after us. I left five and the three gulls to hold them off. I do not know how many they are. Romska snapped orders to her crew. Up anchor and let her drift further offshore for safety. See, Lask, I told you those Redwallers were fighters. Graf Longfletch crouched low in her longboat, watching Waveworm from a distance. It was drifting from its original mooring further out to sea. A long shout, like a war cry, rang out from the shore. Eulalia! In the falling light, Graf saw the steer's rat blade tail topple over the stern, pierced by an arrow from the shore. A stoat leapt up on the stern, whirling a slingshot to retaliate. Graf decided to help out. Grabbing her bow, she placed a shaft on the string and whipped it back. Lask watched in surprise as an arrow seemed to grow out of the stoat's skull. Pandemonium broke out aboard Waveworm as the vermin staggered backward and fell to the deck. Lask Frildor dashed into his cabin and slammed the door, and the other monitors ran for cover. Slashing the air with her blade, Romska roared out orders. Take her out deeper, where arrows can't reach. Make some sail that'll move us along faster. Break out some boat hooks and long pikes, in case they tries to board us. Stir your stumps. Abbot Durrell acted then. Lifting Viola, he shuffled to the rail and threw her over the side, shouting, "'Swim, little one, make for the shore!' 
A sea-rat grabbed the abbot, throwing a noosed rope over him. He bound the old mouse's paws to his side. Then he dragged him to the mast, where he made the rope fast. Romska dashed to the rail, shouting, "'Get the maid out of the water! Look lively!' A sea-rat ran half-heartedly to the rail with a rope. He screamed and fell wounded by a green-feathered arrow, yelling, "'Longboat to the port side! Ed in this way!' Grath Longfletch laid aside her weapon, racing toward the small figure floundering in the water as the outgoing tide carried it seaward. Gripping the little tiller tight, the otter sent her craft skimming between the waves. Viola was pulled by the current. She swallowed seawater, scrabbling at waveworm's prow as she drifted in front of it, blinded by stinging salt water. Graf was close enough to see now. It was either a mouse or a vole. No sea rat this. Risking everything on a desperate gamble, the otter lashed the tiller to her stern seat with the aft line. She saw the enormous prow of waveworm looming up. But regardless of danger, she grabbed the bull-maid's apron back with both paws and pulled her clear of the advancing ship's bow. Bump! Crack! Waveworm caught the longboat, ramming it amidships, and turning the small craft momentarily over on its side. Graf was in the sea, with Viola clinging to her. Striking away from the ship, she shouted, Take a good deep breath and hold on to me! Swimming as only a powerful grown otter can, Graf Longfletch dived and turned underwater, streaking away from Waveworm towards the shore. Viola Bankbowl closed both eyes and held her breath, dark water rushing past her, as the otter sped them both out of danger. Then panic overtook Viola. The breath ran from her in a stream of bubbles, and she began swallowing water. The next thing she knew, a paw was patting her back, as Clecky spoke to her in a reassuring voice. "'Dearie me, Missy. Fancy trying to swallow all the sea in one go. Come on, give it back.' Cough it all up now, you'll be fine. Between coughs and spurts of seawater, Viola could see her rescuer introducing herself to Martin. Waveworm was now well out of reach. Grath crouched in the lee of some rocks with Martin, Clecky, and Viola. The warrior mouse watched the Corsair vessel, saying, Let's hope she's dropped anchor there. Maybe tomorrow we'll be able to do something about Abbot Durrell. Clecky left off patting Viola's back. I think we're on a loser at the moment, old chap. They're holding all the acorns in this little game, what? Now, if we had a ship... Stay here. I'll see what's happened to my boat, Grath said, and she was off, running down the beach and disappearing into the sea. Clecky shrugged and raised an eyebrow at Martin. Odd sort of gel, that'n. Fights like mad to get ashore. Then run straight back into the bally water? 23. At the edge of Redwall Abbey Pond, the punt had been hauled out of the water and dragged around to the sandy shallows. Glenner the Otter explained her plan to the four friends. You know what they always say about the simplest plans, mates? They're the best ones. We stand this punt up on its side first. Well, come on, lend a paw there. I can't do it alone. It was an old flat-bottomed craft, and quite heavy. They stood paw-deep, grunting and gasping, as they tried to lift the punt clear of the water. Alma the Badger Mother was out for a stroll around the grounds with three dibbons, the Mole Babes Gerbole and Diggum, and the little squirrel Arvin. They wandered across to the pond. Alma watched the curious proceedings, then inquired, I don't know what you're up to, Rollo, but do you need any help? Placing both paws on his back, the old recorder straightened up. Oh, my aching bones! 
We'd be extremely grateful if you'd help us to stand this punt on its side in the shallows. Little Arvin rolled his smock sleeves up briskly. Stand aside, Raleigh. We do it easy. Come on, Moles. We show em out a lift a boat. Us only lickle, but we's harful strongly. As the three dibbons charged into the shallows, Alma scooped them neatly up in her huge paws and set them back on the bank. Keep an eye on these rogues, Tansy. Every beast stand clear now. Then the big badger set the punt on its side with a single powerful heave. There. Is that what you wanted? What do you expect to do with the boat in this position? Glenner picked up the long punting pole. There's one of them pink pearls somewhere on the pond bottom, ma'am, but there's also a big old female grayling, so I'm going to dive down there and chase her into the shallows with this pole. The plan is to drop the punt upside down on her, so the fish will be trapped. Then I can search for the pearl without that big old grayling bothering me. You'll all need to stand on the boat. Your weight will stop the fish escaping. It should work. At the mention of a big fish, the Dibbons became excited. They danced about on the bank, squealing and shouting, Hur, hur! Oil swim down withy and chasey girt fisher beast! And I bite its tail off, chomp, like that, with my big sharp teeths! Burr I, and oil sit on her e boat, and older goot fisher beast ard and toit, so he don't hurt you em creeters. Alma shook a warning paw at them. You'll stay with me and keep tight hold of my paws, or I'll tan your tails and send you off to bed. All the helpers were huddled behind the boat. Alma poked her head around the side and called to Glenner, who was wading through the reeds at the pond's far edge. We're already here. Down you go, Glenner. Be careful. The otter submerged into the crystal-clear water, holding the pole like a lance in front of her. The female grayling lurked in the boulders at the deep center of the pond, unwilling to move away from the skeletal remains of her long-dead mate. Glenner tapped her gently on the head with the pole, but she refused to budge. However, a second tap brought the big fish's dorsal fin upright, and she became aggressive. Like a flash she charged, but the otter fended her off skillfully, tapping away sharply with the butt-end of the pole and bumping the grayling on her head, sides, and tail until she ceased her attack and turned in retreat. Glenner was right after her, urging her along, shepherding her with the punting pole. Alma peered around the side of the punt. Here she comes. Get ready now. When I say push... Tansy took a quick peek. The big female grayling made a brave sight. Wriggling backward into the shallows, the great purply-sheened body bucked and quivered as it snapped and fought the teasing pole. The high, long-based dorsal fin stood clear of the water like a spine steamer. Iridescent scales flashed in the sunlight, splashing water left and right. "'Now push!' Alma shouted. The punt hit the water with a flat thwack, landing over the fish like a huge mouth closing. Caught up in the excitement of the moment, Rollo hitched up his habit and roared, "'Jump on top! Jump on top! Quick! Every beast on top!' They scrambled on top of the upturned punt, their combined weight causing it to bed firmly into the sand of the shallows. Sudden imprisonment made the big female fish go berserk. She leaped and bucked, quacking the bottom and sides of the punt furiously, throwing herself wildly in all directions. Tansy clung to Rollo, Picknam clung to Cracklin, and all four then clung to the most solid beast around, Alma. The badger mother had her paws full trying to keep hold of the dibbons, who chortled helplessly, wriggling and skipping across the bottom of the punt as if it were all a wonderful game. 
Under the Grayling's onslaught, the punt shuddered and quivered. Tansy was amazed at the mad strength of a single fish. She stood swaying on the thrumming timbers, holding Arvin's paw tightly, and said, If Glinder doesn't hurry up, the Grayling's going to wreck this punt and send us all into the water. Alma eyed the upturned punt bottom doubtfully. It's a big, powerful fish, right enough. These old timbers aren't going to last very long if it carries on the way it's going. Ahoy, mates! Let loose the old fish! Glender stood in the reedy shallows at the far side, waving to them. En masse, they leapt off and hurried up onto the bank. Alma went wading back in and lifted the punt slightly. With a whooshing rush of water, the grayling shot out and was lost in a sandy swirl. She made straight for the safety of the boulders at the pond bottom, reunited with the frame of her dead partner. Glittering wetly, the rose-colored pearl caught the afternoon sunlight as Glenner tossed it high in the air, catching it deftly as it fell. "'Don't throw it about like that!' Rollo called sternly. "'It's not a plaything, Glenner. Bring it here this instant, and don't drop it!' The otter popped the pearl into her mouth. "'War more upon a soap,' she said around it. Alma looked at Tansy and shrugged. "'What's the beast talking about?' Glenner dropped the pearl from her mouth into Tansy's waiting paws. I said, "'Where's my pan of soup?' Picknam pounded the otter's back happily. "'You'll get your pan of soup, you old water-walloper. Well done!' Arvin picked up a small round pebble and gave it to Picknam. "'Me have soup, too,' he said. "'Where exactly did you find the pearl, Glenner?' asked Tansy. Glenner sat down on the mossy bank, shaking her head sadly. You'll never believe it, matey, but it was that pearl what killed the old grayling. It was stuck in the bones where his throat once was. The hedgehog maid stared at the beautiful orb resting in her paw. So that was it. Fermald must have tossed this pearl into the pond, and Grimjaw thought it was food and tried to swallow it. But the pearl lodged in his throat and choked him. I don't suppose that was what Fermald meant to do, but unwittingly she killed Grimjaw. Deary me, she finally did defeat her old foe. Rollo sat down beside Tansy. Cheer up, Missy. At least we've got the pearl. Don't look so unhappy. The greedy old fish slew himself, really. Tansy continued staring at the pearl and said, It's not the fish I'm unhappy about, Rollo. I was just recalling the line of Fermall's poem which says, Patience pays but once this time. This pearl is the one payment. We've got no piece of paper with clues to lead us on to the fourth pearl. What do we do next? Diggin the Mole Babe's reasoning was simple. Do now? Usin's makey girt pot of soup for e otter, marm. Rollo patted the little creature's velvety head. A capital idea, my friend. A good feed will help us all to think a little more clearly. Tansy was not convinced, however. She wandered glumly back across the tranquil lawns towards the abbey. However, the irrepressible Picknam and Cracklin could not endure their companion's long face, and they danced around her, singing to lighten her mood. Pick me flowers for Redwall, to grace the tables of Great Hall. Go out upon the grassy ground where flowers bloom all round. Periwinkle, primrose, pimpernel, buttercup, burnet, and bluebell, arrowhead, anemone, asphodel, tansy's a flower as well. Campion, cowslip, columbine, Speedwell spurge and snowdrop pine, toad flax thrift, and also thyme, but pretty tansy's mine. Foxglove figwort feverfew, 
Harebell hemlock hawkweed too, Forget-me-nots with petals blue, Sweet tansy, I'll pick you. Arvin plucked a buttercup and made Tansy bend so he could place it behind her ear. Then the little squirrel leapt onto her back and sang raucously the only part of the song he could remember. Sweet Tansy, I pick you. The hedgehog maid could not stay gloomy in such company. She seized Arvin and tickled him soundly. You little maggot, roaring down my poor ear like that, you've deafened me. Arvin shrieked with helpless laughter, trying to wriggle free of the tickling paws. Yee hee hee, let me go. He 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 he. Tansy, not tickle me. Yee hee hee. Tansy continued tickling, pretending Arvin really had deafened her. Eh? What's that? Speak up, sir. I can't hear you. Trooping into Cavern Hole, they made themselves comfortable. Friar Higgles strode in behind them, swinging a ladle his face a picture of mock severity. "'Some beast needin' a pot of water shrimp, not root soup,' he said. Glenner held up her paw hopefully. "'I, me, sir, I was promised the soup by—' The good friar cut her short. "'Well, I don't know nothing about any promises, stream dog.' Hegel watched Glenner's face fall mournfully and smiled. A rap on the table from his ladle brought Teasel in. Pulling a serving trolley up to the table, she indicated the bubbling pot. A little bird told us you might be needin' this. The soup was so hot and spicy that only Glenner continued to refill her bowl. Otters are known to be very partial to water shrimp and hot root soup. The rest were well contented to cool their mouths with strawberry cordial and do full justice to a plum and apple crumble, supplemented by a large platter of red currant tarts, which Teasel had baked for them. Tansy brought the scallop shell case out and placed the third pearl in it, alongside the other two that had been found. Alma held the open shell up so that it caught the candlelight and admired the three rosy orbs. "'The tears of all oceans,' mused Rollo. "'Beautiful, are they not? But without the other three they are quite useless. If we are to bargain for our abbot and Viola, all six are needed. Though I would give ten times that amount to have our friends back here safe.' Alma closed the shell and fastened its clasp firmly. Aye, what price treasures, when redwallers are in danger! I dread to think of Martin and our friends out somewhere, risking their lives against evil beasts. I wish there was something we could do to help them. Pansy placed the shell in its bag and fastened the bag to her apron strings. That's what's making me feel so bad, Alma. There are no more clues to the other three pearls. It would help them if we could find even the tiniest hint— to set us on the trail again. Rollo settled himself wearily upon a wall edge. I think it's time to stop talking and start thinking. After the activity at the pond and the good food following, heads began to nod and eyelids started drooping in the warmth and quiet of Cavern Hole. First Rollo, followed by Alma and Glenner, then Tansy and the other two young maids, Pecknam and Cracklin. Little Arvin would have drifted into sleep, but his head bumped the table as he leaned forward. Cramming tiny paws into his eyes, he rubbed them until he was wide awake. The two mole-babes, Diggum and Gerbol, were snuggled down on a rush mat. Arvin woke them, and, smiling mischievously, he pushed and pulled the dozy pair up the stairs into Great Hall. Tweaking the mole-babes' snouts none too gently, Arvin roused them into full alertness. "'Come on!' he whispered fiercely. "'All a big and sleepy dozin'. We got important work.' 
Gerbil blinked owlishly and sat on his fat little tail. Nothing be as important as sleeping to a growing child. Diggum, who had entered heartedly into the conspiracy, pulled Gerbil upright, wagging a small digging claw at him. You am not but a girt foozletop mole. What he be want nothings to do, Zer Harbin? We going to find the other free pearls for Tansy? Horror! Good idea! Where do we think pearls be hidden? Gah! You a maggot, Gerbil! How I knows where pearls be? Ber, you am don't know? Then where do us and start looking? Arvin thought about this for a moment, narrowing his eyes and whipping his bushy tail back and forth. Then suddenly he brightened. Up a stairs, where no beast find us. That's where. Giggling and pulling at one another's tunics, the three dibbons clambered up the dormitory steps, pushing and shoving to be first to the top. It was a good game, and whatever search did turn out to be a game, it was all good fun to the three Abbey babes. Tansy turned over, pulling her cape around her. Through the foggy haze of sleep's corridor, she recognized the heroic figure looming towards her. It could be none other than Martin the warrior of ancient times. His smile radiated tranquility. His voice was warm as a far-off bell on summer noontide. "'You are troubled, little one?' The hedgehog maid sighed deeply in her sleep. "'I must find the next clue if I am to continue my search for the pearls. But I don't know where to begin looking.' Martin's lips never appeared to move, though his voice echoed around Tansy's mind. "'Find the three babes, and you will know.' The vision faded, and Tansy slept peacefully on. Cracklin was wakened by an odd sound. Shloop, shloop, shloop. The funny noise continued with monotonous regularity. Cracklin opened her eyes and sat up slowly. Glenner withdrew her head from the soup-pot, licking her whiskers and chin. Not like oat-root soup, matey. Tastes just as good cold as it does warm. I'd eat it any time, night or day. Gradually the rest of the company awoke. Alma stretched mightily. Ooh! What time is it? A fine bunch we are, lying about napping like a pile of dibbons. The word set a train of thought going in Tansy's mind. Dibbons! Where are Diggum, Gerbil, and Arvin? She jumped up and began searching Cavern Hall. Glenner licked the last soup drops from her chin as she watched Tansy. What's the panic? Dibbons can't leave the abbey. They're probably playing somewheres close by. The hedgehog maid checked under the table. I saw Martin the ancient warrior in my dreams. He told me to look for the three babes, and I would know. Alma peered into an empty barrel standing in a corner. What would you know? she said. Tansy strode resolutely for the steps leading to Great Hall. Where the clue to the next pearl is, of course. Come on, we've got to find those dibbons. 24. Rasconza called the two sea-rats, Baltor and Goncho, to his ship, and the three of them leaned over the stern rail, speaking in low murmurs. The fox looked across the sunlit harbor, up to the palace of Ublas. He knew the mad-eyed emperor was probably having them watched. Rasconza kept his face straight and his voice level. I don't like it, mates. Ublas gave in too easy. That's not like him. I tell you, that a dangerous beast. Baltor glanced sideways at Rasconza. So what are you going to do about it? 
Well, I ain't hanging about in this arbor, waiting for Ublas to make his move. So here's me plan. I says we sail away from San Petra tonight on the flood tide, and once we're shut of this place, we don't come back. Gancho drummed a paw nervously on the rail. But Ublas will see us if and we all pulls anchor and sails at once. It's too risky. He'll have laid plans to stop us. The fox shrugged. That's a chance we'll have to take, mates. The best bet is to let the crews know secretly, pass the word about quiet-like. I'm appointing both of you captains. You'll get your own ships. We'll wait until dark, then at my signal slip off, ship by ship. Are you with me, mates? The two sea-rats nodded, fired by their sudden promotions to captaincy. Baltour spoke for them both. We're with your Rascanza. Give us our orders. Word passed among the wave vermin lounging around the taverns and harbor of San Petra. Keep it under your hat, messmate. Rascanza says we're sailing tonight when it's dark. Sailing tonight? What, you mean all of us? Keep your voice down, bucko. You just pass it on nice and easy. Every beast to be back aboard their old ships by sunset. Gradually the whole key area was rife with whispered messages being passed from one to another. In the late afternoon a grizzled sea-rat with a patch on one eye and a rusty cutlass at his side stumped out of a tavern. He left the area as soon as he was sure no beast was watching. Two monitors ushered the sea-rat into the emperor's throne room. Ublas watched as the sea-rat cast aside his disguise and picked up his trident. "'Tell me what you heard. Are they planning to attack or run?' The trident-rat stood rigid as the pine martin's eyes blazed into his brain. Then he told all he had heard. Afternoon shadows were lengthening into the hour before twilight as Ublas headed a powerful force of monitors and trident-rats to the jetty. Rascanza stood amidships on his vessel, in company with Baltur. The sea-rat watched Ublas approaching, and his paws began quivering. "'It's the Emperor. He knows what we're up to.' Rascanza smiled, showing no sign of alarm. He dug his claws sharply into Baltur's side. "'Shut your gob, rat, and stop flapping. I'll see to this.' The pine martin cut a handsome figure clad in gold silks topped by a white turban set with a feather and green stone jewel. He appeared to be unarmed. Ublas smiled, greeting Rasconza pleasantly. So, how is my chief captain today? Everything shipshape? Rasconza matched the Emperor's smile and manner immediately. Never better, your mightiness, and pray what brings you to our humble ship on this fine day. Ublas whipped out the green silken gauze the fox had given him. He winked at Rasconza before binding it lightly around his eyes. Ha! Nearly forgot my manners there. You've probably heard that I hypnotized a poisonous water serpent. I've got to be careful of these magic eyes of mine. Don't want to go putting any spells on my trusted chief captain now, do I? Rasconza felt a shudder pass through him. Instinctively his paw roamed to the silver dagger Ublas had given him. Thank you, sire, but I'm sure you never came all the way down here to tell me that. Just what do you want? Ublas stooped, looking at the stern of the vessel at water level. Nothing, really. I merely thought it was about time I started making good my promises to you. 
I presume that now would be a good time to start overhauling our fleet. My carpenters will do the work. We'll start by replacing all your tillers and rudders. I've got fine stout timber to make new ones. Still smiling, but fuming inwardly, Rasconza was forced to stand helplessly by as trident rats and monitors swarmed over his ship, removing the tiller and rudder, rendering the vessel useless. When the other vessels had been similarly treated, Ublaz had six trident rats line up on the jetty in front of Rasconza. He pointed them out one by one. Galdra, Fens, Orlug, Carrot, Somgil, and Kriuth. These are your six new captains, all trustworthy creatures. Bow to your chief. The six trident rats bowed respectfully to Rasconza. The fox nodded formally to them, doing a quick mental calculation. Six, you say? But we only have six ships, he said. Ublaz smiled winningly at his adversary. Ah, yes, but you command them all. Soon they'll be good as new, and when we've replaced the tillers and rudders, we'll see about new masts for our fleet. I bid you good day, my chief captain. Ublaz removed the green gauze from his eyes and turned to go. Daltor began arguing with Rasconza. I thought you made me and Gancho captains. What right does Mad Eyes have putting his own captains in our place? Ublaz wheeled about, fixing the sea rat with a piercing stare. You there! What is your name? Baltor appeared dumbfounded for a moment, unable to tear his eyes from the gaze of Ublaz. I'm called Baltor, he said. And how long have you been a sea rat, Baltor? Long as I can remember, sire. So you like the sea, eh? I likes it well enough, sire. Ublaz chuckled both eyes boring into the hapless vermin. Good. Then perhaps you would like to try a swim now. The brief interview was at an end. Ublaz turned and strode away, followed by his army, several of whom were lugging the tillers and rudders of the ships with them. Behind him there was a splash, as Baltur threw himself into the sea. Rasconza watched two corsairs pull the spluttering Baltur up onto the jetty, and signaled to one of the new trident rat captains, you there. Orlug, is it? Step aboard, mate. This'll be your ship from now on. I'll show you round. That evening, just after sunset, Sagittar entered the Emperor's throne room and placed his sword down in front of Ublaz. The Pine Martin glanced at the stained blade. What is this thing, and why do you bring it here? Sagittar measured her words carefully. Mightiness. I was leading the evening harbor patrol when the fox Rasconza gave this to me and bade me bring it to you. He said to tell you that one of your new captains, Orlug, was given the sword by him in honor of your appointing Orlug captain, but unfortunately Orlug was unused to wearing a sword, and he tripped and fell upon the blade, slaying himself. Rasconza says that you have no need to appoint another captain. He will be master of his own ship. Those were his words, sire. Much to the astonishment of Sagittar, the emperor burst into gales of hearty laughter. The trident rat stood at attention until her master's merriment subsided. Ublaz wiped his eyes on a sateen kerchief and took several deep breaths. Go back to the harbor. Tell Rasconza I send him my compliments. 
Oh, and say also that there has been a little mishap on my part, not quite as serious as the loss of a captain. Unfortunately, my clumsy monitors dropped the tillers and rudders, and they are all broken. Without them to use as patterns, it will take considerably longer to make new ones. But I will tell my carpenters to do their best. Go now. Long after midnight, Rasconza sat in his cabin, sharing a flask of seaweed grog with Baltour and Goncho. The fox had just finished telling them of his latest encounter with Sagittar, messenger of the Emperor. Goncho hurled his beaker at the bulkhead and pounded the table. First he cripples our vessels, then he destroys all the rudders and tillers. Ublaz has got us like a fish in a barrel, rot his eyes. Rasconza poured a fresh beaker for the irate sea rat. No, he ain't. I told old Sagittar to take this message back to him. I've still got five of those new captains safe with us here, so I hope that we'll have new tillers and rudders within five days. Five captains and five days. Maybe they're all as clumsy as that rat Orlug. Who knows? Something awful might happen to each of them, one a day. And we don't want that to happen, do we? Cause then I'd have to give you buckos your jobs back as ship's masters. You two and three others. Rasconza clanked beakers with Daltour and Concho, their roaring laughter ringing out across the dark flood tide. Rasconza was sure that he had won the next round in the murderous game. Twenty-five. Martin crouched with Klecky and Viola behind a small outcrop of rocks on the shoreline. It was the hour before dawn, still and calm. All activity aboard Waveworm seemed to have ceased. She rode smoothly at anchor, too far out to be reached by bowshot. Klecky's keen eyes picked up movement further along the beach at the water's edge. I say, there's our otter chum. Pullin' and haulin' on her boat. It looks in jolly bad shape, if you ask me what. Martin turned to Viola, who was shivering fitfully after her ordeal in the sea. Stay here, little one. Flecky and I are going to help the otter to beat your boat. If any danger threatens while we're away, leave these rocks and hide in the woodlands, do you understand? The volmaid's teeth were chattering so hard she could only nod. Stooping low, Martin and Klecky hurried along the tide-line, all the time keeping a weather eye on Waveworm. Grath Longfletch was glad of their help, and among them the three creatures hauled the longboat across the shore back to the rock cover. Grath surveyed the damage ruefully, saying, She's stoved in bad amidships, and there's not a lot I can do without the proper materials to fix her up. I have even lost my provisions in the sea. Klecky slumped down mournfully next to Viola. Starving, wet, cold, tired, what? I've been in worse places, but I'm blowed if I can remember where they were. Martin held up his paw for silence. Listen. Grath had heard the sounds, too. She grabbed for her bow and arrows, which had mercifully survived the encounter with Waveworm. Some beast's coming downstream. Get your heads down, mates. Stealthily the otter peered landward, over the rocks into the breaking dawn. Then she laughed aloud with relief. Ha-ha! It's Logalog and the Gwasim! Swift as arrows, six logboats were skimming downstream from the woodlands to the shore. When they caught sight of Grath, the shrews whooped gruffly, flinging themselves into the stream shallows and wading ashore with open paws. Logalog was first to pound his otter friend's back. 
Grath Longfletch, you old water dog. Log-a-log, you little stream walloper. Don't tell me you've wrecked that barnacle-crusted cockle-shell again, Grath. Good job we happened along. Hi, Martin. Martin of Redwall. The warrior mouse chuckled joyfully as Gwasim Shrews crowded round, shaking his paws. Log-a-log, old friend. Dabby, Curlo, Dimple, what a pleasure it is to see your faces again. Clucky pointed to himself and Viola. Pay no heed to us, chaps. We're only a couple of butterflies hanging about, waiting for summer, aren't we, my dear? A fire was built on the sand behind the rocks, and Gwasim cooks busied themselves while shrew maids outfitted Viola Bankbowl and one of their smocks. Curlo and Dabby got a repair gang together and began straight away fixing Graf's longboat. Logalog sat by the fire with Martin and Clucky, discussing their position. When he heard about the ambush in the ditch, the shrew chieftain looked thoughtful. "'We found a sea-rat wandering lost upstream,' he said. "'My mates have got him under guard over there. I wonder if he can tell us where they're planning to take your abbot.' "'Ahoy, mates! Bring that vermin over to me!' Bound and gagged, a dispirited sea-rat was hauled up in front of the shrew chieftain. Martin recognized him instantly. "'That's the villain who escaped after ambushing us. We slew the rest of them, but this one got away.' Graf Longfetch strode up. Borrowing a knife from one of the cooks, she cut the sea-rat's gag and the rope that bound his paws. Then, notching a green-feathered shaft to her great bow, Grath nodded meaningly at the terrified sea-rat. "'Get running!' she snarled. The sea-rat took one look at the grim-faced otter and her lethal weapon, and fell down on all fours, pleading and sobbing. "'You're going to kill me. I know you are. Mercy, I beg you!' Grath seized the creature roughly, hauling him upright. "'I'm giving you a chance, scum. That's more than you did for my family when you murdered him. I'm Grath Longfletch, last of the Holt of Lutra. Remember it. Now run!' Martin placed himself between Grath and the sea-rat, saying, "'You can't kill him, friend. We need him to give us information. He's valuable to us.' Grath's voice trembled as she replied, I like you, Martin of Redwall. You're a warrior born. But this sea-rat is a coward and a murderer. I'm sworn to avenge my family, so step aside, Martin. I don't want to hurt you. Then you'll have to hurt us both, matey. Logalog stood up alongside Martin and spoke gently to the otter. Grath, you're letting revenge rob you of your senses. Put aside the bow and shaft now. There's a good beast. Martin's right, and you know it, friend. Slowly Graf lowered her bow and shot the arrow into the sand between her footpaws. The sea-rat gave a moan of relief. Graf smiled regretfully at the two creatures facing her. "'I'm sorry, Martin. You're right. Logalog, you sound more like my father than any creature I have ever known. Forgive me.' The warrior-mouse patted Graf's paw. "'There's nothing to forgive, friend. I'd have done the same in your place. Now—' How about some breakfast by the fire, while we question this wave vermin, and make our plans for the day? Viola and Clucky sat with the boat repair crew around their fire, watching a pot of pine resin bubbling. The bowl maid sipped steaming vegetable and seafood soup from a scallop-shell bowl, and devoured hot shrew bread in a manner far removed from her former prissy self. Curlo winked at her. Tastes good, don't it? she said. Viola nodded gratefully as the shrew refilled the shell for her. Almost as good as the taste of freedom. 
Oh, poor Abbot Durrell. I hope they haven't harmed him. He risked his life to help me escape from that horrible ship and those awful lizards. Do you think there's a chance that we can rescue him? Clecky bent his long ears toward the other fire, munching delicious shrewbread as he spoke. Never give up hope, Miguel. Martin and old Logathang are probably cooking up a plan right now with that tough-looking otter. Day broke cloudy and gray, with a calm sea and little or no breeze. Romska placed a bowl of some doubtful steaming mess in front of the abbot. Get that skilly down, your darl. No sense in starving to death. The old mouse peered up the corsair from where he sat tethered to the mast. The loss of his glasses affected his poor eyesight. Thank you, my child, and thank you also for the kindness you showed to the little bowl maid. Romska shook her head and laughed. I ain't your child, old mouse, and you can't get around me. You shovel those vittles down and pray to the fates that your mates come up with the Emperor's six pearls. Further discussion was cut short as Lask Frildor came hurrying out on deck. The ship had drifted sideways, allowing the Monitor General a disturbing view of the shore. Have you no eyes in your head, idiot? He snarled nastily at Romska. Look landwards. Romska was about to argue, but a quick glance to the shore gave the Corsair great cause for concern. Small warlike creatures in considerable numbers, all wearing bright headbands and sashes with rapiers, stood boldly in plain view on the beach. Pulled up onto the sandy banks of the stream that flowed to the sea were six dugout tree-trunk boats, equipped with paddles and single sails. Nearby, on a clump of rocks, were three more creatures, a strong-looking mouse with a great sword strapped to his back, a big otter, and a lanky hare, both armed with bows and arrows. They were watching a group of the small creatures repairing a ship's longboat by the glow of several small fires. Romska shook her head in disbelief at the scene. Stripe me! Where'd that lot come from? Last Krildor paced the deck, tail swishing and teeth bared. Who knows? There are enough of them to take this vessel, and they have boats. We are no longer safe anchored here. Kicking the bowl of food from the abbot's paws, the lizard pulled him as close to the rail as the rope tether would allow. Who are those beasts, mouse? Tell me. Durrell squinted at the distant shore. Without my glasses it is difficult to say, though by the bright colors they wear I would guess they are guassum shrews. Lask brought his face close to the old mouse. Warriors! Tucking both paws into his long sleeves, the abbot turned sideways to avoid the monitor general's foul breath. Yes, my son, the Guasim are renowned both on land and water as fierce warriors. Their fighting spirit knows no bounds. Lask pulled the abbot roughly to him. Old fool, I am your enemy, not your son. Gazing calmly into the glittering reptilian eyes, Durrell said, I am an abbot. No beast is my enemy. Why do you not let me go free and sail from here in peace? Lask shook the frail mouth savagely. I cannot leave without my emperor's pearls. When I have them, then you can go free. Romska interrupted impatiently. Listen to me, mouse, and save yourself a lot of grief. The only way you're leaving this ship is in exchange for those six pearls. Now who's got them? The father abbot of Redwall shook his head slowly. 
Pearls? Pearls? I know nothing of any pearls. Romska faced Blaskrill to her. Well, you erred him. He knows nothing. What are you going to do? Take my word, Lask. Whatever it is, you'd best do it quick. Look at that crowd on shore. They're getting ready to come out here, and I'll wager it's not to present us with six pearls. Make your mind up, lizard. Do we stand and fight, or cut and run? The shrewd tramp put aside a length of caulking rope and patted the side of Graf's longboat. That's the best I can do for you. She's seaworthy again, but for how long I don't know. You're pretty rough on boats, matey. The otter braced the head rope across her shoulders and began pulling her craft down to the stream. My thanks to Gwasim. I hope I can pay you back some day. Martin and Clucky helped her to launch the longboat at the head of the shrew flotilla. Logalog put both paws to his mouth and gave a long, ululating call, the battle cry of Gwasim Shrews. Logga, 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 log! Grath hoisted her sail, while Martin and Clucky used the oars to propel the longboat. Their three different war shouts, joining the shrews paddling behind. Red Wall! Eulalia! Holt Lutra! The little war fleet sped from the stream estuary into the waves. Each shrew, armed with slingshots and rapier, bent its back to the oars, spreading into a half-circle, with the longboat at its center. Lashing the tiller dead ahead, Grath made her way to the prow, notching a shaft to her bow. She roared out across the sea to the figures on the deck of Waveworm, "'Release your prisoner or die!' Fask Frildor cast a meaningful glance at Romska. "'Sail!' he hissed. Speed was of the essence. The Corsair captain slashed at the anchor line with her sword, bellowing orders to her crew. "'Bring her about course west. Make sail, full sail!' Waveworm turned on the swell as her steers rat brought the tiller hard round. Wetting a paw, Romska held it aloft, frowning. "'We need the breeze. They're coming up on us fast!' Lask and his monitors stood astern long boat-hooks and pikes ready should the attackers try to board. The monitor-general looked nervously from the oncoming boats to Romska. "'Where is the wind? We need wind in the zales.' Grath Longfletch knew she was within range now. Drawing her bowstring tight, she aimed at Lask and let loose a shaft. Fortunately for the monitor-general, the arrow arrived at the very moment Waveworm hit a stretch of choppy water. It struck the lizard standing to his left. The reptile gurgled, tugged at the shaft sticking from his chest, and toppled overboard. Romska balanced in the prow, feeling the ship begin to rise and fall. Ha-ha! she cried. The breeze is freshening. We'll outsail them. Martin glanced up from his oar at Grath. They've got the wind with them now. Grath tried another arrow, but it was whipped sideways in flight. Aye, but so have we, Martin, she said. Then she dashed amidships and went to work tightening the lines in their cleats until the single square sail billowed tautly. Logalog was yelling and ranting above the howling gusts. Come on, Gwasim, bend your backs, pull! Pull those oars, buckos! The shrews strove bravely, battling with their heavy logboats and small sails to keep up with Graf's craft. Waves crashed over the sides of the shrew boats, sending water cascading into them as the wind force built the seas high. Chopping the abbot's tether rope clear of Waveworm's mast, 
Lask Frildor dragged the old mouse up to the stern gallery. Securing the rope end to the rail, the lizard pushed his prisoner over, leaving him dangling at the aft end above the waves. Let them fire arrows now if they dare, he rasped. Grath Longfletch threw down her bow in disgust. Then she suddenly flung herself flat on the prow as she heard an ominous noise calling, Belay! The mast is gone! Crack! The longboat's mast snapped like a twig, unable to withstand further strain from the gale-tightened sail. Martin found himself enveloped in canvas, being dragged along the boat's bottom as the wind began blowing the loose sail. Clecky was laid flat by the broken mast spar. The warrior mouse struggled madly. Tearing himself free, he whipped out his sword and severed the mast ropes with a few swift slashes. Broken mast, sail, and crossbar went swishing out across the sea like a runaway beast. Grath cradled the unconscious hare's head in her paws, a look of despair on her face, as she watched Waveworm pull away with the abbot dangling high astern. They've beaten us, Martin. We'll never catch them now. The warrior mouse brushed seawater from his eyes as he watched the corsair vessel recede into the watery wastes. No, they haven't beaten me. Not yet they haven't. Logalog gave orders. Lashed together, prow to prow and stern to stern, the small flotilla turned and headed for land. Night had fallen. A beacon fire burned bright on the beach. Viola and four other shrews who had been left to guard the sea-rat saw the crews coming to shore. Heads down, panting and gasping for breath, Logalog and his blossom shrews staggered up to the fire, followed by Martin and Graf carrying Clecky between them. Saturated by seawater, and exhausted from their battle to reach dry land, every beast flopped wearily around the fire area. Viola and the four shrews hurried about, serving hot vegetable broth and oat cakes as they went. Late into the night, Martin sat at the fire with Logalog and Grath. The shrew chieftain fed fresh wood to the flames, and glanced across to where the hare was now sleeping peacefully, wrapped in an old sailcloth. That one'll live to eat another day. I never knew a hare that couldn't rise to the sound of a ladle in a cook-pot. So, Martin, you're bound and determined to follow the coarse airship? The warrior mouse watched the flames crackling around a pine log. That's right, Logalog. If I have to follow them over the world's edge, and it takes me all my life, I'll bring our abbot back to Redwall Abbey. I swear it on my sword. 26. Like a soft cloak of dark velvet, buttoned and studded with stars, the last night of spring lay soft over the ancient sandstone abbey of Redwall. Lanterns and torches glimmered and flickered in the grounds like fireflies. Tansy hurried up from the pond to where Alma stood in the open doorway of the abbey, calling, No sign of those dibbons yet? Pulling forth a large red spotted kerchief, the badger mother dabbed at her tired eyes. Not a whisker. It's as if they disappeared into thin air. Here's Wolger. Maybe he'll have some good news for us. The otter shook his head as he approached them. I've tried the gate bar myself, Marm. "'Tis too high, and far too heavy for Dibbons to lift. "'Besides, if they'd left the abbey, who'd have locked the gate after em? "'You sure those little rogues ain't inside anywheres?' "'Tansy threw up her paws in despair. "'I've searched the abbey three times, so have Picknum and Cracklin, and lots of others. "'Trouble is, there's so many places three Dibbons could hide. 
Ooh, that Arvin, if I get my paws on him. Wolger gave a dry chuckle. Aye, that is the ringleader, all right. No use getting yourself upset, Missy. They'll show up soon as they're hungry enough. It's my guess they've found somewhere snug and fell asleep. All three of them, the rogues. Alma nodded her agreement with the gatekeeper. Wolger's right, Tansy. They're obviously someplace in the abbey. After they've had a night's sleep, they'll turn up tomorrow for breakfast, you'll see. A look of horror registered on Tansy's face. Mother Alma, you're not going to bed, are you? The badger shook her head vehemently. What? Me going to bed while three of my little dibbons are missing? I should say not, Missy. I haven't had a full night's sleep since Abbot Durrell and Viola left. I'll sit on some sacks in the kitchens, dozing with one eye open. Mayhap they'll creep in for a stolen snack. I'll be waiting for those villains if they do, and I'll make them sorry for the upset they've caused around here. Believe me, I will. Wandering indoors, Tansy made her way to Great Hall. As she passed the tapestry of the ancient warrior, she remembered the dream she'd had when Martin told her that the fourth clue was where the three babes were hidden. She shook her head worriedly. She was so anxious about the missing Dibbons that she'd almost forgotten about the pearls. Picknam and Cracklin were still searching fruitlessly around the big room's darker corners. Rolla was half-dozing in the abbot's chair. He sat up straight as Tansy entered and asked, "'Still no sign of the rogues, eh?' The hedgehog maid perched wearily on the arm of the chair. "'No. I've just searched around the pond again. What are we going to do, Rollo?' The old recorder's eyes twinkled slightly. "'The only thing we can do, Tansy, stop thinking like responsible creatures and start thinking like naughty dibbons. Imagine you were Arvin, Diggum, or Gerbol. Where would you hide if you didn't want any beast to find you?' Picknam and Cracklin strolled over to join the conversation. "'Down the cellars, maybe?' "'No. Little ones would be afraid down there in the dark.' What about up in the dormitories? But that's the first place we looked. They weren't there. A sudden thought struck Tansy. I know we've already looked once in the attics above the dormitories, but perhaps we should take another trip up there. Hardly any beast has been in the attics since Fermald passed away. Arvin sat miserably with the two mole babes inside a cupboard in Fermald's attic. A lantern light glowed in the enclosed space. Gerbil yawned, fighting against sleep. "'I wants to go down. I'm girtly ungered and tired her.' Arvin had found Fermal's old fishing rod in the cupboard, and now he waggled it in the mole's direction. "'No, no. Can't go down, Gerbil. Not now. Look at us. We all filthy and dusty. Wait till in a morning, and I catch the bigger fish out the pond.' and we cook him and eat him all up. Diggum inspected her dusty smock sadly. Bower, lack a day. He badger mum'll have summat to say when her sees oi. Arvin stuck out his stomach and pulled his little chin in as he did his impression of Alma. Just look at you, straight in a bath, you mucky maggots. Great seizings. Where you have been? Straight in a bed and no suppers. That teaches you naughty dibbins to be more good in a future. The mole babes laughed at the tiny squirrel's antics. 
Then Gerbil did his imitation of Sister Sicily. "'You'm never knowed where you'm been. I give ye girt bowls a warm nettle zoop. That'll make ye behave, thys elves.' Diggum held one paw to her stomach and the other to her mouth. Work, terrible stuffy, warm nettle zoopy, grrrr. Arvin waved the fishing rod. When I big, me gonna make sis Sicily have nettle zoop every day for her lunch. Ha, that soon make her be sicked. The three Abbey babes' conversation tailed off, and they huddled together in the enclosed cupboard space. Soon their eyelids began drooping as sleep overtook them. Lanterns glowed, flickering and golden, as Tansy and her two friends ascended the gloomy spiral staircase up to the attics. It was so hushed and still that they found themselves tip-pawing, speaking to one another in subdued whispers. Picknam stood in a pale moonshaft that shone down through the rock-crystal window and gazed around into the dusty darkness. "'I'm not so sure the Dibbons had come up here, Tansy,' she said. "'It's almost as spooky as the cellars at night.' The hedgehog maid began casting about with her lantern, peering into corners and recesses. "'Maybe you're right, but it's still worth one last good look. Deary me, imagine living and sleeping up here all alone. How firm all did that for all those seasons, I'll never know.' Cracklin emerged from a small side-chamber off the main room. Holding a paw to her mouth for silence, she beckoned them to her. A knowing smile lit up the squirrel-maid's face as she whispered, "'There's a big old wall cupboard in there. Follow me quietly now. I want you to have a listen and tell me what you hear.' Tansy put her ear to the cupboard door, and, exchanging knowing glances with her companions, she listened. "'Sounds like three dibbons snoring to me,' she said. The door creaked as Picknam opened it to reveal the three culprits. Grimy, dust-covered, and deep in sleep, whiskers twitching gently to each squeaky snore. Without further words, Tansy and her two helpers picked the Abbey babes up and carried them down to the sick bay. Sister Cicely, clad in long nightcap and gown, pursed her lips severely at the sight. Bring them in and put them together in my bed. We'll deal with the villains in the morning. Two hours after dawn, on the first morning of summer season, it was already warm. Above the eastern horizon, a new gold sun began climbing to preside over a cloudless vault of powder-blue sky. Columns of steamy mist rose from the dense woodlands, rising to the upper air, accompanied by happy trills of sweet birdsong. Out on the flatlands, Kingcup and Daisy opened delicate petals with silent grace. The first dry rustle of grasshoppers sounded around gorse and firs. It was a good day for any beast to be alive. Well, almost any beast. Clean-smocked, red-eyed, and still smelling of verbena soap, Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbold sat penitently on an upturned wheelbarrow in the orchard, their breakfast foregone for several bowls of Sicily's favorite cure-all, warm nettle soup. A sorrier trio of dibbons had not graced the abbey in many a long day. Thoroughly chastened, they sat dangling their footpaws, as Alma the badger mother lectured them soundly in front of an audience of old and young. You could have been suffocated in a closed cupboard, with a lantern alight in there. Do you realize that? Every beast in Redwall was searching for you from twilight until well after dark. 
But did you think of letting us know before you went off alone? No. The trouble, worry, and upset you have caused to all is dreadful. It was very naughty of you. Armin, I'm certain you were the ringleader. Have you anything to say for yourself, sir? The tiny squirrel pawed soap and water from his ear. What succafated? Diggum shook her head at the squirrel's ignorance. The word be fusticated. Gerbil interrupted her. No, it bain't. E word is custafated. Prior Higgle Stump waved his ladle at them threateningly. Suffocated, the word is, suffocated. And it means that you little rogues would have died in yon cupboard, had it not been for Miss Tansy and her friends finding you. Alma nodded her great head, agreeing with the friar. Exactly. You're very lucky to be alive. Mrs. Teasel, will you take these three creatures off to the kitchens and find them some chores to keep them busy for the day? Teasel beckoned the wretched trio of divins to follow her. I certainly can, Alma. There's always lots of greasy pots, messy dishes, and floors to be scrubbed. Vegetables need peeling, too. I shouldn't wonder. Come on, Dibbins, step lively now. They were led off, murmuring to each other. Yug! Girt greasy pots and mucky old floors. Boo-er! Us had been better off fusticated. Me was nearly succofated with all of that nettle soup. When they were gone, Alma turned to the otter gatekeeper. Wolger, would you do me a favor? Take furlough stump with you, get hammer and spikes, and nail that attic cupboard shut. We don't want any more wandering dibbons hiding in there. Wolger was about to carry out Alma's bidding when Glenner called out from the northwest wall top. Two creatures approaching the abbey. Looks like Skipper and the Owl. In need of help, the way they're staggering about. Alma was up and ambling swiftly to the main gate. Come on, Wolger. You too, Sister Cicely. Tansy, will you and Rollo see to that cupboard, please? Rollo waved after the badger. Why, you go and look after Skipper and Garrel. Come on, Tansy. And you, Picknam and Crackland. I'm getting a bit old to be wielding a heavy hammer. It's bad enough having to climb all those stairs. Picknam held a wooden baton across the cupboard door. Crackland positioned a spike between the baton end and the door frame, holding her head to one side, and said, Go easy with that hammer, Tansy. Mind my paws. As she was about to strike, Tansy paused. Find the three babes, and you will know. All at once the words of Martin the warrior came back to her. She lowered the hammer. Move that baton aside, she said. Let's just check inside the cupboard before we board it up. The inside of the cupboard was empty, save for Fermal's fishing rod. Rollo held it up, testing the rod's balance, and nodded. This is a fine old fishing rod. If I'm not mistaken, it looks like the one that belonged to Martin's grandsire, Matthias. He was a splendid angler, I've heard say. Yes, wonderfully made. See the paw grip? Good stout you. The rest is made from young crackwillow, whipped and bound with waxed flax. What's the matter, Tansy? Tansy took the rod from her friend, the recorder, and inspected the middle part carefully. Rollo, lend me your knife a moment, she said. Mystified, the old bank bull passed Tansy the small quill knife he used for resharpening feather quill pins. The hedgehog maid explained as she worked. The middle of this rod has been rebound. I noticed some of the flax looked newer than the rest. 
So I'll cut through it carefully and unwind it, like this. Snipping through the binding, she began reeling it off, her voice sounding more excited as she twirled the rod in her paws. Ha-ha! I had a feeling we would find something, and I was right. Look, there's a piece of paper underneath this binding. Thin parchment showed clearly. Picknam caught the flax, tugging it as Tansy twirled the rod swiftly, and a yellowed slip floated to the floor. As it landed, they could all see two words written large on the back. Well done. The four friends sat on the floor as Tansy turned the parchment over and began to read Fermall's clues to the fourth pearl. 27. Skipper and Garrel ate hungrily, slopping down elderberry and rosehip cordial between mouthfuls of leek pasty and hazelnut cheese. Sister Cicely and Brother Dormal, the herbalist, worked diligently, cleaning and binding their dirt-encrusted wounds. The otter chieftain had told their story to the Redwallers, who crowded into the kitchen. Some of them shook their heads in disbelief at the narrative. Great seasons! Skipper slew one of those awful lizards? He ate a skipper of otters for nothing. Nothing's tough. Look at that scar down Skip's side. Skipper chuckled and patted Garrel. You should have seen me old mate here. He gave him what for. Garrel lowered his head, modestly picking crumbs from his feathered chest. Ah, it was nothing, sir. As me old mother used to say, leave your enemies like a plate after a good feed, well licked. Alma brought a pail of warm water infused with herbs for the pair to bathe weary paws and talons in. Would it do any good to raise a force and follow Martin? she asked. He and the hare may be in sore need of help, if they're still trying to rescue Viola and the abbot. What do you think, Skipper? The otter winced as Sister Cicely snipped away fur from a wound. I don't think Martin'd want Redwallers roaming the country looking for him, Marm. I'll send a score of my otters. They'll make it down to the sea, following the streams. Brother Dormal inspected Gerald's damaged wing gingerly. I think your flying days may well be over, friend, he said. The owl was about to shrug, but thought better of it. Ah, well, not to worry, sir. Flying's not everything, you know. Sure I'll get about just grand on my stout talons. Like me old mother used to say, walking's good as winging whenever it's wet. Friar Higgle placed a platter of fruit tarts between Garrel and Skipper. At least it hasn't affected your appetite. Standing on a bench next to an old stone sink, three apron-clad dibbons scoured away at breakfast platters and pots. Arvin glanced across to where Garrel and Skipper were being fussed over and fed. The little squirrel nudged his mole companions. Cha! Look at them! They runned away and comed back all mucked up, and every beast's bees nice to em. But what happened to usins? We only went missin' a lickle time, and didn't get filthy like that. The mulbabe Diggum scrubbed away half-heartedly at a pot with a wedge of soft sandstone. He be right, mate. We am be scalded and put to work her, but they beasts be treated very nice. It might fur. Gerbil pulled an oatmeal-crusted bowl from the sink. Brr, I. Mayap, if us had stayed away longer and come back lots dustier, we am be treated good and get noise vittles. Arvin clenched a chubby paw resolutely. Me make a plan. 
Next time mustn't be lots of brave. Run away in a woodlands. Take big bag of foods and weapons. We fight all a bad beast. Ah, we come back very, very muck filthy. Mud splatty, yerk. Then they be much gladder to see us. Tansy's voice echoed round the attic as she read Fermald the Ancient's message. It was very complicated, but the four intrepid searchers expected no less. My fourth tear I shed for the abbey red wall, laid where it never should hatch or fall, below the mouth of a mouse looking south, all in a deserted dwelling. So sit o'er the maiden hair, gaze up north, and solve what my next words are telling. Put a home with our abbey warrior, north, east, south, at the start. Then, to complete this riddle, add the last thing in my heart. Tansy shook her head despairingly. Well, I've seen some riddles in my time, but this one's a beauty. It's about as clear as a swamp-covered frog. Still, we won't solve it sitting round here. She jumped up and led the way down the spiral staircase. Let's have lunch and spend all afternoon and evening on the puzzle. By midday it was hot, and the grass was curling and dry, as if spring mists and rains were long gone. Friar Higgle had set up a buffet table in the orchard, and now he sat in the shade of a spreading damson tree with Alma and some redwall elders. The friar gazed up at the thick white masses of flowers crowding the boughs overhead, and recited a seasoned poem. When the damson trees crowned white, and wild pear blooms also, I think the season for this sight that lets good creatures know summer is come to shed its gold. Warm days grow long as home oak flowers. The bees hum songs they learned of old, to shorten night's long hours. For spring is fled and summer's come, Gather its blossoms and bring me some. Rollo nodded appreciatively, as he nibbled busily at the edges of a raspberry and apple turnover. That's a nice poem, Higgle. I've never heard it before. Did you write it yourself? The friar took a deep draught of his October ale. Bless your no, Rollo. I couldn't write verses to save me spikes. Twas Brother Dormal taught it to me. He knows all about poems and seasons and growing things. Old Dormal's a right clever and Dormal lowered his eyes modestly, blinking away a white blossom that had fallen on his eyelid. It's nothing, really. The verses write themselves in my head. Rollo licked raspberry juice from his chin. But none knows more than you about growing things, right? Dormal was a shy old mouse. He shrugged lightly. I suppose so. I love the things that grow as much as I like to write poetry. Why do you ask? Because I would like to know if we have maiden hair growing anywhere within Redwall. You mean spleenwort? Dormal corrected. The recorder shook his head. No, I mean maiden hair. Dormal warmed to his favorite subject. The correct name is spleenwort, though it is also commonly known as maiden hair. It's a wall-growing fern. Hmm, we do have some growing wild somewheres, now let me think. Rolla was about to urge the old mouse to hurry his memory up, when Dormal nodded knowingly and said, On the inside of the south wall, slap bang in the middle, 
about halfway up. I called some for Sister Cicely last autumn. But why do you want to know about Spleenwort, Rollo? Dormall found himself speaking to thin air. Rollo had left. Tansy, Picknam, and Cracklin sat on the upturned wheelbarrow, giggling as they tried to protect their lunch against Skipper and Garrel, whose injuries seemed to have increased their insatiable appetites. Winking both eyes at the three abbey maids, the owl allowed his talons to rove perilously close to their food. End of Side 4 Change Side Selector Switch This book is continued on the next cassette. Side 5, Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 202 Ah, now, what would three slender young beauties like yourselves want with stodgy hazelnut puddin? Twill only make fat beasts of you, missies. My old mother always used to say, If you're not fat, there's a slim chance some creature'll fall in love with you. So she did and herself as thin as a beanpole, and greatly loved by all, so she was. Tansy pulled the pudding out of his reach. Tut, tut, Mr. Garrel, your mother couldn't have loved you much, you great butter barrel. Ha, 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 ha. Skipper agreed with her, swiping a couple of blackberry muffins as he did so. That's right, Missy. I don't know which is bigger, old Garrel's eyes or his belly. Ho, ho, ho. Ha. Look who's talking, old famine tummy himself, said Cracklin. Then she neatly caught one of the muffins as it was halfway to the otter's mouth and tossed it to Picknam. Garrel intercepted the muffin, and before Picknam could stop him, he had crammed half of it into his beak. True words, miss, true words. I'd sooner keep Skipper in vittles for a day than a season, so I would. Rollo strode busily up and tapped his paws on the wheelbarrow. No time for fooling about, friends. I've just made an important discovery. Follow me, and forget lunch. Before they could argue, he had ushered them off in the direction of the South Abbey Wall. Garrel watched them go, dividing the hazelnut pudding in two with a spoon. To be sure, there's something heroic about a vole who won't let vittles keep him from his duty. That'll be voted abbot one day, Skip. You mark my words. Rollo the Righteous, they'll call him, so they will. Maidenhair spleenwort grew spider-like from the cracks in the stonework of the high south wall. Fronds of different lengths spread in all directions, each stem covered in tiny spearhead-shaped leaflets ranging from pale to bright green. Upward of a dozen or more plants clung to the sandstone, forming a tracery almost from ground to ramparts. So sit over the maidenhair, gaze up north, Tansy said as she checked the poem parchment. Picknam and Cracklin were already racing away towards the wall steps. Last one to the steps is a crawly old caterpillar. Rollo stared over the top of his glasses at Tansy. I know I'm the crawly old caterpillar. But where are they going? Have I missed something? Tansy took the old recorder's paw. The only way we can carry out Fermall's instructions is to sit on the battlements of this wall over the maidenhair. Then we'll see what to make of this riddle. Come on, no hurry. We'll be crawly caterpillars together. 28. Day broke hot and hazy over the Isle of San Petra as the murderous game between Ublas and Rasconza took a new turn. The fox was asleep in his cabin when a sharp rat-tat on the door awoke him. 
He sat up groggily, yawning and blinking. Quit that knocking and come in. The door swung open to reveal the mad-eyed Pine Martin. Rasconza leapt for his sword, which lay on a nearby table. Ublas held both paws wide to show he was unarmed. Leave your blade, friend. I could have crept in here and slain you as you slept. Rasconza poured himself a beaker of seaweed grog, careful not to lock eyes with Ublas. So what gets you out of your bunk this early? he snarled. The emperor had dressed in brown silk that morning. He looked around at the stained benches and chairs, and chose to stand. I merely call to tell you that the first new rudder and tiller are ready. My workers toiled through the night to finish them. Even as we speak, my creatures are fitting them to this vessel. Rasconza was nonplussed. He stood staring at his beaker. Well, I'll say this for you, matey. You've got some nerve coming down here. Don't forget, I could order the crews to attack. We still outnumber your forces. Ublas gestured elegantly towards the open door. I took the precaution of arriving silently. Your sentries are asleep, and the other five crews snoring inside their cabins. A simple but effective operation, Rasconza. Oh, one other thing. Stay away from your sword. You would have to face me if you were intent on slaying me. Then our eyes would meet, and if I can put a poisonous water snake under my spell, a simple fox would present no problem. It's your move, friend. Rasconza could hear the trident rats hammering the rudder pins home and fitting the tiller above decks. Smiling with a confidence he did not feel, the fox answered Ublas, I still hold five of your creatures, the captains, remember? One shot from me, and they'll all be fish bait. The pine martin had painted his claws red to offset the brown silk. He breathed on them and buffed them on his flowing sleeve as he murmured, Shout away, fox, shout away. Do you think I gave you valuable fighters to captain these ships? Like Orlog, whom you slew. Those five are worthless fools. Kill them if you want to. Rasconza scratched his matted tail with grimy claws, baffled. Well, what do you want? You've got me cornered in here. You don't care about your own creatures, and now you're fixing me ship up with a new rudder and tiller. You've probably got a gang of your best lizards waiting outside to slay me. Is that what you want? Ublas leaned back against the cabin door, smiling. I've already said I don't want to slay you, Rasconza. Friendship and trust, that's what I want. Look, here's what I propose. Forget the rats I appointed as captains. Choose your own from among the crews, and I'll give the order for mine to stand down. Then I want you to pick out all those loyal to you and crew this ship up. If we are to rule San Petra together, you must prove yourself to me, Rasconza. I want you to captain this vessel, sail anywhere you please, but bring me back the finest cargo of plunder ever seen on a Corsair ship. Prove you are my captain-in-chief. Rasconza's eyes lit up. You mean that? Fair enough, Ublas. I'll pick me crew and bring back plunder to this isle that'll make your eyes pop out. The emperor grinned wryly. Oh, I don't think I'd like that to happen. But I'm glad you see things my way. You are a worthy partner, Rasconza. I like having clever beasts around me. There are too many fools in this world. 
When Ublas had departed, Rascanza called the crews together and gave them a highly falsified version of what had taken place between himself and the emperor, giving them the impression that he had outsmarted Mad-Eyes. The wave vermin cheered wildly and began to break open kegs of grog. Then the fox banged his sword-hilt on the jetty for silence and continued his narrative. So I says to old Mad-Eyes, Get those rats of yourn off our ships. I won't have no beasts commanding these vessels but our own. So, Baltur, Goncho, and you, Grujaw, the stoat, and you, Deadgut, the ferret, and you, Buckler, the sea-rat. You're my five new captains now. Stand up lively, the rest of you. I'm taking my ship Blood Keel on a plundering trip, and I want none but the best alongside of me. Amid scenes of wild reveling on the sunlit jetty, Rasconza chose his crew for the voyage. They leapt aboard Bloodkeel, yelling and roaring in anticipation of plunder and slaughter. Guja, the former steers-rat of Maraca's ship Freebooter, was made steers-rat of Bloodkeel, because there was none better for the job. The vermin laughed and cheered as he twiddled a tune on his melodeon, singing in a cracked baritone, "'Would your plunder from your mother? Yes, I would, yes, I would.' For me mother always said I was no good. I'm a steer's rut bred and born, and I'm sailing in the morn. Stand aside, me lucky buckos, let me go. Cut me teeth upon a cutlass, yes I did, yes I did, and me poor old daddy ran away and hid, saying, that's no child of mine, let him sail across the brine. Stand aside now for the vermin, let him go. If there's plunder in the offing, that's for me, that's for me. And I never charge, I'll kill you all for free. Give me lots of lovely loot, and a cask of grog to boot. Up the anchor, loose the sails, and let me go. Sinking majestically into the western horizon, the sun burned skies of blue and gold to a crimson hue. Ublas and Sagittar watched from an upper window as the hot day drew to a close. Bloodkeel was a mere speck far out to the southeast. The emperor poured two goblets of rich dark wine and pushed one in the direction of his chief trident rat. Now you may ask me, he said. Ask you what, sire? replied Sagittar apprehensively. The pine martin sipped his wine, still watching Bloodkeel diminishing into the hazy distance of the ocean. What is on your mind? he said. Why did I repair the fox's ship? Why did I let him sail off with a crew of his own choosing? Why did I not crush the wave vermin this morning when I had the chance? These are the questions on your mind, am I correct? Nervously, Sagittar swallowed the wine in one gulp. Mightiness, you have read my mind. Ublas refilled the goblets, narrowing his eyes to keep Bloodkeel in his vision. You are only thinking what every other beast on San Petra is thinking at this moment, so I will tell you. Rasconza is a born troublemaker, ambitious and deceitful. Like Baranka, he is popular with the Corsair crews. This would make him dangerous in the long run. So I decided to dispense with him. First I let him choose a crew, knowing he would choose his closest allies. You see, there may be those among them who would also be future trouble to me, so I dispense with them also. But I do not want the other crews to know I am responsible for the slaying of Rasconza and his friends. I want them to think that their emperor is benevolent to them. If they consider me their friend, I will have their loyalty. 
So there you have your answer. Sagatar paused, the goblet half-lifted to her lips. But, sire, you have not slain Raskansa and his crew. They have sailed away alive, free to return to San Petra when they will. Ublas smiled, shaking his head at the trident rat's simplicity. Look out to sea, Sagatar. If you can still see Raskansa's ship, then take a last look at it. Bloodkeel has only one place to go. Straight down. When my workers fitted the new tiller and rudder this morning, they were carrying out my instructions. Below the waterline, they hewed the stern until the wood was thin. Then they fitted the rudder. It has a special metal spike protruding from the back of it. Every time the steers rat moves the tiller, that spike gouges into the thin stern below the waterline. By morning, Bloodkeel will be where I have set her with all aboard, deep down on the ocean bed. The goblet smashed upon the floor as it fell from Sagatar's nerveless paws. She stared with speechless horror at the smiling Pine Martin. Ublaz spread his paws wide. Now I have no enemies, and I own the Corsair fleet. No beast in all the seas and oceans is more powerful and wise than I. The mad-eyed emperor had emerged as victor in his murderous game against the wave vermin. However, he had reckoned without the chain of events, he had set off by slaying Lutra and his kin for six rose-tinted pearls. 29. On Mossflower shore, dawn arrived bright and warm. Logalog and his blossom shrews had been busy most of the night working on Grath's longboat to make it seaworthy again. The big otter viewed their work admiringly, pacing up and down as she inspected her new craft. The shrew chieftain pointed out the features his workers had accomplished. We used eight long willow boughs, still green. See, we've made a double outrigger of your little boat by fitting a shrew log boat to each side of her. My shrews put a longer keel on your boat, too. You'll need it on the high seas. She's a good un now, matey. Graf had to agree. The new craft was ideal for seafaring. It rode in the stream with a logboat fixed to either side by the willow boughs, leaving enough space between the outriggers to enable it to be paddled by oars. Shrews were wading into the stream, stocking the logboats with provisions, which left more passenger space on the main vessel. Clucky joined them, a bowl of soup in one paw, a slice of oatcake in the other, and a large seaweed poultice bound to the bump he had received between his ears. Spiff an idea, what? I've always fancied myself as a jolly old nautical type, you know. I say, do you think we'll have enough grub along for the voyage? A chap could starve out there without plenty of fodder. I'll be captain, of course, natural heir of command and all that. Born to lead, my old pater always used to say, what? Martin placed a bowl of soup in front of the captive sea rat and sat down next to him. Here, that'll take the edge off your hunger, he said. Now. What's your name? The rat grabbed the bowl gratefully. They calls me Blade Rib, sir. The warrior mouse tore off a hunk of shrew bread and gave it to the rat. No need to sir me, Blade Rib. Where do you think the ship has gone? Lifting his lips from the bowl, Blade Rib nodded seaward. Due west for San Petra. I'd take me oath on it. Martin stared levelly at him. Then your oath better be good, because you're coming with us. How far away is this place you call San Petra? Some say tis beyond where the sun sinks in the west. 
Too far for your little boat to sail, I'd say. Martin eyed the distant horizon as he strapped the sword to his back. You let me worry about that. Now, tell me all you know about San Petra. By late morning they were ready to sail. Logalog and the Gwasim crowded around the bank, as Martin, Grath, and Clucky waded into the shallows, leading Bladerib by a rope tied about his middle. Viola Bankbull followed them, crying, I'm going with you to help free Abbot Doral. Martin had noted a change in Viola. She seemed more sensible and confident since her captivity. Several times that morning she had requested to sail with them. Now, as before, Martin gave her his answer. Sorry, little one. It would be far too dangerous for you. We'll bring the abbot back, I promise you. Go back to Redwall now. There's a good creature. Logalog and his shrews will see you get home safe. Water splashed as Viola stamped her footpaw in the shallows. Just because I'm not a grown-up, you don't want me. It's not fair. I'm being treated like a silly little divin. She turned and flounced off across the shore towards the woodlands. Viola, we don't think you're a divin, Martin called after her. All of us know that you're a very brave young bankvole, but you're not old enough yet to find your way through the woods alone. Wait for Logalog to take you home. Pause akimbo, Viola turned and glared at Martin. I know my own way back to the abbey, thank you. I don't need a whole tribe of shrews to hold my paw. Goodbye. With her apron strings streaming out in the breeze, she strode resolutely off. Logalog turned to Martin. She's a bold creature, sure enough. But you're right, Martin. She's far too young to be traveling on her own. Jesset and Tenno, follow the little maid and see her safely back to Redwall. Talking of which, I'm not letting you go without extra help, matey. There's two ear who'd be proud to sail with you. Clark, Welko. Two stout shrews leapt forward and joined the party in the shallows. Graf Longfletch looked them over approvingly, saying, Are you sure you can spare two strong beasts like these, Logalog? Throwing a paw fondly about the shoulders of the two, Logalog nodded at his otter friend. These are my two sons. They can eat, fight, sail, and sing like no other shrews I know of. They've pestered me after night to let them sail with you. Ha-ha! Anything to avoid the iron-pawed discipline of their father. Ain't that right, buckos? Plog nudged his father's ribs playfully. I'll bring you back a nice walking stick, old feller. He ducked a hefty swipe from his parent, who was grinning proudly. Get out of it, you tadpole. Bring me back any walking sticks, and I'll break em or your tail. Take care of each other and our friends, you two, and always remember you're the sons of a Gwasim chieftain. Don't do nothing I wouldn't do, you blood puddins. Welko stamped back ashore, his face serious. I ain't going on no ship that don't have a name. Logalog folded both paws across his fat stomach. You're right, Welko. Ahoy, Grath! That's why your vessels had so much bad luck, matey. She ain't got a name. What are you going to call her? Dabby, bring some markin' dye to paint a name on. The big otter scratched her scarred head. Hmm, a name? I've never given it much thought. Free beast. They all turned to look at Martin. He pointed at the vessel and said, We're all free beasts, and we're on a mission to free a good old beast, the abbot of Redwall. So let her name be Free Beast. 
As the tide began to swell, a short ceremony was carried out on the mouth of the river. Every creature present was issued with a beaker of shrew beer. Logalog was lifted aboard the craft bearing two beakers, one in each paw. Standing in the prow, he recited a Guasim boat-naming poem. Whether she sails on river or sea, may the wind be always behind her. May she always be welcomed by friends like me. May the foe-beast never find her. Let her crew hold the lives of each other dear, and avoid every sharp rock or reef. Good seasons and fates now listen and hear. Keep this gallant free-beast from all grief. Amid rousing cheers, Logalog poured one beaker over the prow and drank the other in a single swallow, along with everyone else. Martin and his friends tossed their weapons aboard and hauled themselves over the side. Grath took the tiller as Plog and Welko hoisted the sail upon its new ash-pole mast. Martin and Clecky stood forward, punting deep either side with the oars. Freebeast skimmed out of the river and into the open sea, her sail billowing bravely as she caught the wind and bucked head-on into the first rollers. Clecky shipped his oar, as Martin did. Standing upright, the five crew members of Freebeast held their weapons aloft and roared their war-cries across the sun-flecked waters to the guasim on the shore. Red Wall! Eulalia! Holt Lutra! Logga, 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 log! Seabirds wheeled overhead in the bright summer day. Framed against the cloudless blue above, the sun beat down on the strange three-hulled vessel as it plowed the waves. On into the unknown deeps of the wild ocean, questing for Duro, the father abbot of Redwall Abbey. The voyage had begun. 30. Sitting on the south wall-top alongside her friends, Tansy looked upward to the north. "'Well, what do you see?' she said to Rollo. Gazing in the same direction, the old recorder answered, "'I see the south face of the abbey building, as you do. Any beasts see anything different?' Picknam and Cracklin began giggling, a sure sign that they were onto something. Rollo glared sternly over the top of his glasses at the abbey maids. Well, I'm glad some creatures find this situation amusing. No doubt you are about to tell us something, when you are quite finished with your fit of the giggles. Struggling to regain control of themselves, the pair responded, Tee-hee-hee, er, hrump. Don't you think we should be paying more attention to the next words of the poem, sir? Tee-hee. Cracklin says we look like poor fledglings waiting to be fed. Hee-hee-hee. Sitting on top of a wall with our heads up. Tansy stifled a smile at the thought. Rollo unrolled the thin parchment rather huffily, spreading it on the wall-top. Ahem! Just as I was about to do, he said. Now, let me see. Put a home with our abbey warrior, north-east-south, at the start. Then, to complete this riddle, add the last thing in my heart. Nodding to each other, Picknam and Cracklin gave the answer. Another name for a home? A house. Who is our abbey warrior? Martin. Who put them together and named me a little bird? House Martin. Tansy was about to speak when Rollo jumped in ahead of her. North, east, south begin with N-E-S. The last thing in my heart is the letter T. Put them together and we have nest. We're looking for a house Martin's nest. Not to be outdone, Tansy swiftly added her contribution. Below the mouth of a mouse looking south, all in a deserted dwelling. So sit o'er the maiden hair, gaze up north, 
and saw what my next words are telling. Look, a small attic window, and see carved in the stone above it? I'll wager that's the head of a mouse. See? Four pairs of eyes peered keenly up at the highest window on the north side of the abbey. Sure enough, the arched apex of the stone was decorated with a carved head. Rollo polished his spectacles hard, blinking, and said, Yes, it is a creature of some sort, but it's too high up to tell what it is. The only way to be sure is to go up there. Tansy tugged at the old recorder's sleeve to gain his attention. She pointed to the spot where Picknam and Cracklin had been sitting a moment before. They've already gone. Come on, old friend, let's follow. She assisted the old bank bowl down the wall steps. I wonder what the last one up there is this time, he muttered, shaking his head. A tottering tadpole or a boggled beetle? The hedgehog maid smiled as they crossed the lawn. I'd better not tell you, or you'd have Mother Alma send him to bed with no supper. The high window in question was the one in Fermall's attic. It was filled by a large chunk of translucent rock crystal. Tansy reached it by standing on the back of Fermall's armchair. Cracklin climbed up to help her, whilst Rollo and Picknam held on to the battered old chair, steadying it. The hedgehog maid gave a cry of delight as she felt the lump of crystal move beneath her paw. Ha-ha! It's not even cemented in. Mind your paws, Cracklin. Look out below! She pulled it loose. The crystal set up a cloud of dust as it thudded onto the cushioned armchair seat. Cracklin crawled into the window space and poked her head out to look around. Picknam danced up and down with impatience. Can you see the house martin's nest? Is the pearl there? Only when Tansy and the squirrel maid were safe back on the attic floor did Cracklin make her report. Phew! I felt awfully dizzy looking out of the window. Do you realize how high up we are? But I could see the nest. It's on a narrow stone parapet wedged in a corner. Rollo was obviously trying to keep calm as he asked the vital question. Hmm. Did you see the, er, uh, pearl? Cracklin perched on the chair arm, looking at her friend's expectant faces, framed in the sunlit shaft from the window. I saw the nest, a typical house martin dwelling, almost like a round ball with a small hole for an entrance. But I don't think any birds have used it for some seasons. It looked empty. Tansy nodded thoughtfully. Exactly as the rhyme says. Below the mouth of a mouse looking south, all in a deserted dwelling. The nest is the deserted dwelling. But the thing that really mystifies me is how did a very old squirrel like Fermald manage to get the pearl into the nest? Picknam clapped a paw to her mouth, but could not stop the giggle that bubbled forth. Tee-hee-hee! Ask Mr. Rollo. He's pretty ancient. Hee-hee! He should know. Quite unexpectedly, the old recorder smiled and made a slight bow to the mousemaid. Thank you, Picknam. Nice to see you showing some respect for your elders. As a matter of fact, the question has been puzzling me. However, I think I know how Fermald managed to place the pearl in that house martin's nest. It was the three abbey maids' turn to look surprised. Rollo seated himself in the armchair and explained in three words. Fermald's fishing rod. Tansy clapped her paws in delight. Of course, I'll go and get it. Cracklin lay in the window space leaning outward, while Tansy and Picknam held tight to her foot paws as she fished for the nest. It was a lot simpler than they thought. With a triple-barbed hook attached to the line, the nest was easily snagged. 
Crackland reeled it up carefully as Rollo paced the floor, chatting away to himself, highly pleased with his own wisdom. Quite basic, really. Kermald hooked the nest, reeled it up here, placed the pearl in it, and lowered it back into position again. Ha! Huh, you can't beat an old head on old shoulders. Crackland swung the nest inside, and Tansy caught it skillfully. Seasons ago, a clever little house martin had formed the circular structure of grass, leaves, and mud, leaving a round opening. She had probably used it several times to rear her egg chicks. Rollo grinned broadly at the three eager faces as he upended the nest and shook it. Just as the rhyme says, my fourth tear I shed for the abbey red wall, laid where it never should hatch or fall. Behold, here is our fourth pearl, young maids. But only an acorn shell fell out onto the attic floorboards. In complete silence, Tansy took the nest from Rollo. The hedgehog maid rummaged inside it with her paw, then she shook it and held it up to the light, her face a picture of disappointment. There's no pearl. It's gone. Picknam and Cracklin were both shocked. They too inspected the empty nest, but no amount of looking could conjure up a pearl that was not there. All four friends slumped on the attic floor, totally dejected. Tansy picked up the acorn shell and looked closely at it. This is an empty shell. It's been cracked and stuck together again. See? She split the shell and drew forth the scrap of parchment which had been rolled up inside. Here's the clue to our fifth pearl. Though I don't intend opening or reading it until we find the fourth pearl. Agreed? Rollo spoke for himself and the other two maids. Agreed. It would not seem right. We must discover each pearl in the order that Fermald intended us to. Come on, cheer up, friends. Let's go to the grounds below and try to find that pearl. Alma sat with Garrel and Skipper at the table in Great Hall. Late evening sunlight streamed through the stained glass windows onto a table that did full justice to the culinary skills of Redwall cooks. Neither beast had let injury blunt his appetite. With no great interest in the elderberry tart or the small beaker of plum cordial before her, the badger mother turned to Skipper, saying, No news of Martin and Clecky yet. The brawny otter looked up from his summer salad, took a draft of October ale, and wiped his mouth on the back of a paw. I'm afraid not, Mom, though I expect the otter patrol I sent out to be back with some information before dawn tomorrow. Who knows? Mayap they'll bring Martin and Clecky with them, the abbot and Viola too, with any luck. Alma sniffed hard, blinked back a tear, and sighed. Poor Durrell and Viola! I hope they're not still in the clutches of that foul lizard thing and those scurvy sea-rats. Garrel demolished a wedge of celery and mushroom turnover with all the ease of a seasoned trencher beast. Ah, now, don't be worrying yourself over things you can't control, Mom. Sure, as me old mother always used to say, ten seasons from now you'll be wondering what you were bothered about today, if you're still around to bother. Will you look at old Rollo and those young maids over there, They've got faces on them like frazzled frogs, so they have. Hi there, Tansy. Bring your friends over here and join the Redwall Warriors. When the four friends had joined Alma, Skipper, and Garrel, the owl applied himself back to a chunk of heavy fruitcake. There now, aren't we the grand old miserable table-mates? What are you lot looking so down in the whiskers about? Tansy explained in detail about the house martin's nest. Garrel listened carefully as he helped himself to Alma's tart. Hmm, 
So there was no pearl in the nest, eh? Well, what do you suppose happened? Did it fall out? Have you searched the grounds below the nest? Rollo picked at a slice of apple pie. Oh, yes, we went over the area with a fine-tooth comb. There was no sign of anything resembling a pearl. Gerald picked crumbs from his chest as he talked. So where in the name of faith do you think the pearl went? Rollo pushed away his apple pie and shrugged. How should I know? The owl blinked his enormous eyes. Cha! Me old mother wouldn't be too pleased with you, Rollo. A beast of your long seasons and wisdom not being able to see what's staring you in the whiskers? If the pearl never fell, then sure it was taken by some beast or other. That's clear enough. The recorder of Redwall Abbey stared indignantly at Gerald. Oh, indeed? Some beast took it, eh? From over halfway up the abbey wall and a nest on a tiny ledge? Pray be good enough to tell me, sir, what sort of creature was it? Gerald finished his crumb-picking ablutions and hopped down to the floor, chuckling at the angry recorder. Ah, sure, you're getting your whiskers and a tiz over nothing at all. I hate leaving a lovely table of victuals like this. But if you'll be kind enough to follow me good self, I'll try to help you. The four friends followed Gerald up to Fermall's attic. He waddled around the abandoned Martin's nest, touching it now and again with a hefty talon as he inquired, and this is exactly as you found it, just like it is now? Just as we found it, Tansy answered. Garrel looked from one to the other. And, of course, you all had your eyes shut tight, did you not? Picknam was running out of patience. Silly owl, we had our eyes wide open, she said, stamping her paw down. From amid the dry grass and mud of the nest, Garrel picked a small grayish-black feather. So you had your eyes open and never saw this, ha? Huh. The old mother would have given yous the length of her beak, so she would. Tansy twirled the feather in her paw, mystified. What is it, Garrel? They all hopped up onto the armchair and blinked at Tansy. Faith, hey, don't you know, Missy? Tis the neck feather of a jackdaw, the greatest robber ever to have an old set of wings. Your pearl was stolen by a jackdaw. They'll have anything shiny, the thieving blackguards. They'd have the eyes out of your head if you weren't watching them, so my mother used to say. Rollo plopped into the armchair glumly. You mean to tell us that the fourth pearl was stolen by a jackdaw? It could be anywhere in Mossflower, or even beyond by now. How are we ever going to find it? Garrel leapt to the floor and started waddling off back to the remains of dinner in Great Hall. Easy. I'll show you after breakfast tomorrow, he said. Wolger, the otter gatekeeper, poked his head round the door of Great Hall and called to Alma. Visitors to see your marm. You too, Skip. Led by Logalog and half a score of burly otters, the Gwasim shrews piled into the hall. Despite his still healing wounds, Skipper dashed to meet them. Ahoy! Rang a paw. You timed that nicely. Dinner ain't over yet. Logalog, you old son of a shrew, how are you, matey? Greetings were exchanged as helpers ran to put out extra food for the newcomers. Logalog and Rangapaw joined Alma and the Otter Chieftain at the big table. Skipper poured October ale for them, giving them a moment to slake their thirst. Rangapaw was a large, sleek otter. She stood almost a head taller than Skipper, her father. Mopping off a tankard of ale, she gave Skipper a friendly buffet across the back, which nearly knocked him from his seat. He winked fondly at her. Now then, you great waterhound, stop knocking your old daddy about and make your report. 
The big otter poured herself more October ale. Well, we traveled as fast as we could when word came from Logalog that it was our mates, the Red Wallers, in trouble. But we arrived too late. Old Logalog can tell you the rest. We met him on the shore. The Guasim chieftain went on to explain how Lask Frildur and Romska had sailed off with the abbot and how Martin had taken up pursuit of them with his small band. He told of Graf Longflatch rescuing Viola, then looked about, saying, Is the Volmaid not back yet? She should have arrived more than a day ago. Alma looked shocked. Back here? No. Surely Martin didn't let the little maid travel alone. Logalog shook his head. Of course not, Marm. She had an escort of two stout shrews. Hey, Jesset and Tenno, what say you? Jesset and Tenno stood forward. We saw her right to the gates, Marm. She thanked us politely, but insisted on going in by herself. Rangapaw quaffed her second tankard of ale and stood up. Pack some of those victuals for me and the crew. We'll go straight away and search for the little maid. When the otters had departed, Logalog patted Alma's paw reassuringly. Ahoy, now, don't fret yourself, Marm. They'll find her. And Martin and his crew won't rest until they bring your abbot back home. I know it, and you would too, if you'd seen the iron in his eyes when he set sail after those waves come. Ha! That's one warrior they won't shake off. I'd take me affidavit on that. That may be so, said Rollo. But we must not slow down our search for the pearls. If we find the ransom, we may be able to save some bloodshed. A moment later, Sister Sicily stormed in and banged the table with a medicine spoon. I'll wager no beast has seen those three dibbons. They're not in the dormitory. I've searched all around the abbey. Tansy interrupted the irate sister. Do you mean Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbol? Sicily brandished the medicine spoon fiercely. Who else? Ooh, just let me get my paws on that little wretch Arvin. He's the ringleader. The other two babes would follow him anywhere. I'll dose him purple with nettle soup when I get him. I'll bath him until his ears are bright red. I'll... I'll... Alma interrupted the sister sternly. You'll leave them to me, Cicely. After all, they're only dibbons. No doubt they'll be hiding somewhere like last time. I say, let us wait until they get hungry enough to come out. Then we'll see what they have to say for themselves. At that moment the three dibbons in question were wandering deep in moss-flower wood. Wolger had left the abbey main gate ajar when he admitted the otters and guasom shrews, and the three abbey babes had seized their chance. Armed with sticks and a blanket, which they intended to make into a tent, they set off. They also had a big fruitcake, a bag of candied chestnuts, and a flask of strawberry cordial, purloined from the kitchens. Arvin smiled to himself as he muttered to his willing companions, This at time we get lots of mucky and dusted, catch her some of those blizzards and smack em with our big sticks. Then they be gladder to see us, I betcha. Diggum waved her stick about savagely. Oh, er, usins be awful turrible haminals. Gerbol agreed wholeheartedly. Yer, and usins won't might come back till we be growed up. Her, her, we am shout at em all and pur em to bed early. The soft folds of velvet summer night descended over the woodlands, silencing birdsong as the three tiny figures were swallowed up in still warm darkness. 31. 
Dawn broke hot and warm over a sheltered inlet on the northwest coast of San Petra. The ebbing tide had thrown up some flotsam from the vessel Bloodkeel. Still intact, the rudder and tiller lay among the shells and seaweed festooning the tide line. Lashed to it by heaving line were Resconza the fox and his steers rat Guja. Pounded and battered by the seas, they coughed up salt water as they extricated themselves from the ropes, tiller, and rudder that had kept them alive for almost two days on the ocean. The pair dragged themselves painfully over the shore into the shadow of a rock overhang at the foot of a hill. There they found fresh water. Greedily the two corsairs lapped at the tiny rivulet of cold, crystal-clear liquid that threaded thinly and dripped from the mossy underside of their shelter. Rasconza picked salt rime from his eye-corners, gazing beyond the cove, out to where the deep ocean glimmered and shimmered in early morn. The fox's voice was rasping and painful, bitter and vengeful. A full crew, matey, and we're the only two left alive to tell the tale. Guja had scraped some of the damp moss off with his dagger. He chewed it until there was no more moisture or nourishment left, then spat it out viciously. Aye, Captain. All our shipmates either drowned or eaten by the big fishes, every beast jack of them, slain by mad-eyes treachery. Rasconza unbuckled the saturated belt that held his daggers and laid the weapons out one by one on the grass. Selecting his favorite blade, he began honing it on a piece of rock. Mark my words, Guja, the worst day's work Ublas ever did was to leave me alive, though he don't know it. His dying day is near. As Chief Trident Rat, it was Sagatar's duty to report to her emperor morning and night. As she entered the Pine Martin's throne room, Sagatar could see that Ublas was in a foul mood. He slumped on his throne, staring at the lifeless form of Grawl, his messenger Gaul. The great black-backed bird had died of exhaustion, bringing news back to its master. Ublaz touched the limp wing-feathers contemptuously with his footpaw. Ha! Grawl was the only one of my gulls to make it back. And now look at him. Useless bundle of bird-flesh. In the silence that followed, Sagatar shuffled nervously. Feeling it her duty to make some comment, she inquired meekly, Did the bird bring good news of your pearls, sire? Ublaz rose, and stepping over the dead gull, he stared out of the wide chamber window, at the ocean beyond. Last Frildur and Romska are sailing back to Sempetra. They didn't get the pearls. Instead, they're bringing the father abbot of Redwall Abbey as a hostage. The tears of all oceans are to be his ransom. What do you think of that? Sagittar's voice was apprehensive as she answered. Well, at least you have something to bargain with, sire. Ublaz whirled upon her, his eyes blazing angrily. Bargain? I am Ublaz, emperor of seas and oceans. I take. Twice my creatures have failed me. Twice. If I had gone after the pearls myself in the first place, I would have them now, set in my new crown. There will be no more bargaining or playing of games. When that ship drops anchor here, we will sail again back to the land of Mossflower and Redwall Abbey. All of my ships and every creature on this island. That way there will be none left behind to seize power and plot behind my back. I will lead every beast, monitors, trident rats, and corsairs, against Redwall. I will smash it stone from stone and rip those pearls from the wreckage. 
The ruins of that abbey will remain as a marker to the dead beasts that lie beneath them. The ones who tried to defy the might of Ublaz. Romska ushered Abbot Durrell into her cabin. With a few swift slashes of her sword, she released him from his rope shackles. The corsair ferret sat Durrell upon her bunk, issuing him with a beaker of seaweed grog and some hard ship's biscuit. The old mouse sipped at the fiery liquid, squinting without his glasses, as he stared curiously at Romska. "'Why are you helping me like this, my child?' Romska sheathed her cutlass blade firmly. "'I ain't your child. I keep telling you. And I ain't doing this to help you. Tis more for my benefit you be kept alive. We're sailing into bad cold weather. You wouldn't last a day out on deck. Sit tight in here and keep the door locked. Do you hear?' Abbot Durrell smiled warmly at the wild-looking corsair. You are a good creature, Romska. What a pity you chose the life of a corsair. Romska stood with one paw on the door-latch. It ain't none of your business what I chose to be, she said harshly. Tis a long, hard story how I come to be what I am. Anyhow, I likes being a corsair, and I ain't ashamed of my life. Now you stay put, old Doral, and don't open this door to none but me. I don't trust that last frill door no more. He's got a crazy look in his eyes of late. Slamming the cabin door, Romska went aft. The weather was cold and the seas a slate gray. She faced forward and peered anxiously. The wind was dropping, a deep fog bank was looming up, and ice was beginning to form on the rigging. Turning, she looked aft, scanning the waters in the ship's wake. Somewhere out along the eastern horizon, Romska thought she saw a small dark dot. She blinked and looked again but she had lost the location of the dot owing to the ship's movement on the oily waveless swell. A slithering sound behind Romska caused her to turn swiftly, paw on sword-hilt. Lask Frildor was standing there watching her. Though he looked cold and seasick, there was a crafty glimmer in the Monitor General's eyes. "'Where have you hidden the abbot mouse, Romska?' he hissed. Romska drew her cutlass and circled until the lizard was back to the stern rail. She pointed the blade at him. Never you mind about the abbot. I'm taking charge of him. Keep your distance, Lask, or I swear I'll spit you on this blade. Lask flicked his tongue at the corsair ferret. Lst. Food is running low. Weather is growing colder. You have got us lost again. Romska stared contemptuously at the monitor. Vittles is as short for me and my crew as they are for you and your lizards. As for the weather, well, it'll get colder afore we're out of these waters, and if you think I've got you lost, then you're welcome to navigate for yourself. Other than that, you stay out of my way, and don't start any trouble that you can't finish. Lask stayed leaning on the rail, shivering, but still smiling slyly. When I start trouble, Romsga, you will be the first to know. The longboat with the outriggers on either side of it bobbed and swayed as Welko the shrew slid down from the masthead. Grath helped him to the narrow deck. Well, was it the Corsair ship you saw to the west? she asked. Welko drew his cloak against the cold. I'm not sure. I thought I saw a sail, then I lost sight of it. There could be fog ahead. Mayhap she's sailed into it. Plucky was seated aft, guarding a small cooking fire he had made on a bed of sand, surrounded by slate. 
The lanky hare had taken to be very nautical. Ahoy there, me hearty chaps, grub, er, vittles, are about ready, he called out to everyone. I say, plug, old cove, nip over into the larboard shrew boat and dig out a few apples, will you? There's a good old barnacle, what? The two shrew boats that served as outriggers to the log boat were loaded with supplies. Martin had made space in the starboard one for Blade Rib, their sea rat captive. The sea rat stared sullenly at Plog as the latter climbed across to the far log boat. The shrew rummaged through the ration packs before calling back to Clucky. There's not many apples left. Graf glared across at Blade Rib. Have you been sneaking across at night and stealing apples? Martin patted Graf's broad back. No, he's been right there all along. I've kept my eye on him. Clecky, you haven't been pinching the odd half-dozen apples, have you? The hare's ears stood up with indignation. Er, do you mind belaying that statement, old sea-mouse? I haven't touched a single apple. Humph! Valley cheek of some crew beasts. Take a proper look over there. I'm sure you'll find heaps of jolly old apples rolling about somewhere as what. Plog began turning the packs over and checking them. Suddenly he gave a shout of alarm as he rolled back a crumpled canvas cover. Drawing his sword, Martin leapt aboard the logboat, only to find Plog wrestling with a kicking, screaming Viola bank bowl. Martin caught her sharply by the ear. What in the name of thunder are you doing here, miss? I told you to go back to the abbey. You could have been drowned or injured or... or... How did you manage to stow away on this logboat, and what happened to Jessic and Tenno? Viola wriggled free of the warrior's grasp and kicked nimbly over to the longboat, where she hid behind Flecky, shouting, I gave them the slip and doubled back and stole aboard while you were all drinking and naming the boat. I wasn't drowned or injured, see? Told you I was going to help rescue Father Abbott, didn't I? Well, what are you going to do now? You can't turn back or throw me overboard. Graf Longplatch grinned and winked at the bull maid. You're right there, young'un. My, you're a peppery one, and no mistake. Looks like we're stuck with you. Clecky looked over his shoulder, viewing the stowaway sternly. You're lucky we aren't sea rats, or those corsair bods, Miguel. Or we'd have chucked you overboard to the fishes just to save feeding you, what? Martin shook his head in despair as he gazed at the defiant volmaid. Think of the distress you've caused Mother Alma and all your friends back at the Abbey. They probably think you're still a prisoner aboard that ship with the abbot. If you'd gone back to Redwall, as I told you, it would have saved a load of worry for every beast who cares what happens to you, miss. The sudden realization of what she had done caused tears to flood down Viola's cheeks, and she hung her head in shame. Martin could not bear to see a young creature so unhappy. He patted the volmaid's head gently. There, there, now, don't cry. Your motives were good, and I know you were only trying to help. Welcome aboard, Viola. Come on, smile, and we'll try to make the best of it. They dined on toasted cheese and hot shrew bread, half an apple apiece, and some oat and barley cordial. Martin carried a plate across to Blade Rib. The sea rat was quite comfortable, wrapped in a cloak and a blanket. The warrior once again questioned his captive. Could that have been the vessel Wave Worm that Welco sighted earlier? Are we on the right course? The sea rat grabbed his plate of food, nodding. Aye, that'll be her. You'll be sailing into wintry seas now. Cold and dangerous, fog and ice. If and we gets through it, you'll probably sight her again in the good weather. 
She'll be headed due west, toward the settin' sun, like I told you. Martin caught the sea rat's paw as he was about to eat. Play me false just once, Blade Rib, and I'll slay you. Is that clear? Steer is true if you want to stay alive. The sea rat shrugged. I'm bound to die sooner or later, if not by your paw, then it'll either be Lask Frildur or Ublah's Mad Eyes for allowing myself to be taken captive. 32. Viola got on famously with Plog and Welco, the sons of Logalog. As night began setting over the deep, the small crew wrapped an old sailcloth around themselves and sat in a circle, with Klecky's little fire at the center to keep out the intensifying cold. The lanky hare sang a song to keep their spirits up. Of all the creatures in the land, the sea, or in the air, not one of them is half so grand or noble as a hare. A hare can jump, a hare can run. He don't live down a hole. In fact, a hare's a lot more fun than almost any mole. A hare's courageous and so brave, good-mannered, and quite courtly. Sometimes he's serious and grave but never fat, just portly. He never puts a footpaw wrong, his disposition's sunny, with ears so elegant and long, not stubby like a bunny. So sing his praises everywhere, this creature bold with charm to spare. The one thing better than a hare is two hares. That's a pair. Clucky helped himself to a piece of toasted cheese, I'd take a bow, but I don't want to rock the jolly old boat, what? Grath nodded in mock admiration. You're far too modest for words, matey. The hare nodded agreement as he gobbled the cheese down. Hmm. Shy and retiring, too. Though it's more a bally virtue than a fault to a chap like me, you know. Grath snatched the last piece of cheese before Clecky could lay paw to it. Well said, matey. You're just the shy retiring type we've been looking for to keep first watch. Wake me in an hour's time. The little craft, with its outriggers, sailed through the night towards the fog bank, with Clecky's mutterings echoing faintly across the still waters. Humph! Good job I'm polite and withdrawn, too. Not like these otter types, brash common wallas. Still, what can one expect of a creature with funny little ears and a tail like a bally plank? The night was pitch black and wreathed in thick, damp fog when Grath shook Martin to take third watch. Come on, matey, time for your watch. Here's a beaker of oat and barley water. I heated up on the fire. Wake Plog for his watch when you've done yours. Martin thanked the otter and moved up into the bow of the longboat. Crouching, he snuggled into his cloak, sipping gratefully at the hot drink as he kept watch. However, it was only the damp, bitter cold that kept him awake. All that was visible, even to the keenest eye, was a solid wall of whitish-gray fog. How long he crouched there, Martin did not know. Strange shapes loomed up out of the mists, only to vaporize and vanish. Martin knew they were all from his imagination. One after another the specters appeared before his wearying eyes. Dragons, great fish, corsair galleys. At one point he actually thought he saw Redwall Abbey. Shaking himself and rubbing his eyes, he tried hard to stay awake and keep a sense of normality in a world of wraith-like apparitions, swirling and rolling like patterns in watery milk. He watched as a towering mountain of ice loomed large directly in front of the longboat. 
Another trick his mind was playing on him, he thought, blinking furiously. Or was it? Crunch! Suddenly the warrior mouse was wrenched to his senses by the danger. All pause forward, Martin yelled. Freezing icy water poured into the longboat. It sizzled and hissed as it drowned Clucky's small fire. Grath grabbed Viola as she dived towards the bow to join Clucky and the two shrews. There was a tearing, rending noise, followed by an agonized scream, which was cut short in a whoosh of water. Grath scrambled back along the cracking planks of the disintegrating longboat to investigate. She was immediately back, yelling, Overboard! Every beast abandon the boat! Leaping over the side into the freezing water, they were amazed to find that it was no more than a thin stream. They found themselves standing paw-deep on top of solid ice. Only Graf could explain the phenomenon. Where I come from on the far north coast, we heard tales of this from seals and sea otters. This is a floating mountain of ice. I think they called it an iceberg. From what I can see, our craft ran into a deep crack in the shallow edge of this iceberg. It crushed both the shrewboat outriggers. We jumped overboard as it struck the longboat. Blade Rib, the sea rat, didn't stand a chance. Viola shuddered at the thought of the sea rat's fate. Crushed to death by an ice mountain. What a dreadful way to die. Graf put aside her bow and quiver, nodding grimly. Don't feel sorrow for that and Missy. His passing was quick and easy. Not like the innocent creatures he slew for no reason. Right. What's the next move, Martin? The warrior mouse adjusted the sword belt across his shoulders. We'd best go and see if we can salvage anything from the wreckage. Plog and Welko, you stay here with Viola. It should be light soon. Graf, Clecky, come with me. The hare jumped from the ledge onto the water-covered ice shelf. Immediately he slipped, falling flat on his tail. Cha! I say, you chaps, this is all a bit much. No boat, no grub, no fire, and now a blinking wet behind, what? Grath slid across the ice, using her tail as a rudder. Reaching the edge, she called out happily, Ahoy, there's the log boat with the supplies in it. Come and lend a paw, mates. The shrew craft was floating just a short distance from where they stood, practically undamaged. Having the longest reach of the three, Clecky took Martin's sword, and while they held him teetering on the edge of the ice floe, he leaned out and jabbed at the log boat, using the sword like a harpoon. There was a soft thunk as the sharp steel tip bit into wood. The hare drew the narrow craft slowly and carefully in. Then Grath leaned out and grabbed the stern firmly. Got it! What a stroke of luck! This logboat must have snapped off and shot backward into the sea instead of being crushed. Here, Martin, hold on to my tail while I pull her up onto the ice. With a mighty heave, the powerful otter lifted the stern clear of the water and slid the logboat up onto the ice. Martin sharpened a broken spar into a pointed stake, then dug a hole in the ice with his sword point. Clecky held the stake steady as Grath drove it tightly into the hole. They made the logboat fast to the stake by its head rope, then climbed aboard to take stock of the supplies. Gradually the grayish fog changed to soft white with the advent of dawn. The silence was total. Even the voices of the small crew sounded muffled and subdued by the heavy, all-prevailing mist curtain. Using a canvas sail, the friends had rigged a tent from forward to aft on the logboat. Now relatively snug, they sat watching Clecky. The hare had gathered wood from the wreckage, splitting it to find the driest pieces. Using a flint, he struck a spark against Martin's sword blade onto a heap of splinters and torn sacking scraps from the supply wrappings.
A faint glow, accompanied by a wisp of smoke, had the hungry hare chortling happily. Oh, ho, 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 I say, pals, never mind the dangers and flippin' perils besetting us. Who's for a good hot scoff, what, what? Every beast in the crew contributed their cooking skills to make what for cold and famished creatures was an epic feast. Martin and Viola chopped carrots, mushrooms, and any vegetables they could find among the packs. Clecky and Graff boiled water in an iron pot, adding herbs, dried water shrimp, and hot root. Clog and Welco toasted shrewbread and warmed some damson wine. Soon they were tucking into tasty bowls of soup, followed by hot shrewbread spread with cherry preserve and small beakers of damson wine, warm from the fire. Welco patted his stomach. Eat up, mates. There's naught like good victuals to keep your spirits high. Aye, make the best of it, Clog responded, a little gloomily. There's little enough left. Over half our supplies were lost along with that sea rat in the other log boat. Dunno where the next good meal's coming from. Viola leaned across and dabbed some cherry preserve onto the pessimistic shrew's nose. Thank you for those few cheery words, sir, you little fat misery. Aren't you glad to be alive? Welco tugged his brother's ear heartily. Come on, smile, you sulky little toad, smile. Flog pulled a long face at which Martin burst out laughing. If only your father could see you now. I vote, as captain of this craft, that if Plog doesn't start smiling and singing straight away, we toss him into the water and let him turn into an ice lump. There was a loud cry of agreement. Grath seized the shrew by his belt, winking at Clecky. Good idea. I ain't sitting in the same boat as a shrew with a gob on him like a flattened ferret. Immediately Plog grinned from ear to ear and broke into song. Oh, I'm happy as the day is long. I'm cheery, merry, bright. From early morn I sings me song until last thing at night. Chop off me paws, slice off me tail, and my poor neck start ringing. You'll never hear me cry or wail because I'll still be singing. Ooh, flugga-dugga-dugga-chug-chug-chug, with a smile like a duck upon me mug. Plog's song was greeted by laughter and cheers, merriment that would have soon ceased, had the friends known that keen dark eyes, scores of them, were watching through the mists, as heavy damp forms slid wet and silent towards the little log-boat lying on the broad watery ice-ledge. 33. Powder blue and cloudless, the morning sky hung hot and still over Redwall Abbey. Dewdrops evaporating from leaf and grass left orchard and lawn a soft summer green. Trilling birdsong resounded from moss-flower wood beyond the ancient sandstone walls. Summer was blossoming into long hot days and still warm evenings. Hogwife Teasel sat at breakfast between Alma and Tansy. She rapped the table impatiently with her ladle, glancing from one to the other as she remonstrated with them. Sitting here a frettin' ain't doing you a smidge of good. I tell you, Alma, those three dibbons will show up when they've a mind to, and those others will soon find Viola. We can be sure of that. And as for you, Missy Tansy, great seasons, just look at yourself, a mopin' and a floppin' about like a fish on a bank. What elp is that to any beast? Now you listen to me, friends. This abbey'll be searched from attic to orchard today, and those three babes will be found, and that's an end to it. Now I need some beast to lend a paw sortin' through the fruit and veggies from the spring crop. Seein' as I don't have Abbot Durrell to help me, 
I'll need you, Mother Alma. Tansy, take your little friends and old Rollo and get searching. Land sakes, we may need those pearls to get our abbot back. Lead the Dibbon searching to Brother Dormall, Skipper, and Sister Sicily. They've got every abbey beast organized for a day-long Dibbon hunt. The badger pushed away her half-empty platter and gave a huge sigh. Smiling, she patted Teasel's work-worn paw. Right. Lead me to those fruit and vegetables. Tansy, you heard our good hogwife. Back to your search, miss. Picknam, Cracklin, and Rollo were trying to pry Gerald loose from the breakfast table. The greedy owl was hurriedly stuffing the last of a batch of bilberry scones into his beak and washing them down with cold mint tea. Arnell, don't be rushing me, you dreadful creatures, or I'll get indigestions and me old stomach, and I won't be able to think. Tansy folded the scones into a serviette and gave them to him. Here, famine beak, take these with you. Who ever heard of an owl thinking with his stomach? Gerald hopped ahead of them to the attics, still protesting. Any sensible owl thinks with his stomach. Shows how much you know, Miss Spikehead. Me old mother always used to say to me that my head was so full of nonsense that I'd have to think with me stomach, and that way, if I fell on me head, I wouldn't hurt me brain. So you see, I've got to have plenty of packing round me stomach to protect it, in case I need to do some serious thinking. When they reached Fermall's attic, Gerald took the house martin's empty nest and placed a glittering fragment of crystal in it. Here now, Cracklin, you're young and spry. Attach this nest to the fishing rod and place it back down on that ledge where you found it to return and steal the piece of crystal. Then we follow it. Good idea. Gerald perched on the armchair and unwrapped his scones. Aye, I'm not just feathers and a beak, you know. Us owls are supposed to be very wise. Now, Tansy, you take Picknam and Cracklin, stay below on the south wall top, and watch the nest from there. When you see the old jackdaw, they'll have to move sharp-like to keep up with him, cause you don't want to lose the bird, do you? Now, hurry along, young missus. Me and Rollo will watch from up here. About mid-morning, Friar Higgle's stump came waddling along the wall top with a laden sack upon his back. He stopped by the three abbey maids and nodded to them. Good day to you, missus. Ain't you joining the search for those missin' dibbons? Still staring up at the nest on the high ledge of the abbey building, Picknam shook her head. Oh, good day, friar. No, we're not searching. Higgle set the heavy sack down. Hum, I see. So what are you doing, pray tell? Watching our abbey to see if it grows any taller? Without taking her eyes from the nest, Tansy replied, No, we're just watching that house martin's nest, friar. Higgle nodded understandingly. Oh, I see. Good hobby, nest watching. Perhaps you'd like to shell these chestnuts. They're good and dry enough for shelling right now. Cracklin looked at the friar, taking her eyes from the nest momentarily. Titch, do we have to? she said. Hegel nodded, smiling affably at the squirrel maid. I afraid you do, miss. That's if you want strawberry flan and meadow cream for lunch. No work, no food. Can't have idle paws round Redwall. And chestnuts don't shell themselves, you know. Automatically the three friends began shelling nuts, still gazing upward at the nest as they talked. Tain't fair. We're already doing one job, watching the nest. Hmm. 
Now we're doing two jobs, watching and shelling. Maybe if we waggled our tails a bit, we could sweep the wall top. Then we'd be doing three jobs. Aye, and who knows, if we started singing a song together, that'd keep those down below happy, and that'd be four jobs we'd be doing. But just think, if Sister Cicely saw us watching the nest, shelling nuts, sweeping the wall top with our tails, and singing, you know what would happen, don't you? Yes, she'd think there was something dreadfully wrong with us, and she'd put us to bed in sick bay and feed us warm nettle broth. Groosh! Let's just stick to two jobs. Rising to its noontide zenith, the high summer sun shone down on the three abbey maids sitting on the wall top. The same sun also shone on three tiny dibbons trundling far in the depths of moss flower. Not surprisingly, they had stayed awake half the night, wrapping themselves in the blanket they intended making into a tent. They had kept up their courage by eating all their supplies three hours before dawn. Now they staggered on, paw-sore and weary, completely lost and dispirited. Arvin, the leader, was the only one of the trio who had been outside in the woods before. The other two followed him, complaining. "'Your Harvin, do he knows where you am a-taking us-ins?' "'Course a knows. We go into de abbey. It not far now. Grr, you am said dat when he dawn-breaked. We am still wanderin' round, though. I'm a-thinkin' us-ins be losted.' Arvin took a swipe at a tall nettle with his stick. "'Losted? Don't be silly. I don't get losted. But I orful hungry.' You am scoffed all our cake, diggum greedy tummy. Gerbold sat down, curling into a ball on the woodland floor. Hoo I be terrible sleepery. Diggum joined him, covering her snout with her apron. And I too. May I be little rest do as I good. Arvin sat down by the two mole babes, brandishing his stick. Ah. You two bees only infants. I stay awake and keep guards. A short time later, all three were curled on the ground, snoring uproariously in the windless, sun-warmed woodlands. Without knowing, Arvin had led them north and in a curve to the west, and now they were not far from the main path leading to Redwall. Somewhere nearby, a song thrush trilled melodiously, his music mingling with that of a descending skylark out on the open flatlands, where grasshoppers chirruped endlessly in a dry chorus. But none of this disturbed the deep slumbers of the exhausted dibbons. They slept on, snouts twitching and paws quivering occasionally, as they dreamed small dreams. 34. Garol had placed the crystal so that it could be seen through the nest opening. Late noon sunlight glinted off the fragment, sending out pale green and soft golden facets of twinkling light. Scruvo the jackdaw saw it immediately. Ever on the alert for bright objects, the bird had been ranging far and wide, after taking a midday repast of grubs and woodlice from a rotting log he had found in a woodland clearing. Scruvo wheeled in midair, his needle-sharp eyes watching the iridescence of the crystal shard as he performed a neat loop in his flight west. Soaring gracefully downward, he spread dark-feathered wings wide and stuck his talons forward beating the air back as he landed on the ledge. He cocked his head to one side, squinting with one eye at the treasure. 
bright, shiny, twinkling. He hopped towards it and gave a harsh cry of delight. Chuck! Kia! He struck the crystal with his beak point, as if attacking a living thing. It did not move or fight back, so he struck it several more times to assure himself it was harmless. Quite satisfied, the jackdaw did a curious hop-skip shuffle, his victory dance. Then he plucked the piece of crystal from the nest and flung himself from the ledge. Down he spiraled crazily, like a dark-torn scrap of cloth buffeted by breezes. Then, leveling out, he winged strongly upward and shot off southeast into Mossflower. Leaping to their paws, the three abbey maids scampered down the wall stairs, stumbling in their haste, calling, "'It's the jackdaw! There it goes!' Garrel and Rollo descended the stairs as fast as they could, making haste out to the lawn. They arrived in time to see the three friends slipping out of Redwall by the small south wicker gate in the outer wall. The owl looked sadly at his damaged wing. Faith, tisn't the walkin' I mind, but I do wish I could fly again. Rollo shaded his eyes with both paws, peering up into the blue. I fear they'll have lost that jackdaw by now. It would be far too difficult to follow a bird through woodlands. The old recorder's fears proved true. Tansy and her friends were far too small to keep track of a high-flying jackdaw, but they were not about to admit defeat. Cracklin went scooting up a nearby sycamore with all the agility of a young squirrel maid. Picknam and Tansy almost lost sight of her, until she emerged swaying among the topmost branches. She watched a while, then pointed eagerly before scrambling down. Back on the ground, breathless and disheveled, she shouted, "'Circling south! The jackdaw's taking a round sweep southward!' Tansy grinned and clapped her paws. Of course, it's headed to old Ninian's church. Come on! As they dashed by the southwest corner of the abbey, the maids bumped into Garrel and Rollo, who had exited Redwall by its main gate. Rollo was agog for information. Did you see the bird? Which way did it go? Tansy nodded. To the old church, I think. Dust rose in a small column as the three abbey maids hurtled off down the path. Rollo and Garrow following them at a more sedate pace. The old recorder explained to the owl about the ancient building. No beast really knows when Ninians was built, or who built it. Every once in a while creatures will try to settle there, but it's so damp and decaying they leave after a short time. It would be an ideal dwelling for scavengers like jackdaws. Garrow hobbled along the dusty path as swiftly as he could, leaving Rollo behind. Sure, if there's more than one jackdaw to deal with, those young maids will be in trouble, he shouted as he went. Those are bad and dangerous birds, if they're disturbed. I'll try to catch up with them. Twilight's first shadows were stealing gently over the woodlands when a long javelin sank deep into the ground next to the sleeping dibbons. Arvin was wakened by a huge dark shape, which swept him up into its powerful paws. Yeek! It's a blizzard's! They got me! Elp! he yelled. Still befuddled by slumber, Diggum and Gerbol found themselves hefted upward in similar fashion. Who-er? But I go, zur. We'm not but babes. E blizzard's going to eat us all oop! Oh, woe! the mole babes cried out. Chuckling deeply, Rangapaw, daughter of Skipper, held the kicking, struggling Arvin firmly. Belay there, you little maggots. We ain't going to eat you. Quit wriggling, or you'll fall on your head. 
Diggum scrambled up onto the shoulder of the otter who was holding her. Grabbing his whiskers, she stared into her rescuer's eyes and said, "'You're... you am bait no blizzard. You're my hotter.' Rangapaw tucked Arvin firmly into her side as she retrieved her javelin. "'Ho, ho, matey. Lucky for you we are. Now what are you three rogues doing a-wandering off from your abbey? Can't you see tis close on nightfall?' And we're supposed to be searching for a bow maid, not blizzard hunters. Arvin popped out of his captor's grasp. Landing nimbly on the ground, he folded his paws across his small fat stomach and murmured darkly, Us was untin' for blizzards who took Farver Habit and Bowler. Us was gonna catcher em and get all mucky and scratchered and bring em back to the Habby and not get shouted at. The big otter shook with silent laughter at the three dimmons. She could understand their predicament, having had many similar adventures when she was small. "'You did well, mates,' she said. "'We saw a great crowd of them blizzards just a short time ago. They was running for their cowardly lives, cause they knew three warriors like you was abroad tracking them. Ain't that right, mates?' The otter crew caught her broad wink and nodded solemnly. "'Oh, I Running scared stiff they was. Har!' I wouldn't have liked to be one of them if you'd three caught up with them. Save us from those bloodthirsty dibbons, they was crying. I heard him with me own two ears. Arvin scowled ferociously, picking up his stick and shaking it. Come on, you can help us. We soon catch him. Rangapaw swept the tiny squirrel up onto her shoulder. Nah, leave him, mate. They ain't worth it. We got to get you roughnecks back to Redwall. Ahoy, rush cutter. Break out some supplies so these warriors can eat on the way back. Gerbil prodded the otter in question. Hurray, and hurry ye up. Oi be girtly ungered. Back at the abbey, Higgles Stump checked the contents of his ovens for the third time that evening. What'll I do, Teasel? Serve the meal, or empty these ovens and let the victuals cool before they get spoiled? Goodwife Teasel continued ladling cooked gooseberry and rhubarb into a bowl. She was making a crumble. Can't serve food if and they're all still out searching. Wait till I finish this, then I'll go and find Mother Alma, see what she wants us to do with all this good fare. Alma was sitting on the abbey doorstep with Skipper, scratching her muzzle worriedly. We should have started searching for those little ones last night, she said. Sister Cicely wanted to, and I stopped her. Leave them, I said. They'll come out of hiding when they're hungry enough. Now look, we've searched all day long, every beast in the abbey, and still not a trace of them. It's all my fault, Skipper. And there's poor Viola, too, out there in the woods alone, lost or captured, or worse. The tough otter laid a gentle paw on his friend's shoulder. Don't you go blaming yourself, Marm. I'd have said the same, knowing those three little snips. Harkin, what's that? Bong, boom, boom, a bong. Furlow Stump's shouts rang out from the bell tower between the peals of Redwall's twin bells. Otter crew coming down the path with three dibbons. I see them clear. Open the gates, Wolger. The big badger mother of Redwall swept away a tear with her apron corner as she hurried to the main gate. Praise the fates, they're safe. But what a Viola. Sister Cicely caught up with her. There's no sign, but at least these three are alive, 
Seasons be thanked. Outside the abbey walls, if you please, wandering all over Mossflower without a care in the world, I'll be bound. Well, just wait until I have a word with those three. I'll wager it was that little ragtag Arvin who kept them out in those woods. A single bell tolled four times, calling all Redwallers to the meal in Great Hall. Owing to the addition of Logalog and his Gwasim shrews, who had stayed to help with the search, and Rangapaw's otter crew, extra tables had been laid. Alma approached Rangapaw anxiously. "'Was there no sign of our little bowl-maid?' she asked. "'I can't bear to think of her lost and alone out in those dark woods.' "'Sorry, Marm,' replied Rangapaw. "'But rest assured, as soon as we've dealt with these three little ones, we'll resume our search.' Sister Cicely and several of the other Abbey elders were of the opinion that the three Dibbons should be sent straight to bed after a good dressing down for all the trouble they had caused. However, it was not to be. Skipper's daughter Rangapaw defended the babe stoutly, winning Alma and many others to her side. The otter went into comical detail, relating the attitude of Arvin and the two moles, and soon had every beast nodding and smiling. Finally she seated the trio among her otters. Mates, I can't think of no better tribute to these three warriors who saved this old abbey from being overrun by blizzards than being made official members of my otter crew. We need brave beasts like Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbil to protect us in our old age, when they're growed and we're staggering about all grey-furred. Before Sister Cicely could protest, Logalog stood up, saying, I second that. No sense in breaking their spirits by shouting at them and sending them off to bed with no vittles. They're three good uns. What do you say, Skip? The otter chieftain stroked his whiskers thoughtfully. Well, if you put it that way, matey, what can I say? We could have all been slayed or taken prisoner by blizzards, whatever they be. But for these three? I'll say this, though. If an air to be otter crew, then they got to abide by our laws. Here Rangapaw turned to the three Dibbons and stopped them stuffing their faces with strawberry junket for a moment. Do you three take an oath by fur, fire, and water that you don't go wandering off again, unless it's with my permission? Also, do you swear that you'll act like proper otter crew warriors, obeying the orders of your elders, never telling fibs, being good to all beasts, and growing up well-mannered? Do you take the oath? Diggum stood up on her chair, waving a spoon. Ho, Iser, usuns take ye oats. There was general cheering and laughter as the three Dibbons stood nobly, paws on stomachs, because they were not sure where their hearts were located. Even Sister Cicely managed to smile. Rangapaw called her scouts together and spoke gravely to Alma, before silently slipping away to resume the search for Viola. Don't you fret, Marm. We won't rest night or day until we've searched every tree, nook, and hollow of moss-flower woods, and found the little maid. The merriment ceased abruptly when the abbey door banged open wide, and Wolger the gatekeeper staggered in, holding up Tansy and Cracklin. They made it to the front of the main table, then collapsed on the floor, breathless and sobbing. Wolger looked pleadingly at Alma. I can't get no sense out of them, Marm, but I think something terrible's happened down at old Ninian's church. Alma was around the table surprisingly quickly, for one of her long seasons and great girth. The big badger bathed the abbey maid's tear-stained faces with cold water from a bowl. 
Skipper and Logalog kept back the press of anxious redwallers who had left their seats to crowd around the two exhausted creatures. Goodwife Teasel assisted, bathing Tansy's brow and calming her until she had recovered enough to speak coherently. Teasel leaned close to the hedgehog maid, stroking her cheek, and said, Easy now, little un. Take your time. You're among friends. Tansy's voice was racked by sobs, and great tears coursed down her face as she explained breathlessly, Ran all the way here, attacked by jackdaws, Indians, Rollo hiding, in ditch. Gerald said get help. Picknam, Picknam. Oh, no. Oh, Picknam. Alma was nursing Cracklin. She heard what Tansy said as if from afar. The badger clasped the squirrel maid's face between her paws and asked, Is this true? Cracklin nodded, her head falling forward in exhaustion. The badger mother looked at her paws, blood-stained from the deep scratches on the squirrel maid's face. Logalog drew his rapier, his paws trembling with rage as he turned to Skipper. Fetch back your daughter and her crew. Gwasim, arm yourselves. We've got business to attend to double-quick. Come on. 35. The Emperor Ublaw's mad-eyes rose in a thunderous mood. He had been awakened by timid tapping on his bedchamber door. If you must knock, then knock. Don't stand around there all day tipping and tapping. Get in here. Chief Trident Rat Sagatar gingerly stepped into the bedchamber. A shaft of early morning sunlight cut across the rumpled silk sheets onto the face of the pine marten. Ublaz shaded his eyes with a paw blinking irately at the hapless rat. What is it now? Speak up! Sagatar took a deep breath before launching into her report. Sire, one of your monitors was washed up on the tideline, the tideline this morning at dawn. He was lashed to a rudder and tiller, slain. This was stuffed in his mouth, sire. Ublaz snatched the damp scrap of sailcloth from the rat's nervous paws, unrolled it swiftly, and sat staring at the message written in the blood of the monitor. Death to mad eyes from Rasconza and the Wave Brethren. Flinging the sailcloth from him, he ran to the window and glared out at the hot tropic seas, peaceful and quiet in the early morn. That makes four altogether in two days, all monitors. Tell me, have the wave scum returned to the taverns? Sagittar shook her head decisively. No, sire, nor have they sought to board their ships. The whole harbor area lies deserted. The corsairs and sea rats have taken to the hills. Ublaz pushed the trident rat aside with a snarl. I know that blockhead. They have food, supplies, and arms that they took with them. Could we not hunt them down, sire? Sagittar suggested helpfully. Ublaz whirled on her, his temper rising. No, we could not. They are only waiting for me to leave this palace unguarded, and they will be in here immediately. Go away. Marshal all your trident rats and the remainder of my monitors. Place guards around the whole area, and keep me informed of any movements out there. Leave me now. I must think. Buckla, the sea rat captain, Guja, the steers rat, and Grujaw, the stoat captain, had captured another monitor. They had the lizard bound and gagged. He tottered ahead of them as they prodded him forward with stolen tridents. 
Rasconza sat roasting a lobster over the embers of a campfire at the northwestern inlet of San Petra. He nodded affably at the trio as they hurled the lizard to the sand. Ha-ha! Another prisoner, eh, mates? What's happening down at our great emperor's palace? Buckler squatted in the shade of a rock, away from the sun's fierce heat, and took a swallow from a jug of seaweed grog. Ah, that's better. Ain't get much cooler, is it? Old Mad Eyes is forted up in his palace, afraid to move out. We delivered the last monitor, like you said, loaded him in all pretty like. Sagittar took your message up to Ublas. We caught this and guarding the ships on the jetty. End of side five. To continue, turn the cassette over. Side six. Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jiggs. Continuing on page 252. Rasconza prodded the glaring lizard with his sword point. Don't you fret, matey. You won't have to suffer such rough company as us much longer. We'll deliver your back to old Ublas by nightfall one way or another, eh, mates? The corsairs and sea rats lying about the camp laughed uproariously at their leader's crude jest. Do we deliver him back in a bit, or bit by bit? Ha, ha, ha. Grujaw was not interested in the banter. When do we take back our ships, he said, scowling at Rasconza. The fox smiled craftily. When we're good and ready, mate. That's what Ublas is expecting us to do, raid the jetty to get back our vessels. Ha! Old Mad-Eyes would have a plan laid to stop that, never fear. No, the palace is more important than the ships to us right now. We'll keep Ublas emmed in there until he's ready to parley. Guja looked quizzically at Rosconza. Then what? The fox drew his favorite dagger and licked the blade slowly. Then we plays him false and kills him. Pine Martins ain't the only ones good at treachery, you know. Grujaw was still not happy. But we need ships. What about our vessels? he said. Rasconza thought about this for a moment. Then he stood and walked to the hilltop overlooking the cove. He pointed down at the vessel that had been scuttled there. You want a ship, Grujaw? See, there's Varunka's old craft, the freebooter. She's only been scuttled. I'll wager a good beast like yourself with a decent crew could seal her up, bail her out, and drag her ashore at low tide. Once the old freebooter is seaworthy again, there ain't a faster craft in all the seas. Grujaw took a crew down to the cove. When he had gone, Rasconza lay back and cracked the shell from his roasted lobster. There. That should keep Grujaw happy. Besides, we could do with having a ship afloat that Ublas don't know about. It'll come in useful. As night fell, Ublas himself went down to the escarpment to view the body of the monitor that had been dumped there by Rasconza's crew. Surrounded by an armed guard of monitors and trident rats, the Pine Martin paid little attention to the dead lizard. He was more interested in the sailcloth that had been thrust into its mouth. Retrieving it, he stood to one side and read Rasconza's scrawl. We will talk together tomorrow. Ignore this, and I will burn you out. Hoist a green flag if you agree to meet me, 
Midday in Middle of Island, Rasconza. Ubaz motioned Sagitar away from the rest, then he walked her out of earshot along the escarpment before whispering to her, Bring six good archers to my throne room before midnight. Let no beast see them, and speak of this to none. Ublaz smiled to himself as he strode back to his palace. He was once more back in the game. The fox would soon know he could not outsmart an emperor. Waveworm had been free of the fog and ice for more than two days. She plowed on westward as the weather grew more clement. The sun shone, although the wind was still cold and the seas were rough. Abbot Durrell sat in the cabin of Romska, the ferret captain. He gnawed hard ship's biscuit and sipped at a beaker of none-too-clear water. Durrell's mind was anywhere but aboard a corsair vessel. Mentally he was back at his beloved abbey, picturing himself pottering about in the orchard with his friend Rollo, or helping Teasel and Higgle with the baking. The old mouse wrinkled his nose, sniffing, and imagined laying a tray of hot scones, fresh from the oven, on a window ledge to cool. Smiling, he had a vision of several mischievous dibbons loitering near the scene, to see if they could liberate the odd scone. Durrell actually wagged a paw, warning them off. Little rascals! He was jerked back to reality by the sounds of steel upon steel and roars of conflict, as paws stamped around the deck outside. Matters had finally reached ahead. The fighting had begun. Either Romska had attacked Las Prildor, or vice versa. Pushing a table in front of the cabin door, Durrell sought about for any other furniture that might block the entrance. Meanwhile, the sounds of battle grew outside on deck, accompanied by the occasional scream and splash as some beast went over the side. Pulling the grimy blanket from Romska's bunk, the abbot huddled in a corner. He wrapped himself tightly and sat miserably in the dim cabin, hoping that Romska would triumph over the hated monitor general. The sounds of fighting seemed to go on endlessly as day drew gradually to a close. Durrell closed his mind to everything, even thoughts of his own life or death. Eventually he fell into a doze. His mind lulled into slumber, by the vision of a mousemaid singing sweetly to him. High o'er the hills, far o'er the seas, fly with the small birds, follow the breeze. Go with your heart, where would you roam? Back to the rose-colored stones you call home, where faded summers will echo again, brown autumn trees, or the spring's gentle rain. Shadows are falling across woodlands, you know. Rest, weary one, in the warm firelight glow. It was fully dark when Abbot Durrell came gradually awake. Creaking ship's timbers and the endless wash of waves against the vessel's sides were the only sounds he could hear. The din of conflict had ceased altogether. Holding the musty blanket around him, the old mouse groped his way cautiously across the cabin floor. With no light to guide him, and the absence of his eyeglasses denying him clear sight, Durrell fumbled his way forward, until a table leg came into contact with his paw. At least the cabin door was still securely blocked, he thought. He sat with his back against the table, not knowing what to do next, longing for contact with some other living creature, providing that it was a friend. Dawn came gradually, cloaked by gray skies and soft, drizzling rain. 
It was warmer, though humid. Faint, gloomy light began pervading the cabin from a small, dirty window, too high for Durrell to reach. A sound caused him to become alert. Some beast was scratching at the cabin door from outside. Not knowing whether it would be friend or foe, but fearing the worst, Durrell crept back to his corner and sat waiting, watching the door. The scratching gave way to a thumping noise, faint at first, but growing heavier. The abbot of Redwall sat filled with apprehension as the door began to shake under the blows. Then suddenly there was a sharp, splintering crack, and a cutlass blade thrust its way through the rifted wood. Durrell watched fearfully as the blade was withdrawn, only to slash through again a moment later. Shrinking down into his blanket, he watched horrified as the blade hacked and sliced at the quivering timber, splintering the door and its onslaught. The old mouse could stand it no longer. "'Who's there? Who is it?' he cried out. "'Crack!' An entire panel burst, and the huge reptilian head of Las Frildor was thrust through the broken aperture. 36. From the shelter of the little canvas tent on the ice floe, Viola was first to see the intruders. She gave a shriek of alarm, and instantly the sword was in Martin's paw. Shoving the canvas awning away from him, he came upright, ready to do battle. Clucky, who had clapped a paw across Viola's mouth, stared about in astonishment at the mass of creatures surrounding the logboat. Great seasons of salad! Where'd this mob of nautical nightmares come from, what? Snub-nosed, stiff-whiskered, and dark-eyed, the huge beasts crawled around, staring curiously at the little logboat and its occupants. Martin raised the sword threateningly to warn them off. Graf Longfletch moved cautiously to the warrior's side, murmuring, Put up that sword, Martin. They're the seal folk. Don't make any sudden moves, or they'll bull us into the sea and drown us. Martin lowered his blade, keeping his eyes fixed on the seal folk. What do we do next? he whispered to Graf. The otter relinquished her bow and arrows to show she was unarmed. Leave this to me. Seal folk used to visit the holt of my kin. They don't speak our language, but I can understand them a bit. Grath climbed from the logboat and approached the foremost seal. He was a great bull, dark gray in color, and mottled with heavy spots. The big beast watched Grath impassively, head held majestically high, round black eyes unblinking. Grath crouched upon the ice, taking care not to raise her head higher than the lead bull. Holding her paws out level, she clapped them gently together several times and said, Fear you day, home. Immediately the seals around began making a sort of coughing, barking sound, and surprised that Graf could speak their language. As the big leader bull silenced them with a haughty glare, Martin joined Graf and murmured to her, What did you say to the big fellow? I gave him a greeting, fair you day, just like saying good morning. Then I called him Hom, but long like this, Hom. It means great leader or king. The longer you sound it, the greater your respect. Shh. He's going to say something. The seal looked regally down his wide, flattish nose at them. This is Mahoyle, Amon Homflo. He moved his head about in a wide circle, as if indicating the iceberg where they were standing. Grath held up her chin and closed both eyes as she answered, Homflo. Ya 
that seemed to satisfy the leader. He raised a massive flipper and slapped it loud and wetly once upon his sleek chest. Grath explained, I can't understand it all, but best as I can make out, he said, This is my island. I am king of this ice floe. All I could think of to answer was to tell him he was a mighty king, and this surely was his flow. Do you know how to say not mine? Martin asked Graf swiftly. Graf thought for a moment. Er, you just say Amino, I think. Martin stepped forward, aware of the vast number of seals watching him. He spread his paws and brought them together, clapping softly as he had seen Graf do. Then he slapped one paw hard on his chest, as the Seal King had done. Home, Martin! Amino, Flo! Amino! Martin said. This seemed to amuse the King greatly. He pointed a powerful flipper at Martin and said, Amino! Amino! The seals fell about, rolling on the ice, slapping their flippers loudly and emitting great barking merriment. The great bull seal towered above Martin. Raising his flipper high, he brought it down gently on the mouse warrior's head and patted him. Hom, Martin, hom, he rumbled. This caused even greater jollity among the seal folk. They shook their heads and blinked rapidly as they honked with laughter. Clecky climbed out of the log boat to join Martin and Grath. I say good thing. These wallas have a sense of humor, what? The hare slithered boldly over the watery ice to face the king. Straightening his long ears, Clucky brought them together several times, as if clapping. Pursing his lips comically, he mimicked the seal. Home, old chap, home. How's that? This time the hilarity was unbridled. Even the king rolled his gargantuan bulk over and over, tears streaming from his round dark eyes, as he held both flippers to his sides, shaking helplessly with laughter. This drove the hare on to further efforts. Lying stomach down and holding himself up with his front paws, Clecky looked majestically down his nose, bobbed his stubby tail about, and let one ear flap down hard across his brow. Then, in a perfect imitation of the seal king, he called out, Home, Clucky. That's me, chaps. Home, Clucky. Some of these seals were laughing so hard they fell off the iceberg into the sea. Martin pulled Clucky upright. You'd better pack it in now. We don't want to be held responsible for any of these creatures laughing themselves to death. Especially the great home there. He looks fit to burst. It took quite a while for the laughter to subside, but it had worked wonders. Some of the little seal pups slid out of the pack and nuzzled up against Clucky. The king pointed a flipper at Grath and looked questioningly at the other seals as he barked out a single word. Wailum! There was a moment's silence. Then every seal began waving a flipper towards the otter and echoing the word, Wailum! Wailum! Grath was mystified. She looked at Martin and shrugged. I don't know what they mean. Further discussion was cut short, as the friends found themselves lifted up bodily by the seals and tossed back into the log boat. Knowing the seal folk meant them no harm, they sat in silence, watching the procedure. With a mighty smack from his flipper, the king broke the stake holding the headline of the log boat. 
Other seals came flapping up with cables made from thick rubbery seaweed. These they proceeded to attach to the vessel from stem to stern, until the little craft was festooned with woven seaweed ropes. Half a dozen stout young seals slid the logboat off into the water. Viola looked over the side. All the seaweed fastenings were held in the jaws of at least three seals to a cable. The king alone held the head rope in his teeth. He let out a sharp bark. Guitarra! The logboat's crew fell over backward as the craft sped off into the fog, sending up a great bow wave. Flog and Welco scrambled up to the forward bowsprit. They watched, fascinated, as the sleek forms of the seal pack sped their boat through the seas at a breathtaking rate. Clecky settled back, winking at Viola. Just the ticket, Miguel. Beat sailing and rowing, what? Absolutely top hole. Hope these chaps know where they're jolly well going. Graf blinked spray from her eyes as they shot out free of the clinging fog banks. Oh, they seem to know where they're bound, all right. Ah, tis good to see clear day and sunlight again, though. Martin agreed wholeheartedly. It certainly is, friend. Well, at least we're out of trouble with icebergs, and I'm sure the seal folk mean us no harm. Only problem is, they don't know where we want to go, and we don't know where they're taking us. Clecky began rummaging about in the remainder of their supplies. Well, wherever we're jolly well going, I ain't traveling on a bally empty tummy. Let's see what the tuck situation is, what? Eek! Look, look! Viola was pointing out to sea. All eyes followed her paw. Martin could not believe his eyes. Well, what are they? Grath had seen them once before in her lifetime. She took a deep breath. On the far north coast where I was reared, we saw those sea creatures once. It was spring, and they swam almost up to the beach. My mother said they were called whales, and no creature in all the seas is as big as them. They blow water out of their heads, straight up, like a big fountain. Their tails are like the spread of two large oaks. See? They stared, stunned by the size of the creatures. One of the whales raised a mighty fluke and slammed it down on the face of the ocean, causing an enormous white explosion of water. Martin watched the leviathans of the deep as they sported and played, each one like a black island rearing from the main. Great seasons! I could imagine old Rollo laughing at me if I told him I had seen fishes as big as Redwall Abbey. Plog and Welco were inclined to agree. Ha! The Gwasim would say... We'd been asleep and seen the whales in our dreams, or they might say we'd eaten too much of Clecky's cooking. The hare looked up, his face smudged from blowing on the ashes of the fire to get it rekindled again. Oh, they would, would they? Base ingratitude. I've a jolly good mind to let you chaps get the scoff ready for that. I say, how about asking old Homface to steer over that way, so as we can catch one of those whale-type chaps? I wonder what they taste like cooked up. Hmm. You'd need a blinkin' big pan. Yuck! The hare shook himself as the rest of the crew shot water at him with their paws. He twisted his ears to wring them out. Yaboo rotters! You've gone and put me flippin' fire out. Toward evening the weather started to become mild and warm, though they were still feeling the breeze, owing to the fact that the tireless seal folk never once slackened their breakneck pace. The logboat hissed through the water, bouncing across the waves like a runaway arrow. 
Then Martin became worried. See, the sun is setting in the west over that way. We're being taken northward. Clecky had finally managed a small fire. He passed them each a slice of toasted shrewbread and some warm oat and barley cordial. Nothing we can do about it at the moment, old lad. They're obviously taking us someplace, though. Let's wait until we get there and figure out our next move from where we land, what? Grath stared out across the uncharted seas. Aye, like as not, the fates'll send us where they want. On the western horizon the sun dipped beneath the sea like a crimson fireball, shooting rays of scarlet, pink, and gold onto the underbellies of purple and cream cloud banks. Viola snuggled down in the stern, nibbling a crust of shrewbread, and thinking how different it all was from sitting in Great Hall and dining off the sumptuous fare commonplace to Redwall Abbey, far from the lonely sound of waves upon open sea. 37. A full summer moon shone down on the path to Ninians, casting pale flickering shadows upon three grim-faced creatures pounding through the woods purposefully at the head of a mixed band of shrews and otters, each one armed with sling, javelin, rapier, or bow and arrows. Bravely, Skipper kept pace with Logalog and Rangapaw, bearing his injuries stoically. From between the trees they glimpsed the half-ruined spire of the ancient building. Logalog gritted his teeth, clasping his shrew rapier tight. "'Soon be there now,' he said. "'Friend, is that you?' Momentarily they halted and looked around. Again the voice sounded out into the night. "'I'm in the ditch, friends. Help me!' Throwing themselves flat at the path-side, Skipper and his burly daughter delved through nettles and reeds that grew up the bank. "'Got him. Get the other paw. Up you come, Rollo, sir.' His face smeared with mud and his garments rent and torn, the old recorder was hauled swiftly up onto the path, where he sat gasping out his story. "'We were attacked, or I should say the young maids were. It was Jackdaws.' a whole colony of the wicked birds. Geralt heard them screaming when we arrived at Ninian's. They were inside. Geralt told me to stay outside and charged in. There were awful sounds, screaming and cawing. Next thing I knew, Tansy and Cracklin were flung out through the door by Geralt, and he shouted for them to bring help from Redwall. So they could travel fast, they lowered me into the ditch, telling me to hide and keep out of harm's way. I don't know what happened after that, until I heard one of you speak as you ran by. Logalog saw that Skipper was breathless, and his wounds were bothering him. The shrew chieftain sat the otter down on the path next to Rollo. Stay here and guard him, Skip. You'll only slow us up. We've got enough here to do the job, me and this biggin of yours. The skipper of otters nodded. He understood. If our friends are hurt, then give those birds blood and vinegar. Go on, mate, get going. Without a backward glance, they charged through the rotting doorframe of Ninians. Jackdaws scattered everywhere as they tried to escape from the warriors who teamed in, roaring the abbey battle call. Red Wall! Scruvo, their thieving leader, and another of his band, had Geralt on the floor, tearing savagely at him with their wicked beaks. Rangapaw hit Scruvo across the head with her otter javelin the force of the blow shattering the weapon's haft and slaying Scruvo instantly. The other jackdaw gurgled its life out at the thrusting point of Logalog's rapier. Other birds fell to the deadly nemesis of otters and shrews, 
though some of them fled, winging off into the night, never again to be seen in Mossflower. Skipper and Rollo hobbled up to the gate in front of Ninian's. Logalog and several other shrews were binding Geralt with strips from their tunics and ditch mud mixed with herbs to staunch his dreadful injuries. Skipper hastened to his friend's side. He stared down at the owl's homely face. Is he alive? Logalog shrugged, totally at a loss. Aye, mate, there's still life in this owl, though why that should be I don't know. The bird's taken enough to kill any three of us. I counted four jackdaws in there that he'd slain. I've seen some toughens in my seasons, but none like your mate, Geralt. A heart-rending cry, like that of a dying beast, escaped Rollo's lips. Rangipaw strode slowly out of Ninian's, carrying a forlorn little bundle in her hefty paws. Logalog held Rollo back as he tried to intercept the big otter. The old recorder's body was racked by sobs. No, no, not Picknam, my little friend. Say she lives, please. Tears rolled openly down the sturdy face of Rangipaw. She clasped the limp form to her, as if nursing a babe. Poor young maid! She'll always live in the memories of her mates. As Rangipaw walked off toward Redwall with her sad burden, Rollo tore free of Logalog's grasp. Straightening himself up, he wiped his eyes upon his habit sleeves and turned to the other chieftain. Skipper, will you help me to do something? he said. The otter grasped Rollo's frail old paw. Anything, matey, just ask. Rollo pointed to the doorway. Go in there and find a large pink pearl. It will probably be in the nest of the leader of those birds. Skipper was not long gone. As he emerged, everyone held their breath. He opened his paw to reveal the fourth pearl nestling in his palm. He handed it to Rollo, who clasped it tightly. Now, I want you to put flame to this place and burn it down. Skipper's voice registered his incredulity at the proposal. Burn it down? But there was no hesitation in Rollo's determined mood. I burn it down until it is just a heap of rubble and bad memories. This has become a place of evil. I have read in the Abbey records that on two occasions the enemies of Redwall used this place as a refuge. The first was Cluny the Scourge in the time of Matthias the Warrior. Then there was Slagar the Cruel in the time of Matameo when I was but a dibbon. Now it has been used a third time as a den of thieves and murderers. Burn it. Dawn the next morning was gentle and bright. A silence seemed to lie over Mossflower Country, even the birds remaining mute. Goodwife Teasel and the badger mother Alma stood together on the ramparts of the outer wall facing south. From where the path curved, they could see a dark column of smoke rising above the tops of the woodland trees. Alma nodded toward it. Skipper and his crew are still down there, seeing that it burns to the ground and the fire doesn't spread. Will you pack some food for them, Teasel? I'll take it down myself. The hogwife patted her friend's paw. Aye, I'll pack plenty. Knowing what good appetites yon otters have, though at the moment I detest to look at victuals or prepare them. Friar Eagle, bless him, he sent me off from the kitchens, 
and stayed to fix breakfast for any beast as wants some, but none came. The hogwife threw her flowery apron up over her face and wept. The poor little maid, to end up like that, and she was so young, too. I ain't no warrior, marm, but I opes those wicked birds got all they deserved off Logalog and Skipper's big gell. Alma stroked her friend's headspike soothingly. There, there, don't take on so. Those birds paid dear for their evil ways. Logalog told me all about it last night. Twill be many a long season before we hear the call of a jackdaw in our land again, I promise you. The grief at Picknam's death was so great in Redwall Abbey that Alma had to assume the mantle of Abbess and request that none came to the burying, because it would be far too upsetting for young and old. Accordingly, at midday, she and Rangapal laid the young mousemaid to rest themselves. They chose a shady spot in the orchard, to one side beneath a great sweet chestnut tree, where they held a simple ceremony. Small gifts of remembrance from every redwaller were placed in the grave. When the task was done, both abbey bells tolled slowly, their clappers muted with velvet to soften the tone. Cracklin, Tansy, and Rollo stood at an upper window overlooking the orchard, despite the protest of Sister Cicely regarding their condition. The otter Glenner supported Cracklin as she stood at the window and sang. Her sweet voice, which had sounded out in harmony with Picknam's many times before, was now alone. It echoed beautifully off the outer walls until it seemed to fill the entire abbey and its grounds. Fare you well upon your journey to the bright lands far away, where beside the peaceful rivers you may linger any day. In the forests warm at noontide, see the flowers bloom in the glades. Meet the friends who've gone before you to the calm of quiet shades. There you'll wait, O oh my beloved, never knowing want or care. And when I have seen my seasons, we will walk together there. Blenner and Sister Cicely walked the three friends back to the room they were sharing at the infirmary. There they lay upon their beds, all with their own deep personal thoughts. Tea-time passed, and still they had not stirred. Tansy lay on top of her counterpane, fully dressed, watching the sunlight lengthening afternoon shadows through the window. The door creaked open, and Friar Higgle's stump crept in, bearing a tray laden with slices of nut bread, a hot mushroom and leek pasty and gravy, a bowl of fresh fruit salad, and a flagon of his brother Furlow's best dandelion and burdock cordial. He wiggled his nose at them. "'Good afternoon, friends. I couldn't bear the thought of you up here being fed warm nettle broth. That shouldn't happen to any beast. So I brought up a little summit to tickle your appetites.' He placed the tray down, but they did not even look at it. The friar shook his head sadly. "'Deary me! Now if Miss Picknam were about, she'd have beat you all to it and gobbled everything up.' Cracklin sat up, shaking her head. No, she wouldn't. Picknam would have shared it with us, cause we're her friends. I mean, we were her friends. Rollo sat up also, arching his eyebrows indignantly. Were? You mean we're not still Picknam's friends? Then Tansy sat up, glaring at Rollo. Cracklin never meant that. We'll always be Picknam's friends, her dearest and— Best, most treasured friends, so there. 
A smile played around Friar Higgle's face. I knows how you can be such good friends with Picnum that no beast would believe it. Cracklin and Tansy spoke in unison. How? The friar perched upon the windowsill, his face serious. Just carry on like you're doing now and don't eat no more. You'll soon be reunited with your friend by starving to death. He winked broadly at Rollo, knowing the recorder would recognize the wisdom in his words. Rollo did. He sat up, filled himself a beaker, and chose a thick slice of nut bread. Then, eating and drinking, he began to speak. I vote we carry on searching for the tears of all oceans. Now, you maids keep silent. Just eat and listen to me. Eat! The old recorder's voice was sharp and commanding. Neither Tansy or Cracklin had ever heard him speak like that. Seating themselves close to the tray, they began eating. Rollo tossed the fourth pearl in the air and caught it. See this thing? Picnum gave her life for it. Between us, we vowed to find those six pearls, because they may be needed to ransom our abbot back from the enemy. I don't know about you two, but Rollo Bankville never breaks his word. I intend to find the other two pearls. Pshaw! I'll wager Picnum would have had a very low opinion of us had she seen us a moment ago, moping and moaning with no thought of carrying on the very quest that she died for. Is that the act of friends? Tansy slammed her paw down on the tray so hard that she broke the bread platter. We'll find those pearls together, all three of us. Cracklin whirled her bushy tail fiercely. Aye, and when we do... We'll stuff them down the throats of those scum who kidnapped our friends, one by one. Friar Higgle crept smiling from the infirmary, murmuring, Very nice talk for young Abbey maids. Charming. Enjoy your tea. 38. Tansy split the acorn shell that held the scrap of parchment. Unfolding it, she read aloud, There is a warrior. Where is a sword? Peace did he bring, the fighting lord. Shed for him is my fifth tear. Find it in the title here, written in but a single word. An eye is an eye, until it is heard. Tansy paused, shaking her head in despair. Written separate to the rhyme is a pile of numbers, which don't seem to make any sense at all. Listen to this. Lines. One of one. Eight of two, one of three, three of four, one of five, six of six, two of seven, four of eight. She tossed the scrap of parchment to Cracklin. There you are, friend. Sort that little lot out. Chewing slowly on a wedge of pasty, the squirrel maid narrowed her eyes, glaring a challenge at Tansy. Do you think I can't? Rollo peered over the tops of his glasses at her. We have great faith in you. Cracklin took a great swig of her dandelion and burdock cordial. Then you're both a pair of dimwits, cause I haven't the faintest clue what it all means. The three friends sat staring at one another for a moment, then broke out into spontaneous laughter. Rollo dug his spoon into the fresh fruit salad. If we're a pair of dimwits, then that makes you a blockhead. So among the three of us, we'll solve it. Ha, ha, ha. The skipper of otters was on his way upstairs to the infirmary when he met Sister Cicely coming down. 
Waving his rudder-like tail politely at her, he said, "'Good noon to you, ma'am. I was just on my way up to see Garrel. How is he today? Probably still sleeping his injuries off, I wager.' The good sister glared frostily at the husky otter. "'Humph,' she replied. Ever the gentle beast, Skipper nodded courteously at the sister. "'Humph, ma'am? I suppose there's a wealth of meaning in the word, but it don't tell me naught about old Garrel.' The poor bird was so badly wounded he was at death's doorstep last night. Pray tell, what's his condition today, ma'am? Cicely was in no end of a huff. That, that owl. He rose not an hour ago, refused all treatment, and hurled a pot of my best warm nettle soup from the infirmary window. You want to know his condition? Go and find out for yourself, sir. He's down in the kitchens, surrounded by otters, shrews, and dibbons, "'cooking and eating everything in sight.' "'Brushing Skipper aside, Sister Cicely flounced downstairs. "'Prior Higgle and Hogwife Teasel had dismissed the kitchen roster for the day, "'leaving the place open to any beast wanting to drop by and prepare something. "'Garrel and his friends had taken Higgle and Teasel at their word, "'and now chaos reigned in Redwall Abbey kitchens. "'Garrel and Arvin were demolishing a huge fruitcake between them whilst issuing orders to Rangapaw, Diggum, and some shrews. Ah, now, don't be stingy. Throw in a few more pawfuls of those lovely candied chestnuts, and you need far more meadow cream than that if you're to make a decent sweet owl junket. As me old mother used to say, plenty more's better than plenty less, if you're cooking for more than a few. Ain't that right, Arvin, my little mate? The squirrel babe was sure it was. Waving a ladle at the cooks, he issued orders like one born to command. Get more chestnuts and a big bucket of cream, a huge biggin, and throw some strawbees in. Arvin likes strawbees. Then he turned to his owl friend with a serious frown. Your mother must have been good and clever. Gerald dipped his talon in a pot of plum jam and sucked on it. Ah, sure, she was so clever she used to ask herself questions, so she did. It's no good knowing what you know if you can't ask your own advice, she always said. Logalog, how's that shrew concoction coming along? The shrew chieftain looked up irately from a steaming pan he was stirring. The vegetables are doing nicely, but every time we get the pastry rolled out, those moles keep pinching it. Get out of it, rogues! He threw a wet dishcloth at Gerbul and several other young moles who were shuffling off with his latest batch of pastry. Formal blinked quizzically at them over the top of a special deeper-never pie he was creating. Her, what do we want in all em pastry for, Gadgie? The mole-babe Gadgie poked his snout out from under a floppy layer of pastry he was carrying. For making honey moles, sir. Skipper joined the little moles as they kneaded dough on a countertop, busy as bees and covered in flour. Ahoy, mates, what's an honey mole? he asked. Gerbil crossed his digging claws on his stomach, tut-tutting at the otter's ignorance. Chut-chut, zur. You um don't know what e animal is? Look an oil showy. You um pay attention now. The mole-babe rolled out a small patch of pastry, spread it thick with honey, and placed on it a strawberry and a raspberry. Wrapping the pastry carefully over the fruit, he coated the lot with a mixture of honey and damson juice. It looked nothing like a honeyed mole, but the mole-babes thought it did. 
Gerbil licked his digging claws proudly and added his honey mole to several others on a tray, ready to go in the oven. He wrinkled his nose proudly at Skipper. Her, that'n be how to make honey molds, sir. Skipper winked broadly at the mole babe. Thanks, matey, I'll remember that. Should come in useful. Then, opening a cupboard, he took out a bag of dried water shrimp. Glenner sidled up with an expectant gleam in her eye. Shrimp and hot root soup, Skip? The otter chieftain showed his white teeth in a mock villainous grin. Aye, matey, you go get the ot root. Oh, and some onions. Ahoy, Rangapaw, where do they hide the mushrooms in this galley? And leeks, too. We'll need lots of leeks. Aye, and white turnips. Garrel, meanwhile, had finished the last of the fruitcake, and now he and Arvin set about making another, even bigger one. Come on now, you young rip, a tankard of October ale, flour and honey. What's next? asked the owl. Arvin counted off the ingredients on his paws. Plums, damsons, hazelnuts, chestnuts, blackberries, er, er. Garrel limped off to the pantry, chunnering to himself. Sure, we'll toss in a bit of everything, as my old mother used to say. If you've got everything in the cake, then you're sure to have left nothing out, providing it's all in. Sister Cicely had brought Alma down to the kitchens. She pointed a paw of condemnation at the shambles. Just look at that. Did ever you see such a mess in your life? The badger mother wandered over to where the mole babes had left their tray of honey moles to cool and popped one in her mouth. Mmm, very tasty. Cicely, let them have their fun. Have we not had enough sadness and misery in Redwall for one day? This bit of disturbance is easily cleared up, but it helps them to recover their spirits, especially the young ones. I look on this not as mourning the death of Picknam, but celebrating the happy life she led. Come now, sister, leave them to their enjoyment. Tansy, Cracklin, and Rollo had deserted the confines of the infirmary. The early evening was soft and balmy, and it was far nicer out in the fresh air than lying about indoors and being fussed over by Sister Cicely. They sat on the gatehouse steps, staring at the rhyme and the puzzle that went with it. But the clue to the fifth pearl remained a mystery to them. Perhaps if we concentrate on the rhyme it may help. Cracklin shook her head at Tansy's suggestion. No, I'm sure the key is in these figures. Once we know what they refer to, I have a feeling the rest will be easy. Rollo polished his glasses and scrutinized the figures closely. Hmm. I have a feeling you're right, miss. Let's concentrate all our attention on these figures for the moment. Lines. One of one. Eight of two. One of three. We'll take that bit first. All three gazed at the parchment scrap, cudgeling their brains for inspiration. Wulger, the otter gatehouse-keeper, was in the process of cleaning out his small domain. He opened the gatehouse door wide and began sweeping about with a heather-topped broom. So pleasant was the aroma of the heather that he took his own good time, brushing diligently in every corner and singing a song as he went about his chore. There was an otter by a stream, come ringledum, o' lady, who fell asleep and had a dream, all on the bank so shady. He dreamt the stream was made of wine, it flowed along so merry, and when he drank it tasted fine, like plum and elderberry.
and all the banks were made of cake, come ringle-ding, my dearie, as nice as any cook could bake. That otter felt quite cheery. He drank and ate with right good will, till wakened by his daughter. She said, I hope you've had your fill of mud and cold stream water. Come ringle-do-fall-doodle-day. Come wise beast or come witty, a fool who dreams to dine that way must waken to self-pity. The three friends on the wall steps outside heard Wolger's song clearly. They shook their heads and chuckled. As Wolger emerged sweeping dust in front of him, Cracklin called down, That's a good ditty. I've never heard it before. The old otter smiled up at the squirrel maid. I'm glad you liked it, Missy. "'Tis a song that's been passed down through my family. "'If you like, I'll teach you the lines.' "'Tansy leapt up, yelling, "'The lines! It's the lines!' "'Wolger stared in amazement at the three creatures, "'dancing paw and paw on the wall steps, as they chanted together. "'The lines! The lines! It's the lines!' "'He shrugged and went indoors to continue his cleaning.' Maybe when you're not so busy dancing and chanting, I'll learn you the song. Tansy scanned the poem's first line. There is a warrior. That's line one, so one of one must mean the first word, or the first letter of the line. What do you think, Rollo? The first word or the first letter? The recorder was quite definite which it was. It has to be the letter, one of one, because the second clue states eight of two but there's only four words in the second line, so we're looking for enough letters to make a word. Tansy read out the lines. Cracklin counted the letters, and Rollo scraped each letter upon the sandstone step with his quill knife. There is a warrior, one of line one, letter T. Where is a sword, eight of line two, letter A. Peace did he bring, one of line three, letter P. The Fighting Lord, three of line four, letter E. Shed for him is my fifth tier, one of line five, letter S. Find it in the title here, six of line six, letter T. Written in but a single word, two of line seven, letter R. An eye is an eye until it is heard. Four of line eight. Letter Y. The friend sat but for a brief moment, looking at the word Rollo had scratched upon the step. Then Cracklin and Tansy dashed off towards the abbey, with Rollo hobbling behind as they yelled, The Tapestry! 39. Sagittar did as she was bidden. Late night lay still and heavy from the day's tropical heat when she arrived at the Emperor's throne room. Six trident rats accompanied her, each one armed with a bow and quiver of shafts. Ublas awaited them, clad regally in an umber robe, bordered with silver filigree work and wearing a turban of dark green with silver fringes. At the center of the room a small wooden log stood on its end. Ublas directed the archers, one to each corner of the vast room one by the window and one by the door. Moving himself and Sagittar out of the line of fire, he instructed the archers, I have raised my paw thus. When I drop it, you will shoot at the log. I want to see six arrows sticking from the log. Arm your bows and await my signal. 
There was a swift rattle of wood as the rats set shafts to their bowstrings. Ublaz saw they were ready. He dropped his paw. Thunk! Six arrows thudded into the log before it fell, propped up by two of the shafts. The emperor's mad eyes creased into a smile. Excellent! Sagittar will show you your positions. Be watchful and stay well hidden. Tomorrow you will see me meeting with the fox Rasconza. As I move towards him, I will hold up my paw in greeting. When I let it drop, I will also fall flat to the ground. That is your signal to shoot the arrows. I need not tell you that all six shafts must find their mark, or none of you will be alive to see the sunset. Finish the task properly, and you will all be well rewarded. Go now. Bowing low, the archers followed Sagittar out. Down in the small cellar chamber, Ublaz donned his crown with its six pearl spaces still empty. He held the torch level, watching as the coral snake slithered sinuously out of its water trough, glimmering gold in the torchlight. Gliding effortlessly across the floor, it reared dangerously in front of him, mouth open and fangs bared, beady eyes focused on him as he started to sway and chant in dirge-like tones. Golden guardian of my wealth, hear me now, be still. Deathly fang and coiling stealth, bend unto my will. The snake hissed, its dark flickering tongue vibrating, as it drew back to strike. The eyes of Ublaz grew wider as he kept up his steady chant, swaying, swaying. Then the snake began to move in unison with Ublaz, weaving smoothly to and fro as he swayed. Gradually the pine marten exercised his power over the serpent. It sank down into bunched coils, both eyes filming over. The venomous mouth relaxed and closed. Ublaz stroked the snake's head once, then turned and departed the room. The two guards on the door could hear his voice echoing back down the stairway as he made his way back to the throne room. None can stand against Ublaz. My eyes conquer all. My will is stronger than that of any living thing. I rule, others obey. Midday sun burned like a great blazing eye upon the shallow valley in the center of San Petra. On the ridge of a rolling hill, sea rats and corsairs crowded, watching the lone figure of Rasconza standing bold and unarmed, awaiting the arrival of his adversary. Atop the opposite hill, a regiment of trident rats was marshaled. Ublaz left his position at their center and made his way down towards the fox. Wisely, Rasconza kept his eyes averted slightly to one side as the pine marten approached. Less than a dozen paces from Rasconza, Ublaz threw up his paw and called out in a voice laden with false cheer, Ah, Rasconza, there you are, friend. Greetings. Now Ublaz was less than four paces away. He fell to the ground, silence. Looking up, he saw Rasconza, eyes still averted, chuckling. You got to watch your step round here, matey, said the fox. Tis dangerous ground. Only last night six rats tripped and fell on their arrows. But they could be pardoned for being clumsy, cause it was still dark. Ublaz leapt up and was dashing back towards his regiment as Rasconza waved to the sea vermin and roared, Charge! They poured down from the hill, cheering and shouting as they brandished a fearsome assortment of weaponry. Surrounded by his trident rats, Ublaz fled back to the palace in shameless disorder. Robbed of his surprise plan, the pine marten was seething with rage.
He broke clear and dashed ahead of his regiment's panicked retreat. Far speedier than any of the trident rats, Ublas raced on with one thought uppermost in his mind. Had Rasconza secretly sent a force round and a wide sweep to gain control of the palace? He had left it with only Sagittar and the remaining monitors to guard it. The first wild rush of the wave brethren subsided to a steady lope, as, still yelling blood-curdling cries, they continued in Ublas's wake. Rasconza jogged along in their midst, a villainous smile fixed on his wily face, as he called out to Grujaw and Buckla, Ha-ha! Look at em go, like frightened chicks with an eagle on their tails. Run, mad-eyes, run, you swab! The steers-rat Guja, who had not been privy to his leader's plans, looked questioningly over at the fox. But, Captain, why aren't we charging faster? We could have beaten them in an open battle with our numbers. Rasconza winked craftily and chuckled. Aye, mayhap we would, matey. But it would have been a great slaughter, and who knows how many of us would have fallen to those long tridents. My way's better, Guja. Now we'll have the mighty emperor just where we want him, outsmarted and isolated. Ublas was astounded to find his palace unharmed. Monitors held open the gates as he hurtled in ahead of his pawsore followers. Straight through to the throne room he hastened, to find Sagittar and a monitor called Flyguard surveying the harbor from the window. The Pine Martin slowed, regulating his breath, allowing himself a brief smile of relief. So the sea scum did not attempt any attack here. How foolish of Rasconza he might have taken this place in my absence. Sagittar pointed down to the deserted jetty. Sire, after you left, a small force of them sailed in to the jetty aboard the vessel Freebooter. They have made it seaworthy again. They towed away all the ships that were docked there, from right under our noses. Lord, they laughed at us and waved their swords in the air. It was as if they knew that we could not desert the palace and go outside to do battle with them. Ublas dismissed the monitor with a nod, then poured wine for Sagittar. His mind was forming a plan, even as the wine gurgled into the two goblets. Sagittar looked slightly bemused that her master was not angry. He gazed at the empty harbor and nodded. The fox has won a battle, but I will win the war. Come. Rasconza and his vermin stood on the rocks, a safe distance away from the rear of the palace. Guja, the steers rat, perched on top of a rocky outcrop, his keen eyes watching the high back wall of the building. Then Rasconza addressed his captains and their crews. Old Mad Eyes is trapped like a rat in his own cage now, buckos. He ain't got nowheres to go. We got the ships, so we rule the seas. We got the island, too. Looks like we're in charge, as long as Ublas is bottled up in there. Any signs of movement, Guja? Shielding his eyes, the steers rat peered toward the wall. Nah. Wait. Aye, there he is. Old Mad Eyes himself, and a rat Sagittar, too, if I ain't mistaken. Ah, Sagittar's got a bow and arrow. Look out, she's about to shoot. Rasconza flicked his favorite dagger high, catching it as it spun downward. Ho, ho! They can fire shafts all day. We're well out of range. The arrow cut the air in a high arc, dipping to hit the ground far short of the wave brethren. Rasconza nudged a couple of rats. They ain't shooting to slay no beast. That's some kind of message. Go and fetch it, mates. We'll see what Ublas has to say. Rasconza read aloud the message written on a parchment attached to the arrow. The five ships you have, 
are useless without rudders and tillers. I still hold the timber stock needed to repair them. At dawn tomorrow I will meet you where this arrow fell to earth. I will come alone, unarmed, ready to reach an agreement. My compliments to your skill as a leader and an adversary. I do not wish any further enmity to you. We will make peace and rule together. Ublaz Rasconza tied a red silken kerchief to a spear-top and waved it back and forth, signaling agreement to the meeting. As he did so, he said to his captains, So, wants to talk peace, does he? Ha-ha! I'd trust thatin like I'd trust you lot with a keg of grog. But never fear, buckos, I knows what Mad Eyes is up to, and I'm ready. Ublaz tied his green silk kerchief to Sagittar's bow and waved heartily in reply as he gave instructions to his chief trident rat. This time there will be no mistakes. You have your orders. Sagittar averted her eyes from the mad hypnotic stare. Sire, your orders will be carried out. The pine martin continued waving the kerchief, his voice laden with menace. Fail me this time, and your trident shall be fixed to the jetty, Sagittar, with your head mounted upon it. 40. It took quite some time for the abbot to muster up his courage and uncover his eyes. Lowering the blanket slowly, he peeped out at the head of Lask Frildur protruding through the smashed panel of the cabin door. Durrell sat fascinated with horror, staring at the big lizard's head, until gradually the truth dawned upon him. There was no foul-smelling breath. The mouth was loosely open, and the reptilian eyes were glazed over, half-closed. Then the old mouse heard the drip, drip onto the floor, from a hideous slash beneath the scaly chin, right across the neck. The monitor general was dead. Durrell began to shake all over, his frail body quivering with relief. Slowly he rose and ventured towards the door. Hello? Is any beast out there? he called. A low, hoarse voice answered. Ahoy, mouse! "'Tis your old messmate, Romska. Open the door!' Fearfully the abbot shifted the table that had been wedging the door. Trying not to look at the slain monster, he unbarred the shutter, pulling inward. Hampered by the weight of the monitor, the door sagged open. Durrell hurried past the dead lizard, out onto the open deck. Romska sat with her back to the mast. A cutlass clutched loosely in her paws, with an effort she lifted her head and smiled weakly at the abbot. "'You ain't going to start calling me your child, are you?' Durrell shook his head numbly, trying to ignore the scene of carnage around him. Dead beasts were draped everywhere on the silent ship as it plowed the watery wastes, from the masts, over the rails, and on the deck, from stem to stern. Waveworm resembled a floating slaughterhouse. Romska's head fell forward, and the cutlass slipped from her grasp, her voice half-chuckle, half-gurgle. "'Pretty, ain't it? There's only you and me left, Durrell.' Hurrying to the corsair's side, the abbot cradled her head, using the blanket he had brought with him as a pillow. "'Friend, you're hurt!' he cried. Romska's head lolled against Durrell's stained habit. "'Aye, that's the truth, bucko.' But I fixed old Lask good and proper, didn't I? Ah, don't move me. There's only this mast holding my back together. 
Darrell tried to glance over the ferret's shoulder at her back. She winced and shook her head slightly. Don't look. You don't want to see what that lizard's claws and fangs did to me, mate. Now listen careful, cause there ain't much time. Let go of me easy-like and make your way to the tiller. She's still headed due west, so take a stern line and lash her steady. Go on, Father Abbott. Do like I say. Making Romska as comfortable as possible, the old mouse eased himself away from her and scurried aft. Taking the stern rope, he tied it to one side of the gallery rail, looped it several times round the tiller, and tied the other end to the opposite rail, lashing the ship on course due west. Then he went on a tour of the vessel. Stumbling over a slain monitor and two sea rats, he found glowing embers in the brazier in Lask's cabin. He added wood, lamp oil, and sea coal, and soon had a fire rekindled. First he put on some water to heat, then hunted around until he found an old canvas and some blankets. It was still drizzling lightly when he returned to Romska. She had dozed off. Durrell made a lean-to with the canvas and covered the Corsair ferret with blankets to keep her warm. Then he resumed his search of the ship. Noon found the sky darkening. Bruised purple clouds hung over the oily, foamless swell of billows, and now the drizzle had turned to steady rain. It was still warm, though, and steam rose from Durrell's fur as he bustled out to Romska with food and drink. The Corsair opened her eyes feebly. "'You're a good creature, but an old fool. Take care of yourself. I ain't worth it. My string's played out.' Durrell cradled Romska's head as he ladled soup into her mouth. I'm afraid it's only dried fish and ship's biscuit with some water, but tis the best I could do, friend. You saved my life, and you were good to Viola, too. Without you we would both have fallen victim to those lizards long ago. Drink up now. Romska turned her mouth away from the ladle. Water. Just give us a drop of water, matey. I'm parched. The abbot carefully guided a beaker to her mouth. Romska sipped the liquid and winked faintly at him. You hearken to me, Durrell. You could never sail this tub back to Mossflower. But she's bound you west, and with luck you'll landfall at the Isle of Sampetra. I've got mates there. Tell them you're my pal. Tis your only chance. Mayhap they'll help you. Durrell stroked the corsair's tattooed paw. Now, now, my child. None of that talk. You'll live to see your friends again. I'll make sure of it. Romska smiled, her voice growing fainter as she replied, I hope you make it back to Redwall Abbey some day. It looked like a nice place to be. Humph. You won't be bothered with types like me, then. Corsairs and sea rats and all manner of wave scum. She shuddered and Durrell drew the blanket up to her chin. Hush now, and rest, my child. As Romska's eyes closed, she murmured drowsily, My child, I like that. Thank you, my father. Her head lolled forward onto the father abbot of Redwall's paws for the last time. Durrell sat nursing the dead corsair until it grew dark. Heedless of the rain that soaked him, as waveworm sailed silently westward on the drifting swell with its lone cargo 
One Old Mouse Book Three When Tears Are Shed 41. Viola was wakened by the sounds of low voices nearby. It was Martin and Graf talking together. The log boat was almost stationary, bobbing in the warming dawn. Seaweed hawsers trailed limply along the boat's sides, and the seal folk were nowhere to be seen. Martin stood in the prow, staring up at a mountain that reared out of the ocean. Well, it's big enough, he said. But it doesn't look like we can land anywhere. Why did the seal folk slide off and leave us here, I wonder? It's naught but a mountain thrusting up out of the water. Graf was as puzzled as the mouse warrior. Maybe there's something or some beast here they wanted us to see. Let's use these broken struts and oars and paddle oar there. Plog poked his head from under the canvas awning. Gwah! I'm stiff as a board. Where are we? Welko thrust his head up alongside that of his brother, grinning. Nice and warm, though, he said. Looks like it's going to be sunny. I'm starving. Is that old cookie awake yet? A long paw reached out and cupped the shrew's ear. Oh, cookie indeed, you graceless scruff-furred wretch. I, sir, I'm Clexstar Lepus Montissel of the far northern Montissels, don't you know? And furthermore, young feller, my lad, I don't well appreciate foul young blots like yourself snoring down my delicate ears all night. As for breakfast, afraid you'll have to whistle for it. Clean out a grub we are, what? Viola shook her head in disgust. Well, there's a fine thing. Those seals sliding off without so much as a by-your-leave, and us without a bite of food, floating around goodness knows where, with nothing to show for it but a hulking great mountain shoving itself out of the water. Grath could not help smiling at the complaining bull-maid. Well, tut, tut, Missy. Grab a cob of wood and start paddling. We won't talk ourselves out of this fix, that's for sure. The rock was massive, smooth-sided, high and impregnable, and there was no discernible opening in it. They paddled most of the day, skirting the stone monolith, searching for a place to land, but the quest seemed fruitless. Sometime around mid-afternoon they stopped to rest, sweltering under a hot sun. Plecky gazed longingly at the clear blue sea. Looks wonderful, don't it? I say, chaps, if I don't get something soon to wet my jolly old lips, I might try a drink of that. I wouldn't recommend it. Seawater can be nasty stuff. Plecky nearly fell overboard with shock. A young female otter had slid gracefully into the log boat and was sitting beside him. Who the flippin' eck are you, miss? And where's your manners? Jolly well near scared two seasons' growth out of me ears. Poppin' up like that. Kindly don't do it again. Bad form, what? The little otter maid smiled prettily, twitching her nose at them. Beg your puddin', sir. But what are you? You're not an otter. Humph. I should say not, Miguel. I'm a hare, actually. Name's Clecky. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Clecky. I'm Winniegold of the Holt of Walliam Rudderwake. I spect the Hom and his seal folk brought you here to see us. Clecky twitched his ears rather irately. Chaw! Well, if he did, he never said anything to us about it. Blinkin' fella should say where he's taken a chap, instead of all this hawmin' and hawrin' what-what. Excuse me, Martin interrupted. 
But if you two could break off this pleasant conversation long enough, perhaps you, miss, could show us to the holt of your father, Walliam Rudderwake. Realization suddenly struck Flog. The seals were saying, Walem. Maybe that's cause they couldn't say Walliam properly. Clucky absent-mindedly cuffed Plog's ear. Huh, I know that. Seal language. Speak it perfectly, old chap, perfectly. I think friend Martin's right, though, Missy. You'd better take us to your dear old pater, what? Winniegold directed them to take the logboat further round the side of the rock. A cable made from twined seaweed and kelp hung from a niche carved into the rock. It trailed away into the sea like a great thick serpent. The little otter maid unhooked the cable, and passing it to Grath, she explained its purpose. Look down into the water. What do you see? Grath stared downward into the clear depths. There's a hole like some sort of tunnel in the mountain, right near the surface here. The cable goes into it. Winniegold lowered her voice, as if revealing a secret. If we wait, the sea will lower itself, and the tunnel will appear in front of us. My father says it is the trough between every nineteenth and twentieth wave that washes against the east side of our mountain. Suddenly the sea level will sink and expose the cave mouth. If we all lie flat in your boat and heave on the cable, we can pull ourselves through to the inner island. Viola leaned over the boat's edge, gazing at the great hole in the rock fearfully. But it's underwater, she cried. We'll all be drowned. I'm scared. Winniegold giggled at the timid bull-maid. Silly, there's no need to be feared, you'll see. I haven't been counting the waves, but I think it's best we all lie down. Without warning, a wave lapped high, sending the boat up on its crest. Then it dropped sharply. There was a swoosh, as if some gigantic monster had exhaled, and they were looking straight into the mouth of the tunnel, wide and dark and dripping seawater, directly in front of them. Get down, mates, lie flat! Winniegold yelled. She gave a mighty heave on the cable, and the logboat shot into the opening, like a tiny fish into the mouth of a whale. They were surrounded by an eerie blue light, shimmering from the tunnel walls. The logboat rose, stopping no more than a paw's length from the shell-encrusted tunnel ceiling. As Winniegold tugged on the cable, their vessel shot forward, and the entire logboat crew seized hold of the thick kelp and seawater hawser, and, lying flat on their backs, began pulling. The little craft sped along inside the tunnel. Limpets, barnacles, shells, and hanging fronds almost scraped the prow of the boat, and great crabs scuttled about in the bluish light above their faces. The transition from sudden bright tropical sunlight to aquamarine dimness caused golden sunbursts upon their vision whenever they blinked. It was the oddest of experiences. Suddenly it was bright hot daylight again, Still holding the cable, they stood up slowly and gazed awestruck at the scene surrounding them. Where the cable ended, it was made fast to a tree stump on the banks of a broad stream. Fields stretched about the entire area, ending in trees, which gave way to dense vegetation and shrubbery, climbing the mountain's inner slopes. Martin turned full circle, staring up at the high circular rock rim. It's like some kind of a massive crater as if the mountain had had the heart taken out of it. We're in a big basin. Cupping both paws to her mouth, Winniegold cried out, setting echoes bouncing and ringing from the surrounding heights. Rudd awake! 
otters came bounding from everywhere, dashing across the fields, tumbling down the banks, and popping from the stream's surface. They crowded around the log boat, staring silently at the newcomers. Every beast, male and female, even the babes, was fully armed. Slings, clubs, and javelins were much in evidence. Then a murmur ran through the ranks as they parted. A magnificent male otter, fully a head taller than the rest, strode purposefully forward. His fur was dark, almost sable, and he was forbiddingly muscled through his sleek neck and broad shoulders. Grath stared curiously at the big bow he carried, a shaft set ready upon its bowstring. Over his shoulder she could see a quiverful of red-feathered arrows. He glanced down from the top of the bank, noting that she also carried a bow and arrows. Then he nodded and stood to one side. From behind the big otter another appeared, old and gray, but radiating a presence of wisdom and calm. The old otter carried an oak staff and was garbed in a long homespun tunic of light brown color. His voice was deep and warm. Do you come to ruddering in peace? Are you friends? Martin realized who the patriarchal-looking beast was. Leaving the boat, he waded ashore, and, bowing low, placed his sword on the ground in front of the old otter. Peace be upon you, Walliam Rudderwake, and all of your holt. I am Martin the warrior of Redwall Abbey. The home of Sealfolk delivered us to your island. We are friends. Walliam's grizzled features creased into a gentle smile. He nodded to Grath. Which hold come you from? Grath inclined her head to one side, allowing her rudder to rise and tip beneath her chin in a courtly old-fashioned gesture. I am Grath Longfletch of Holt Lutra, sire. Walliam appeared extremely gratified by Grath's politeness. Well said, maiden. It is a long time since I saw such courtesy in an otter. Would that half of my holt had your good manners. You and your friends look as if food would do you no harm. Come. I always find conversation far more pleasant over a good meal. Inbar, will you carry our friend Grath's bow and arrows for her? Walliam's huge, dark-furred son leapt forward willingly, missing the smile that passed between his father and Martin. The old otter picked up the warrior mouse's sword. I will carry this for you. Tis a blade that I have only once seen the like of. The sword of a great warrior, ancient and beautiful. Helped by numerous otters, the friends set out along the stream bank to Holt Rudderwake. 42. The Holt was a sprawling, comfortable cave in the mountainside, next to where the stream source bubbled from the rocks. Thick woven rush mats and rock slabs for tables were the only furniture. A fire was kept under an oven made of baked clay and stone. The otters were partial to great soups and stews of seaweed and shellfish. Also much in favor, owing to the tropical and fertile nature of their island, were magnificent fruit salads. As they ate, Martin related their story to Walliam and his wife, a great fat old grandma otter called Doromi, who seemed always to be surrounded by grandbabes climbing over her and swinging on her apron strings. Walliam listened carefully to Martin's narrative, as did several of the Holt elders. Klecky was the center of attention with the rest of the otters. His ever-present appetite for staggering amounts of food astounded them. The hare declined shellfish, but did justice to everything else. "'Can't abide the old edible mollusks, what?' he announced. "'Cockles and mussels and all that. 
Bring me out on an itchy paw rash, chaps. Sorry. Oh, I say, you fellers, this big ball tastes rather splendid. The otters hooted with laughter. Taint a ball, mate, that's a melon. You're not supposed to eat the seeds, though. Oh, I don't know, tastes pretty good to me. Excuse me, old chap, do you mind not hogging that seaweed soup? Nice salty taste. Sort of contrasts jolly well with these peach thingies. Ouch! My word, you could use these stones to chuck from your slings, great lumpy things. You there, otter chap, have the decency to unstone that big peach for a feller, will you? That's the style. Enbar was admiring Grath's bow and arrows. Nice string, well twined. I don't know which has the stronger pull, your bow or mine. Our arrows are the same length, too. Grath closed one eye, sighting down the shaft of one of Enbar's red-feathered arrows. Mmm, good and straight. They'd fly true. The normally taciturn otter tested an arrow point on his paw. That's my full name, Enbar Trueflight. I'll show you where I usually practice. Maybe we can loose off a few shafts together. Grath agreed, a hint of challenge in her smile. I'd like to do that, Enbar. We'll match each other arrow for arrow after we've eaten. Walliam's wife, Doromi, was speaking to Martin, whilst her husband took the little otters off to watch Clecky. The babes had never seen a hare before. Our hold of Rudderwakes lived on this isle I don't know how long. It goes right back into the mists of time. There some say that it were four otter families who escaped from a corsair vessel and found their way to this place purely by accident. Anyway, Martin, our ancestors made Ruddering Isle their own. They found a great battle with the lizards that used to live here. What lizards they didn't slay were driven off to another isle way west of here. Mayhap tis that San Petra place you talk of. That was more seasons ago than a score of otters could count. Ruddering Isle is our own now. Sea rats and corsairs passing in their ships don't even know this is an island. To them tis just a mountain poking up out of the ocean with no place to land upon. No beast knows we're living here. Except in the seals and you and your friends, Martin. Swear, if ever you leave here, not to tell a living creature of our isle. The warrior mouse patted Doramie's paw. I swear it will be so. I'd hate to think of me or my crew being the cause of ever bringing unwelcome visitors here to your beautiful home. Viola, Plog, and Welko were trying to learn an otter dance. They found it very difficult not having the balance that an otter's rudder-like tail affords. Winnie Gold and her chums were whirling and wheeling about, balancing first on one footpaw, then hopping onto the other, with a skillful tailspin between each leap. A deep-voiced old otter-wife beat two drums with her tail as she sang for the dancers. Poe, comb your whiskers, brush that tail, place a flower behind your ear, wash those paws in my old pail, we're off a-dancing, dear. Ooh, paws up high, rudder on the deck, pace up to your partner, check. Rudder in the air, paws on the ground, whirl that otter round and round. Vittles on a table, drinks there too, hear the music plan. Smile at me, I'll dance with you, every otter saying, ooh. Shuffle back and clap both paws, I'll clap mine and you clap yours. Turn away now, back to back. Slap those tails down, whack, whack, whack. Giggling and laughing, they fell to the floor exhausted. 
Clecky looked up from a wild grape trifle, shaking his head. Do yourself a mischief, prancing about like that after eating. Don't you chaps know any good slow ballads to settle the jolly old digestion? He was immediately beset by several young otters. Sing for us, Mr. Clecky. Oh, please do, sir. Finishing his trifle in two great gulps, the hare was up on his paws, ready to sing, but denying it strenuously. Oh, have a heart, you young rips! I haven't twiddled the old vocal cords in an absolute age, don't you know? Now to sing, old Walliam remonstrated. The hare took the center of the floor as if he had not heard Walliam's remark. Oh, well, if you insist, I'll just do one. A very bad salad. Er, ahem, I mean, sad ballad. Right, here goes, Chaps. Drooping his whiskers and quivering his ears in a most pathetic manner, he clasped both paws and stared soulfully at his audience. This is the story of Corkle Hare, which is most terribly tragic, horribly sad, and pretty awfully fearful. So pray give attention, list to my song, and don't fall asleep, although tis not too cheerful. Poor Corkle fell foul of an evil fox, who was mean and horribly cruel, and foolishly he challenged him next morning at dawn to a duel. Here Clecky paused and glared at Plog and Welco. Either of you rogues spit another melon seed at me, and I'll kick your little fat tails halfway up yonder mountain. Ahem. Beg pardon for the untimely interruption, chaps. Now where was I? Oh, yes. Both creatures chose as their weapons to hurl at each other salad. Good job they never chose soup, or else I might never have wrote this ballad. So the very next morning, as dawn did break, all bright and hot and warm and sunny, which, considering it was the dead of winter, our hero did not find too funny. Clucky jumped and clapped a paw to his tail, glaring at Plog and Welko, who were sitting looking the pictures of innocence. Just one more melon seed, you rotters, just one more. He continued his elongated recitation. There in the field the two creatures met, each beast with salad laden. A terrible sight not fit for the eyes of any tender young maiden. And the lettuce and the carrots and the onions, they all flew like lightning. And they fought and they ate, and they ate and they fought. The scene was pretty frightening. Clecky twitched his nose as a melon seed bounced off it. He narrowed his eyes and pointed vehemently at the two shrews. Right, that's it. Soon as I'm finished, this heart-rending ditty, you two are in for it. He finished the song at top speed as if it were a fast jig. But now, my friends, I've reached the end of my most sad rendition. At the end of the epic battle royal, this was the sad position. Neither the fox nor the hare had won. They were both in bad condition, suffering from fierce indigestion because they'd ate all the ammunition. With a bound he was away after the two shrews, who shot off like sardines with a shark on their tails. The audience fell about laughing helplessly. Doramy held her tubby sides, shaking with mirth. Oh, ho, 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 hoo, hoo. That'll teach him to spit melon pips at him. 
Viola and Winnigold were chuckling so hard that tears coursed down their cheeks as they confessed. Hee-hee! It wasn't hee-hee plog or ha-ha-ha welco spitting those pips. Hoo-hoo-hoo! It was us! Hee-ha-ha! Hee-ho-ho-ho! William Rudderwake and his otters were excellent hosts to the first land visitors they had ever received. Entertainment, singing, eating, drinking, and dancing went on far into the night, only stopping because every beast was totally exhausted. Interspersed with the weary logboat crew, otters slept where they fell, everywhere about the cave. Babes, youngsters, and parents lay draped over rocks or curled on rush mats in a tangle of paws and tails. William sat in the light of the oven fire. He and Martin were the only two left awake. The otter patriarch stared piercingly at the warrior mouse, until eventually Martin felt he had to speak and break the silence. "'Tell me, William, how did you come to know the seal folk?' The otter shifted his gaze to the fire and shrugged. "'We have always known them. My father and his father before him treated the seals, bulls, wives, and pups, for injuries and ailments. So it has fallen to my lot now. I am their healer.' Palm and his followers have great respect for the Holt of Rudderwake. They would do anything for us. Lucky twas that you had an otter in your crew, or they might never have brought you to my island. That seemed as much information as Wallium was willing to impart. Silence fell on the two creatures as they sat together in the soft tropic night, staring into the ash-surrounded embers burning low beneath the oven. Martin felt slightly uneasy in the presence of Wallium. From the corner of his eye he noted the otter had transferred his gaze from the fire. Hairs on the back of the warrior mouse's neck began to prickle. He turned suddenly and locked eyes with Wallium's piercing stare. Friend, is there something you are hiding from me? Rising slowly, Wallium beckoned Martin to follow him. Let us walk together in the moonlight, he said. In the limited view of sky, surrounded by the high mountainous crater, a summer moon hung like a pale gold coin, shedding its light on the two figures strolling through lush grasses toward the stream bank. Wallium Rudderwake spoke when they were out of hearing from the cave. Hearken to me, Martin of Redwall. I have things to tell you, things that I could tell to no other beast, lest they think I am growing feeble in the brain. Would it surprise you to know— that I already knew your face, that I had seen you long before you came to this island? The warrior mouse sat down on the stream bank. It would surprise me greatly. Tell me more, Wallium. Leaning on Martin's shoulder, the old otter lowered himself to sit upon the bank. He tossed a twig into the stream and watched the water bear it away to the seas. Three moons ago I had a dream. That was when you appeared in my mind. But was it you, or one who looked just like you? It was a mouse, a warrior like yourself. When you arrived at my island today, I knew then it was you. You were not wearing armor like the mouse in my dream, but your face was the same as his, and the sword you carried was the same wonderful blade. I knew this for certain when I picked up that sword to carry it for you. I could feel it in a hilt and the blade. Martin nodded, understanding beginning to dawn on him. 
Walliam had been visited in his dream by the first Martin of long ago. Did the mouse speak words to you, friend? Was there a message? In the darkness the otter's eyes opened wide with surprise. Yes, he did. I felt a great calm come over me. His voice sounded like a distant bell, echoing, warm. End of Side 6 To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side 7, Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 302 These are the very words he spoke. My name is Martin of Redwall. You are a good beast, Walliam Rudderwake. Help my friends to defeat evil and bring happiness back to our abbey. Do this thing for me, and the name of Holt Rudderwake will be remembered on the stones of Great Hall. The old otter grasped Martin's paw firmly. Tell me what to do, Martin of Redwall, and I will help you. 43. Alma the badger mother sat at supper, flanked by Skipper and Formol, the three of them highly amused, as Arvin and the Dibbons served the meal. Further up the table, Sister Cicely sniffed. Those babes should have been a bed hours back. Skipper glanced down the table. Trim me sails, what's the matter with the sister? She looks as if she's swallowed some of her own nettle soup. Alma directed the otter's attention to Diggum and Gerbol, trundling a laden trolley towards them. Pay no heed to Cicely. She's got a knot in her tail because her patients have deserted the infirmary, and she's got no beast to boss around. Will you look at these babes? How nice of them to serve us supper. Diggum clambered up onto the table, her tiny face creased in a serious frown, as she set about tying table napkins around the necks of Alma, Skipper, and Formol. You're, you'm keeping these on. It'll save ee splashing zoop all over ee. Don't he take em off, or boy Oaky, oil Cindy all oop to bed without no zupper, hur? Gerbil ladled out hot root soup for all three, which Alma attempted to refuse, saying, No thank you, sir. It looks a bit too spicy for me. I'll just have salad and a little nut bread, please. The mole babe glared at the big badger mother. You'll have what I gives ye, morm, and sup it all. "'Tis good for ee. Come on, finish at oop, and he'll grow girt and strong like oi. Bain't that right, Skip?" The skipper of otters nodded vigorously. "'Oh, tis right enough, matey. I'll see she eats it all. You go and attend to the others. Sister Cicely looks famished. Serve her.' The dibbons ambled off, pushing their serving trolley. Arvin was trying to feed a mouse babe, arguing furiously with him. Little maggot, eat up all these scones, or gracious me, I tell Badger Mum to baff you in a bath, with lots of soap up a nose, oh yes. The rebellious mouse babe flung a scone at Arvin. No, I hain't got enough teeth to eat em, um like rocks, you makes the scones, you eat em. It was at that point that the door slammed wide, as Cracklin and Tansy rushed into Great Hall, shouting, the tapestry! The tapestry! The secret's in the tapestry! 
Immediately the diners deserted their seats to crowd round the abbey maids. Formo held up a huge digging claw, calling over the ensuing din, "'Your missy! What be any tarpisty?' Rollo came panting in and fought his way to the front of the huddle. "'The fifth pearl, of course,' he said. "'At least that's what the clues say.' Arvin wriggled his way through and stood facing the tapestry. "'Well, where a pearl, Tansy Pansy?' Tansy tweaked the little squirrel's bushy tail. "'We'll tell you when we find it, nosy.' Alma's huge voice boomed around the hall. "'Stand back, every beast back, please. Make room for Rollo and those maids to do their job. Move yourselves, please.' Reluctantly, the Red Wallers shuffled back a pace. Alma joined Rollo. "'I don't like intruding, but perhaps we can all help. How did you know the pearl is in the tapestry?' Rollo unfolded the parchment scrap, and spreading it on the floor, he demonstrated how they had solved the puzzle of the poem lines and letters to make up the word tapestry. "'That's as much as we know at present, but we're convinced the fifth tier of all oceans is hidden somewhere in this tapestry.' All eyes were on the mighty needlework hanging from the wall. It depicted Martin the warrior in the bottom right-hand corner, armored and leaning both paws on his sword-hilt. The warrior had a reckless smile upon his handsome features, and all around him was a woodland scene showing vermin, some lying slain, others fleeing in all directions from the hero of Redwall. Alma read the rhyme aloud. There is a warrior. Where is a sword? Peace did he bring, the fighting lord. Shed for him is my fifth tear. Find it in the title here, written in but a single word. An eye is an eye until it is heard. Formo scratched his dark-furred head. Er, tis a girt puzzlement. If an e pearler be hidden in em tarpesty, I don't see it. How do we find the hobject? Cracklin picked up the parchment and strode back and forth in front of the tapestry. Here's how. We dismantle the poem bit by bit, eliminating the pieces we don't need, until we find the vital line. Right. There is a warrior. She pointed to the figure of Martin, continuing. Where is a sword? Formal indicated the blade that Martin leaned on. Burr! What do it say next, missy? Peace did he bring. Tansy pondered for a moment. Doesn't sound like a clue. Carry on, Cracklin. The fighting lord. No, that's not much help. What's next? Shed for him is my fifth tear. That means Fermald gave the fifth pearl to Martin, Rollo interrupted. Continue. Find it in the title here. Skipper thumped his tail thoughtfully. Title? What title? Arvin snorted impatiently. Marching up to the tapestry, he gestured. There! That's a title there! Embroidered on the bottom border of the work, Right beneath the figure of the mouse was a word, Martin. Cracklin could not conceal her excitement. Aye, that's it. Listen to the next line, written in but a single word. A single word, and that's it, Martin. A buzz of conversation arose from the onlookers. Every beast seemed to be speculating and arguing with one another. Skipper was forced to roar over the hubbub to restore order. Quiet now, silence! Stow the gab and let these maids get on with it. Oh, sorry, Rollo, sir, and you too. What do you think? 
Rollo polished his spectacles carefully. I think we should hear the last line. Cracklin? The squirrel maid read out the poem's final line. An eye is an eye until it is heard. The silence which had fallen over Great Hall deepened. Every beast stood looking at the tapestry, mentally repeating the line. Garrel limped forward from the table, where he had sat through it all, staunchly chomping away at every morsel in sight. He waved a slice of heavy fruitcake at Cracklin and Tansy. Sure aren't none of your listening. As me old mother used to say, tis as plain as the paw behind your back in a fog. Tansy folded her paws resignedly. I thought you were going to tell us all something intelligent for a moment there. They all pecked a few crumbs from his wing feathers. Faith, and so I am, Missy. Will you think of the line for a moment? An eye is an eye until it is heard. Does it not tell you anything? Tansy shook her head. Not a thing. Garrow pointed at one of his eyes. What, pray, is this? Tansy's reply was swift. An eye, it's your eye. The owl chuckled. Ah, the brains of the young are surely marvelous. Now tell me, what's this? He pointed at Tansy's right eye. The hedgehog maid gave a long sigh of impatience. It's an eye, my eye. What are you getting at? Garrel went to a nearby table and took up a knife. Me old mother always used to say, If you can't see with your own two eyes what's in front of them, then you're better off closing them and going to sleep. Tis far more restful. As he was speaking, the owl was scratching something on the floor stones with his knife point. He pointed at it. Now what would you say that was? Tansy studied it for a moment. It looks like the letter I to me. Gerald smiled. He had made his point. Right, you just said it, the letter I. At least that's what I heard you say. See, I point to me I. That's the I you can see. But you just said I. That's the I you can hear. Arvin was first to the tapestry. He ran his paw quickly over the name Martin embroidered on the hem, and thrusting his other paw behind the hem, he ripped something away from behind the dot of the letter I and the warrior's name. It de pearl! he yelled. The fifth pearl fell to the floor, bounced twice on the stones, and rolled a little way, coming to a halt in front of Alma. The badger picked up the pretty rose-colored orb. It glowed softly in the lamplight as she presented it to Tansy, saying, I believe Gerl deserves a vote of thanks for his help. Shamefaced, Tansy shook the owl's talon gently. Gerl, friend, forgive me for getting so snippy with you. The friendly bird blinked his great eyes. Ah, sure, cut us an old slice of fruit cake and you're forgiven. Cracklin swept the half cake that was left from the table. You deserve it all, and I'd bake your mother one twice this size if she were here. Arvin had been gradually sidling away until he was at the foot of the stairs. Suddenly Tansy caught sight of him and shouted, The sixth clue! Arvin, bring it here this instant! The squirrel babe did a little dance, wobbling his head comically. Tansy, pansy, toogle do! I found it! The paper's mine! Waving the scrap of parchment, which had been stitch-tacked tightly behind the tapestry to hold the pearl, Arvin fled upstairs, giggling. Rollo threw up his paws. You two run and catch him. I'm too old for this sort of game. Well, go on. Last one to catch Arvin is a something or other. 
Shall we say a baggy-bottomed beetle? But Tansy and Cracklin were not listening. They were dashing headlong for the stairs to catch the squirrel babe. Arvin stood on a dormitory windowsill, hidden by the drape of the curtain. He wriggled in anticipation as the door slowly creaked open. Tansy popped her head in. Arvin, are you there? She called in a sing-song tone. A small giggle sounded as Tansy and Cracklin tip-pawed into the dormitory. Cracklin pointed silently to the moving curtain as it wriggled and flapped against the sill. Tansy smiled and called out in the same sing-song voice, Arvin, you're hiding on the windowsill. A small giggly reply came from behind the curtain. Tee-hee-hee. No, Arvin, not here. Cracklin whipped the curtain aside, revealing the squirrel babe grinning mischievously. The crumpled scrap of parchment held tight to his small fat stomach. Tansy injected a note of serious authority into her demand. Give me that paper, sir, immediately. Hee-hee-hee. No, it mine. I found it. Cracklin launched herself at Arvin, but he was too quick. Grabbing the curtain, he swung outward, let go, and somersaulted onto a bed. Tansy jumped upon Arvin, and immediately he stuffed the parchment into his mouth and shut it tight. Tansy shook him. Open your mouth at once. We need that parchment. Arvin shook his head, attempting to speak. Oomph! Uh, mine! Cracklin leapt to her friend's assistance. Right, you've asked for this, you little maggot. Grabbing both of Arvin's footpaws, the squirrel maid tickled furiously. Ya ha 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 hoo hoo! Stop it! Triumphantly, Tansy held up the damp scrap of parchment. Got it! Cracklin stopped tickling, only to find Arvin's footpaws thrust in her face. More tickles! Want more tickles, please? he squealed. Later that night, the three friends sat in Great Hall, taking a late supper together. In front of them lay the scallop shell, open to reveal five rose-colored pearls and one remaining space in the soft red cloth that lined the shell case. Rollo nibbled celery and cheese turnover briefly before rubbing his paws together. Well, let's see the final clue. I trust the parchment was not damaged too much by that little savage stuffing it in his mouth. Tansy spread the parchment carefully on the tabletop. No, it's still quite legible. I dried it off in the kitchen ovens. But treat it carefully. It's a mite crispy. The friends read the line slowly together. My sixth and last tear I given to you, when red wallers lie abed, at midnight see in full moon view the purple arrowhead. Travel east six rods from the tip to the rose that blooms ever fair. See if you can find the right hip. Turn west, and you're halfway there. Rollo pushed away the remains of his supper, cupped his head in both paws, and leaned on the table dejectedly. Huh. And we thought the last five clues were difficult. Cracklin stared miserably at the oak-grained pattern of the tabletop. Right. I don't think poor Picknum would have sorted any real information from that rhyme, and she was far brighter than I am. Tansy yawned and stood up stretching. I agree with both of you, but enough is enough for one night. I'm off to join all the other Redwallers who are lying abed. The last thing Tansy heard before dropping off to sleep was the voice of Martin speaking to her. 
the abbess will find it for Picnum, on the same ground where the fifth was found. 44. Ublaz stood on top of the mighty piles of timber heaped against the back walls of his palace, and peered over the wall-top at the rocks, where Rasconza had agreed to meet him at dawn. There was still an hour to go before daybreak, but the Pine Martin was leaving nothing to chance this time. With his superb vision he could make out tiny moving shapes on the low hill in the distance. Sea-rats and corsairs were beginning to mass on the hilltop. Ublaz checked that his remaining threescore monitors were waiting, armed with long lances, in the courtyard behind him. To the left and right, behind the hill where the wave brethren waited, two fire arrows flared briefly in the dark skies. The emperor's eyes glittered with fiendish delight. The trap was laid. During the night, Sagittar had secretly left the palace at the head of the entire army of trident rats, and at her emperor's bidding she had split the force and hidden them well among the hills. When he arrived, Rasconza would be walking into a well-laid trap. The massed trident rats would sweep down behind his wave scum and ambush them from the rear. From there they would be driven against the back outer palace wall, where monitors could thrust down into their ranks with long spears, followed by flaming bales of dried wood and grass. A jubilant lark arose to greet daybreak, chirruping happily as she ascended the upper air, sun rays from the east making her wings almost transparent against the still blue skies. She was unaware of what was taking place on the ground below. Rasconza was of the opinion that only a fool would go unarmed to any meeting with Ublas, and the wily fox had slid a keen-edged dagger inside his tunic. Grinning wolfishly at his captains, he strolled down from the hilltop with them. Sink me ship and drown me crew, would he? Well, today's the day the emperor of San Petra gets toppled off his throne and fed to the fishes. Wait here until I give the signal, buckos. Tis supper in the palace for the wave brethren tonight. Right, I'm off. I aids to keep any beast waitin' to be slain. The corsair fox strode jauntily to the meeting-place, where Ublas's arrow had fallen on the previous day. Ublas issued final orders to four monitors standing nearby. They were holding a long, heavy rope with thick knots at short intervals along its length. Lower me down gently, and leave the rope hanging over the wall. I will return fast, so be ready. When I grab the rope, haul me up with all speed. Do you understand? Your mightiness. Moments later, Ublas was lured to the ground outside the palace, and alone and unarmed, he marched forward to where Rasconza awaited him. Both beasts halted within three paces of each other. Since the Pine Martin had dispensed with wearing a transparent silk scarf across his eyes, Rasconza was careful to keep his gaze averted in the presence of his enemy. Rasconza was the first to break the silence. So then, your highness. I understand your want peace. Well, now, that's a bit of a turnaround for the ruler of San Petra, and terror of all the seas, ain't it? Still, I suppose it makes sense, since all you've had to deal with afore was fools and lizards. Ublas sneered at the swaggering corsair. You may think you're a clever fox, but you made a big mistake the day you tried to pit wits against me. Watch. Ublas raised his paws high and spread them, roaring at the top of his voice, Attack! Rasconza picked a small flower and sniffed it appreciatively. Save your breath, mad-eyes. 
I'm the only one who'll do the attack in this day. Take a look at yonder ill. What are your sea? An uneasy feeling began to stir within Ublas. Something was wrong. A figure, garbed in a long cloak and hood, stepped forward from the wave brethren, crowded on the hill crest. Now it was Risconza's turn to shout. Unsheat yourself for the mighty Ublas, matey! It was Sagittar. As she showed herself, Tridents immediately began to bristle among the vermin horde. Rasconza's paw began slowly moving towards the dagger hidden in his tunic. Your trident rats have changed sides, he gloated. They've got a new leader, me. Sagittar says to tell you, er, Ed ain't decorating no trident on the jetty. You're finished, Ublas. Then whipping out his dagger, Rasconza pounced. But Ublas was fast. He sprang to one side, and dealing the fox a smart blow on the back of his neck, he knocked the corsair flat on his face. Then he landed a swift kick to the fox's side, driving the wind out of him. Unarmed, and seeing the masked creatures pour from the hilltop towards him, Ublas took to his heels and ran. Rasconza was tough. He leapt up and gave chase after his foe. With his paws pounding the earth like pistons, Ublas dashed for the wall. A quick glance over his shoulder confirmed his fears. Rasconza was coming after him, and the fox could run like the wind. He was quickly closing the gap between them. Many seasons of soft living had slowed the pine marten. He was running flat out, but the fox was leaner and tougher. Even half-winded, he was twice the runner Ublas would ever be. Increasing his pace, Rasconza raced along, dagger in paw. Ublas made it to the wall, with Rasconza only a short distance behind him. Grabbing the knotted rope, Mad Eyes bellowed hoarsely, Pull! Pull me up! The four monitors hauled with all their might, and Ublas shot upward. Rasconza leapt, striking out savagely with his blade. Ublas screeched in agony as the dagger pierced his footpaw. Then he was seized by scaly claws and pulled over the wall to safety. Limping and hopping about on one footpaw, he yelled, Defend the walls! Hurry! The front ranks of wave brethren attempting to scale the walls were met by vicious thrusts from the monitor's lances. Sitting on the woodpile, Ublas nursed his paw, staunching the blood with his cloak hem. He beckoned the largest monitor over. Zergot, you must keep them at bay. If they breach the wall, you and your monitors are dead beasts. The big lizard slithered her tongue in and out, nodding. Yar, lord, Z-rats and corsairs have no pity on monitors. They will not enter here while we guard these walls. Ublas patted her scaly hide as he lied encouragingly. We will defeat them. Lask Frildur is due back within the next day or so, with his monitors and a full vermin crew that I can bring under my will. We'll soon chase that rabble into the sea. By nightfall the wave brethren had retreated from the walls and set up camps a short distance away, Rasconza's plan being to lay siege to the palace. Sea-rats and corsairs, sharing a healthy fear of the great flesh-eating lizards, were only too willing to go along with the fox's scheme. Better to harass and starve Ublas and his monitors out than face them head-on in battle. Inside the palace, Ublas stood at his throne-room window, staring out to sea as he tried to gather his thoughts. At least the waves come had only one seaworthy ship. The rest were without rudders and tillers, and two were without proper masts. He did not have to worry about an attack from the sea, as long as he could hold on to the timber needed for repairs. Below him the jetty lay deserted. It presented no problem at present. 
Suddenly the emperor's keen eyes picked up a dark object to the east. He watched it getting closer, realization dawning on him. Waveworm! It was Lask Frildur and the monitors, with Romska and her crew, bringing back the abbot of Redwall as hostage. Unknowingly, Ublas had been telling the truth to Zergot when he had spoken to her earlier. His mad eyes lit up as he formulated a plan. Waveworm would soon be at the jetty. He would go and meet the ship, and once he had Lask, Romska, and the rest back inside his palace, he could defeat Rascansa's rabble. Gritting his teeth, Ublas stared at the approaching vessel. He had fought against odds before and won. The Pine Martin convinced himself that his present troubles were due to the treachery and stupidity of others. This time he alone would control events. He, ruler of all oceans and lord of Sempetra, the Emperor Ublas. If he trusted only himself and no other beast, victory over his enemies was a certainty. Abbot Durrell was sick and exhausted. He had spent long days clearing the ship of dead lizard and vermin carcasses, consigning each one to the depths of the sea in silence. Weakened by lack of food, ill with loneliness and despair, the old mouse crouched in a darkened cabin. Shivering and semi-conscious, the lone passenger aboard a vessel taking him he knew not where, he did not even feel the keel grinding onto sea-washed sand and gravel as Waveworm ran unchecked, missing the jetty and nosing to a halt on the shores of San Petra. Swathed in a dark silken cloak, Ubla slid out of the main gates like a furtive cloud shadow, stealing by deserted taverns across the waterfront. He could not understand why Waveworm had not berthed properly alongside the jetty. It lay in the shallows, with neither anchor nor picket line to hold it. Ublas waded out, hoping to catch the crew asleep at their posts. The first thing Ublas noticed as he climbed aboard Waveworm was the total absence of noise, not even the snoring of crew beasts. Making his way to the forward cabins, he found one with the door hanging crazily by a hinge, its center panel shattered and bloodstained. It was empty. Dashing through the accommodations, the Pine Martin flung open doors, staring around in disbelief. Empty! All empty! Making his way aft, the first thing he noticed was the tiller, lashed in position. Then he saw the dark stains on rail and deck planking, which told their own grim tale. Death had visited the waveworm. In a stern cabin he found a fire-brazier, and stretching his paws inside, Ublas felt a slight warmth. Within the last day or so, some beast had managed to get a small fire going there. He checked a pan nearby, wrinkling his nose at the cold, rancid water. Then a thin, cracked voice called from the shadow of a bunk. We'll need more blackberries if we're to make a pie that big, Friar Higgle. Where's Teasel? She'll know where to get some. Stealing silently across to the bunk, Ublas lifted aside the tattered blanket. The Emperor of San Petra found himself looking at the prone, shivering figure of Redwall's father abbot. 45. The logboat that had once been part of the craft Free Beast was in as good a shape as skilled paws could make it. Provisioned fully by the good otters of Ruddering Island, it was ready to face the seas again. Martin and his crew once more lay flat, pulling themselves on the thick hawser through the fantastic grotto-like tunnel with its shell-crusted ceiling and luminous blue light. When the vital wave arrived, they gave a final heave. Hot sunlit daylight streamed in from outside, 
as the tunnel mouth yawned wide. Like a cork, the logboat bobbed out onto the open main. Walliam Rudderwake, his sturdy son Enbar, and several other otters had followed, and now they hung lightly on the boat's sides. The otter leader had a wooden whistle slung about his neck. He shook seawater from it and blew the whistle several times. What in the name of goodness is he blowing that thing for? Clucky whispered to Martin. I can't hear a bally sound from it. Chap's got a broken whistle, I'd say. What? Maybe you can't hear the whistle, but the seal folk can, Martin explained to the bemused hare. William told me they would stay in these waters round about until he had spoken with them about us. Clucky chose a large ripe peach from the supplies. Juice dribbled down his chin as he chomped into it. Funny business, if you ask me, old scout. Tunnels through mountains, whistles you can't hear, and what not. Graf nudged him sharply. Well, we never ask you, so be quiet and wait. William sounded the whistle again. This time a dark rounded head broke the waves a short distance south. The seal barked once, dived, and was gone. The friends sat in the log boat waiting, the otters occasionally swimming away to circle round slowly. It was over an hour before anything happened. Suddenly the waters around the log boat broke with a great whoosh, and seal folk appeared everywhere, smacking their flippers and rolling about between the waves. Hom, the massive king bull seal, broke the surface directly in front of the otter leader. Fear you day, whalem. The chieftain of Holt Rudderwake clapped his paws together. Many a who day, hom. My father is saying that he hopes the king lives long, Enbar murmured to Grath. Then Hom and William went into a long, animated discussion. Martin watched them carefully, though he understood almost nothing of what they were saying. However, now and again he heard his own name mentioned as Matan, and he figured that the word Sarmpat meant Sampetra. The logboat crew sat patiently until the discussion was over, then William held out a paw to his son. Help me aboard the boat. I would speak with our friend Martin. Enbar vaulted aboard the logboat, and with Grath's help lifted the old otter clear of the water and swung him aboard. The mouse warrior listened intently as William counseled him. Holm says that he knows the Isle of Sempetra. It is southwest of here. No beast reads the ocean, its tides and currents, like the king of the seal folk. He will get you there with all speed. But he says that it is a place of great danger, and he will not risk the lives of his tribe by staying there long. Once at that island, you will be alone with your crew. Be on your guard at all times, because it is a place of great evil. Tread carefully, and may fates and fortunes aid you and your five companions, Martin of Redwall. With your permission, I would make Martin's companions six, father. William clasped his son's paw. I know you would in Bar True Flight. Ever since the boat arrived at our island, and you two set eyes upon another, you have been a good son, and ruddering is a tiny rock in the ocean. It will be a good thing for you to see the world outside, knowing that you may return to your home if it is not to your liking. Go, my son, and may all your seasons be filled with happiness. Enbar nodded his head vigorously, shaking off a teardrop into the sea. He clasped his father's paw tightly. Thank you, sir. May the Holt not need another leader for seasons untold. 
Would you wait here while I go back for my bow and arrows? I left them on the river bank. Grath patted the weapons lying alongside her. I have them here, Enbar. Your father was not the only beast who could see that you wanted to come with us. Walium smiled, nodding fondly at Grath Longfletch. Take good care of each other, he said. Then the old otter slid into the water to join the other otters who had swum through the tunnel. He held up a paw to the seal king. Get a womb, Nagara Amansal. Gitara Hom. The seal king barked sharply, his voice echoing from the mountain. Feryun Whalem, Gitara. Leaping to the logboat's trailing cables, the seal folk sent a huge bow wave spraying high as they sped off southwest. Viola tugged at Inbar's paw. What did they say? she asked. The big otter smiled down at the bull maid. My father said, Go with the waves, let none harm you, ruler of waters. Go with all speed, great king. Then Hom replied, Stay well, William. Then he told his seals, Gitara, which means go with all speed, or literally, cut the waves. Clucky, who was already selecting from the provisions for the midday meal, sniffed. I knew that. <laughs> seal lingo. Speak it like a jolly old seal, I do. You can't fool the great Holm Clecky, you know. Grath turned, looking back at the island. From here, you'd think it was just some straight-sided rock sticking up out of the sea. No beast did ever guess what it looks like inside. Enbar looked up from the chunk of beeswax he was rubbing upon his bowstring to protect it. Aye, that's what has always kept the island safe for the otters of Holt Rudderwake. Tell me, this place Redwall Abbey, what's it like to live there? Grath borrowed the beeswax from him and began working on her bow. I couldn't say, mate. Never been there, though I'd like to. Viola interrupted the two otters, not attempting to hide the note of pride in her voice. I was born and bred in the Abbey of Redwall. It's the most wonderful place you could wish to be. I'll tell you all about it. Martin perched in the forward peak of the speeding logboat, as it skimmed the sunlit waves, a fine sea spray causing him to blink as he gazed down at the hom of seal folk. Shining like dark mottled glass, the great bull's sleek form cut the waters a paw's length beneath the surface, towing the boat with his seals as easily as a feather upon the breeze. Touching the hilt of the sword slung across his shoulders, the warrior mouse stared at the horizon, watching for the first glimpse of San Petra, and wondering what fate and fortune awaited them at the perilous isle of the mad-eyed Emperor Ublaz. 46. Arvin was stealing the hazelnut cream pie from beneath Tansy's nose. The young hedgehog maid knew he was, but she could not be bothered trying to stop him. Pulling dreadful fierce faces, the squirrel babe puffed his cheeks in and out as he helped himself to her beaker of rose-hip tea, then, climbing up on the table, he performed a somersault and landed right in front of her face. Tansy, pansy, toogledoo, boo! Glum-faced and pensive, Tansy lifted him down to the floor. Oh, toogledoo yourself, you little nuisance. Go and play outside with the other dibbons. Go on, be off with you. Arvin waggled his bushy tail sternly at her. Shouldn't talk to Arvin like that. Me a hotter warrior now. Yah, You not funny any more. Arvin going to play. 
Hopping and skipping, he bounded from Great Hall out into the warm late afternoon orchard to see what mischief he could create with his dibbon comrades. Tansy watched him go, then turned back to the table, leaning moodily, chin and paws. My, my, what a long face! You look as if you'd just had a good dose of my warm nettle soup. What ails you, miss? Tansy made no reply, merely shrugging at Sister Cicely's inquiry. But Cicely was not one to give up easily. She persisted with her interrogation of the hogmaid. You suffered no permanent damage at Ninian's, and your friends Cracklin and Rollo seem to be in good health. Come on, Tansy, this is not like you. What's the matter? Tansy pushed away her plate and beaker. Do you know where to find the purple arrowhead, sister? Or the rose that blooms ever fair? Or the right hip, for that matter? Because if you do, I'd be pleased if you'd tell me. But otherwise I wish you'd please leave me alone. I mean no disrespect, sister, but I've got such a lot of thinking to do. Sister Cicely sniffed rather frostily. As you wish, Tansy. But I hope you solve your problem, and it brightens up your disposition a bit. Tansy rose dispiritedly from the table and wandered off towards the gatehouse. Even before she reached it, Cracklin's voice could be heard repeating the sixth rhyme aloud. My sixth and last tear I give unto you, when red wallers lie abed, at midnight see in full moon view the purple arrowhead. Travel east, six rods from the tip, to the rose that blooms ever fair. See if you can find the right hip. Turn west, and you're halfway there. The gatehouse door was wide open, and Tansy walked in. Dust motes floated everywhere in the sun rays streaming through window and door frame. Rollo sat poring over old copies of Abbey Records. Cracklin lay sprawled in the armchair. She looked up at Tansy and said, It's no use. Rollo has searched and rummaged through all the back records, and we haven't come up with a single clue. The old recorder slammed a volume shut on a cloud of dust. Achoo! Oh, excuse me. Cracklin's right, though. I've been hard at it since dawn, and there's not a single mention of purple arrowheads anywhere in the records. Great seasons. Wolger's going to have a fit when he sees the mess we've made in here. He cleaned the gatehouse out only last evening. Well, missus, it looks like we're really stuck this time. If only we had one clue, just one tiny thing to help us. Time is running out. Goodness knows where the abbot is now, with Martin gone after him. And Viola still not found. She may have been seized again by rogues and vermin. We may well need those pearls for ransom. We must be ready. Remember what we said. We must find those pearls for Picnum. Suddenly Tansy recalled the previous night. Before I fell asleep last night, I thought I heard the voice of Martin the warrior. He said to me, the abbess will find it for Picnum on the same ground where the fifth was found. At least I think that's what he said. I can't recall anything else, because at that point I must have fallen asleep. Cracklin hurled an armchair cushion at her friend. You great puddin'-head, Martin spoke to you last night, and you've only just thought to mention it now? Tansy caught the cushion and threw it back. Well, that's because I only recalled it now. Tell that bush-tailed buffoon, will you, Rollo? 
The old recorder took the cushion as Cracklin aimed it for another throw. He stared at them both over his glasses and said, Now, now, young maids, no fighting, please. Tansy's right, Cracklin. The remembrance of our dreams is often triggered by some beast saying a certain phrase. For instance, a moment ago I said that we must find those pearls for Picnum. Martin mentioned the words, Find it for Picnum, and that's what caused Tansy to remember. Though it does sound rather odd, the abbess will find it for Picnum. Which abbess? Redwall only has an abbot. Fates and fortunes rest favorably upon him wherever he is now. We don't have an abbess. But we do have a clue at last, said Tansy, who had brightened up considerably. On the same ground where the fifth was found, we found the fifth pearl in Great Hall. Come on. Friar Higgle and Alma were carrying things out to the shore of the Abbey Pond. Halfway across Great Hall, laden with firewood and sweet herbs, they stopped at the sight of the three friends standing in the middle of the large chamber looking about. Hi there. What are you searching for, more clues? Alma called. Cracklin explained about Tansy's dream to the badger mother, and Alma found herself looking around at the ceiling, walls, and floor. We must never ignore anything Martin tells us, she said. But what are you hoping to find here? Rollo held up the scrap of parchment for her to see. A purple arrowhead. That's what it says here. Friar Higgle took the parchment. Let me see that. Ah, you're right, a purple arrowhead. But you got to look for it when Redwallers lie abed, at midnight, by the light of the full moon. So till then you may as well do something useful, like help us to set up supper on the pond edge. Lucky for you there is a full moon tonight. Supper's all as good fun on a summer night by the pond when tis moonlit. Gerbold, Diggum, and Arvin were in the kitchens, loading up a procession of redwallers with food to take out to the pond's edge. Diggum made sure Tansy was well laden. Your marm, e be a girt strong beast. You'll be taking this cheese and yon breads. Come on, old Audi, pause. I can't, Tansy protested vigorously. I'm already carrying a meadow cream trifle, a pear flan, and a stack of mint wafers. Any more, I'll drop something. The mole babe stared severely at Tansy and balanced a loaf on her head. There, don't run now and coom straight back your. I've lots more for ee to carry, or I. Tansy hid a smile from the bossy mole babe. A slave driver, that's what you are, Diggum. Arvin prodded her none too gently. Keep a moving, you little maggot. You holding up the line. Tansy tottered, trying to keep her load balanced. Ouch! You fiendish infant! What's that you're prodding me with? Arvin waggled the implement under her nose threateningly. It's my whip. Now keep it going, or you get more prodders. Hurriedly, Tansy unloaded her burdens onto a table and made a grab at Arvin's whip. That's Fermal's old fishing rod. The rod! Rollo let go of a heavy cheese he was rolling. It trundled off alone across the kitchen floor. What rod? Tansy showed it to him proudly. This rod, Fermal's old favorite. Think of the rhyme, travel east, six rods from the tip. When we do have to travel east, I'll wager this is the rod we measure off with. The recorder of Redwall chased off after his cheese, calling, 
Well done, miss. It looks like things are coming together a bit. Firelight and full moon reflected in the waters of Redwall Abbey Pond. Every creature sat upon the sandy bank, leaving the food untouched until Alma had finished speaking. Friends, Redwallers all, let us not forget in the midst of this summer night's festivities the names of our good father Abbot Durrell and young Viola Bankbowl. May the seasons protect them from harm wherever they may be this hour. Let us also keep in mind our abbey warrior, Martin. He and Klecky, with the sons of Logalog and the otter Grath, are probably out on the great waters, searching for Abbot Durrell to bring him back safely home to our abbey. And Rangapaw and her brave crew are ranging in the woods, still hunting for poor Viola. Let us wish them success in their endeavors. Strong hearts and true companions. Every voice echoed Alma's last words. Strong hearts and true companions. Arvin flung a piece of fruitcake in the pond. And a little supper for the big fish who live down there. A silvery flash, followed by a faint splash, told them that the female grayling had taken the squirrel babe's offering. The red wallers took this as a good omen and cheered. Garrel sat with Skipper, Formole, and Higgle. The greedy owl grabbed the remainder of the fruitcake Arvin had broken to feed the fish, saying, Ah, now, don't be giving any more vittles to that scaly devil. Twill only make it fat and lazy. Here, Skipper, would you pass a poor bird some of that woodland puddin'? It might do me broken wing a power or good, so it might. Formal, pour the October ale, will yer, before we all die of the drought. Higgle laughed at the irrepressible owl as he set his talons on a chestnut and mushroom flan. Ho, ho! Is there anything I can do for you, sir? Mayhaps you'd like me to wipe your beak in between bites? Carol widened his great eyes at the friar. Ah, sure, there's no need for that kind of talk, my good feller. But seeing as you're sitting there doing nothing, why not go out that hog-twanger thing of yours and play us a tune? As me old mother used to say, you can play dead, play sick, or play your friends false, but you better play in a tune if you can carry one. Higgle produced the curious instrument and began tuning it on his head spikes. I'll play if you sing. You know, trees of the wood? Clearing his beak with a draught of October ale, Garrel nodded. Tis an old ditty Clecky and myself sang together as a trio. Cracklin grinned. The two of you must have sounded amazing as a trio. You start, sir, and I'll take the alternate line. Ready? One, two. The hog-twanger struck up, and the pair sang with a will. Abroad I strolled in the forest one day. I walked till my paws were sore weary. I heard an old mistle-thrush close by me say, Oh, here's to the woodland so cheery. There's ash and beech and ruin and oak, weeping willow with leaves trailing down, oh. Many ruins I've known full of berries when grown, and laburnum that wears a gold crown, oh. So of all the trees growing here in the wood, tell me which is the finest and best, sir. I'll find that when ere springtime is gone, and I'll surely build me a nice nest there. There's cedar and elm and hornbeam and yew, sycamore buckthorn and alder so fine, sweet chestnut and fir and shrub elder, where grow dark berries on which I can dine. Aye, I'll find a stout tree for to make a safe nest, just like a good living bird should. 
Then me chicks will all fly, and just like I, seek a tree for themselves in the wood. There was great applause, for trees of the wood is a fast and difficult song, but neither the owl nor the squirrel made missed a note. Then Higgle played, whilst the Dibbons got up and did a bee dance. Huge roars of laughter greeted the Abbey babes as they buzzed about, whirring their paws and jabbing the air with stubby tails. Sister Cicely retired early to her bed in the infirmary, and this gave Brother Dormal the opportunity of doing his tongue-twister. If Sister Cicely serves some soup, she'll surely see some sup it. Sip that soup if you're sick, swig it swift, sure and slick. Should it set stiff and slimy, then suck it. If Cicely suspects that such soup has been scorned, she'll slip slyly and even the score. So if sister persists, woe to him who resists. Cicely's certain to serve him some more. Alma held a huge paw across her mouth as she shook with laughter. Teasel upbraided Dormal playfully. Tot, tot, brother, tis just as well the good sister went to bed early. Let's hope the young'uns don't learn your rhyme, or they'll be reciting it in Cicely's presence. If an eye knows Dibbons. Dormal fiddled with the rope girdle of his habit, slightly chastened. But tis all in good fun. I mean the sister no real disrespect. Besides, any redwaller who thinks they can get their tongue around my twister will have to think again if they try. The perfect summer night continued happily. Wolger, the otter, was giving his hop-skip jig when Tansy and Cracklin noticed old Rollo dozing off. They nudged him. Come on, Rollo, this is no time for napping. We've got work to do in Great Hall. Let's slip away quietly, shall we? Noiselessly, the three friends padded into the Abbey's vast main chamber. It was deserted, and so silent they felt obliged to converse in whispers. Whilst Rollo sat flint to tinder, lighting a lantern, Tansy and Cracklin gazed around. Dark, shadowy niches and recesses gave way to patches of soft, multicolored light, where the moon beamed through long, stained-glass windows. Looking up towards the high-polished ceiling beams, gave both abbey-maids a feeling of insignificance in the massive hall. Rollo had the lantern lit, and its golden glow he spread the parchment on an empty dining-table. Now, where to begin? Have you got Firmall's fishing-rod, Tansy? The hedgehog-maid went to the tapestry, and from behind it she produced the rod. I put it there this afternoon. Martin's been keeping it safe for me. Read the rhyme again, Cracklin. The squirrel-maid did not need to read. She knew the rhyme by heart, because she had repeated it so often. My sixth and last tear I give unto you. By that I take it Firmall means us three, the searchers. Then, when red wallers lie abed, well, in normal circumstances, they'd all be in their beds now, save for the fact they're holding a moonlight feast outside. See these next two lines. Here's where the puzzle really starts. At midnight sea and full moon view... The purple arrowhead. Lantern light glinted off Rollo's spectacles as he shook his head. There it is again, that confounded purple arrowhead. But where do we find it? Tansy had a sensible suggestion. Let's split up. I'll take one end of the hall. Cracklin, you take the other. Rollo, you can search the center here. Step by step, Tansy combed the far end of Great Hall around sandstone columns, inspecting every stick of furniture, feeling wall hangings and peering behind them, 
even scrambling onto low window ledges to check the sills thoroughly. Her search proved fruitless. Then the moon went behind a cloud. Tansy could see the small golden pool made by Rollo's lantern in the dimness, and she made her way toward it. The old recorder was inspecting the east wall, unaware that the hedgehog maid was behind him. He was at the edge of a passage leading off the hall when Tansy's voice cut the silence shrilly. Rollo, stop where you are. Don't move. The recorder froze, wondering if he was in any danger. Behind him he heard Tansy calling out, Cracklin, come and see this. Leaving off her search, the squirrel maid came scurrying up, not knowing what to expect. Tansy was pointing to the back of Rollo's robe, just below the old back bull's neck. What do you think of that? Cracklin gasped in surprise. Beaming faintly luminescent purple, a perfectly shaped arrowhead was formed on the recorder's back. Rollo could stand the suspense no longer. He turned around to face them and demanded, What is it? What's all the excitement about? Tansy was still pointing. Look at the front of your robe. It's there now. Rollo stared down at the purple arrowhead of light. Ha! Ah, so tis. It must reflect on this wall when I'm not standing here, like this. He moved a pace to one side, leaving the spectral thing shining softly upon the wall. Adjusting his spectacles, Rollo stared upward to the apex of two curves at the top of a long, narrow side window on the west wall, high above the tapestry. I thought so. It's the moonlight coming through that window. See, where it is pointed at the top like an arrowhead? The glass is reddish during the day, but in the moonlight it appears purple. Cracklin giggled. The whole thing struck her as rather funny. And you couldn't see the arrowhead because it was on your back. Tansy had Fermall's fishing rod ready. Travel east six rods from the tip. That's what the rhyme tells us. We're at the east wall. The only way we can go further east is down this passage. Rollo stared down the darkened passageway. This only goes off to the cellars. But let us see how far six rod lengths will take us. He held the lantern high whilst Tansy and Cracklin measured off six lengths of the fishing rod at the same height on the wall as the arrowhead. At the end of six lengths there was a wall decoration carved in relief standing out from the stone, a single rose on a long stem rising up from the floor. Cracklin ran her paw over it. There it is, pals, the rose that blooms ever fair, summer or winter. It doesn't matter what the season, this rose still stands halfway down the passage, carved from stone, blooming eternally. It'll never shrivel or lose a single petal. Rollo stifled a yawn. Despite the excitement, he was starting to feel drowsy. Yes, very poetic, Missy. Extremely touching. Now, will you be kind enough to get on with the next clue? When you've seen as many seasons as I have, you'll understand the value of a bed. Cracklin repeated the last two lines of the rhyme. See if you can find the right hip. Turn west, and you're halfway there. Tansy seemed to be performing some kind of awkward dance step. Rollo held up the lantern and peered at her curiously. What in the name of fur and feathers do you think you're up to? he said. The hedgehog maid continued with her strange maneuver. Well, I found my right hip, and now I'm turning west. Why? The old recorder slid down the wall into a sitting position. Oh, nothing. 
You continue with your dance. Cracklin and I will concentrate on the carving. See, halfway up the stem is a leaf either side, and beneath each leaf is carved a rose hip. Tansy stopped her quaint movements. Rose hips? Rollo nodded. Aye, rose hips, you know. Those round things the size of a plum, tapered at one end. You'd usually see them after the roses have bloomed and faded. We make rosehip syrup from them. Cracklin grasped the rosehip on the right side of the stem. Shall I turn it to the west and see what happens? She asked breathlessly. Rollo smiled wearily. Please do, miss. Cracklin turned the rosehip. It budged slightly, but nothing else happened. She turned to Tansy. What do you think I should do now? The hedgehog maid bounded forward. Keep turning as hard as you can, and I'll give it a good shove. As Cracklin struggled to turn the stone protrusion a bit more, Tansy hurled herself at the wall. Her body struck the stone, and a portion of it began moving inward. She pushed harder. This time it made a grating noise, and opened completely. The three friends found themselves staring into a small dark room. Picking up the lantern from the floor, Cracklin entered. Tansy and Rollo followed her in. They moved together towards the room's single piece of furniture, a small angler's stool made from canvas and strips of wood. On the seat of the stool, the lantern light revealed a tiny box made from yew wood. Rollo picked it up and opened it. 47. It was still dark, humid, and windless. The hall of the seal folk gave a quick flick of his head and tossed the rope he had been pulling back into the logboat. Martin and his crew had been standing ready for hours, since the first glimpse of San Petra loomed upon the night horizon. Clecky leapt overboard into the shallows. "'So this is the place, eh?' he said, his voice booming from the high hills surrounding them. "'Jolly good work, you seal chaps!' Martin was alongside him swiftly, his paw clamping tightly over the hare's mouth. "'Keep your voice down. No need to advertise our arrival.' Enbar Truflight held a brief conversation with the Seal King before joining Grath and Martin on the sandy beach of the small cove where they had landed. The Hom can no longer help us now. He is worried about the young ones of his tribe being in these waters. They are leaving. Martin bowed, clapping his paws gently at the Seal King. Gatara Hom! Then Yehuday! Blinking his dark round eyes, the seal king snuffled gently. Many a hooday, home, Martin. There was a quick flurry of water, and the seal folk disappeared into the night darkened seas. Standing on the hilltop overlooking the cove, Martin issued instructions to his crew. There's still a few hours left until dawn. We'd better take a look around. I think we've landed on the east side of this island, so we'll meet back here at noon. Enbar, Grath, you take Viola with you. Travel northwest and see what you can find. Clecky, Plog, Welko, come with me. We'll travel southwest. I've no need to tell you all to be careful. Travel silent and stay low. Make your way back here by following the coastline. That way we'll have covered most of the island between us. Any questions? Ahem, er, uh, what time's food at, old scout? Martin shook his head in bewilderment at the irrepressible hair. Clecky, stop thinking of how to keep your stomach full, and give a little thought to keeping your skin in one piece. 
The hare saluted smartly, dipping both ears. Forget jolly old Tom. Keep skin in one piece. Gotcha, sir. They split off into two groups and set off across the island. Ubla's mad eyes was worried. His hopes of getting reinforcements on Waveworm's return were dashed. All his force consisted of now was less than three score monitors, since random sniping from the Wave Brethren had accounted for several lizards who had been slain by arrows and spears. The time for talking was gone. There would be no further communication with Rescanza, no more double-dealing. It was war to the finish, and now Ublaz was under siege, a virtual prisoner in his own palace. Ublaz strode across his throne room to the corner where he had chained the abbot and watched him. Durrell tugged feebly at the manacled chain that hung from a ring in the wall. He was lying on a bed of rushes, a bowl of water and a piece of dried fish nearby. Still delirious, the old mouse rambled on, half-conscious and unaware of both his surroundings and the pine marten who stood over him. Wolger, will you help me and Brother Dormal? All this fruit has to be gathered in before winter, and it's frosty already. I can feel the cold. Let go of my football, little one. We must harvest all that good fruit from our orchard before it perishes. He continued tugging at the chain that held his football. Ublaz turned callously away and went to lean on the windowsill. Less than threescore lizards and a crazy old mouse, he muttered to himself. One ship and not a sea-rat under my command. Oh, Rescanza, fox, give me time to think and I will dance upon your grave. Striding regally over to a burnished metal mirror plate set in the wall, Ublaz stared at his reflection. The strange eyes narrowed and widened alternately as his voice rose shrilly. I am lord of the oceans, emperor of Sampetra. I, Ublaz, if I had the tears of all oceans now, they would be set in my crown, all six of them, wondrous rose-colored pearls. I would don my green silk mantle, or maybe the black one with gold trim. Then I would walk out among those tavern rats, those wave scum. I would stare at them, snare them with my gaze. Then they would bow to me, salute me, because they would know who I am, Ublaz. The Emperor's current Monitor General, Zergot, entered the throne room. Mighty Nez, they are gathering for another attack on the walls. Do we use the bales of fire to throw down on them? Ublaz paced up and down in front of the impassive lizard. Attacking again, eh? No, don't use the fire bales yet. Throw stones down on them and tell your monitors to use their long spears. Zergot flickered her long, dark tongue in and out, her eyes straying to the shackled abbot. We cannot hold them off forever with spears and stones, Lord. There are too many of them. Ublaz grabbed the abbot's water bowl and flung it at Zergot. You'll hold them off as long as I say you will, he shouted, his voice hoarse with rage. Insolent reptile! Without my palace walls to keep you and your lizards safe— you would all be fishbait by now. Get out! Out! Camped in the foothills at the edge of the sunny plain, Rasconza was completely at ease. A sail canvas afforded him shade, fruit abounded on the island, and fish, like the birds of the air, were plentiful. He sat with his captains, watching the latest assault on the palace rear walls. 
Dedgut, the ferret captain, dipped his breaker in a cask of seaweed grog, which had been plundered from the deserted taverns lining the harbor. He filled a second beaker for Rasconza. Wet your whistle with that, matey. Tis going to be a long, hot day. Sipping the grog, Rasconza winked roguishly at his captains. Well, we got all the time we like, ain't we, mates? Buckla flung away a half-eaten fish, chuckling wickedly. Aye, and we don't have nowhere special to go, do we? Ha-har-har. Grujaw, the stoat captain, pointed a rusty cutlass at the high walls in front of them. No place except in the palace. Wouldn't you think old Mad Eyes had come out and welcome us? Tain't good manners to ignore the guests when you've got company. Ho, ho, ho. Laughing heartily, the Wave Brethren commanders watched their fighters harassing the hard-pushed monitors. Sea rats and corsairs would strike suddenly, raining arrows, spears, and sling stones on the lizards. When the monitors grouped at that point to retaliate, the wave scum would drop back, regroup, and attack in a different place. Relying only on their long spears and rock rubble to tip down on the foe-beast, the great lizards were hard-pressed. Guja, the steers' rat, and a score of others stayed in the middle distance, well out of rock and spear range, and constantly sniped with arrows at the frustrated monitors. The traitor Sagatar and her trident rats kept watch from the low hills to the south side of the walls. They scouted the palace from a vantage point, reporting any undue movement or fresh tactic back to the captains. Rasconza was a good and wily leader. His strategy was working well. Idly, he turned to Deadgut. They've had enough for now, mate, he said, indicating the group who were attacking the wall. Call them off. I'll send another gang at them tonight. That'll keep those lizards up on their paws and stop them getting any sleep. Once we've taken that back wall, they'll retreat inside the palace. That's when the battle will get fierce and bloody, but they'll be well worn down by then. Deadgut saluted and trotted off to carry out the instruction. Baltour and Gancho drew close to Rasconza's side. Can we have first crack at the timber piled behind the wall, Captain? That wood is worth its weight in gold. The fox threw his paws about their shoulders. Har, don't you fret, messmates. There'll be timber enough for every beast. Sagatar says there's enough wood piled back of that wall to build three ships. Daltor's eyes shone longingly. Never mind building three ships. We'll have enough timber to repair our own vessels. Then we'll be a proper fleet again. Corsairs and sea rats, with their own island and their own fleet. Rasconza laughed, hugging both beasts tight. Ha, har, har! I told you to stick with me, mates. Ahoy! What's that? Who's messing about back there? Clecky had stolen up on the camp from behind, lying on the slope of a sandy dune. He had heard all that went on between the fox and his captains. But the loose sand had shifted, and unable to stop himself, the hare had rolled down the slope and landed against the back of the canvas awning with a bump. Hearing Rasconza calling, Clecky decided it was not a good place to be. Thinking quickly, the long-legged hare lashed out several times with his strong footpaws, knocking the canvas sunshade down on top of the corsairs. Then he scrambled upright, dug in his paws, and took off east with shouts ringing in his ears as Rasconza and his captains threw aside the fallen awning. Oi, mates! Tis a big rabbit! Get him!' Clecky paused indignantly on the hilltop for a fleeting moment. "'Big rabbit? Cheeky blighter! 
Must need his belly eyes seeing too. Big rabbit indeed. Huh. If you weren't a fox, I'd say you were a frog's uncle, sir. What? An arrow hissed into the sand close by. Clecky took off. Grujaw and six others gave chase, panting to each other as they toiled uphill. I never knew there was rabbits hereabouts. Me neither, mate. Look at him go. He can run all right. I hopes that rabbit's got plenty of family and friends. Rabbits is good eatin'. I'm partial to roasted rabbit. Clecky was not especially bothered by the pursuers, who were slow and clumsy. He led them a merry dance over plain and hill, knowing that he was leading them away from Martin, Plog, and Welco, who had circled down to the harbor area. Puffing and panting, the exhausted wave brethren pressed on doggedly after the strange beast. Rujaw held his aching side. Ahoy, mates! Hold up! Where's the lop-eared swab gone? Completely out of breath, they halted, looking about them. Clecky popped up a short distance away. I say, mind who you call a lop-eared swab, you carrot-nosed bilge-swiller. Come on, chaps, keep up. No lagging behind, what? A sea-rat flung his sword, hoping to stick Clecky. It fell on empty ground. The hare had vanished again. He emerged a moment later, off to the left of the hunting party. You there, baggy belly. I'll bet your dear old mum and dad wouldn't be too proud of you, chucking your sword about like that. He disappeared once more. Grujaw wiped his slavering mouth. Where in the name of blood and plunder has that rabbit gone? Clecky materialized, this time to their right, and pointed an ear sternly at Grujaw. I say, watch your language, sir. There might be maidens or young'uns of a tender disposition in the area. Too much grog and not enough healthy exercise and clean living, that's your problem. Right, come on, chaps. Off we jolly well go again. Paw sore and panting, but thoroughly enraged, they chased after their elusive quarry. At one point Clecky appeared right in the middle of the group, running along with them. He tapped a sea-rat on the back and issued instructions to him. You're running all wrong, old lad. More thrust on the back paw, and don't flail the tail about so much. Keep it well tucked in. That's the style. Well done, what? Two points to this feller. Dropping to the back of the group, he clipped another sea-rat smartly across both ears. Come on, laddie buck. Keep up. No slacking now. Up, two, three. Up, two, three. Up, up, up. That's the ticket. Vanishing, appearing, dodging, ducking, and weaving, Clecky peppered the fuming wave brethren with alternate insults and advice as he led them where he pleased. 48. High noon sun beat down on the weathered planks of the jetty. The harbor of San Petro lay silent and shimmering under a blue tropical sky. Flanked by Plog and Welco, with their shrew rapiers drawn, Martin unslung his sword and hurried across the strand to where the ship bobbed calmly on a lazily swelling tide. Checking left and right, and turning often to stare back at the palace upon the escarpment, the three friends made their way into the shallows. This is the ship, said the warrior mouse, keeping his voice low. I remember its name, Waveworm. Either the abbot is aboard here, or somewhere on this island, probably in that big building up on the rock. Stay here and keep watch. I'm going aboard to take a look around. Gripping the sword blade between his teeth, Martin began hauling himself paw over paw up a head rope, hanging from the Ford Peak. Waist-deep in warm, shallow seawater, the shrews waited. Plog held up a paw to his ear, leaning inland. Listen, 
Can you hear anything? Welko waded closer inshore, cocking his head. Aye, sounds like shouting or fighting. I think maybe tis coming from somewheres round that big building up there. Faintly the noise of warfare drifted on the still air. Flog looked at Welko and shrugged. Hmm, some beasts having a tussle, that's plain. Hi, you two, come aboard, the ship's empty. Martin threw an extra rope line over the side so the brothers could board more quickly. Sheathing their rapiers, they clambered onto the waveworm. Plog pointed over to the palace. Seems to be a bit of trouble over that way, Martin. The warrior mouse studied the palace a moment, then leapt into sudden action. Aye, and there's a bit of trouble headed this way. Grab some of them long poles there, you two. We're about to steal a ship and sail off. Hurry, there's no time to lose. Ublas had watched Martin and the two shrews from his throne room window puzzled by the appearance of strange beasts upon his island, but not for long. When he saw them climb aboard Waveworm, the Emperor quickly summoned four monitors. Ublas had been keeping Waveworm as a standby in the event that he had to leave the island in a hurry. Now, in danger of losing his vessel, he dashed down to the main door with the four lizards scurrying in his wake. They were just out of the door when the mouse who carried a great sword happened to look up and see them. With Martin punting his long pole hard on the forward starboard, and the shrews doing the same on the port side, at Waveworm's aft end, the ship began swinging round to face seaward. Martin joined his friends at the stern end, noting that the tiller was lashed, holding the vessel to head straight out. Between the three of them they pulled furiously, watching the land slip away as she caught the gentle swell. "'Well done, mates,' Martin gasped. "'See if you can loose some sail to catch the breeze further out.' Good job I looked up and noticed those creatures. Now they'd have boarded and taken us by surprise. Ublas dashed along the jetty. Shaking with rage, he stood wordlessly, watching Waveworm coast by, safely out of his reach. At that moment the Pine Martin would have given anything for a bow and arrows. He glared at the mouse, a strange-looking creature, stern and solid, and obviously a warrior by the splendid blade he carried. Silently the mouse stared back at him, not the least bit afraid of the mad-eyed emperor. The four monitors stood watching dumbly as canvas billowed out and the sails caught the breeze. Then something happened to the Pine Martin that had never occurred in all his seasons. He found that his hypnotic power had no effect on the mouse. Piercingly, wildly, he glared at the stranger, but the warrior never budged a fraction, just remained leaning coolly over the rail, staring back, matching Ublas eye to eye, until his adversary was forced to look away. However, Martin kept watching the receding figure of his enemy, knowing that this was the beast he would have to reckon with. Evening shades were falling fast over the small cove on the east of San Petra. Grath and Inbar were resting on the grassy slope when Viola came and shook them. There's a ship coming this way. Look! Welko waved to them from the forepeak of Waveworm. Ahoy, mateys! Do you like our new ship? No more log boats for us. Grath took the heaving line which Plog threw to her and made it fast to a rock. Martin and the shrews waded ashore, Martin calling to Inbar. Is Clucky back yet? We lost touch with him over the other side of the island. He probably found something to eat. Don't you worry about Mr. Clucky, Viola giggled. He can take care of himself. There was still plenty of provisions left in the log boat. So as night fell, 
Viola and the two shrews lit a fire, whilst Martin and Enbar began preparing a meal. Immediately, as a vegetable stew began to simmer, a jovial voice hailed them from the darkness. What ho! The jolly old camp! Rove and fighter returning with tales of daring do, high adventure, and all that nonsense, what? The friends burst out laughing, and Viola called back. I had an idea you'd arrive as soon as supper was ready, you great furry food bag. Where have you been? Clecky ventured into the firelight, pulling behind him a sea rat tied up with his own belt. Evening, chaps. I say, that smells rather nice. By the by, I don't suppose you've met this vile felon. Captive of mine. Says his name's Gouja. Say hello to the nice creatures, Gouja. The sea rat, who sported an enormous lump on his head, stood glaring at them. Clecky pushed him, so he fell into a sitting position. Old Gouja's the strong, silent type, don't you know? Come on, you jolly old sulker. No hard feelings, what? Say hello to the chaps. Don't sit there like a lovelorn limpet. Speak up. Martin ladled Stew into a deep shell and passed it to Clecky. Leave him for the moment. Let's have supper in peace. Later on he can talk. There's a lot of information we need about this island, the big building I saw today, and what both sides are fighting about. I'm sure Galja can tell us that. Bearing his yellowed teeth, the sea rat spat on the ground. I ain't talking to no beast, and you can't make me. With startling speed, Grath leapt over the fire, landed in a crouch facing Galja, and fixed him eye to eye. Her voice was dangerous, like the growl of thunder on a far horizon. Keep looking at me, scum, and don't dare blink. I am Grath Longfletch of Holt Lutra, the only one of my tribe left alive after your kind visited my home. When I've eaten me victuals, you'll talk to me. In fact, I'll wager you'll make a babbling brook seem dumb by the time I'm finished with you. Wide-eyed with fright, Galja whined fearfully to Martin. I'll talk to you. I'll tell everything you needs to know. But keep this otter away from me. I beg your please. The sea rat winced as Clucky patted the bump on his head. That's the ticket, me hearty. We'll even let you sing us an honorable pirate ditty, if you behave nicely, what? While they ate supper, Inbar told Martin of what Grath, Viola, and himself had discovered that day. We ranged as far as the northwest coast, and found a steep cove much bigger than this one. Six vessels were berthed there, big ships, each one about the size of the craft you captured, Martin. There were about five or six vermin guarding them. We figured that there must be lots more on this isle to crew the ships, though. Clucky tore off a hunk of barley bread from a big flat loaf. Oh, I found those blighters. There's a great crowd of them, pasting the blue blazes out of a pack of those lizard types, who seem to be defending the back walls of the palace. I overheard them saying it belongs to a chap called Mad Eyes. Anyhow, the jolly old vermin want the palace, and the timber stacked behind the back wall, to repair their ships. But Mad Eyes isn't too keen on letting them have either. The blighter's keeping tight hold of both, like a squirrel babe holding on to a candid chestnut. Martin contributed his intelligence to the hares. Aye, I've seen that palace from the front. There's a harbor with a jetty there. Saw Mad Eyes, too. In fact, we saw each other. I'm pretty certain that he's holding Abbot Durrell prisoner in that palace. I'll get all the information I can out of the sea rat, 
and then we'll have a better idea of a rescue plan. Whilst Martin questioned the prisoner, his friend sat around the fire on the still tropic night. Viola lay on her back, gazing up at the velvety vault of dark skies, scattered with countless stars and a half-moon. The bowl-maid marveled at the sight of random comets, trailing fiery trails across the wide infinity and in brief glory. Inbar and Grath moved away from the roisterous snores of Klecky and the two shrews. The son of Walium watched Waveworm tilt into a slight list as the ebbing tide allowed her keel to rest in the shallows, and said, Never have I seen such hatred on any face as I saw when you faced that sea-rat this evening, Grath. The powerful otter glanced sideways at her friend. And I never told you my story. When I was hunting alone, I formed the whole of my tale into a poem, because I don't ever want to forget, nor want the otter people to. Would you like to hear it? Enbar nodded. I'd be honored if you'd say it for me. Grath's voice rose and fell, sometimes quivering, often ringing like a brazen bell, as she recited the verses. The words burned themselves into Enbar's memory. Sad winds sweep the shores near a place called Holt Lutra, where first I saw daylight the day I was born, and the lone seabirds call o'er the grave of them all, whilst my tears mingle into the seas as I mourn. For those tears of all oceans, six pearls like pink rosebuds, once plucked from the waters beneath the deep main. O oh, my father and mother, dear sisters and brothers, in the gray light of dawn all my family were slain. They sailed in by night dark, those cold, heartless vermin, their pity as scant as the midwinter's breath. Then, laughing and jeering, as slashing and spearing, my kinfolk were slaughtered by wave-scum to death. But their greatest mistake was, they left Lutra's daughter. I swore then an oath that the seasons would show my green arrows flying and sea vermin dying, cursing with their last breath the swift song of my bow. So vengeance will drive me, as long as my paws strong, to sharpen a shaft and my bowstring to stretch. The price vermin paid for six pearls from a raid is that death bears the same name as I, Grath Longfletch. Enbar Truflight turned slowly to look at his companion. That is a tragic and terrible tale, Grath. I see now how close to death that sea-rat came when you spoke to him. Grath plucked an arrow from her quiver and sighted on its shaft, testing it for straightness. Since I laid my family to rest and went roving, many corsairs and sea-rats have fallen to these arrows of mine. Her friend shook his huge head in wonderment. I have never known killing a war. Ruddering Isle is a place touched only by good order and peace. You've seen my archery skills. I'm a dead shot with bow and arrow. But never did I aim at a living thing. Ramming the arrow back into its quiver, Grath stood upright. I was the same till the wave-scum came to our holt on the far north shore, but I've learned different, mate. Any creature holding out the paw of peace to sea-rats or corsairs will get it chopped off by a sword. That's the lesson I've been taught, 
And you'll learn the same soon. So get used to it. I'm going to sleep now. Turning on her footpaw, she stalked off to her place by the fire. Inbar remained seated, staring at his wide, powerful paws. His father had told him that the outside world was a different place. He was not sure he was going to like the difference. Clucky opened one eye. In the soft dawn light he found himself staring at a brightly hued beetle perched upon his nose. With a twitch and a puff of breath from the side of his mouth, he dislodged the insect, blinking disdainfully at it as it trundled off through the sand and grass. Cheeky-faced object. Go and perch on some other beast's hooter. No blinkin' respect. That's the trouble with beetles. I say, do I smell breckers? Jolly good show, you chaps. Plog, Welko, and Viola had been up and about since the crack of dawn. They had rekindled the fire and made a meal. Clucky sat up, waggling his ears in anticipation as Viola served him. Hot shrew cakes, honey, fruit salad, and melon juice, she said. We thought you deserved a break from cooking. Anyhow, you always cook too much, so that you can have three helpings. Grath was sitting between Martin and Inbar, having breakfast. Suddenly she jumped up, looking left and right, reaching for her bow. Where's the sea rat? He must have escaped. Welko allayed her fears quickly. Old Galja's safe, Marm, don't you fret. Me and Plog couldn't stand looking at his ugly, miserable mug, so we took him down aboard the ship and secured him all snug and tight, with a fetter and chain stapled to the mainmast. Even gave him vittles, too. Martin smiled and winked at the shrew. Well done. Tis poetic justice, really. I'll wager that was the same chain they used to keep the abbot prisoner on the voyage. After breakfast, Martin called them all to a council of war. Drawing on the sandy ground with his sword point, he illustrated a plan he had formed. Right. Here we are, and here's the palace which is under attack. Now, I'm certain Abbot Durrell is somewhere in that building, and it's our job to free him and get away from this island. So here's what I propose. If we're to get into the palace, we must create the diversion, so we're not overrun by lizards or whatever beasts are up there. Listen carefully. You all have a vital part to play in this scheme, and it's highly dangerous, and we run a great risk of losing our lives. Any beast who feels they cannot take part in my plan, speak now. I'll understand. Viola answered for them all. We came here to free our father abbot and take him home to Redwall. If our enemies were ten times the number they are now, we would never back down, never. Tell us your plan, Martin, sir. Every beast here is with you to the death. Tropical morning sunlight beat down on the cove where Waveworm lay, east of San Petra. Martin's great sword slashed paths and patterns in the earth, as his crew sat listening to the daring idea unfold. Stirred by the excitement of it all, Plog drew his short rapier, glaring resolutely towards the west coast of the island. Aye, tis perilous, that's sure. But if I live through this and... It'll make a great tale to tell around the fire on a winter's night to my grand shrews and the seasons to come, matey. 49. Rollo emptied the contents of the little yew box out onto the seat of the angler's stool. Cracklin held the lantern close so they could see clearly in the darkened chamber. Dry and crisp, light as thistledown after its long sojourn in the box, 
The dried carcass of a bee lay on the stool. Tansy stared at it, her voice shrill with disappointment. A dead bee. Is that all? The old recorder peered into the box, blew into it, and poked a claw about inside. Well, there's nothing else in here. But I expected something like this. Tell me the end of the poem again, Cracklin. End of Side 7 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 8 Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 350 The squirrel made thought for a moment, then recalled the lines. See if you can find the right hip. Turn west, and you're halfway there. Picking up the dead bee, Rollo seated himself on the stool. Halfway there. I knew it. Fermald the Ancient isn't giving up the last pearl so lightly to us. This pitiful dead thing is only half the clue. We've solved the first part by getting this far, and an old dead bee is the second part. When we've found what it means, the last pearl will be ours. Tansy almost danced with irritation. But there's nothing with it. No parchment or poem. Nothing except a silly old thing that was once a bee, though goodness knows how many seasons ago. As they walked back into Great Hall, Cracklin had an idea. Maybe it's something beginning with the letter B. Rollo gazed around the moon-shadowed hall and yawned. How about bed? That begins with B. I'm tired. Tansy took the dead insect from him. Oh, that's brilliant, sir, she said, her voice echoing angrily. Brilliant begins with B, too. And breakfast, and bath, and badger, and... and... Cracklin took hold of Tansy's paw gently. And bad-tempered beast. Rollo's right. It's late, and we're all tired. Come on, pal. Time you were in bed. We'll see if we can sort this thing out tomorrow. Shamefacedly, Tansy passed the dead bee back to Rollo. I'm sorry, sir. It's not your fault we only found a bee. Forgive me. The old recorder leaned heavily against her, chuckling. I'm not bothered by bees, but ready to do battle with blankets, my friend. Carry me upstairs. Tansy shook him off playfully. You're getting far too old to go upstairs. We'll have to get Furlough Stump to make you a little barrel bed down here. With surprising agility for one of his seasons, Rollo hitched up his robe and scampered off up the stairs, cackling, Too old, am I? Well, last one up is a frazzled frog. He he he. Three hours after dawn the next morning, birdsong echoed from the abbey's inner walls. White clouds flecked a cheery blue sky, and the treetops of moss-flower wood rippled in a light, fragrant breeze. Tansy was still asleep in her bed when she was set upon and attacked by Dibbons. Come on, Missy, wake ye hop, Gert Puddin' Ed, still asleep in her. Struggling awake, she tried to fight back, but Arvin buffeted her soundly with a pillow. Tansy, Pansy, Toogle do. Sleep all a day, and you get no breakfast. Kicking off two mole babes, who were tickling her footpaws, the hedgehog maid succeeded in capturing Arvin and rolling him in a blanket. Leave me alone, you little maggot. 
I was up very late last night, and I need my sleep. Now go on, be off with you. Diggum waved her digging claws under Tansy's nose. Her, he must get out of bed right now, or Friar Eagle says he given your breakfast to a girt owly bird so thur. Tansy leapt out, dashing water from a basin onto her face and wiping it with a towel. No breakfast of mine is going to be scoffed by Gerald the Glutton. Out of my way, I need food. Chuckling and giggling uproariously, the Dibbons pursued her downstairs to where Rollo and Cracklin sat, halfway through their morning meal. Cracklin indicated a seat. Over there, Tansy. There's oat bread, raspberry preserve, strawberry cordial, too. I know that's your favorite breakfast. Tansy sat down between her friends, panting. The Dibbons said Friar Higgle was going to give my breakfast to Garrel, so I got down as fast as I could. Arvin vaulted onto the tabletop, pointing at Cracklin. She told us to say that. Friar never said nothing. Cracklin ducked as Tansy's wooden spoon narrowly missed her. Well, we had to get you out of bed somehow, or you'd have snored until supper. Tansy spread raspberry preserve and a warm oat cake. Well, Rollo, any more news of our dead bee? It didn't get up and fly off during the night, did it? The bank bowl polished his glasses on the tablecloth. Very droll indeed, young maid. We were about to take it to one who might help us, Brother Dormaw. No beast in Redwall has a knowledge of plants and insects like the good brother. Gulping down her drink and spreading another oat cake with preserve, Tansy quitted the table. Good idea. Come on. What are we waiting for? Dormall was out in the orchard with Garrel, explaining the finer points of a red-currant hedge to the owl as the three friends walked up. Rollo held out the dead bee on the flat of his paw. Dormall, old friend, what do you make of this? Oh, dear. A vagrant breeze caught the feather-like bee husk and swept it up into the air. Cracklin cried out, Stop that bee! It shouldn't be flying, it's dead. They watched it being swept up almost above the height of a well-grown apple tree. Tansy dashed about on the ground with her paws outstretched, ready to catch the bee if the wind dropped. If it gets lost, we'll never find the sixth pearl, she cried. Oh, please, some beast, do something. Garrel flapped his wings experimentally, did an awkward hop-skipping run, and leapt into the air, flapping. He hovered for seconds, swaying on the breeze, then spread his awesome wings and soared upward, flapping them slowly. Below they watched open-mouthed as the owl swept round in a great wheeling arc and expertly picked the bee out of mid-air with his beak. In a trice he was back on the grass, depositing the bee in Tansy's outstretched paw. She smiled and shook her head. You feathery old fraud! Your wings were supposed to be far too badly injured for you ever to fly again. Plucking a red currant from the hedge, Gerald chewed thoughtfully. You're right, missy. You ain't wrong. Sure, and I thought the same thing myself till just a moment ago. I didn't know I could still fly. Then I saw you all so upset over losing your bee, and I was in the air flying before I could stop myself, so I was. Brother Dormall scratched his nose to hide a smile. No doubt your old mother would have had something to say about it all, had she been here, of course. Gerald crammed several more red currants into his beak. You're right, sir, brother. So she would. I remember when I was a chick fresh out of the egg. My old mother used to say, You'll never fly till you try. 
And if you'll never try, you'll never fly. So try and fly, and you'll find out why. It's good to try and nice to fly. Tansy shook Gerald's taloned claw energetically. And never a truer word was spoken. Well done, sir. Brother Dormall listened as they told him how they had come to find the bee. He inspected the body closely and said, Hmm, tis just a long dead bee, friends. How am I supposed to help you? Crackland curtsied prettily, playing up to the good brother by flattering him. It was me, brother. I said, Let's go and ask Brother Dormall. Of all red wallers, his knowledge of plants and insects is the greatest by far. Brother Dormall is a clever and educated creature, I said. Dormall smiled, pleased but slightly embarrassed by the compliment. Ahem. Thank you, young maid. Hmm. Let me think. Perhaps while I'm mulling the problem over, you could stop that owl bolting all my red currants, or he'll make himself too heavy to fly again. Gerald was shooed from the orchard, complaining loudly. Ah, faith and seasons, tis a bitter day when a poor bird tries to help friends, and they reward him by starving the wretched creature. And after me wearin' me old wings to the bone, catchin' dead bees for you, shame on you all. Sure, I'll take myself off to the kitchens and tell my good mate Ma Teasel about it. No doubt she'll toss me a few old candid chestnuts to keep beak and feathers together. Oh, tis a hard, cruel abbey I'm living in. He ambled off doing small practice flights, followed by the three friends' laughter. Dormal took a piece of blackberry creeper vine, wound the dead bee in it so that it would not blow away again, and gave it to Cracklin. My thoughts on this are very simple. Everything in its place, and a place for everything. For instance, if I had a dead fish, I would immediately think of the pond. A cracked egg, the nest. An empty acorn cup, the oak tree. Any object originates from somewhere. So, if you present me with a dead bee, straight away one word springs to mind. Hive. Rollo slapped a paw hard against his own forehead. Of course, the hive. You make things seem so simple with your straightforward logic, Dormal. How can we ever thank you? The good brother smiled shyly. Oh, I have a feeling you won't be thanking me yet. At least, not until I have discovered which beehive your pearl is hidden in. After all, I am the Abbey Beekeeper, an unofficial title which I share with our cellar hog, Furlow Stump. Actually, I think our friends the bee folk like Furlow the best. He has a way with them. Let's go and ask him. Fifty. Furlow Stump and Formole were in the wine cellars, their tabletop a barrel head, and their seats small kegs. The sturdy cellar keeper was always glad of company. Come ye in, friends. We'd be beholden for your advice. Tansy glanced at the array of food on the barrel head table. They say fair exchange is no robbery, sir, and we've come for your advice on a matter of importance. Formole moved the kegs apart and placed a plank between them making a seat for all to sit upon. Your mates, bain't nothing so important as vittles. You uns help us uns first. Dormall sat willingly, eyeing the food. Certainly. What do you want us to do? Furlow brought out extra plates, beakers, and knives. We're a taste in cheeses against drinks to go with them. 
Now, here's dandelion and burdock cordial, October ale, strawberry fizz, elderberry wine, mint tea, and plum and dancem cup. The cheeses are to be matched with them. There's the big yellow with chestnut and celery, a white with hazelnuts in it, that pale gold with chives and apple, and the soft cream with almonds. Anyhow, there's a few others that you know. So take a nibble and a sip of anything suits your fancy, and give us an opinion. They all set about the delightful task with a will. Ooh, the soft cream and almond tastes lovely with strawberry fizz. Her, there ain't nothing like tober ale, and a girt yellerin' with chestnutters and celery, boy oaky there faint. Yes, I'm inclined to agree with you, Formal. But this one over here, the fawn-colored one with carrot and acorn in it, now that really goes well with mint tea. Try it. I like the plum and damson cup with chive and apple cheese. What's that one you've got, Tansy? It's a sort of solid ready one with radish and onion in it. It tastes marvelous with a sip of dandelion and burdock cordial. The tasting went on at length. Ever the recorder, Rollo had been jotting down notes on a length of bark parchment as he sipped and nibbled, taking heed of their opinions with his own choice. When they were finished, Rollo gave the parchment to Furlow. I've written it all down here, friend, which Jesus are matched with each drink by popular agreement. Furlow Stump accepted the list gratefully. Thank ye all. Now, when there's a feast, I only have to glance at Teasel and my brother Iggle's menu, and I knows which drinks to serve. You don't know how much of an elk this'll be to us. Formal nodded his velvety head in agreement. Burr, I, zers and missies. Twill save a lot of rushing about oop and downy stairs on our old paws for her. Furlow cleared his barrel-top table. Now, what service can I render you good beasts in return? Sitting in respectful silence, they watched the stout hedgehog move the dead bee this way and that, peering closely at it. He made small tutting noises as he turned the object back and forth on the tabletop, shaking his head. This ain't one of our bees, he said. We have good old honeybees at Redwall. They don't carry as much fuzz on them as this feller. Brother Dormall nodded in agreement. Aye, that's what I thought, Furlow. Perhaps it's a red-tailed bumblebee. What do you think? Furlow picked the bee up and brought it close to his eyes. Red-tailed bumblebee, eh? Well, you could be forgiven for thinking that, brother. But this ain't no red tail, though it looks like one. I only ever seen a few of these in my seasons. This is a mason bee, quite a rare insect in these parts. Cracklin looked at the carcass questioningly. A mason bee? What sort of hive does that live in? Furlow warmed to his subject. Mason bees don't have a hive, missy. They're solitary creatures. They'll burrow into the side of a wall, twixt the gaps in stones where the mortar's gone soft. Sometimes they'll do it in solid sand, like the dry side of a river bank, though walls is mainly their favorite place. The male and female roots out a single space, and there they leave one egg with honey and nectar to feed the young when it hatches. They seal the nest with mud and go off to build the next one. Rollo threw up his paws in despair. So we're not looking for a hive, just a crack in a wall.
This is a big abbey with lots of stonework. It could be anywhere. Perlo took off his work apron and patted Rollo's paw. Don't look so downhearted, sir. There's six of us altogether, and me and Formole will help you look. Tis the least we can do. Gerald came hopping in, picking crumbs from his feathers. Good day to you. The old Friar Higgle says that there's some food testing to be done down here, so I thought I'd be brave and volunteer my services, so I did. Formal waved a digging claw at the drinks and cheeses. Her, sir, we am already done it. But there's he vittles, if an e'd like to try. The owl's eyes widened with pleasure. Ah, well, twill be a terrible task, but I'll do me best. You good beasts be off about your business now. I'll give you the results of my labors at supper tonight, so I will. Grinning and winking at one another, they quit the cellars. Tansy stood at the center of the abbey lawn with the search party, her eyes roving about to and fro. Where to begin? Any beast got a helpful suggestion? she asked. Formol came up with a scheme immediately. Oh, I, miss. You coming with Furlough and I. Us and Searchy Walls. Miss Cracklin, e go with Rollo and Dormall. You uns look round the abbey building. That ways, both parties do have one young set of eyes to help. It was a good suggestion. The two parties went off to their allotted places and began searching. Afternoon shades were lengthening toward evening, when Rollo sat down against the East Abbey wall and polished his spectacles wearily. My old eyes are dizzy from looking. Searching for a mason bee nest may sound simple, but it's definitely not. Tansy and her party were halfway round the west wall, having just passed the gatehouse, working toward the south wall, and they were becoming equally dispirited. Sitting on the steps by the gatehouse, they took a brief rest. The hedgehog maid glanced up to see Sister Cicely approaching with a stern face, and said, Oh, dear, here comes trouble. I wonder what the sister wants. Folding her paws into her habit sleeves, Cicely pursed her lips and tapped her footpaw, the picture of righteous anxiety. It's those three dibbons again, missing. Take my word, tis not the seasons graying my fur or aging my bones. It's that villain Arvin and those two mole-babes who follow him anywhere. Tansy tried hard to keep her patience with the persnickety mouse. I'm sure they've not gone far, sister, she reassured Cicely firmly. We're very busy here with a most important task. But if we see them, I'll let you know right away. Cicely stood for a moment, gnawing her bottom lip. Then she turned abruptly and swept off, muttering, If I find them in the usual state, smocks torn, filthy and dirty, scratched and bruised, they'd better watch out. Furlow pulled a face at Tansy and winked. That un's a good old mouse in lots of ways, but her temper don't improve with age. I wouldn't like to be those dibbins when she finds them, miss. Tansy watched Sister Cicely flounce into the abbey. I agree with you, sir. Sometimes I think her main purpose in life is chasing after Arvin and the mole babes, though half the time they're not missing, just playing somewhere. Matter of fact, I know where they are right now, though I didn't tell the sister because she'd only send them off to bed early. Poor Mole chuckled, his small round eyes twinkling. Where do we little rascals be, missy? Tansy nodded in the direction of the east wall corner. Over there behind the bushes. 
They've been hiding there all afternoon. I can see the bushes shaking from here. Come on, let's take a walk across and see what they're up to. Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbol were prancing about on a den they had built among the bushes. They squeaked in dismay as Furlough Stump's strong spiked head poked through into their lair. The kindly hedgehog grinned at the abbey babes. Now then, you little maggots, what are you doing in here? Arvin held a tiny paw to his lips and whispered furtively, Us hiding from Sissy Sisley, and dancing bees' dances. Don't you tell her, or she chop a tails off us. Tansy and Formal joined the Dibbons, and they all sat down together in the cool green shade. Tansy narrowed her eyes at Arvin fiercely, but he knew she was only joking. Tansy, Pansy, we do's a bees' dance for you, he said. Trying hard not to burst out laughing, the searchers watched the three Dibbons go into their dance, whirring their paws and weaving circles about each other, stopping now and then to stab the air with their tails as they made bee noises. Fizz, biz, busy, buzz, fizz, biz, fizz, buzz. Gerbil and Diggum buzzed on either side of Arvin, who had appointed himself Chief Bee. They held the bushes aside, and he danced his way in between them, buzzing and buzzing comically. Then they let the bushes fall back into place, and buzzed aloud as they poked at the air with stubby tails, awaiting his emergence. Suddenly Arvin leapt from the bushes, all three buzzed once and bowed, and the dance was over. Their audience applauded, and Furlow stroked Arvin's head approvingly. Well done, mate. I thought you was real bees for a moment there. I like the way you flew back out of your hive. Arvin looked pityingly at the cellar keeper. That not a knife. We nor a bees what live in a knife. Us bees that live in a wall and dig little holes. Furlow gave Tansy and Formal a quick glance and began questioning the Dibbons. Bees what live in a wall? Don't be silly. Bees don't live in walls. They'd need ammers and chisels to make nests. Arvin shook a small grubby paw under Furlow's nose. Ha! Gracious me, you a big a silly beast. You know nothing. Usins, no bees live in a wall, don't we, Diggums? The mole babe nodded her head solemnly. Oh, yes, sir. Them are friends. He bees given Harvin a present for himself, a whole eye. Arvin shot a warning glance at the mole maid. Guard, Diggums, you promise us say nothing to no beast. Tansy leaned close to Furlow and whispered, Did you hear that? Diggum said that a wall bee gave Arvin a present, a gift. Leave this to me, sir. I'll get the truth out of him. Arvin waggled his tail in Tansy's face. Tansy, Pansy, Toogle, do. Warrior, you been telled about whispering. Gracious and deary, bad, bad manner it is. The hedgehog maid caught him firmly, screwed his eyes tight shut just to let his inquisitors know that he was going to be stubbornly silent. Formal winked at Tansy and tried his mole logic on Gerbil. You'm like deeper never piser. The mole babe beamed broadly. I serpently do. Gert bowls at I can heat, zer. Formal took the little fellow's paw. Her, you'm a growing child. I spec you can. Show us in the ole and wall where bee lives, 
and I'll give ye a deeper never pie bigger'n thyself. With an apologetic glance at Arvin, Gerbo took them through the bushes to the southeast wall angle and pointed to a joint between the huge red sandstone blocks, only two courses up from the ground, where the mortar had crumbled. There be where our friend E. B. lives, sir, he said. Furlow picked up a twig and pushed it gently into the crack. Buzzing irately, a dusty, rust-and-brown-striped wall bee emerged. Furlow blew gently upon its tail, and it zipped off into the air like a pebble from a sling. Furlow probed the crack delicately with his twig, pulling forth a torn and dusty scrap of parchment. He gave it to Tansy. Spreading the tiny fragment carefully, she read aloud, Your search is done, the sixth pearl found. Perfect, rose-hued, pink, and round, back home now, and a scallop shell, which I hid well and good. Tears of all oceans, truth to tell, lie stained by death and blood. Tansy looked at Furlow. What do you make of that? she said. Tapping the wall crack with his twig, the wise hedgehog explained, I can guess what happened, dear. The wall-bee came across this ear old by accident, so she thought she'd just clean it out and use it herself. But first she had to get rid of that old pearl. And I bet the dibbons were playing here just then, and the bee pushed the pearl straight into Arvin's paws. Be I right, Gerbil? The mole-babe nodded emphatically. Ho, oh, I, sir. Eam Buzzy Bee gave at to Harvin. Rollo, Cracklin, and Brother Dormall were called from their search of the abbey building, and everything was explained to them. Furlow, who was a great favorite with the Dibbons, meanwhile continued the task of making Arvin talk. Now then, my little mate, you can take those paws out in your ears and listen to what I've got to say. The squirrel babe kept his ears well plugged, but opened one eye. I'm not listening, and me not talking, and me can't see you. The friendly cellar-keeper merely smiled. Fair enough, old pal. You stay like that. I'll just chat to Diggum and Gerbol here about the feast in my cellars. Right, you two little snips. This evening I'll let you stay up late. We'll play hide-and-seek midst the barrels. I'll rig up a seesaw, and I'll roll you round and round in a big empty barrel. Whilst we're doing that down in my wine-cellars, I've no doubt Miss Tansy and her friends— We'll make a fine feast and bring it down to us. We'll have a great party, and I'll supply the drinks, strawberry fizz, dandelion and burdock and gooseberry cup. Arvin unplugged his ears and opened both eyes straight away. We're about Arvin. Me come a party, too. Rollo polished his glasses brusquely. Certainly not. Any Dibbins who hides things from his friends and carries on in such a badly behaved manner— Deserves only one thing. Early bed and warm nettle soup. The squirrel babe shot into the bushes and was out again in a flash, dropping the pearl into Tansy's paws. He dashed about, hugging and kissing every beast. I nor a bad dibbin, see? Me a good friend. Arvin like all of you. Fifty-one. Grath Longfletch tapped her tail impatiently on the ground, as she scanned the cove at midday. Great seasons of slaughter. Here we are, all ready to go, and that long lollopin' hare's gone missin'. Where's he got to? Ahoy there, you hearties, all aboard. 
I'm all kitted out and ready to jolly well go and do battle, what? Viola had to sit down laughing at the sight of Clecky, perched nobly on Waveworm's prow. The hare had done a thorough search of the vessel to outfit and arm himself. He had rigged himself out in a pair of baggy red pantaloons and a tawdry cream tunic fringed with blue silk ruffles. Both his long ears flopped under the weight of massive brass rings. He carried a long piked boat hook and a javelin, and into a gaudy green waist sash he had thrust a short axe, three curved daggers, and a fearsome scimitar. All aboard the good ship wave thingy, me buckos, come on. Time and tide wait for no beast, don't you know? Martin turned to Grath. Have you got everything you need? he asked. The otter patted a pouch at her belt. Tinder flint canvas, flask of lamp oil. That's all I'll need beside my bow and arrows. Two hours before sunset, then. Martin and Enbar clasped her paws. Good luck and good hunting. And fates go with you. Grath held tightly to Enbar's paw a moment longer. Remember what I told you, matey. Show no quarter to them. If they ever found your father's island, they'd slay your kin and laugh while they were slaughtering. Keep that in mind, Enbar Trueflight. Then releasing her friend's paw, Grath took off southwest at a fast trot. Martin and his friends boarded and got waveworm under sail, skirting the coast northward to where the Corsair's ships lay. The six wavevermen who had been left to guard the disabled fleet were ashore. Well supplied with grog and food, they lounged about on the sand near the shallows, gambling with shells for trinkets. They cheated and swilled grog, throwing the shells in the air, wagering on how many would land upside down. My dagger says six on the backs, crab's ear. Taken. I'll wager my bracelet again your blade, Kuja. The shells fell onto the sand. Crab's ear, the corsair stoat, crowed triumphantly at the sea rat Kuja. Only five upside down. Give me the dagger. I win. No, you don't. Tis six. The dagger's still mine, mate. Five, I say. You turn that and upside down yourself, cheat. Cheat, is it? You slime-tongued eel. I'll give you the dagger, all right. Straighten your stinking neck. They were about to leap on each other when Clecky appeared, wading through the shallows around the cove's edge. Ahoy there, you unspeakable rabble. Surrender your ships, or I'll frazzle your gizzards with my frog slicer, or whatever it is you chaps say to each other, what? Exchanging wicked smiles, the six guards rose slowly, drawing their blades as they advanced on the lone hare. Well, strike me, buckos. Who in the name of barnacles is this ear popinjay? Whipping out his scimitar, Clucky bounded forward to meet them, slaying the speaker with a single swipe of his enormous blade. Stripe you? Certainly, sir. Anything to oblige. Next. They rushed him, failing to see Martin bearing down the hill at their backs with his sword ready for action. Around the other side of the cove, Enbar heard the cries and mounted the rail, reaching for his bow. Plog put a restraining paw on the otter. Best stay here, friend. Martin and Clucky will be back shortly. There ain't no warrior in all Mossflower like Martin. Enbar allowed himself to be pulled down to the deck. But what about Clecky? he said. There were six guards on those ships. I counted them myself. Plog leaned back against the rail. Only six? Clecky could have taken them himself. Don't be fooled by that in silly talk and comical manner. As my old dad always says, hares are dangerous and perilous beasts. 
The shrew's estimate was correct. It was but a short time until the two waded back around the cove, Clecky chatting animatedly. That vermin was cheating, you know. Saw him myself. He tipped a seashell wrong side up with his football. What a rotter. I'd hate to have that and sitting alongside me at supper. He'd swipe all the salad whilst I had my back turned. Martin washed his sword blade in the water and wiped it dry on his sleeve before sheathing it. Ah, when did you ever turn your back on a salad bowl? Any creature trying to steal food from you would starve to death. When they had both climbed back aboard, Martin gave Welko and Viola their instructions. Throw all the canvas, spare wood, and lamp oil into the hold of each ship. The grog, too. That's pretty flammable stuff. You've got flints and tinder enough to do the job. Wait until you see the signal. We'll pick you up as soon as we can get back here. One of you watch for our ship from the cove top. Good luck. Waveworm sailed onward, still hugging the coastline. Welko and Viola stayed with the Corsair vessels, waving to their friends until they were out of sight. Grath Longfletch had gained the highest point overlooking the palace of Ublaz. Two trident rats lay limp close by. They had been standing sentry there when the vengeful otter visited them, silent as a leaf on the wind. Kindling a small smokeless fire in a hole she had dug, Grath sat binding oil-soaked canvas strips to four arrowheads. She had seen the exact targets where her shafts would do their work best. Ubla's mad-eyes peered over the wall at the Wave Brethren's encampment. He did not like what he saw. Zurgat, he rapped out. Get the fire bales ready for tonight. I have a strong feeling they'll mount a major attack on us once it's dark. Rascanza's vermin haven't bothered sending any beast at us for hours. Look at them, lounging about over there doing nothing. Zurgat turned her slow reptilian gaze upon the far encampment. You are right, Lord. They are saving themselves for the battle tonight. Fire bales will burst upon them in the darkness. Keeping his head low, the pine martin strode the length of the woodpile, stacked against the wall, stopping at each of the four large fire bales to inspect them. There were heaps of splintered dry wood and dead reeds, wound about with sailcloth and withered grass, liberally doused with vegetable oil. Ublaz chanced another peek at the enemy camp before turning to the monitor and saying, When I give the order, and only then, have your lizards lift the bales clear of my woodpile to the wall top, light them and drop them over onto the vermin. That field is as dry as tinder. The flames will race across it and engulf Rascanza's camp. If it does sufficient damage, wait again for my command. We should be able to charge around the ashes and finish them off in the confusion that will follow. But await my orders, Zergot. The monitor bowed after her emperor's retreating figure. Mighty Nez, I wait your commands. She called sibilantly to the other reptiles guarding the walls. Victory will bring us lots of mead, roasted by the fires. Dark forked tongues slithered in and out as the lizards hissed wildly. Leaning over the rail of waveworm, Martin watched the sun start to dip towards the western horizon. Enbar checked the tension of his bowstring and said, Grath should be starting an uproar about now. A green-flighted arrow stretched its length on Grath Longfletch's bowstring. The supple yew arched back as her powerful paw pulled against the beeswax string, 
Dipping the arrowhead into the fire, she watched it burst into flame. Sighting swiftly as she brought up the bow, Graf gave an extra heave against the yew and fired. Zzzzt! Like a burning comet, the shaft sped upwards, bending in a long arc, down to the palace courtyard. It struck the first fire bale, which went up with a dull whump into a blazing mass. As soon as the first arrow was in the air, Grath had another one zipping viciously from her bowstring, followed by another and yet another. The fiery messengers sped off to find their targets. A monitor pointed with his spear, hissing, The fire pails, the f— and fell clutching the green-flighted arrow which had slain him. Now Grath was moving, changing position. Some arrows she sent to slay monitors, others to lay wave brethren low. The pandemonium she caused was instantaneous. Ublas came roaring into the courtyard, lashing about with a spear haft at the terrified lizards. Pull those bales away! Tip them over the wall! Save my timber! he yelled. The tremendous woodpile, having lain in tropical dryness for long seasons, was going up like a bonfire. Panic-stricken lizards leapt away from the inferno and cowered back against the palace, their fearful eyes glittering in the firelight. Ublas dashed to and fro like a mad beast, unable to get near his precious timber, because of the pulsating heat of the flames. Do something! Fetch water! Pull away the bits that aren't burning! Get wet sailcloths and beat at the flames! He rushed about belaboring the dull-witted monitors, until his spear-haft broke on their thick-scaled hides. Rasconza ducked behind his canvas awning, grabbing Buckla and Deadgut as they passed. Send some of those trident rats. See if they can find the swab who's firing those screen arrows before any more crew beasts are killed. Baltour and Gancho wriggled up through the sand, keeping their heads low. Gancho pointed miserably at the blaze crackling high above the rear palace wall. Look at that, will you? There goes our chance to repair the fleet. Rasconza did not seem unduly worried. Never fear, mates. As long as we got one ship that can sail... We can always bring wood to San Petra. Pretty soon that wall's going to collapse under the heat of that blaze. Then we'll march in there and drag Mad Eyes out. Muster the rest of the brethren and tell them to stand ready. Plog jumped onto the jetty and secured Waveworm by a stern line. Martin had drifted her in backward so that they could cut and run at a moment's notice. Night was falling fast. The palace up on the escarpment silhouetted by the fire that raged behind it. Klecky noted that the harbor area was still deserted and silent. Plog watched his three friends climb down onto the jetty. Let me go with you, Martin. I'm good with the shrew rapier. Martin pointed sternly to the ship. Sorry, but you know your orders. Now back aboard, and have her ready to take off like an arrow the moment you see us coming back. Crestfallen but obedient, the young Gwasim shrew did as he was told. Before Martin, Klecky, and Enbar were halfway across the harbor area, Grath popped out from behind a tavern and joined them. "'All going according to plan, mates,' she said, nodding at the fire-glow. "'That little lot's keeping them busy at the moment. Now for the palace.' They raced to the double wooden door at the top of a winding hill. Clecky sized it up before commenting, "'How's a chap supposed to get inside? Looks like we're stumped.' Martin located the center jam and thrust his sword through it. "'Lend a paw here, Enbar.' It's only a wooden bar across these doors holding them shut. When I give the word, lift the sword up hard. 
The big otter gently ushered Martin aside and gripped the sword handle in both paws. Not enough room for both of us to hold this handle. Let me try. Bracing himself squarely on the stones, Inbar bent slightly. The long muscles on his sleek back stood out as he swept the sword blade up. There was a clunk from the other side, and, as Enbar pushed the doors, they creaked and opened inward. Clecky nodded in admiration. Good idea, that. I was about to suggest it myself, what? As they passed through the portals into the silent palace, Grath murmured in Clecky's brass-ringed ear, Remember, we're searching for an abbot, not a dining-room. Ublas finally saw that the timber was hopelessly lost. As he peered through the flames, he also noticed a sagging dip in the wall-top. Soon the rear wall would start to crumble. Its mortar turned to dust, and its stones cracked and burst by the constant searing heat of the blaze. There was only one option left now. Retreat into the palace, he called to his monitors. The vermin will charge once the wall falls. Retreat, and we'll hold out there. 52. In his fevered dreams, Abbot Dorrell was helping to carry a table out into the orchard at Redwall Abbey. He imagined it was autumn, and a harvest feast would be laid out under the trees. The old mouse rambled on deliriously. Live tire, Sister Cicely. We'll never get it out over the doorstep. What a heavy table this is. Where's every beast gone? A voice came through his fogged mind. Father Abbot. "'Tis your friend Martin.' Feebly, Durrell squinted one eye open. "'Ah, Martin. But which Martin are you?' With tears in his eyes, Martin cradled his old friend's head. "'Durrell, it's me, Martin.' Opening both eyes briefly, the abbot smiled. "'Yes, my son. But are you the Martin from the tapestry, or my Martin who lives at Redwall?' I can't tell, you see. The warrior mouse realized how ill the old fellow was. I'm your friend Martin, who lives at Redwall, with all our brothers and sisters. I've come to help you, Father Abbot. Durrell lifted a wizened paw and stroked Martin's face. I knew you would. This table is so heavy, and Cicely is too small to lift it. Will you help us, please? Then Grath called urgently from the doorway she was guarding. Hurry and get him out of here, mate. Some beast's coming. Viola was first to spot the glow lighting the night sky from the southwest. There goes the signal. Burn the ships, she yelled to Welko. The shrew already had a fire lit and a brazier aboard Baronka's former vessel, Freebooter. Holding five torches ready, he shouted back to Viola, who was descending from the hilltop. Hurry up, miss. Get aboard Freebooter with me. The bank bull did as she was bidden, though slightly mystified by the odd procedure. We shouldn't be hanging about aboard this craft, she said. You've got to set fire to it. What are you up to, Welko? The Gossam shrew indicated the other ships. Those are the ones I'm going to burn, miss. They're old tubs, just like Waveworm. But this Freebooter, now this is what I call a real ship. Look at the lines of her. The beam, draft, sails. The craft's a real flyer. Nothing in all the seas could catch the spray of her wake when she's in full sail. I'll wager. We'll burn the other five and wait for them aboard this one. 
Grath knows about ships. She'll agree with me. Viola thrust the five torches into the brazier. I suppose you know best. Come on, we'll go to the last vessel in line and make our way back here, setting fire to each ship as we go. Inside the palace, Martin rushed to the throne room door to help Grath. Backed by a score of monitors, Ublas was coming up the stairs. The Pine Martin had not expected any beast to be inside his palace. On seeing Martin at the stairhead, waiting with drawn sword, Ublas did a swift about-face. Pushing his way through the monitors on the staircase, he cried, It's only a mouse and an otter. Slay them. Charge! The warrior mouse knew that to conquer the palace he must first deal with its ruler. Hurling himself down the stairs, he roared, Red Wall! But Ublas was gone, and Martin found himself surrounded by lizards. With battle light blazing in his eyes and a war cry on his lips, the warrior mouse swung his mighty blade on the crowded staircase. Monitors crowded upon him, pushed forward by the momentum of those behind, teeth bared, tongues flickering, hissing viciously, as they sought to bring their long spears into play. The fabled blade of Redwall whirled into them, hacking, scything, and slashing through spear hacks. Grath stood quivering at the stairhead. Martin, come back! I can't get a clear shot with my arrows while you're down there. Fight your way back! Quecky sailed past her and went bounding down to Martin's aid. Eulalia! In a flash he was back to back with the warrior mouse, and they fought their way upward together. The hare's huge scimitar matched Martin's sword blow for blow as they struck at scaly flesh, ripping claws, snapping teeth, and baleful reptilian heads. When they came within reach, Grath and Enbar hauled them up by the backs of their tunics. Martin's eyes were glazed over with a red mist of battle fury. Enbar broke the spell by shouting into his face, Go and take care of your father Abbot. From somewhere behind the monitors, Ublas could be heard bawling hoarsely, Charge! Rip them to bits! Charge! Long spears bristling, the monitors pressed up the stairs. Graf Longfletch already had a green-plumed arrow on her bowstring. She glanced coolly at Inbar Trueflight. Let's see how good you are with those red-feathered shafts of yours, mate. Ready? Though Enbar was frightened of the big lizards scrambling up the stairs toward them, he found himself suddenly pouring shaft after shaft into their ranks. He roared at the top of his lungs to match his companion's war-shout, and their cries mingled. Ruddering! Halt Lutra! Clucky held up the chain that was holding the abbot fettered to the wall. Confounded manacle! And we haven't even got a blinking key to release the poor old buffer! Martin, still quivering for action, and in the grip of a berserk rage, gritted his teeth savagely. Keep your paws wide and hold that chain tighter. Srack! The great sword flashed once through the air, its momentum causing the steel to whine like a tornado through ice. Clucky stared at the severed chain hanging from his paws. Great seasons of fur and famine! You don't dally about when you swing that blade, old scout. Well done, that warrior! Rasconza had massed his vermin at the foot of a low hill. Weapons bristled around him like a field of corn. Come on, buckos, he cried. Let's put Mad Eye's lights out. A panicked screech rang out from Goncho on the hilltop. Fire! Fire at the cove! Some dirty scum's setting light to our fleet. Fire! Like a wave, the vermin turned and swept up the hill. They jabbered and clamored 
pointing to the blazing red glow that lit up the night sky over the northwest inlet. Goncho's right. Tis fire. Aye, and it could only be the ships. Right, mate. There ain't nothing else that big to set up a light like that. Tis our fleet right enough. Lesconza hurried uphill, his heart sinking within him at the sight. Struggling to keep calm, he tried reassuring his crews. No, no, tis only the grass, mates. I'll wager old Crab's ear and the others have gone to sleep full of grog, and the campfire's gone and spread a bit. Tis only the grass, I tell you. Withdrawn cutlass, Baltor faced the fox challengingly. What do you take us for? We ain't stupid, mate. An off-blind toad could see that's our ship's afire o'er there. Buckler backed him up aggressively. Aye, and without ships, we ain't corsairs or sea rats no more. You carry on believing your own lies, Fox. We're going to save our fleet. Who's with us? A mighty roar of agreement went up. Before Rasconza had a chance to say another word, the whole horde was off, whooping and yelling behind Baltour, Goncho, and Buckler heading overland for the northwest cove. Rasconza's voice was lost in the din as he called after them, "'Come back, you fools! Can't you see we've got mad-eyes cornered? Setting that fire was only a trick to draw us away from the palace. Come with me. We'll make the villain pay for those ships with his blood.' Finding his pleas fell upon deaf ears, Rasconza turned to find himself standing alone except for Sagittar. He glared at her. "'Why didn't you tell me Ublaz was planning this?' You're a captain of trident rats. You should have known. Seeing the vengeful expression on Rasconza's face, Sagatar backed off, shaking her head. I knew naught of any such plan, believe me. Rasconza drew his dagger, advancing angrily. You lie. I never should have trusted one of Mad Eyes's trident rats. You're a traitor and a turncoat, Sagatar. I knows your kind. You'd betray me the same way you did Ublaz. Sagatar brought up her trident, hefting it with menace. Keep away from me, fox. There's none more skilled with a trident than I am. I'll spit you like a fish in a barrel. Rasconza turned as if to walk away. Then, spinning round with frightening suddenness, he hurled his knife. Sagatar stared in shock at the handle of the dagger that seemed to grow from her middle. She fell to the ground. Rasconza stood over her, chuckling. Aha! You might be skilled with yon trident. But no beast can sling a blade like me. I never miss. Sagatar's lips moved. Rasconza leaned down to her. What's that you say? Still gripping her trident, Sagatar thrust it upward with a final effort. Gasping, she spoke her last words to the fox lying alongside her. I said, I never throw my weapon away. I always keep hold of it but it was too late for Rasconza to hear her. Martin tore down a velvet wall hanging and wrapped the abbot in it. The old mouse appeared to be sleeping contentedly since the appearance of his abbey warrior. Despite the rantings and shoutings of Ublas, the monitors had retreated around the curve of the staircase out of arrow range. Enbar found he could scarce contain himself from trembling all over now that the action had ceased. Graf patted his shoulder. You did well, mate. We thinned their ranks a bit. The big otter looked at his shaking paws. I'm no good at this sort of thing. I was frightened. Graf was already creeping downstairs to retrieve some arrows. She turned to her huge, honest friend with a grin. You were frightened? Matey, 
How do you think I felt when I saw those flesh-eaten monsters charging us? I couldn't keep me teeth from chattering to each other, and my paws felt like jelly. We had a good right to be frightened, I can tell you. Clucky and Martin joined them at the stairhead for a council of war. The hare was not overly optimistic. Righto. Here's the picture, chaps. These stairs are the only way up or down, and we've got to get the jolly old abbot out of this palace and aboard the wave thingy. Any suggestions? Graf passed a bunch of arrows to Enbar. We don't know how many more of those lizards are waiting downstairs, and the Pine Martin's still commanding them. I can't see him letting us out of this place alive. With a swift wrench, Martin pulled down another velvet wall hanging. There's one way. If we can get at Ublas and slay him, I don't think those lizards will have any heart left to fight. There's enough of these velvet wall trappings to make a rope. If I take Clucky with me, we could reach the ground from that window, come back into the palace, and attack them from behind. Graf and Enbar could charge down the stairs at them, and we'd have them both ways. It's a risky plan, I know. We're outnumbered ten to one. But with the element of surprise on our side, we could escape from here. Enbar had a suggestion to make. Can we not all escape by the window, Martin? The warrior mouse shook his head. Too steep, rocky, and dangerous. Besides, there's the abbot. I still haven't figured how we're going to get him out. Enbar glanced over to where Durrell was lying, wrapped in velvet. I'm the strongest here. Leave him to me. We'll carry out your original plan, Martin. When I attack with Grath, I'll sling the old mouse and that velvet hanging across my back. Clucky began knotting the wall hangings together. Righty-ho, crew. Let's get moving, what? Aboard the freebooter, Viola and Welco had pushed off. Once away from the five burning ships, they dropped anchor in a safe position. Viola made a quick search of the vessel and emerged from the galley to announce, Well, there's plenty of supplies aboard. Welco silenced her with a wave of his paw. Quiet, miss. Listen. Can you hear anything? Yelling madly, the sea-rats and corsairs breasted the cove-top and came pouring downhill towards the inlet. They stood in the shallows, their cries dying away into silence, faces registering horror in the ruddy glow of the firelight. Ship's timbers crackled and bellied. Sails and rigging sent off black ash smuts like dark bats to flit about in the breeze. Cascades of sparks and burning pitch shot skyward into the night. The entire scene was mirrored like a fiery portrait in the still dark waters of the cove. Goncho bellowed like a wounded beast. Wah! They're burning! Our ships are burning, mates! Throwing himself down in the shallows, he kicked and beat the water, bawling aloud like a babe in a tantrum. Buckless stepped out of the firelight as far as he could and peered into the blackness until his eyes became accustomed to it. Ha-ha, mates! See? There's Veronka's old craft, the freebooter, sitting out there as fancy as you please, with not a mark on her. Pulling off his sea boots and tossing aside sword and belt, he plunged deeper into the water, shouting, Let's swim out to her. First beast to clap a paw aboard a freebooter, has the right to call himself captain. Ridding themselves of all encumbrances, sea rats and corsairs flung themselves into the water and began striking out for the ship, which was riding at anchor on the swell. Viola looked fearfully at Welco as they both crouched together behind the stern rail. "'What are we going to do now?' she asked. 53. 
Ublas had armed himself with a long curved saber. He stood in the palace entrance hall, brandishing it at the forty or so monitors left from his command. Zergot came hurrying in from the rear courtyard. Mighty Nez, Rescanza and his vermin are gone. The rear wall has collapsed, but no bees is out there. Ublas breathed a silent sigh of relief, then began berating the monitors who kept trying to edge away from the stairs. You see, the wave scum probably perished in the flames trying to scale the rear wall. When we have cleared out those intruders from my throne room, the palace will once again be mine. Zergot, you will head the charge upstairs. Leave none alive. Now go. Zergot saluted with her long spear, and bulling through the ranks of her subordinates, she mounted the stairs. Follow me. We will slay. Red and green flighted arrows struck her simultaneously. Roderick! Holt Lutra! The otter archers appeared around the stairwell, Grath slightly in front of Inbar, shielding her friend and the burden he carried. Both of them rained shafts of death at the monitors. Oblaz was turning to look for a safer place to command when he saw Martin and Klecky come thundering through the main doors. There were monitors blocking his way to the rear door. Dodging swiftly to a downward flight of stairs, he sped toward the cellars. With his scimitar in one paw and a javelin in the other, Clucky pushed Martin towards the cellar stairs. You get after him. I'll help out here. I say, you chaps. Eulalia! The perilous hare flung himself at the back ranks of monitors, flailing his weapons like a windmill in a gale. Attacked at front and rear, the lizards fought back savagely. Regardless of wounds, Clucky battled valiantly forward, through spears, teeth, and claws, striving to cut a path to his friends on the staircase. A spear tore his ear, and he vanquished its owner with a curving downward stroke of the scimitar. Fall back, the foe-beast! Clexstar Lepus Montisel to the fray! A Montisel am I! Tis death to stand before me! Particularly in line for dinner, what? Forward the whites! Snatching a lighted wall-torch from its bracket, Martin bounded down the cellar stairs. He raced along a short corridor, and on to another downward flight of steps. The warrior mouse paused at the bottom and held up his torch. He was in an oblong chamber with a door at its far end. Martin could tell the door was ajar by the shaft of light that streamed out into the chamber. Taking a firm grip on his sword-hilt, he moved cautiously up to the door and swung it open slowly. It revealed the eeriest sight he had ever witnessed. Wearing a crown upon his head, the mad-eyed emperor was crouching in front of a snake. He was murmuring a sing-song chant as both he and the reptile swayed from side to side, their eyes locked in a frenzied stare. The small room shimmered in the golden torchlight. Everything was bathed in a radiance of gold, from the crown and the coils of the reptile, to the walls which swam in weaving patterns cast by a large stone tank of water at the back of the room. Martin watched in fascination as the snake's eyes filmed over and its head stopped moving. The serpentine body lost its threatening stiffness, and it subsided to the floor. Ublas touched the poisonous reptile's head, stroking it softly as he spoke without turning to look at his pursuer. A coral snake is the most deadly killer in the seas. See how my power can render it harmless? No beast alive can perform such magic. Only I, Ublas, emperor of Sampetra, ruler of all monitors and wave scum. They call me Mad-Eyes but never to my face. What do they call you?
Martin stared at Ublaz's back, draped in a flowing cloak of gold. I am Martin, the warrior of Redwall Abbey, he said. Ah, yes, I should have known. You have come to free your abbot. Did you bring my six pearls, the tears of all oceans? The warrior mouse's voice rang hard as the steel he held. I brought only my sword. The emperor's voice took on a cajoling tone. Swords are dangerous things to bargain with, Martin. Death is the only payment they exact. What if I told you that I am willing to let you and your friends walk free from here? I would say that you are lying, and you would try to have us slain before we got to our ship. Whilst Martin spoke, Ublaz was slowly drawing the saber from his waist-sash. The movement was hidden by his flowing cloak. He tensed himself to spring as he continued talking. I was not always an emperor. Once I was a corsair, the most feared sword-beast of the high seas. I ruled with my blade. Martin's quick eye caught the shifting of the pine martin's cloak. Silently he stepped sideways and took up the warrior's stance. Ublaz made his move then, roaring as he whirled about and lunged with the saber. Mine is the last name you'll hear. Ublaz! Clang, clash! Martin parried the thrust and brought his blade into play. Back and forth they dodged and skipped, slashing, reposting, and countering, steel singing against steel to provide music for the dance of death. Warrior and emperor, blade for blade, backing, weaving, their sword points seeking and questing, whirling in the flickering gold light, the pine martin rushed his opponent. Gripping the saber with both paws, he battered the warrior mouse into a crouch. With a swift sweep of his sword, Martin sliced across his adversary's footpaw, then bringing the blade up in a flashing arc, he fenced Ublaz into a corner. The emperor bowled his way out, inflicting a gash in Martin's side. They locked blades in the center of the room, pushing sword-hilt to saber-guard as each strove wildly to gain the upper paw. Panting and gasping, eye to eye, the combatants swayed, grasping for any hold their footpaws could find that might serve as a lever. Then, without warning, Ublaz dropped his head to one side and bit savagely into the side of Martin's neck. With a mighty roar of pain, the warrior lashed out, his paw locked tight around the sword handle, punched Ublaz solidly in the eye. The pine martin's mouth fell open. Colored lights exploded on his vision as he staggered backward and trod upon the sleeping snake. Faster than any eye could follow, the venomous reptile struck, burying its fangs in the leg of Ublaz. Martin stood watching, his chest heaving as he sucked in air hungrily, a paw clamped to his wounded neck. Ublaz's saber clattered to the floor. He was swaying, his head drooping to one side, squinting as his vision blurred. He stared dazedly at the coral snake as it slithered across the room in a golden fluid movement. Back into its tank it slipped with hardly a ripple. The emperor took a few unsteady backward paces until he reached the wall. Then, leaning against it, he slid down into a sitting position. Stretching forth his sword, Martin picked the crown from Ublaz's head with his blade tip. The thick garnet-studded circlet slid down the hilt. Martin looked down at Ublaz, who was staring back at him in disbelief, his lips moving. No beast was mightier than me. Emperor, I was... Emp... 
Martin looped the crown onto his belt and squatted facing the dying Pine Martin. So, yours wasn't the last name I heard, but here's the last name you'll ever hear. I say it for a friend whose kin you had murdered for a half-dozen pearls. Martin brought his face closer to Ublas and roared aloud, Holt Lutra! Fifty-four. Clucky had succeeded in fighting his way through the ranks of monitors to the stairway. He passed Grath his javelin, and gave in by the short axe he had thrust into his sash. The two otters shouldered their bows, and Clecky and Grath placed themselves on either side of Inbar, who still had the abbot bundled upon his back. Battling madly, they were halfway to the main entrance, when Martin came charging from the cellar stairs to join them, shouting, "'Mad-Eyes is dead! I have slain Ublas!' There was an immediate lull in the fighting, as the monitors lowered their spears and stared dully at one another. Martin got behind Inbar to protect the abbot. "'Come on!' Back to the ship, quick, he yelled. Plog peered through the darkness at the huddle of creatures clattering along the jetty toward him. He drew his rapier, calling, Who goes there? Clecky could not resist. Just a one-eared hare, a wounded warrior, a sleeping abbot, and a couple of plank-tailed water-dogs. Youch! I say, watch it. Grath smiled as she waggled the javelin tip. Sorry, mate, I slipped. Plog helped haul the abbot aboard. He was still sleeping, wrapped snugly in the velvet wall hanging. The shrew glanced up towards the palace, saying, There's about a score of lizards milling round up there. Looks as if they're wondering what to do. Martin pulled Clecky over the stern rail, then severed the rope lines holding Wayworm to the jetty. We're not waiting to find out what they're going to do. Make sail, and let's get away from this place. Viola and Welco dashed back and forth on the deck of Freebooter. With a pair of oars they had found, the two of them were smacking every head or paw that showed over the rails. There was a moment's respite. Quivering with fear and exhaustion, the vole-maid leaned wearily against the rail. Oh, dear! Oh, goodness me! We can't keep this up much longer. Good job they've given up for a while. Yeek! Wilco ran at her, swinging his oar. He brought it down, whooshing within a hair's breadth of viola to crash upon the head of an evil-looking ferret, gripping a cutlass between his gapped teeth. "'Don't turn your back on the rail, miss. That near add you,' he said. He stared out into the flame-lit darkness. The burning ships were beginning to hiss and sizzle as they sank lower into the shallows. Welco shook his head in despair at what he saw. "'They put some of that burning timber out, and they're lashing together a couple of rafts. We're in real trouble if Martin and the others don't show up soon.' On the shoreline, Buckla touched the top of his head tenderly. I'll keel all that perishing bull made for belting me with that oar. Make those lashings tight, mates. Aha! Let's see him try to stop us this time. Goncho, are the rafts ready? Goncho locked off a vine rope with two half-turns and a double hitch. Ready as they'll ever be, bucko. Come on, we can paddle with our paws. There's no more than ten ship lengths out to freebooter. Corsairs and sea-rats piled aboard the two rafts until they were low in the water. Daltour licked the edge of his cutlass meaningfully. Yahar! Keep the shrew alive! I want a little fun with him before the fishes get what's left. The vermin on the raft's edges began paddling with anything available. Paws, spear blades, and scraps of driftwood. Both rafts were making fair progress until about halfway. 
Suddenly the night-darkened waters exploded beneath them. Nagorama! Harawum! Garochur! Harm not our friends! Go from here! The great bull seal Hom and a pack of adult male and female seals had smashed the rafts to matchwood in seconds. Huge wet tails and strong flippers made loud thwacking noises as they rendered each vermin senseless with a single smack. Sea rats and corsairs flew out of the water and through the air to hit the sand as the powerful mammals flung them ashore with mighty flicks of their sleek heads. Welco and Viola leaned over the rail of Freebooter, laughing gleefully at the sight. Ooh! King Hom gave that sea rat such a crack. Did you see him? Aye, look at that ferret. He did a somersault in the air before he landed on shore. Go on, mates, give it to him. Oh, yes, please, belt that slimy stoat good and hard for me. King Hom swam up to the side of the ship, then, clapping a flipper against his broad chest, he smiled and bowed. Welco and Viola clapped their paws together joyfully, calling aloud, Hom! Hom! The king pointed his flipper at Waveworm, rounding the cove. Matan! Matan! Dawn found a happy party taking breakfast on the foredeck of Freebooter. Grath patted the rail, saying, You did well to save this and mate. She's a beauty. Martin, what about old Waveworm there? Wordlessly, Martin thrust a torch into the breakfast fire. He leapt the gap between both ships, landed neatly on Waveworm's deck, and drew his sword. The sea rat Galja screamed in terror as the blade whizzed past his head, severing the chain that tethered him to the mainmast. Martin hauled him to the side and booted him overboard. I give you your life, he said. Swim for the shore, rat. The warrior mouse set fire to the sails before pitching the torch into the hold. Leaping back aboard Freebooter, he severed the ropes holding Waveworm to its side. A loud wail of despair arose from the vermin nursing their injuries on the beach. Grath reached for her bow, but Martin stopped her. Let them be, friend. They are marooned here for life, with no ships, no wood or trees growing. They could not even build a toy boat. Viola was sitting next to the abbot. He was awake now, sipping hot soup, still wrapped in the velvet wall hanging. The bowl-maid wiped Durrell's chin with the tattered hem of her apron. They've got better than they deserve, she said. Fruit, fish, and running water. Let them learn to farm the earth, like we do at Redwall. I'd say they were lucky to be alive, wouldn't you, father? Durrell sat up straight and smiled at Viola. I'd say we were lucky to be alive, young'un. Clucky sniffed, helping himself to a fourth bowl of soup. Indeed. Well, I'd say it's jolly lucky for all here present with two ears. I lost one doing battle with the lizard thingies. I say, do you suppose a chap's ear'd grow again if he ate enough, what? Viola checked the hare's ear stump, shaking her head. No, but if you like, I could make you quite a nice ear with some of this red velvet backed with canvas. You've got enough ear left for it to fit over. Clecky snatched a chunk of shrewbread from under Plog's nose. I say, what a spiffin' wheeze! But that red velvet, it'd look a bit odd on parade. A chap with a red velvet ear, what? Martin stifled a smile. It's not like you to be so picky, friend. How about if Viola makes it a decoration, a sort of bravery badge? 
Clucky's single ear stood straight up next to the wad of bandage wound round his stump. Top hole! I could dine out on something like that for seasons to come, what? He imitated a female hare's voice. Oh, Mr. Montessel, I do like your ears so picturesque. Ahem, <clears throat> thank you, ma'am. Tis an old war wound. Pass me the salad, and I'll tell you how I jolly well came about it. There was I, surrounded by five hundred monstrous reptiles, armed only with a good breakfast under my belt. The crew of Freebooter dissolved into laughter. Oh, Martin, for your day. They looked up to see the Seal King waddle aboard. He turned to Inbar and held a lengthy conversation, then stood by, head held high and both eyes closed, nobly, as befits a real Seal King. Inbar explained what he had said. The king said it is not the way of friends to desert each other, so he decided to return and help out. He is pleased your abbot is safe and well, and he and his seal folk would be honored to tow your ship to Ruddering. Martin shrugged, slightly puzzled. But we are going to Redwall. Graf twanged her bowstring and shuffled her tail awkwardly. Er, Enbar's only told the king so far, but er, you see, me and Enbar... We're going back to Ruddering to live there. Sorry for not letting you know sooner, Martin. The warrior mouse seized both otter's paws in delight. This is the most excellent news. May your seasons be long together with all the happiness that fortune sends you both. Congratulations were given all round to Graf and Inbar. In his strange seal language, the hom barked out the good news to his seal folk, who somersaulted in the water, flapping and clapping their flippers in celebration. Then Martin asked Enbar to translate a message to the Hom. Tell His Majesty we will be pleased for him and his seals to accompany our ship to Ruddering straight away. Enbar passed on Martin's information, conversing a while with the Hom before turning back to the warrior mouse, who was holding a short conference with the abbot. Martin, Enbar said, our friend the Hom says that he will be honored to conduct your ship to within sight of Mossflower Country when you leave Ruddering. He knows secret routes and fast currents that can have you back home in half the time it would take any land beast to navigate that distance. Hom bowed regally, slapping the deck hard with an enormous flipper and gesturing at the seas in a wide arc to confirm the truth of Enbar's words. Martin and the abbot approached him, Enbar translating Martin's words as he proclaimed, Hom, truly you are king of all seal folk. Please accept this gift from the Father Abbot of Redwall Abbey. Unlooping the crown of Ublas from his belt, Martin passed it to Durrell, who, with quiet dignity, placed it upon the Hom's head. The king clambered up onto the forepeak, wearing the heavy gold ring that had once graced the head of the tyrannical Ublas. There was a moment's silence. Then the crew joined voices with the seal folk massed about the ship. Hom! Many a hoo-day! Hom! Wearing his new crown like a true king, Hom did a sleek dive from forepeak to sea. He vanished beneath the waves to emerge in a rush of water, balancing the crown upon his nose, much to the amusement of every beast present. Lines were thrown out amidships and ford. Then, with a single slash of his sword, Martin severed the anchor cable as Clucky stood by, shouting, I rename this vessel Sea King. May her cooking fires be always lit, and the whole jolly crew well fed. Set a course for ruddering, 
and then head down for home, my beauties. Plog and Welko had found an old attack drum in the hold. They beat on it with ladles and broke out into a guasom voyaging song. Let the birds fly high before us, and our wake trail straight behind. When your heart is yearning for it, home is not too hard to find. May our way be bright and sunny, back to where the campfires burn. There are friends and families waiting for the warriors to return. Are the old ones happily living, and the young ones tall and grown? We will soon see smiling faces of all those we've always known. Far we've traveled, long we've wandered, morn till night and dusk to dawn. But there's no place we'll rest easy, save the land where we were born. Martin leaned over the stern rail with Viola and the abbot, watching the tropical island of San Petra fade into the distance. Its inhabitants, the strange lizards, sea rats, and corsairs, were marooned, left to fight and scheme among themselves, whilst their dead emperor, Ubla's Mad-Eyes, lay stripped of his crown and a dark cellar, with a poisonous snake to guard his eternal sleep. Plumes of black smoke still smudged the azure-blue sky from behind the palace and from the north cove. Tears flowed openly down Viola's face as she listened to the shrew's song. Abbot Durrell gave her his wide sleeve to dry her eyes. Hush, little maid. Think of the autumn harvest in Redwall Abbey. You'll be there with your friends to help gather it. The vole-maid wiped her face and smiled. I'll never leave there again. As long as I live, Father. 55. Summer trailed off in glory as the season turned to autumn. Misted mornings gave way to mild days, shortened by scarlet sunsets and nights lit by harvest moons. Trees wore brown gold leafy finery, promising the earth a fine crisp carpet of russet, which would whisper wistful messages as it shifted on the gentle breeze. It was the time when Tansy was visited in her dreams by Martin the warrior of old. Dawn light filtered softly across the dormitory as she awoke with his message clear in her mind. Haste to the shore, look to the main, be not beset by fears. Wait faithfully for a sea king there, and take with you six tears. No creature within the abbey walls was more eager or determined to carry out the warrior's bidding than Tansy. In the space of three days she had organized everything and made the journey. Alma had given Tansy permission to take a small party with her and erect a marquee on the beach. However, the badger mother had insisted that Skipper and his otter crew, including Rangapaw and her searchers, in company with Logalog and the Gwasim Shrews, accompany the little expedition as bodyguards. Logalog led them to the place where Waveworm had left Mossflower's shore and a camp was set up. Tansy took with her Cracklin, Rollo, Garrel, and Friar Higgle, and much against the Badger Mother's better judgment, but after great persuasion by the Hedgehog Maid, Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbol. The Dibbons were thrilled by their first visit to the seaside, and promptly got into all kinds of mischief. Rollo sat atop a rocky outcrop close to the tent, with Tansy and Cracklin at his side. Their eyes ached with two days of staring out to sea. The old recorder polished his spectacles, drowsy in the noontide warmth. "'Are you sure that's what Martin said in your dream, miss? Wait faithfully for a sea-king there?' he asked. "'What's a sea-king?' Tansy held the six pearls in their scallop-shell case on her lap. 
I haven't a clue. Sounds pretty fearsome, though, doesn't it? What do you think this Sea King will look like, Cracklin? Well, my guess is that it's some kind of fearsome monster, just like those lizards who came with the sea rats. The Sea King probably has Abbot Durrell and Viola with him. That's why Martin told you to take the pearls along, to ransom them both back from the Sea King. Tansy's eyes strayed to a rock pool where the Dibbons were playing. Hum, that makes sense. I never thought of it like that. Arvin, come here, you little maggot, and show me what you've got there. The little squirrel and the two mole babes carried a wooden shrew soup bowl carefully, water slopping over its edges. Approaching the rock where the friends were seated, Arvin peered villainously up at them, holding the bowl up. Woo, Tansy Pansy, we're gar a little spider. What swims in a water? And he gonna jump up and bite you noses off? Rollo peered down at the tiniest crab he had ever seen, no bigger than a little apple pip. It scrambled sideways underwater, holding up two claws that were almost invisible to the naked eye. The recorder looked severely over his glasses at the giggling trio. That's no spider. It's a baby crab. And somewhere in that pool, it has a mother and father as big as I am. No, bigger. If you don't put their baby straight back into the pool, they'll be out here in a moment and have you three for dinner. Grr, you do say, sir? Pour him back, ye little crab spider, Harbin, quick-like. Hyde ain't getting headed up by thatin's mum and daddy. They fled, squealing to empty the bowl back into the pool. Tansy returned her gaze to the horizon of endlessly shifting sea. She stared westward and pondered, I wonder what happened to Martin and the others. I hope the Sea King hasn't harmed them. Maybe we'll be able to use the pearls and strike a bargain that'll get them all returned to us. Gerald wandered over, munching on a hot shrew cake. Sure, and I know how to get me old mate Clecky back here. Just keep good vittles cooking. That great gut tub would smell him from a hundred leagues off, so he would. I and those two sons of mine, Logalog called over from the cooking fire. They'd follow their noses down to the gates of Dark Forest, if and they thought they'd find a free feed there. Skipper looked up from some hot root soup he was stirring. Let's hope none of our friends has found their way to Dark Forest's gates, he said. A respectful silence fell over all beasts who had heard the Otter Chieftain's words. Night fell over the encampment. Skipper gathered the snoring dibbons up from the remnants of supper and their broken sandcastles, carried them into the marquee, and deposited them gently on a heap of dry rushes. Smiling fondly, he watched the Abbey babe snuggle down, still asleep, but giggling and snuffling as they settled. Rollo was deep in slumber, and Cracklin was sitting with the shrew and otter crews, singing ballads and ditties. Skipper hauled himself up onto the rock, where Tansy was still seated, watching westward over the nighttime seas. Ahoy, miss! Ruining your eyesight ain't going to get no Sea King here a moment sooner than he's due to arrive, believe me. Tansy rubbed the back of the scallop shell case with her paw. I know, Skip. But I feel as if it's my responsibility somehow. I'd hate to think of the abbot and Viola arriving here by night in the clutches of a foe-beast, with not a friendly face to greet them. It wouldn't be right, would it? The otter chieftain nodded. I know what you mean, young'un. But you go off and get your rest now. I'll watch a while, then post some others later. If anything gets sighted, I'll wake your myself. 
Thanking the kindly otter, Tansy went into the marquee and lay down alongside the three dibbons. Outside she could hear the restless waves breaking on the shore. Flickering firelight shadows against the tent wall reflected the creatures sitting around the fire outside. She fell asleep to the sound of crackling, joining the shrews and otters in an old woodland ballad. Shrum, shrum, doubly dumb, rivers may flow, but the streams they do run, kissing the willows that droop sad and low, through sunlight and shadow as onward they go. Shrum, shrum, fie upon thee, your rivers and streams that flow down to the sea, I sit by your banks through the long weary day, to mourn for my true love who you bore away. Shrum, shrum, cruel as fate, how long must I linger by water and wait? You babble round rock, and you swirl around stone, and share your dark secrets with none but your own. Shrum, shrum, tears may fall, I'm bound for the place where the lone seabirds call. I'll build me a boat and sail down to the sea. There I'll search for the heart that is dearest to me. Shrum, shrum, shrum. In her dreams, Tansy was again visited by the ancient spirit of Martin. This time he had only one thing to say. The abbess will know what to do with the pearls. Morning light found a breezeless day, with heavy mist wreathing the shoreline. Every beast was up bright and early to help with the day's chores. Tansy and Cracklin took the dibbons along the tide line, gathering driftwood for the fire. It was a strange, subdued sort of day. Even the abbey babes seemed quieter than usual. Tansy and Cracklin kept an eye on the little ones as they looped a rope around the bundle they had gathered. Only the gentle lap of waves against the sand broke the silence where they stood, hemmed in by mist shrouds. Suddenly Tansy felt an odd compulsion stir within her. She turned to face seaward, staring into the mist. Cracklin and the Dibbons turned with her. Arvin sounded rather fearful as he tugged her tunic hem. Tansy, we're a matter. Something out there? A great shining dark monster, dripping water and wearing a gold crown upon its head, came shuffling out of the sea, dragging in its jaws a thick rope. Casting aside the rope, the beast threw back its massively sleek head and roared, Home! As Cracklin and the three dibbons hung to her, Tansy could hear herself shouting aloud, Help! The Sea King! Help! Help! Then the beach was alive with dark, shining creatures of all sizes, from fully grown to little ones, all roaring as they flung ropes in the air. Home! Home! Armed with javelin and rapier, Skipper and Logalog came bounding through the mist. However, they skidded to a stunned halt when a dark, mountainous object rode through the fog on a wave and ground to a halt plowed deep into the tide-lined sands. Two figures slid expertly down ropes onto the beach. "'Sorry we couldn't find no walking-sticks for you, old feller.' Throwing his paws around his two sons, Logalog swept them clear of the ground, hugging them fiercely. "'Ha-har-har! You scraggy-edded rips! Sneak up on your old daddy like that, would you?' Your barnacle-whiskered pups, welcome back. You must have smelled breakfast a-cookin'. The Sea King had come home to Mossflower Country. End of Side 8
Chain Side Selector Switch This book is continued on the next cassette. Side 9, Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 400 56 An hour later, bright rising sun had burned off the dawn mists, and every beast was aboard the big ship as it bobbed on the incoming tide. Martin, Viola, and Abbot Durrell held on to the paws of Tansy, Rollo, Cracklin, and Higgle, as if they would never let go again. Rollo, old friend, how good to see your face. Father Abbot, you're really back. And Viola, too. We thought you were lost in the woods. Friar Higgle, I'll wager you missed me in the kitchens. Missed you? Good job Teasel ain't here, or she'd be throwing her apron over her face and crying buckets. Oh, Doral, my friend, sometimes I doubted I'd ever see you again. Tansy, Cracklin, is it really you? Give me a kiss, friends. Friends, that's what we are, Viola, forever friends. Martin, it does my old heart good to see our Red Wall warrior return safe and well. How are you, friend? All the better for having the honor to shake the paw of a great and wise recorder, Rollo. You've grown younger in my absence. Martin, Martin, all seagulls gone in the water, swimmed away? The warrior mouse untangled Arvin from his footpaws and lifted him onto his shoulder. They're not seagulls, they're called seals. Gone, you say? Clecky and Garrel looked over the ship's side. Arvin had spoken truly. There was not a sign of seal folk or their home anywhere. The hare munched a chunk of warm shrewbread reflectively and said, Without so much as a farewell or a toodaloo. Still, I suppose there's only me would have understood them, seeing as I'm the only one jolly well up on their lingo, what? Very odd, though, very odd indeed. Garrel attempted to disguise snorted laughter as a cough. I'm thinking tis no odder than yourself with a red velvet ear, me old mate. I don't know what me old mother'd have said if she'd seen a lug like that. The hare straightened his red velvet ear and posed heroically. Rather good, don't you think, what? Distinctive, stylish, yet with that touch of roguish dash about it. Wish I had two, really. Martin turned to stare seaward, shaking his head sadly. I wish the Hom and his seal folk had stayed longer. They were proper friends, good and true. Still, I suppose they had their reasons for leaving as they did. What are you staring at, Skip? Your neck, matey. That's a rare old scar you've got there. The warrior mouse ran his paw across the wound. Aye, but you should see the other feller. I'll tell you all about it when we get back to Redwall. Plog and Welko told their father about Grath, how she had found Enbar and gone to live at Ruddering with him. Welko clapped his father's back and said, But Grath said that she'd never forget her friend, the Gwasim chieftain Logalog. Ahoy there, are you crying, Dad? Logalog did not attempt to wipe away the tears which rolled down his face. Of course I am, you great buffer. That otter was like a daughter to me, the one I never had. I'm glad she's happy, though I'll miss her. Plog pulled an object from his belt and placed it in Logalog's paws. Grath said to give you this to remember her by. It was a green-feathered arrow. The abbot stood on the forepeak with Tansy, Rollo, and Cracklin. Did you solve your riddle? he asked. Rollo nodded. Indeed we did, all six of them, 
Six riddles to lead us to six perfect pearls. They were to be your ransom. Ah, cried the abbot, now all is clear. He folded his paws into his habit sleeves. Good. Who holds them at this moment? Tansy produced the scallop-shell case and opened it to reveal the six rose-colored pearls, each one lying in its niche. Here they are, Father. Martin tells me that they belong to the family of Graf Longfletch. How can I return them? Abbot Durrell stared at Tansy a long time. Then he said, I have been told the pearls now belong to you. Tansy looked at the rose-colored orbs. But what about Rollo and Cracklin? They helped me to find them. The abbot of Redwall's voice was clear and firm. Yet still they belong to you, who found the remains of that corsair which led to the first clue. The warrior of our dreams told me they were yours. Now think carefully, young one. What are you going to do with them? A silence fell over the whole ship, and every eye turned upon Tansy, holding the pearls. She stared at them, her mind racing back to that first day in the woods and the corsair's skeleton, over the many hours spent searching painstakingly to gain each one, the puzzles, riddles, joys, frustrations, and sorrows of the entire quest. Now it had all come down to this, a half-dozen round objects encased in a scallop shell. Her voice rang out clear and certain. These pearls are said to be rare, precious, and beautiful. Yet when I look at them now, I see only bloodshed, greed, and death. There are many creatures lying dead because of them, from the family of Grath down to countless sea rats and corsairs. But one touched our own lives deeply, a young abbey maid, who was friend to us all. Picknam was slain because of these six pearls. Truly they are called the tears of all oceans. We have no need for things such as these at Redwall Abbey. Life is a far more precious and beautiful thing. I give back to the oceans these six tears, so that they will never cause grief or sorrow to any living creature. Tansy climbed to the bowsprit of Sea King, which had turned on the tide and now was moored to the shore, facing the open seas. Scooping the pearls from their case, she flung them high and wide. Like six rose-tinted raindrops, they flashed briefly in the sunlight. Then they hit the waves and were lost to sight forever. Tansy let the scallop-shell drop from her paws. It fell with a gentle splash and sank under the keel. Slowly the hedgehog maid descended to the deck, where she apologized to Rollo and Crackland. After all the days and nights we spent searching together, see what I've done? I am sorry, my friends. Crackland grinned ruefully. Fermald the Ancient would be furious if she were here now. Just think, with one sweep of your paw, you hid the pearls far better than she did with all her clues and scheming. Rollo nodded his head admiringly. Indeed, you certainly don't mess about when you've made up your mind to do something, miss. What do you say, Father Abbot? The good Father Abbot had quite a bit to say. From the time our ship left San Petra to sail back here, I have had the same dream over and over. Martin, our Abbey spirit, kept telling me this message. She who holds the pearls, the abbess of Redwall will be. She who holds on to the pearls cannot rule in place of thee. Only an abbess whose heart sees truth may give pearls under the sea. Abbot Durrell took Tansy's paw. 
Many times Martin repeated those words to me in my dreams. I was puzzled as to their meaning until today. Abbas Tansy. The enormity of what Durrell had said caused Tansy to move away from the abbot in bewilderment. She stood alone on the forepeak, scarcely noticing the sea sparkling as wavelets caught mid-morning sunlight. Total silence reigned aboard the vessel. Martin stole silently up alongside her. Drawing the great sword of Redwall, he laid it on the rail in front of her, and said, I am yours to command, Mother Abbess. What is your wish? Tansy picked up the sword. She had not realized it was so heavy. She presented it back to Martin. Then, a smile hovering on her face, as the depth of the honor conferred upon her sunk in, she turned to face the assembly. Trying hard to keep her pause and voice from trembling, she addressed them all. Er, listen, what I'd like to say is, er, oh, let's go home and have a great feast to celebrate our friend's safe return. A resounding cheer split the air, and every beast crowded round to congratulate Tansy. I say, old thing, you'll make a jolly good abbess, if you keep chucking out orders like that, what? Ah, tis right, and as me old mother used to say, may your shadow never grow less, and it won't if you keep it well fed. Well done, young missy. Oops, I mean mother abbess. But when no beast's listening, I'll still call you Tansy, and I hope you'll still call me Cracklin, your old pal. Tansy Pansy were a habis mean. Old Rollo call you mother, hee <laughs> hee. You nor a mother. They huge and big, like ma-ama. Well-wishers continued to flock round and shake Tansy's paw. She was very touched by Rollo's simple words. If I had been choosing an abbess, my choice would have been the same as Doral's. This is the best thing to happen to our abbey in all of my seasons. Rule well, young mother. Epilogue Extract from the Writings of Cracklin, Recorder of Redwall Abbey The harvest is in. Let winter come. We are safe, happy, and well supplied within these great walls. Our mother abbess wisely delayed homecoming celebrations until the fruits of autumn were safely stowed in our cellars and larders. Then we had a feast, which lasted seven days and nights. Redwall Fair excelled itself. Even the young ones will talk about that feast when they are old and grizzled. How could we go wrong with good wife Teasel and two friars to run the kitchens, Friar Higgle and old Friar Durrell, happy to be doing what he always wished to do, cook? Such an array of pies, cakes, pastries, puddings, and trifles you never did see. There were cheeses, breads, salads, turnovers, soups, stews, and pasties, enough to feed a regiment. Furlow Stump and Formal said they served enough drinks to float a ship, and I believe them. They had every possible ale, cordial, tea, fruit cup, and fizz the sellers could produce, even one which I helped them make specially for the occasion, a mixture of rosehip honey and strawberry that we called Tansy wine. The festivities shifted each evening from Great Hall to Cavern Hall, where the singing, dancing, reciting, and music proved a delight to the eyes and ears of all. Mind you, some complained about Clecky's ballad. It was forty-seven verses long, and dealt with his heroic adventures rescuing old Abbot Durrell. 
I am still learning the job of recorder. My good friend Rollo is constantly guiding me, though now he spends a lot of his time with Brother Dormall. He likes to be in the orchard, gaining knowledge of fruit, plants, and bees, and also he can nap whenever he pleases. Mother Abbess Tansy is, like myself, still learning. She has Alma, Doral, Wolgar, and the elders of Redwall to help whenever she has need of them. Oh, did I tell you, Viola Bankvole has taken over from Sister Sicily in the sick pay. All of us were delighted when warm nettle broth was banished forever, but our joy was short-lived. Viola is sometimes a bit inventive with her seagoing experiences, so now we have to suffer seaweed and cockle-shell potion. Both Viola and Sicily swear by it as a cure-all. Logalog and his shrews, and Skipper with his crew, are going to stay the winter at Redwall. For the spring they have planned a Gwasim Otter cruise aboard the ship Sea King, but they will have to endure Klecky's company. He has appointed himself Redwall Hare in charge of nautical activities, and insists on being addressed as Captain Klecky. Outrageous as ever, it is his plan to cruise in search of seals, so that he can have long conversations with them. Garrel is sailing, too, as Cook Owl. Formol and Furlow Stump have recruited Arvin, Diggum, and Gerbol as trainee cellar-keepers. Abbess Tansy remarked to me only this morning that she did not envy them their task, training those three. Alma, our great badger mother, seems to grow no older. She is planning on clearing out Fermol's attic, and converting it into a den where the abbey elders can rest and relax in comfort. What a pillar of strength and security she is to us all! Corsairs and sea-rats have not been seen around Mossflower Coast in a while now, according to Plog, Welko, and Rangapaw. Durrell told me that a female corsair ferret named Romska befriended him and saved his life when he was captured by the big lizards. Sometimes he says that he dreams of her and a strange island beyond which the sun sets, a place of constant heat, never visited by winter. I wanted to hear more of the Pine Martin who ruled there, Emperor Ublas of the Mad-Eyes, but Durrell says he is best forgotten. Leave it all to the long ago and far away, he says. I am not used to writing with a quill pen. My paws get ink-stained, so I am finishing writing for today. I must attend a meeting to plan the midwinter feast. Have you ever attended one? It takes place on midwinter eve. Oh, yes, midwinter has an eve just like midsummer. Any self-respecting Redwaller could tell you when it is. Here is the notice I will pin on our gate at the path-side. All who come in peace and friendship stay, on this the eve of cold midwinter's day. Good food and drink, and best good company, come share our hospitality for free. Beneath the lanterns sit and take your fill, sing and dance you may, with right good will. With one condition, as Redwallers say, if you enjoy it, call another day, summer, spring, most any time at all, and find a welcome waiting at Redwall. Cracklin Squirrel, Recorder of Redwall Abbey and Mossflower Country End of Pearls of Lutra by Brian Jakes Illustrated by Alan Curlis Read by David Palmer in the studios of the American Printing House for the Blind, Louisville, Kentucky for the Library of Congress, July 1998. Published by Philomel Books, a division of the Putnam and Grosset Group, 
200 Madison Avenue, New York, New York, 10016. Further reproduction or distribution in other than a specialized format is prohibited. If you found any cassette in this book to be defective, please place a rubber band or piece of string around that cassette for identification. Place it in the container on top of the front stack of cassettes.